This is Audible. These lectures are part of the Great Courses series. They are produced by the Teaching Company. The Great Courses cover a broad array of university-level disciplines. The lectures in each course are either 30 or 45 minutes long. By listening for less than an hour a day, you can finish even the longest course in just weeks. Browse our catalog or website and imagine how much you can learn if you spend just 30 minutes a day for the next year in the best college classrooms in the world. The lectures are university professors carefully selected by the teaching company and its customers for intellectual distinction and teaching excellence. These lectures are titled The Rise and Fall of the British Empire Part 1. The lecturer is Professor Patrick N. Allett, Goodrich C. White Professor of History at Emory University. He was born and raised in central England and received his BA in British and European History from Oxford University. He earned his PhD in American History from the University of California, Berkeley. He has served as a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard Divinity School and at the Princeton University Center for the Study of American Religion. Professor Allett is the author and editor of several books, most recently, The Conservatives: Ideas and Personalities Throughout American History. I'm the teacher, you're the student. A semester in the university classroom and Religion in America since 1945, a history. Professor Allett has written numerous articles and reviews for academic and popular journals, including recent book reviews in the New York Times Book Review. He has made five other courses for the teaching company: American Religious History, Victorian Britain, The History of the United States, Second Edition, with Professors Alan C. Gelzo and Gary Gallagher, The American Identity, and The Conservative Tradition. Professor Allett prepared the course guidebook that comes with these lectures. The course guidebook includes a detailed outline of each lecture, a timeline, a glossary, biographical notes, and a bibliography. To get the most out of this course, you may find it useful to review the outlines before or after each lecture. Lecture One: The Sun Never Set. My name is Patrick Allett. I'm a professor of history at Emory University in Atlanta. But as you can tell from my voice, I'm English. I was born and raised in the English Midlands in the village of Mickleover. Between the 17th and 20th centuries, Great Britain built the greatest empire in the history of the world. It dominated large parts of America, Africa, and Asia, and turned Britain from an offshore island at the edge of Europe into the world's first superpower. A great merchant navy, protected by a great royal navy, the world's most powerful fighting ships, kept open the sea lanes between Britain and its colonies. Raw materials shipped from the colonies were transformed into manufactured goods in Britain, the world's first industrial nation. While an immense export trade in finished goods generated prosperity at home, generations of ambitious young Britons went out to the colonies in search of adventures and fortunes. A 
as explorers, administrators, scientists, merchants, missionaries, teachers, doctors and soldiers. They encountered alien societies and cultures and languages and at first exploited the people they met. Slavery and lesser forms of forced labour were common in many parts of the empire and the British were often ruthless in crushing threats to their power and in suppressing traditions and customs that offended or challenged them. At the same time, however, an intellectual minority among the British began to study these new societies sympathetically and open-mindedly. In doing so, they helped to develop a missionary tradition and such new disciplines as anthropology and comparative religion. When Britain took over the colonies of the defeated Central Powers at the end of the First World War, it seemed at a glance more powerful than ever before. Beneath an impressive facade, however, the imperial edifice was already beginning to crumble. Doubts about their justification to rule other peoples by force, combined with anti-colonial movements, created political pressure for independence. This pressure, already strong between, between the world wars, became overwhelming once Britain had been weakened by its exhausting role in the Second World War. The empire then fell with astonishing speed. Between 1945 and 1965, all but a tiny handful of Britain's colonies won self-government. The effects of the empire and of its ending are, however, still felt throughout the world today. Well, it's important to emphasise right at the beginning that the empire was not purpose-built, and that at different times very different motives impelled the British acquisition of foreign territories. It certainly isn't the case that at a certain point in history a British government said we shall now attempt to create a colonial empire. In the 16th century, the 1500s, English monarchs and merchants looked enviously at Spain's gold and silver rich possessions in the New World. And those were the years in which privateers like Sir Francis Drake, with the approval of Queen Elizabeth I, plundered Spanish treasure ships and raided Spain's colonies in the Caribbean. England's victory over the Spanish Armada in 1588 marked its maturing as a naval power and created the possibility that Britain too could create overseas colonies. Some of England's early colonising ventures were for profit, others were for religious sanctuary. For example, the Virginia settlers from 1607, the founders of Jamestown, were very disappointed not to find gold and silver. But then they discovered that tobacco could also be a highly profitable export crop and it was the foundation of Virginia's prosperity. In the 1600s, even more important than Virginia and Maryland were the West Indies, where sugar plantations created an extremely valuable commodity. England developed an extremely sweet tooth, which it still has right up to the present. And the British government regarded the West Indies as more important than the colonies which became the foundations of the United States a little bit later on. The motive for the founding of some colonies was religious. The Plymouth Bay Colony and the Massachusetts Bay Colony in the 1620s and 30s were attempts to create ideal Puritan settlements. And when William Penn, a little bit later in the century, created Pennsylvania, it was a combination of the quest for religious liberty and the quest for good relations with the Native Americans and for business opportunities. Now, the encounter between the Europeans and the Native Americans 
was a biological catastrophe, especially from the Native Americans' point of view. The diseases which they caught from the English and from the Spanish were far more lethal to them than the diseases which they gave to the Europeans. And perhaps as many as 90% of the people living before Columbus's first contact died over the ensuing century. It was also a very, very complicated biological exchange. A great many crops never previously seen in Europe came from the New World. Tobacco, potatoes, maize and tomatoes. On the other hand, all sorts of species went in the other direction. It wasn't until Columbus that horses and cattle appeared for the very first time in the Americas. And when on a Western movie you see the, the Indian on his horse, it's important to remember that that's a cultural adaptation, that the horse frontier moved west more quickly than the human frontier, and that the Indians themselves were adapting to uh, a novel species brought into the New World by the Europeans. A wide array of domesticated crops, particularly the grain crops and olives and grapes, were also introduced from Europe into America. England's first ventures into the Indian Ocean imitated those of Portugal, and they were directed to the spice trade. Spices, particularly pepper, were the best food preservative available in the days before refrigeration. It was extremely valuable. But it was also very difficult to get a ship from England to the East Indies and back again loaded with pepper. If you could manage it, you'd instantly become very, very wealthy. But many ships were lost in the attempt to do it. Gradually, over the course of the 1600s, the English learned a lesson which the Portuguese had learned, how to use the monsoon shift. This is the way in which the wind in the Indian Ocean blows towards India during the summer in the Northern Hemisphere, and blows uh, southeast, uh, blows, I'm sorry, blows southwest away from India in the northern hemisphere winter. Once they'd learned this, it became possible to undertake voyages uh, of about a year to the East Indies and back. Now, India was dominated by the Mughal Empire in the 17th century, and the, and the East India Company, which ran the British trade in the Indian Ocean, was not interested so much in territory, but simply in trade. The disease situation was very different from what it had been in the Americas. In the East Indies, the British were more vulnerable to, to disease than the, than the Indians themselves were. And the great problem for the East India Company was simply to keep its agents alive long enough to continue the trade. Through the 16 and 1700s, the English, the Dutch, the Portuguese and the French battled for dominance against one another and battled for the favour of the Indian princes and local leaders whose favour was necessary for the trade to take place in an orderly way. In the 1700s, a long series of wars between England and France, which had emerged from this long commercial rivalry as the two leading powers, a long series of wars uh, led to attempts to seize one another's overseas colonies. Gradually, British superiority at sea gave Britain the advantage over France and enabled it to gain a steadily stronger colonial position. In the year 1707, England and Scotland had been politically unified. They'd had the same king for a century, but there had been two separate governments. Now, for the first time, Great Britain was a powerful single political entity. Two great victories for British arms in the 1750s dramatically changed the conditions of world power, very much in Britain's favour. The first was the Battle of Plassey, which took place in Bengal in 1757, when a small army of the East India Company, under the leadership of Robert Clive, beat a much larger army of one of the Indian princes, and in doing so, seized control of Bengal itself. 
And this was the basis for the extension of British power into the Indian mainland. Two years later, in 1759, the Battle of the Heights of Abraham behind Quebec led to the British vanquishment of the French from Canada. And Canada became part of the British Empire by the Treaty of Paris in 1763, which in some ways marked the high watermark of the first British Empire. One of the unforeseen consequences of the British success in Canada was that the colonists living in the American colonies to the south, the ones which later created the United States of America, was that they felt far less anxiety than they had previously felt about the danger of encirclement by Catholic powers. Until then, the Spanish to their south in Florida and the Caribbean and the French to their north had both offered continuous severe threats. Now suddenly those threats had gone away. I don't mean to imply that this is the explanation for the American Revolution, but it's certainly one of the necessary preconditions. Now, the loss of Britain's American colonies in the American Revolutionary War, which ended in 1783, was a jarring reversal to British power and prestige. But it proved not to be a mortal wound. In fact, after that, the British Empire became more powerful than ever. Britain consolidated its power over India and its other colonies in the 19th century, and then it undertook to modernise and Christianise them. The evangelical movement, which swept through the Church of England in the 18th and 19th centuries, had a very powerful effect on the empire. First of all, under the leadership of William Wilberforce, it led to the movement for the abolition, first of the slave trade, which was abolished in 1807 and 1808, and then to the abolition of slavery itself throughout the entire British Empire by Act of Parliament in 1833. It had immense consequences for the empire and it transformed the situation in the West Indies and in South Africa. And of course it put new pressure on American slave owners in the American South. The first generation of British uh, nabobs, that is the, uh, the English exploiters of India, had been plunderers. But the second and third generations brought internal peace and regular administration and then the introduction of missionaries into India. And they tried very hard to suppress customs which they found abhorrent, such as sati, the practice of widow burning among high caste Hindus, where a Hindu widow is expected to join her husband on the funeral pyre as an expression of marital respect. So the same evangelical impulse that had led to the peaceful abolition of slavery also led to an attempt to transform internal conditions in India. But the Indian Mutiny, or Indian Rebellion, of 1857 warned the British that such projects could prove to be very, very hazardous. The British government helped the East India Company to suppress this rebellion with great ferocity. And then the British government took over direct rule of India from the company. Queen Victoria's favourite Prime Minister, Benjamin Disraeli, made the, the Queen the Empress of India in 1876. And from that time on until the end of the British Empire, nearly a century later, the kings of England were also the Emperors of India. Now, at the same time, the white settler colonies were also playing an important role in the development of the British Empire. These are Australia, New Zealand, South Africa and Canada. They prospered as the producers of farm exports and then of minerals. At first, Canada's most lucrative export had been furs and the Hudson's Bay Company had been uh, fur hunting for the last century and a half. With the opening up of the Canadian prairies after about 1865, a vast new wheat-growing hinterland uh, developed, 
creating new surpluses of food on the world market and really transforming the conditions of agriculture throughout the world. Then in the 1890s, in a northern Canadian province, gold discoveries led to an increase in the world's gold supply. The discovery of gold had been long delayed in the British Empire, but there it was. There'd also been a gold rush in Australia in the 1850s. More recently, Canada's become a, a major exporter of iron ore and also of oil. Even today, the United States' primary supplier of oil isn't somewhere in the Middle East, but Canada. Further south, South Africa, uh, at first just a, a way station on the route to India, from England to India, where ships would stop to pick up fresh water and some new provisions, itself became politically very important after 1868 with the discovery of diamonds, and then a few years later, the discovery of gold on the Rand, the place around which the city of Johannesburg grew up. And this was the, uh, the place where larger-than-life entrepreneurs like Cecil Rhodes operated in the late 19th century. These white settler colonies also provided very valuable, a very valuable um, safety valve for Britain's excess population. And throughout the whole of the 19th century, large numbers of people were leaving Britain to go to New Zealand, Australia, South Africa and Canada, in addition to large numbers who emigrated to the United States as well. The Scots and the Irish were particularly well represented. And they influenced the mood of these new countries, sometimes decisively. The Scots in particular have an amazing dominance of British colonial history. And if you look for the ancestry of the, of the Prime Ministers of Canada or of Australia, again and again and again you find that they're descended from Scottish migrants. Well, it was only in the late 19th century, during what's called the Scramble for Africa, that for the first time the British Empire became an object of national pride and self-consciousness. Until then, although it had been extremely valuable for a variety of merchants and for certain people in politics, it hadn't been particularly a matter of pride for the British population in general. But it was in the 1870s when, really for the first time, um, Propaganda, particularly conservative party propaganda, began to emphasise the, the desirability of the empire and the way in which the acquisition and holding of colonies made Britain greater than its great European rivals. Ironically, the countries which Britain acquired during this time, the countries of sub-Saharan Africa, were for the most part quite a lot less valuable than the colonies it had been acquiring up to that time. And very often the British motive was simply that of trying to forestall the Germans and the French and the Portuguese and the Belgians from colonial ventures of their own. The exploitation of Africa was extremely unsavoury and unscrupulous. And this is the period commemorated in Joseph Conrad's wonderful story, Heart of Darkness, a thinly fictionalised version of his own trip up the river Congo, where he witnessed the uh, horrible exploitation of the African peoples by the Belgian colonisers. In the 20th century, Britain's role in the two world wars weakened it and forced it to give way to new superpowers. By then, other nations had caught up with Britain industrially. The British Industrial, industrial Revolution was the first in the world, and there's no question that its, its industrial capacity contributed in a very material way to Britain's uh, early dominance. 
For example, it was in 1793, just after the American Revolution, that Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin, uh, making it possible for American farmers to grow short staple cotton. And at the same time in England, inventors and entrepreneurs began inventing spinning and weaving machinery, which, which made it possible to industrialize the cotton fabric production process for the very first time. So ironically, just after America and, and Britain became politically independent, their economic symbiosis became, if anything, closer than ever. And Britain was able to produce high-quality goods at a far lower cost than any rival. And in doing so, generate immense additional wealth. Industrialization made it strong. And throughout the early 19th century, it pioneered in the textile business and in the metalwares business and in the development of ocean-going steamships and a dozen other enterprises. But by 1900, the rest of the world had begun to catch up. It was a process which was bound to happen. And various factors inside British society perhaps made it uh, made them catch up more quickly than they might otherwise have done. Certainly by 1900, the United States was as economically powerful as Great Britain and was already showing signs of surpassing it. And Germany, which had been politically unified since 1870, was also becoming more and more powerful. When the First World War began in 1914, men from all over the British Empire came to fight with the British on the Western Front in, in France and Belgium, and also in the British campaigns in the Middle East, particularly in the campaign which led to the capture of Jerusalem and the campaign in Iraq. They weren't obliged to do so, but the fact that they did rally to the colours shows how strong the emotional bonds of the British Empire really were. Although in some respects it was a galling and embittering experience. The Australian and New Zealand soldiers, the Anzacs, who fought at Gallipoli, thought that they'd been unnecessarily sacrificed by blundering British generals. This was a campaign against the Turks, which was supposed to be an easy way to defeat Turkey and capture Constantinople. In practice, the army encountered very, very tenacious resistance and found itself unable to prevail and finally had to withdraw with no gains and at the loss of the lives of tens of thousands of Anzac soldiers. So it's remembered in Australian and New Zealand history as a moment of coming of age, when they began to conceive the possibility that they really ought to take better care of their own interests rather than assume that Britain knew best what to do for them. Nevertheless, when the First World War ended, Turkey was one of the defeated central powers and Britain became the dominant player in the politics of what had been the Turkish Empire, taking over a League of Nations mandate in Palestine, the place which eventually was going to become Israel, and also being the dominant power in Iraq and throughout most of the developing oil fields of the Middle East. This was itself a very strategically important matter. Britain also took over Germany's colonies in Africa, particularly the place that's now Tanzania. Now, as I said at the beginning, at a glance, it looked as though the British Empire was more powerful than ever. Certainly, its geographical extent had never been greater than it was in 1919. But there were cracks below the surface. In particular, more and more people in Britain had begun to doubt whether Britain's colonial role was justifiable. In 1919, a British Army officer, General Dyer, ordered his soldiers to open fire against a demonstration in the Indian town of Amritsar, and uh, it led to the massacre of, of a group of unarmed citizens. 
There was an outcry against General Dyer in Britain which forced a political inquiry. Some people stood behind him and said he was doing what was necessary to uphold the empire. Others said it was disgrace, it was a human rights violation of the worst possible kind to massacre people in this way. But by then, the idea that Britain might not have the rights to dominate was becoming increasingly widespread. And this was the world in which Mohandas Gandhi worked. Mahatma Gandhi, the most famous and charismatic of all the uh, anti-colonial independence leaders. Gandhi himself is a fascinating person whom we'll look at more closely later on in the course, but it's worth having a glance at his work now. Gandhi had been educated in, in England. He was a, a lawyer. And he understood that the British weren't absolutely ruthless. They were capable of feeling bad consciences. And Gandhi was an absolute master at exploiting the British bad conscience about the empire. And the British themselves didn't have the, didn't have the heart to repress him ruthlessly. If he'd been part of the Soviet empire of the 20th century, he simply would have been exterminated. But in the British case, he was in and out of prison and became a more and more charismatic figure around whom the Indian independence movement could gather. Meanwhile, another crucial um, aspect of the years of the First World War was the Irish War of Independence from 1916 to 1921, because this brought strife right into the heartland of the British Empire. The Irish uprising of 1916 in the Dublin Post Office uh, was an attempt to uh, seize Irish independence at a time when Britain was distracted by the First World War. It failed, but it began to mobilise a movement which eventually did lead to Irish independence. Britain's conduct in Ireland throughout the centuries had always given the lie to the idea that Britain was naturally a good colonial leader. And in fact, the historian Paul Johnson, in a very clever analogy, compares Ireland to Banquo's ghost at Macbeth's banquet. He says... Just as Banquo prevented anyone from having any fun at the at Macbeth's ban banquet, so did Ireland constantly remind the British of the shortcomings of their role as imperial leader. By 1945, the end of the Second World War, Britain was clearly the inferior of the United States and the Soviet Union, and it could no longer convincingly play the role of a world power. Now, during the Second World War, it was true that the British had stood alone against the power of Hitler in the years 1939, 40 and 41. But Britain's war leader, Winston Churchill, had been under no illusions about his ability, single-handedly, to lead a British liberation of the continent of Europe. Churchill understood that only with the intervention of the Americans was sufficient power going to be mobilised to make it possible to liberate Western Europe. And eventually, by a bitter irony... The Americans and the British had to ally with Hitler's former ally, Stalin, in order to liberate Germany. Only by allying with one ruthless tyranny were they able to destroy another one. In the British general election of 1945, Churchill lost. Even though he was very popular as a war leader, he was widely recognised in Britain as a, a representative of the bad old world, the world of hierarchy and snobbery and imperialism, which by then most of the influential parts of the British public uh, had lost faith in. The winner was Clement Attlee, the leader of the Labour Party, and for the first time in the election of 1945, the Labour Party had an absolute parliamentary majority. Most of them were socialists, dedicated to the principle that imperialism is wrong and that Britain ought not to have a colonial empire. And it was during this, this government from 1945 to 1950 that first India and Pakistan were partitioned and given independence 
and then Israel gained its own independence in 1948, with immense consequences, of course, which persist right up to the present. Attlee lost the election of 1951, but by then the uh, world opinion had changed so radically that even the Conservatives coming back into power when Churchill returned to power in 1950 recognised that it wasn't going to be possible for Britain to be able to re reassert its imperial power in the way that Churchill might once have hoped. So in the 1950s and the early 1960s, the Labour and Conservative governments both found themselves following suit in an international atmosphere that was now completely hostile to the idea of colonial empires. And it was a Conservative government, that of Harold Macmillan, which accelerated the independence of Britain's African colonies. Uh, Macmillan made a famous speech to the South African Parliament. A wind of change is blowing through Africa, uh, alerting the South Africans to the fact that Britain no longer intended to hold on to its, uh, its worldwide imperial mission. The legacy of the British Empire is immense, particularly if you think of the British Empire in the biggest sense as including places which had been colonies, that is to say the United States. Certainly in matters of politics and language and ideas. One of the quickest ways to find out whether a place was once a British colony is to see whether it plays cricket, and if the answer is yes, then it almost certainly was. The, the, the worldwide idea of democracy and of individual rights and of the rule of law, the spread worldwide of industrialization as a source of national wealth, the incredible proliferation of the English language to nearly all parts of the world, Western medicine, Western literature, all these things can be, uh, can be traced to British imperial origins. And these are all things which I'm going to attempt to cover in the course itself. Now, for the last few minutes of this first lecture, I would like to say a word about how we should think about the British Empire as a whole. There's always a temptation when you're studying any historical issue to want to moralise, to think that it's possible to identify who were the good people and who were the bad ones, and then to take pleasure in the, in the triumph of good over evil, or to lament the uh, triumph of evil over good. But in fact, that's a very, very bad way of understanding history. In fact, if you study a historical episode and feel good about it, it probably means that you haven't had it explained very well. Historical conflict is usually the struggle of good against good, that is, two different conceptions of what's good, striving with one another. I certainly believe that the job of historians is much more to, un to describe and explain and understand what happened than it is to stand in moral judgment over it. It's pointless to... Uh, to make intrusive and anachronistic judgments. I mean, for example, in one of the early lectures, we'll be looking at the history of the British slave trade. And it's shocking to us to discover that almost nobody appears to have had any moral objection to it. Now, obviously, we can moralise about that at length. But in doing so, we won't do very much to enhance our understanding of it. So surely it's better for us simply to say who did what and why they did it and how they understood it and content ourselves with understanding better their motives for doing so. Let me just end by saying a word about myself and my own uh, history in all this. I was born in 1956 and grew up just in the very, very last days of the British Empire. I can still remember clearly how, as a, a little kid, a five-year-old in my very first school class, this must have been in 1961 or 62, we learned about how good the British Empire was 
And we looked with pride at the map of the world as we began to study maps and to see all the parts of the world which were pink because pink was the colour of the British Empire. And when the Queen went on a royal visit to Canada, we all followed her progress very, very carefully by putting pins in the map. And my teachers were very, very explicit in saying how good it was that the rest of the world uh, enjoyed the benefits of British colonialism. But nevertheless, the decolonization process by then was in full swing and continued throughout my life. By the time I went to college in 1974, I was an undergraduate at Oxford University in the mid-70s. By then, imperialism was a dirty word, and you could hardly say anything worse about anyone than that they were an imperialist. So in the course of those uh, 10 or 15 years, a complete swing of opinion had taken place towards thinking of imperialism itself as a very, very bad thing. In the years since then, I've continued to pay attention to the British Empire and its history and to be interested in it, and can now see a much more complicated picture. And as I said, what I'm hoping to be able to do over the course of these 36 lectures is to keep moral questions in the background and to keep analytical questions in the foreground as I explain to you why the British Empire came into being and how it prospered. Lecture 2, The Challenge to Spain in the New World. For five centuries after the Norman Conquest of 1066, the kings of England struggled to maintain a foothold in France. William the Conqueror was also the Duke of Normandy and claimed France as well as Britain as his possession. By the time the kings of England lost their, the last of their continental possessions in the 1550s, however, a more attractive alternative area for expansion had been discovered, America. English monarchs and merchants looked with envy at Spain and Portugal as they built great empires in the New World, and as annual treasure fleets brought back to Europe thousands of tons of silver and gold. English adventurers, like Sir Francis Drake, preyed on the Spaniards, with the approval of his sovereign, Queen Elizabeth I. The fact that Catholic Spain and Protestant England were religious as well as dynastic antagonists sharpened their conflict. English defeat of the Spanish Armada in 1588 demonstrated the importance of sea power to aspiring colonisers and emboldened England to plan new world colonies of its own. Early ventures on the American mainland by Walter Raleigh and others were unsuccessful. But in 1607, the first permanent English settlement got a foothold in Virginia. The Virginia settlers were disappointed to discover no precious metals, but they soon realised that growing tobacco for export was almost as lucrative. Now, throughout the Middle Ages, the kings of England were preoccupied with securing their rule at home and in trying to dominate France, both of which projects proved to be very difficult. The Hundred Years' War, from 1337 through to 1453, was a protracted and unsuccessful attempt by the kings of England to dominate France. The Wars of the Roses, from 1455 to 1489, also demonstrated the weakness of the monarchy at home. It was King Henry VII, the first of the Tudors, who finally brought internal civil wars to an end, he, he won the Battle of Bosworth Field, the, the famous battle in which Richard III, the loser, says, my kingdom for a horse, in the Shakespeare play. 
And then he fought off uh, attempts by the Yorkists to claim the throne once more. And Henry VII's son, Henry VIII, enriched and strengthened the monarchy by seizing church properties at the time of the Reformation. When Henry VIII wanted to divorce Catherine of Aragon because she hadn't given him a male heir, and when the Pope refused to, to cooperate with that plan, Henry decided that he'd take advantage of the religious ferment in Europe to declare himself the defender of the faith and to separate the English church from that of the rest of Europe. And in doing so, he was able to dissolve the monasteries and, and, and acquire all their possessions. So suddenly he became overwhelmingly Britain's principal landowner and was able to reward his cronies with payouts in land and make himself decisively the strongest person in England. So he was much richer than his immediate predecessors and was able to use that wealth to consolidate his power. His son lived only for a short time and then his first daughter became Queen Mary I of England. She married King Philip II of Spain and for a while it seemed possible that the Reformation was going to be reversed, that England was once more going to become a Catholic country following the religion of its Queen Mary. But her premature death in 1558 meant that she was succeeded by her half-sister, Elizabeth I. This is the daughter of Anne Boleyn. And Elizabeth I was a Protestant. She was really the founder of the Church of England and was determined that from that time onwards, Britain's religious destiny was going to be separated from that of the rest of Europe. And that in turn made it extremely probable that a period of Anglo-Spanish warfare would ensue. Now, English politicians and merchants envied Spain and Portugal because Spain and Portugal dominated the New World. Columbus, Cortes, Pizarro and other explorers had discovered and conquered the Aztec and Inca empires in the early 16th century. And the Treaty of Tordesillas of 1493 was the occasion when the Pope drew a vertical line through a map of the New World declaring all the lands to the east of it Portuguese possessions and all the lands west of it Spanish. That's why, right up to the present, uh, Brazil, which is the most easterly part of the Americas, is Portuguese-speaking, and most of the rest of Latin America is Spanish-speaking. Other Europeans were forbidden access to the Americas. Annual silver and gold shipments to Europe contributed to Spain's great power status. And this, again, was something which the, the English looked on with envy. The mines of Potosi in Peru generated immense quantities of silver. The Spanish started to build ships uh, so that the silver could be brought down to the Peruvian coast, sailed up the Pacific coast of the Americas as far as Panama, and then carried in mule trains across the narrow isthmus of Panama, where they were loaded onto the treasure ships, which came across the Atlantic in a convoy every year, the annual treasure floater, an immensely valuable source of wealth to the Spanish monarchy. It had the effect, though, of um, increasing the amount of money in circulation in Europe, and that in turn prompted the, the then very unfamiliar phenomenon of inflation. Now, in England, as the possibility of, of distant trading began, it was undertaken first by royal chartered companies. The monarch would give a charter to a company in exchange for monopoly rights to that particular trade. And the group of merchants involved in the charter company would pool their resources and share the risk as they began to trade in more distant places. Their model was the Company of Merchant Adventurers of London. 
and they had a monopoly of the English cloth trade to Europe, which had been thriving for the previous 200 years. Every year, uh, large quantities of British cloth was exported from England to the city of Antwerp in the Netherlands, and from there spread out over the rest of Europe. Starting in the reign of Elizabeth I, much more daring ventures began to be undertaken. One of them was the Muscovy trade, the trade with the, the early stages of the Russian Empire. And this was in the days when the only direct route from England to Russia was through the Arctic. The whole of the Baltic coastline was dominated by the Hanseatic League. And so if you wanted to get direct from England to Russia, you had to go the Arctic way. Two captains, Hugh Willoughby and Richard Chancellor, sailed in search of the northeast passage to China. This was in the hope that you could sail through the Arctic Sea to China and therefore, thereby be safe against um, pr the predation of the Spanish and Portuguese. But the Northeast Passage didn't exist, certainly not for sailing ships. And Willoughby's ship and its entire crew of 62 got locked into the ice where they either froze or starved to death. A ship of rigid corpses was discovered a year later. On the other hand, Chancellor did find his way to the port now called Archangelsk and he travelled to meet Tsar Ivan the Terrible and struck a deal with him. Then he got a royal charter to monopolise the Anglo-Russian trade, the Muscovy Company. In the same way, in 1581, the Levant Company was founded. This was to, to um, trade in the eastern Mediterranean with the Ottoman Empire. And like the Muscovy Company, the merchants in the Levant Company weren't interested in colonising. They were simply interested in direct trade with another remote place, the Ottoman Empire, cutting out the middlemen who uh, eroded the profitability of the trade. Now, it was also in the 16th century, the 1500s, that more and more English sailors learned the techniques of blue water sailing, on which the empire was going to depend in the coming centuries. By blue water sailing, what I mean is the practice of sailing for days at a time out of sight of land. Until then, nearly all sailors were familiar with always being in sight of land, or at least within a day's sight of land. Occasionally in the Mediterranean, you can, be, you can have land over the horizon, but very rapidly you can remake contact. Now they're learning how to navigate for long distances at sea. English fishermen were the first to do it, making long-distance voyages to the Newfoundland and the Grand Banks from the early 16th century. Now if you look at the preserved sailing ships from that time, like the preserved Mayflower or the ships in Plymouth Plantation, you'll be struck by how small they are. Tiny ships, often of 50 tonnes or less. An Atlantic crossing could take as little as 20 days if the wind and currents were very favourable or as much as three months, depending entirely on the wind and the currents to which the ships were so vulnerable. And uh, through trial and error, European navigators discovered that they couldn't sail directly across the Atlantic. As you were going west to America, you had to head off southwest into the southern part of the North Atlantic, and then describe a semicircle sailing northwest into the West Indies, and then further up to the Virginia coast. And when you were coming home again, to sail northeast far into the uh, higher latitudes in order to pick up the trade winds which would blow you back towards England and Spain. It wasn't something you could be done directly. They had a fairly good idea of their latitude because by taking sightings at midday from the deck and working out how high the sun was, they could deduce mathematically what their latitude was. But they had no way of computing their longitude and this added to the uncertainty of when they were going to make an American landfall. The, the crude and simple method was simply to throw a log overboard tied to a string which had knots in it for every fathom. 
That's why we get terms like the captain's log and five knots. As the ship sailed, eventually one of the knots would play out through the rear window, and that was a sign of how much distance you'd gone. So you could have a rough estimation of how far you'd travelled, and therefore what your longitude was. Charts and maps were extremely um, inaccurate. The supplies that the sailors ate were vulnerable to decay, especially in the tropical heat, eating salt pork and hardtack, which were the staples of sailors' diets. They had no vitamins, and this made scurvy very, very likely on long voyages, where the men's skin would begin to peel off in strips, and their teeth would get mushy in their gums, and and eventually, if, if it went on for long enough, they'd literally die from it. The ships themselves were constantly rotting because they had no good wood preservatives. And periodically, ships of that period had to be beached and then tarred on the bottom as a way of sealing the hull. But uh, ship design evolved a lot in the 16th century as more and more English sailors moved into blue water sailing. They developed a lower profile, had three or four masts with combined rigging using both square sails and lateen sails to make the maximum use of the winds that were available to them. Incidentally, I mentioned the, uh, the, the sailors going to Newfoundland. The, uh, after the Reformation, the fishing industry was hurt by the fact that whereas the Catholic Church had Friday as a fish day, there wasn't a Protestant fish day. So in 1563, Parliament specified that Wednesdays were now going to be fish days as well. Different from the Catholic day, but nevertheless serving the same function. The earliest... English colonising ventures or colonial related ventures were those of John Hawkins and his cousin Francis Drake when they undertook some pirate slaving expeditions into the Caribbean in the 1560s. It was illegal but it was very very lucrative and these Protestant heroes were tempted to undertake missions of this kind. On their third voyage they were hijacked by the Spaniards and most of their men killed or imprisoned and this intensified Drake's great hatred of the Spaniards. For him it became personal. Queen Elizabeth I licensed privateers like Drake to attack Spanish shipping. And in in the years between 1577 and 1580, Francis Drake sailed around the world, the first Englishman to circumnavigate the world, plundering Spanish ships and ports along the way. He attacked a great galleon, the Cacafuego, on the Chilean coast and took off its great cargo of treasure. And of course, on the Pacific side of the Americas, the very last thing that the Spanish expected was attack by an English privateer. Drake's ship, the Pelican, was renamed the Golden Hind, partly because of its great uh, treasure cargo. And Drake himself was welcomed home as a national hero, and Queen Elizabeth knighted him on the deck of his ship in 1581. She, in fact, was one of the investors in his voyage, and made a a profit of 4,700% on her investment, just to give you an idea of how profitable these ventures could be. Now, the decisive turning point for Anglo-Spanish naval relations came in 1588 with the Spanish Armada. In those days, most of the Royal Navy was privately owned ships that had been chartered or borrowed by the monarchy. Uh, All but 34 of the 197 ships in the Royal Navy were privately owned on loan to the Queen. The Armada itself was an invasion fleet of 130 ships and 90,000 men, though most of them were designed for service in the Mediterranean, which was less rough than the waters of the Bay of Biscay and the North Sea, in which they now had to operate. The English ships had longer-range guns to fire broadsides, instead of just firing once and then closing by grappling and boarding, which is what the Spanish expected to have to do. The English gun crews were trained to reload and fire quickly multiple broadsides into the enemy's ships. 
They were more manoeuvrable than their enemies' galleys. And John Hawkins, after his slaving voyages, had become a ship designer, making these uh, ships more adapted to rough waters. Now, in English Protestant folklore, the, uh, one of the causes of English victory over the Armada was the so-called Protestant wind. The, the wind blew in a favourable direction to help the British attack the Spanish ships, but make it very difficult indeed for the Spanish to turn around and get back into more friendly waters. The Spanish took shelter in the port of Calais in the expectation that the Spanish Duke of Parma was going to bring an army from the Spanish Netherlands, load them on board, and then cross the English Channel to invade England. But the English responded by sending fire ships into the middle of them, that is, old hulks loaded with burning materials, in the hope that they could set fire to the Spanish ships. Many of the Spanish captains then had to cut their anchor lines and flee out into the sea, or again they were pursued in the running battle of grave lines. And finally they were dispersed all over the North Sea. Many of them had to sail back all the way around the North Cape of Scotland, where many of them were lost. It was a very, very great English naval victory, and really the first of the great naval victories which continued for the next two or three centuries to give Britain complete maritime dominance. A century after the Spaniards, England began to found colonies of its own in the New World. Early ventures like Walter Raleigh's Roanoke colony in 1585 failed. Raleigh was a courtier and a poet and a favourite of the Queen, the commander of her guard, charming and outspoken, and given various rewards by the Queen for his courtly ways. He founded a colony on Roanoke Island in 1585. It was resupplied in 1587, but a second resupply ship in 1591 found no one was there. Just the word Croatoan carved on a tree. Were they wiped out by the Indians? Or did they join the Indians? Or did drought lead to starvation and force them to move away? There are lots of theories about what happened to this lost colony, but no conclusive evidence. Raleigh later on searched for El Dorado, the fabled city that was paved with gold, widely believed in at the time. He sailed up the Orinoco River in 1595 and wrote an immensely popular book about it called The Discovery of Guyana. But the first permanent successful English colony on the coast of America was Virginia the Virginia Company, founded in 1607. Whether it was going to survive at first seemed highly unlikely and it went through some traumatic early years before eventually starting to prosper as a tobacco plantation. The company, founded in 1606, hoped to duplicate Spain's experience in Mexico and Peru. And if you look at who actually went to Jamestown, you have to be struck by the number of jewellers and goldsmiths that were in the company. Far too many of them and far too few people who were willing to actually grow food. They were reluctant to farm, and unwisely they provoked the local Indians into antagonism, uh, bringing themselves almost to the brink of starvation. The best of the group was certainly John Smith, who's rightly the hero of the Jamestown expedition. He was an experienced soldier who'd been fighting in the European wars for the last few years. He'd been a prisoner of war in Turkey, a great swashbuckler, and a person who tended to tell tall tales about himself. But he was also a good linguist and what we'd call an anthropologist, that is, trying to understand how different societies operated on their own terms. He explored the area around Jamestown and drew the first accurate maps. And of course, the famous story is of his life being saved by Pocahontas uh, intervening to save his life and then his being adopted by King Powhatan. But uh, Smith left the colony in 1609 after being badly injured in a gunpowder explosion. And once he'd gone, the, the colony itself began to deteriorate rather rapidly, all, all the way to the point of cannibalism. All but about 60 of the original 500 settlers died.
The second big name in Jamestown is that of John Rolfe. And it was John Rolfe who introduced the principle of growing tobacco, which was to be the salvation of the colony. Tobacco culture had been known about already for 100 years by then. The very first Spaniard to try smoking in Spain was thought to be a devil and was imprisoned by the Inquisition. And there's a long tradition that Sir Walter Raleigh, one of the very first Englishmen ever to smoke, when he lit his pipe and his head began smoking, his servant threw cold water over him in alarm that his master had caught fire. John Rolfe brought seedlings from Spanish plantings in Bermuda, where his wife and child had both died, freeing him up in 1614 to marry this same Indian princess, Pocahontas, who looms large in the early lore of the colony. And he wrote a lovely letter about whether it was the right thing to do for him as an Englishman to marry a Native American. He said, It is Pocahontas to whom my hearty and best thoughts are, and have been a long time, so entangled and enthralled in so intricate a labyrinth that I could not unwind myself thereout. But she died after two years and a trip to England, because again, like most of the Native Americans, was very, very vulnerable to European illnesses. He married a third time while supervising the successful beginnings of tobacco culture. Now what uh, John Rolfe discovered was this, that it would sell for a good price in England and that it was very addictive. English people from then, from 1610 right up to the present, have always found tobacco to be extremely addictive and the great majority of people who have started smoking it have always found it very, very difficult subsequently to give it up. And obviously from a marketer's point of view that's a highly desirable quality. So much of the available land in, in Virginia was devoted to tobacco culture that the Virginians continued to neglect to actually grow food to feed themselves and food had to be imported from elsewhere. At first, the tobacco growers used Indian methods of farming, girdling the trees, that is cutting a deep groove in the tree so that it died rather than undertaking all the energy necessary of uh, chopping it down. They had very few plows and in forested area it was difficult to clear the land. Tobacco cultivation takes nine months of intensive labour, and even in the other three months, a lot of work to make barrel staves for storage, and then to clear land for a bigger crop the following year. And the rate of increase of tobacco exports to England was impressive. About £20,000 in 1617, about £40,000 in 1618, and one and a half million pounds by 1628. So what began as a luxury commodity very rapidly turned into a mass consumption commodity, which again it remained really right through into the 20th century. Now the rise of the number of planters alarmed the Indians living nearby. They made a surprise attack on the planters in 1622 and in a great massacre killed 347 of the British. The Virginia Company with the help of the British government retaliated and eventually had secured the area by 1624. The Virginia Company itself went bankrupt, but the individual planters did very well, as did the British Crown, which took over Virginia as a royal colony, by taxing tobacco and then re-exporting it to the rest of Europe. Now it's important at this point to remember that the planters didn't think of themselves as Americans, they thought of themselves as English, and in fact most of them assumed that they were making a temporary stay and that then they'd return to England with their fortunes. There's certainly no idea in the early 1600s of them somehow becoming Americans. Incidentally, there was a dispute which we can only look on with a certain amount of amusement from our vantage point, the question in Europe of whether tobacco was good for you, whether it had medicinal benefits. And there were quite a few influential people who said, yes, it did. 
For example, Jean Nicot, the French ambassador to Portugal in 1570, extolled tobacco as an ideal medicine. The word nicotine is based upon his name, Nicot. Similarly, an English doctor, uh, John Frampton, in a pamphlet from 1570, called his pamphlet Joyful News out of the Newfound World. And the joyful news was that tobacco was a very, very good medicine. On the other hand, the king himself, King James I, thought it was dreadful. He was the successor to Elizabeth I, and he wrote a pamphlet called The Counterblast Against Tobacco, in which he condemned it. And uh, when you listen to this little quotation from James I, you can hear the theory of the four humours, which was then the state of, of anatomical and physiological education at the time. This is what James writes. First, it is thought by you, he's, he's speaking to an antagonist, it is thought by you a sure sign in the administration of this medicine that the brains of all men, being naturally cold and wet, all dry and hot things should be good for them, of which nature this stinking suffumigation is, and therefore of good use to them. Of this argument, both the proposition and assumption are false, and so the conclusion cannot be valid of itself. For, as to the proposition that because the brains are cold and moist, therefore things that are hot and dry are best for them, it is an inept consequence. For man, being compounded of the four complexions, whose fathers are the four elements, although there be a mixture of them in all parts of his body, yet must the divers parts of our microcosm, or little world within ourselves, be diversely more inclined, some to one, some to another complexion, according to the diversity of their uses, that of these discords a perfect harmony may be made up for the maintenance of the whole body. Well, that's a complicated passage, isn't it? And uh, it shows a little bit of the persnickety style which King James favoured. He was a hypochondriac, constantly terrified that he was going to catch illness or that he was going to be assassinated. So he came out against tobacco, but his courtiers pointed out to him that it was becoming a very, very valuable revenue generator. Tobacco imported into England could pay taxes which would enrich the monarchy and it would pay export duty as it went out again to Europe. So, that, so James was able to settle his conscience with the thought that it was good for the monarchy even if it was bad for the individual body. Now in England at this time, land was scarce and people were plentiful. In Virginia, it was the other way around. There was plenty of land, especially after the defeat of the Indians, but there was very little labour. And this was the circumstance in which indentured labourers began to be exported from England to Virginia, usually to work for a period of years, after which, if they could survive, they in turn would become owners of tobacco farms of their own. And a great many of them did die in the first year. What happened is that ships would usually leave England after the worst of the winter storms, that is, they'd set out in March or April. But that meant that they'd arrive in Virginia in June or July, just when the climate is at its very worst. Virginia, the the Chesapeake Bay region in those days, well, it still has extremely hot summers, but of course there was no air conditioning. And much of it was a, a malarial swamp. So the vast majority of these settlers didn't live very long, four or five years if they were lucky, before they died in the unhealthy climate. And indentured servants were subjected to extremely harsh discipline. For example, here's what happened to one indentured servant who complained against his master. The court ordered this, quote, He shall be disarmed and have his arms broken and his tongue bored through with an awl and shall pass through a guard of 40 men and shall be butted by every one of them and at the head of the troop kicked down and footed out of the fort then shall be banished out of James City. Another one who complained of his treatment suffered in this way. 
He shall stand in the pillory with a paper on his head showing the cause of his offence in the marketplace and lose both his ears and serve the colony for a year and forever be incapable of being a free man in the country. No wonder so many of them died in the seasoning process. But it is also true that those who could live got the chance of becoming planters on their own account. So at first they were workers helping the original planters, but later on they became competitors to them. And so it's no wonder that eventually the, uh, the planters started thinking about possible alternatives. They were already totally familiar with the idea of slavery, and the Spanish already a hundred years ago had been importing slaves into the New World. And the English themselves began the slave trade in a big way in the 1650s and 60s. So that gradually in the second half of the 17th century, the use of indentured servants went into a gradual decline, both in Virginia and also in the West Indies, as we'll see next time, while um, African slavery began to rise as an important alternative source of labor. Now, by the beginning of the 17th century, English sailors and traders were traveling to almost every part of the world, even though England's colonial possessions were still minuscule. One of the most interesting books written in the late, the last days of Queen Elizabeth's reign was The Principal Navigations by Richard Hacklett. He was an Elizabethan era author of books about these explorations which were being made. And it's one of the first books in which you can see a sense of English national pride at the way in which more parts of the world are beginning to be explored and understood. And Hacklett wrote, Which of the kings of this land before Her Majesty had ever their banners seen in the Caspian Sea? Which of them have ever dealt with the Emperor of Persia? Whoever saw an English subject in the porch of the Grand Seigneur at Constantinople? Whoever found English consuls at Tripoli, at Aleppo, at Babylon, at Basra? And who heard of an Englishman at Goa before now? Goa was one of the Portuguese ports in India. What English ships did pass and repass the Strait of Magellan? traverse the mighty breadth of the South Sea, that is, the Pacific Ocean, enter into alliance with Amity and traffic with the princes of the Moluccas and the Isle of Java, double the famous Cape of Bona Speranza, the Cape of Good Hope, and return home most richly laden with the commodities of China, as the subjects of this now flourishing monarchy had done. There's a sense of, of exhilaration there on the part of, the, uh, of this historian of the, of the adventurers as he witnesses England moving beyond its old uh, tradition of being a tiny island on the northwest shores of Europe and starting to dominate all sorts of areas of the world. And this was a process that was going to continue for a long time to come. Lecture 3, African Slavery and the West Indies. After early experiments with indentured servants, the Virginia tobacco planters began to import slaves from Africa. They were better adapted to the climate than the fever-prone English, and with no prospect of freedom, could not hope to become the older planters' rivals. They would never acquire farms of their own. British slave traders established stations or factories on the west coast of Africa and either bought their human cargo from African chiefs or hunted it by organising raids on inland villages. 
a triangular trade soon developed as English and colonial ships took metal goods, gunpowder and alcohol from England, carried slaves from Africa across to the West Indies and, and Virginia in the notorious Middle Passage, and then sailed back to England with sugar, rum and molasses from the islands and tobacco from Virginia and Maryland. The Navigation Acts, passed by Parliament in the mid-17th century, made sure that all this trade was confined to British and British colonial shipping. Meanwhile, as Spanish imperial power declined, Britain began to challenge Spain directly in the Caribbean, taking over Jamaica and other islands and developing a prosperous sugar economy of its own. While English settlers developed profitable sugar plantations in the West Indies, despite intermittent conflicts with Spain, the Netherlands and France, England's first colonies in the West Indies were islands that Spain had neglected to settle, including Barbados in 1627 and four of the Leeward Islands, St. Kitts, Nevis, Antigua and Montserrat, all in the 1620s and 30s. And these settlements were hazardous because they straddled the Spanish trade routes to the big Spanish islands of Cuba and Santo Domingo and also to the Spanish main, that is the mainland of Central America. There was a concept of no peace beyond the line. What that meant in effect was, even if Spain and, France, uh, Spain and England were at, at peace at home in Europe, once you got to the other side of the Atlantic, that didn't apply and, and warfare could go on. There were times when each side benefited from that arrangement, but it meant that a kind of Hobbesian state of nature persisted uh, once, you, once you got into the, uh, into the Americas and into the Caribbean. So sometimes the English would raid the Spanish treasure fleet if they could get away with it. And sometimes the Spanish would stamp out English colonies if they could get away with it. It was frontier territory, much, much more dangerous than the mainland of North America. Because although the Spanish also objected to the settlement of Virginia, it was simply too far away for them to be able to mount effective raids against it. Whereas on the Spanish main, English ventures there failed repeatedly. Partly because the Spanish and the Portuguese attacked them, partly because the Indians attacked them, and partly because of the extremely feverish nature of the land in which these settlements were made. Uh, a British settlement was established on the island of Tortuga, very, very close to Hispaniola, but it was soon captured by the Spanish. And that's why Britain had to take the more isolated and less obviously prosperous islands for farming, not for the hope of treasure. The first generation of English settlers in the Leeward Islands and Barbados cultivated tobacco and cotton, and these are, in effect, poor man's crops, needing relatively little capital or equipment, though they do need an enormous amount of hard work. But in the 1640s, the Barbados switched to sugar cane, which needed a lot more capital to get going and a larger workforce. It was an extremely volatile, but also a profitable business if you could work out how to do it right. The first generation of Barbados planters learned the method from the Dutch who'd been doing it a little bit before them. And it required a whole, six, a whole uh, array of qualities and characteristics in the workers and also a lot of capital equipment. First of all, it took more than a year from the time that you first planted the sugar cane before you could have any hope of a harvest. And then the, the cane needed to be very, very carefully tended in the fields. The growing phase was long and it needed extremely careful uh, weeding at all times so that the cane plants would prosper and all competing plants would not. 
It needed heavy manuring as well. And because this is long before the days of artificial fertilizers, that meant that a lot of cattle and sheep had to be imported from England so that they could provide the manure. Once the cane was cut, it had to be processed quickly or else it would rot. There was a very, very narrow window of opportunity between its cutting and its effective uh, treatment. And that meant that at harvest time, they had to work round the clock, day and night. Once the cane had been cut, it was carried to a mill. And one of the things a sugar planter had to do was to build a mill. This was where the, the cane was squeezed to get the juice from it. And usually there'd be a great windlass or a capstan turned by oxen moving around in a circle to grind the stones so that the juice could be extracted from the cane. From there, the juice was taken to the boiling house, which also had to be built before this could be done. And boiling the juice would clarify it and separate out the various components, including molasses. And then, at just the right moment, the, the liquid, gradually becoming more concentrated, had to be poured out at a moment when it would, it would turn into sugar crystals. If you did it too soon, it remained as a liquid. And if you did it too late, it simply burned. So it was a skilled craft to know exactly when to turn the boiling liquid out of the pots. Plantations also needed a distillery for making molasses into rum, which was then one of the very best ways of, of, of shipping uh, sugar-related commodities. And, of course, um, a, a supply of barrels was necessary and um, storage warehouses. So a lot of building, a lot of capital equipment was necessary to make all this work. Barrels themselves are an important part of the early history of the British Empire. If your name is Cooper, a Cooper is a barrel maker, and it was a very skilled craft. And on the islands, it was necessary to have skilled Coopers who could build barrels well enough, they'd be watertight, they'd keep the seawater out during the voyage, and they'd keep the commodities in. Now, to get these plantations started, most of the owners went into debt to English suppliers. So they were vulnerable because they were debtors. They were also very vulnerable to hurricanes, which visit the Caribbean nearly every summer. And as I said before, they're very vulnerable to fevers because of the unhealthy climate. Sugar planting was potentially the source of a great fortune when it was done right. Certainly, the English discovered early on that the British people, just as they loved tobacco, so they loved sugar as well. Britain's got an incredibly sweet tooth. It still does right up to the present. But so many things could go wrong, you had to calibrate it all just right to make it work. The historian Richard Dunn says this, The planters were always painfully exposed to external pressures. They depended on English merchants to extend them credit for acquiring slaves and equipment, and to take their sugar in exchange for the home commodities they needed. They depended on the royal government for military and naval protection. They depended on the Royal African Company for Negroes. They depended on North American ships for food and transportation. All these factors gave the sugar business a peculiarly hectic, frantic character. Well, hatred of the, of the climate, the West Indies climate, also led, tempted the owners of the plantations not to live in the West Indies, or at least not to live there very much, but rather to leave their plantations in the hands of overseers. But of course, if you did that, all sorts of things could go wrong. A slack overseer could very easily fail to keep the equipment in good working order. And that would be disastrous at harvest time, since then nothing would keep and uh, all the equipment had to work at the right moment. And you really needed an overseer who cared deeply about the, the precision of all the machinery. 
And of course, overseers who were left to their own devices by absentee owners had an extremely high temptation to steal from the owner to enrich themselves at the cost of their employer. So that also tended to make the business a hectic and anxious one. Slaves from Africa began to replace indentured servants after mid-century, after about 1650. As large-scale plantations gradually displaced small farmers, the plantations which were good at it stayed in business and the, and the smaller ones didn't. Now, the indentured servants themselves were often people who had very few prospects if they stayed in England. Josiah Child described indentured servants like this. Men such as, had there been no English foreign plantations in the world, could probably never have lived at home to do service for their country, but must have come to be hanged or starved, or died untimely of some of those miserable diseases that proceed from want and vice. Of course, the slave trade was itself extremely complex and coercive, but nevertheless, by the 1680s, it had almost completely replaced indentured servitude. In 1655... England extended its holdings in the Caribbean by capturing Jamaica from Spain. It was much larger than the islands they'd inhabited up to that point, and potentially it was more profitable. But on the other hand, it was surrounded by the major Spanish colonies of Cuba, Hispaniola and Puerto Rico. Now, 1655 was in the middle of the period of the English Civil Wars, which took place in the 1640s. The King Charles I was executed in 1649 and then Oliver Cromwell became the Lord Protector, in effect the dictator of England in the 1650s. And he was the commander of the most effective army in Europe, the New Model Army. Although he wasn't able to get the best of the New Model Army to participate in this venture against Spain. The commander of the ships was William Penn Sr., the admiral whose son, William Penn Jr., was to be the founder of Pennsylvania. And the general in charge of the army was Robert Venables. He, he didn't think very highly of his soldiers. He called them the most profane, debauched persons that we ever saw. Scorners of religion and, indeed, men kept so loose as not to be kept under discipline and so cowardly as not to be made to fight. At first, they attacked the big island of Hispaniola, the island which today comprises Haiti and the Dominican Republic. But ravaged by dysentery and completely lacking in effective discipline, they simply were unable to conquer the island and had to retreat in disarray. That's when they turned their attention to the low-populated island of Jamaica, and there they succeeded. Jamaica in those days was really just a string of cattle ranches, and its inhabitants usually headed for the hills if they ever saw two sails together on the horizon from fear lest they might not be Spanish. So the English were able to invade, and they were able to hang on and destroy the resistance that the Spaniards put up. More than half of this garrison died in the first year from fever and only constant reinforcements kept the garrison going. And for four years, the last of the Spanish governors, a guerrilla fighter called Cristóbal de Isasi, uh, finally uh, put up a spirited resistance but finally was forced to flee the island in 1660. This was the only army of the whole era of Oliver Cromwell to be, ran to be badly run and even it was successful in the end. Now, as I said before, this is the, these are the years of the principle, no peace beyond the line. There's always been a great fascination in England, and in America too, with the idea of pirates of the Caribbean, most recently with a series of films of the same name. And this was a, a fascination already obvious a hundred years ago with books like Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island. And we tend to think that there's a very clear separation between the royal authorities on the one hand, 
and the pirates or privateers on the other. But actually, it wasn't that clear, especially in the early days of the history of Jamaica. Sir Thomas Modiford was the English governor in the 1660s. He had been a Barbados planter and he moved to Jamaica, bringing his slaves with him. He joined forces with the pirates, or the buccaneers, as they were called, and together they declared war against Spain. The most famous of these buccaneers was Captain Henry Morgan, himself a larger-than-life figure. In one raid, with the full approval of the royal governor, he marched 1,400 men across Panama, attacked Panama City on the Pacific side, and came away with £70,000 worth of loot. A later governor, Thomas Lynch, tried to end buccaneering because he said it cost England the chance of establishing a peaceful trade with Spain, which could be profitable to Britain. And because so long as the buccaneers were thriving, indentured servants had a constant temptation to flee from the farms and to join the ships instead in hope of loot and in hope of a slightly easier life. Lynch encouraged immigrants to come from other islands and distributed land liberally to new settlers in the hope of building up the wealth and the vested interests of Jamaica itself. So for a while, Captain Morgan was disgraced. But under the next governor, he was back in favour again and became second in command of the whole colony. He died rich as a planter with more than a hundred slaves of his own, which in those days and in those places was the principal source of wealth. Now the planters in Jamaica and in the Barbados, tried to preserve England's social hierarchy. They tried to preserve as much as they could of the English way of life as well, and it was a very hierarchical way of life. They didn't even want to eat the local food, even though it was abundant. They'd rather import salted English beef and salted New England fish. The only exception in their diet was the tropical fruits, because early on the English did love, uh, learn to love pineapples and oranges and lemons, limes, watermelons and mangoes, some of the tropical bounty which they encountered when they went to the New World. And during the civil wars of the 1640s and 50s, the Barbados refused to confine their trade to British ships only, because Dutch trade was very, very important to them. The Colonial Assembly of Barbados actually prefigured in one of its own statements the conduct of the Americans 130 years later. They said they wouldn't obey Parliament because, quote, we have no representative persons chosen by us. That would be a slavery far exceeding all that the English nation has yet suffered. They insisted that as long as they were given representation, then they would never alienate themselves from those old heroic virtues of true Englishmen to prostitute our freedom and privileges to which we are born to the will of anyone. In other words, they had a highly developed sense of their rights as Englishmen, even when they were living far away. Now, the slave trade was highly profitable. And in the 17th century, almost nobody seems to have had any qualms about it. England, the Netherlands, France, Spain and Portugal were great trading rivals and they all established slave factories, that is slaving stations, along the coastline of West Africa. King Charles II, the king who was restored after the death of Oliver Cromwell, he came back to the throne in 1660 and he gave monopoly slaving rights to the Royal African Company of 1672. It was, the, it was the successor to another short-lived monopoly, the Company of Royal Adventurers into Africa. It was very difficult for these monopoly companies to hold on to their exclusive right because the trade was so profitable that many people thought it was worth taking the risks of trying to invade the monopoly for the sake of getting wealth in the trade. And in fact, in 1689, the year of the so-called Glorious Revolution, 
the trade was thrown open uh, and was no longer a monopoly. It was open to all comers. Now, the Africa Company kept very good records, and the result is that we know a lot about the slave trade as far back as the 1670s and 80s. And we know that there was a huge demand, uh, first of all in the islands and a bit later in Virginia and Maryland as well. And as the trade became organised, a rising supply of slaves to meet the demand. Between 1670 and about 1700, uh, roughly 7,000 slaves per year were shipped from Africa to the six English islands. About 10,000 a year were going by 1740 and about 13,000 per year by 1770. From the point of view of the sea captains, they preferred the journey to Barbados because a glance at the map will show you it's a much shorter voyage across from the west coast of Africa to Barbados than it is to Jamaica. To get to Jamaica, you have to sail past Barbados and, and far into the Caribbean itself, where, of course, you're much more vulnerable to Spanish predation. African chieftains bartered human captives for metal goods, firearms, alcohol and gunpowder. As the trade became highly organised, uh, great slave raiding networks grew up in the whole of West Africa. Young men were the most valuable from the point of view of the slave owners because it was most likely that they had years of hard work in them still to do. But it wasn't long before the slave owners realised that they must bring in young women as well because the owners soon recognised the need to have roughly equal numbers of men and women on plantations and the virtue of permitting slave marriages to create some kind of social stability in the slave community. To buy a slave in Africa in the late 1600s cost about £3 in English money. And that slave could be sold for about £15 in the islands. Prices would rise very, very sharply during periods of warfare because suddenly the risks became much greater. Now, conditions on the slave ships were awful. They led to epidemics. Sometimes the, an entire cargo of slaves would die, along with many of the sailors. There were periodic slave uprisings on the ships, and there was a very high mortality rate. On arrival at the islands, the slaves were taken off the ships, greased with palm oil, and then taken into the auction houses naked so that they could be checked all over for signs of health and strength. Very often the slaves would be singing laments in their own languages as they were taken into this completely alien environment. You can imagine how uh, terrifying it must have been. Once they'd been bought, they were branded with their owner's marks. And very often, in the 1600s, we were given uh, names which had English or classical references. So we have records of slaves with names like Oxford and Cambridge, or classical names like Scipio, Dido and Nero. And also, by royalists, they'd sometimes be given the name Cromwell. That's a kind of racist joke as a way of slurring Oliver Cromwell by comparing him to a, an African slave. Now, slaves, like indentured servants, were subject to extremely harsh discipline on the West Indies plantations. Masters were legally entitled to flog, mutilate or even kill them without suffering prosecution. Although, of course, the owners early learned that because they were a heavy investment, it made very poor sense to kill a slave unless you'd absolutely got to from the, from the owner's point of view. We also have plenty of documented cases of whipping, branding and castration, extreme measures of intimidation especially because by the later years of the 1600s, there were more black people living on the islands than whites. And as the whites felt themselves to be increasingly outnumbered, they became increasingly afraid of slave rebellions. Slaves were forbidden to learn many skilled crafts, such as that of barrel making. They weren't allowed to become coopers 
or blacksmiths or carpenters or tailors. And this was because the colonial governments wanted to make sure that there were some reserved occupations to which white immigrants would come and to which, which crafts they could then learn so that the disparity in numbers would not become too great. Slave rebellions were frequent, especially in the early days, but were very rarely successful. This is partly because of ethnic and linguistic divisions. The slaves came from many different tribes and many different language groups in Africa and certainly didn't at once regard themselves as, as suffering from common problems. In other words, they'd make sharp distinctions, particularly based on language and tribe. And very often, uh, plantation owners exploited this fact by making sure that they owned slaves from many different groups rather than getting a lot from the same place. Here's a commentator speaking about that in 1694. The safety of the plantations depends upon having Negroes from all parts of Guinea, in other words, Africa, who, not understanding each other's languages and customs, do not and cannot agree to rebel, as they would do when there were too many Negroes from one country. In other words, it's actually in the master's interest to prevent them from being able to communicate. Now, it's also true, of course, that some slaves were more privileged than others. And a, a story which we often hear in the history of American slavery shows up in the West Indies as well, that sometimes the house slave, the ones who worked in domestic work inside the plantation house, were much more favoured than the field slaves and tend to associate their interests with those of the master. In 1675, for example, in Barbados, when a, when a house slave called Fortuna, a woman, heard that the Gold Coast slaves were planning a rising, she told her master she didn't feel any sense of loyalty to the other slaves who came from a different part of Africa. He alerted the governor. They rounded up the ringleaders and sentenced all of them to brutal deaths, including burning alive six, beheading others and having their bodies dragged through the public streets. Even so, this matter of um, linguistic divide and conquer couldn't last as long as the tr slave trade get carried on. And so gradually a Creole dialect grew up, composed of mainly English elements, but with a lot of African words included as well. And each new generation of slaves, those born there and those imported later on from Africa, started to speak the, the Creoles of the islands. Now, of all the English settlements in the West Indies, Jamaica, in some ways, was the most unstable of all politically because it was much bigger than the others and it made it possible for slaves to run away and escape and create alternative communities. These were called the Maroons. And uh, Jamaica, like many of the other Spanish islands, had a big Maroon population already before the English got there, which continued to grow. They lived in the mountains and the jungles and periodically were joined by new groups of runaways, including some uh, dating back to the Spanish era. They formed communities that raided the plantations and towns, robbed and killed whites when they could, and sometimes carried away other slaves. Just to give you an idea of the instability of the area, there were six different rebellions in the 1670s, 80s and 90s in Jamaica alone. One of them lasted for more than a year, 1685 to 6. Slaves killed their masters, marauded along the northern coast of the island, and in turn were hunted with posses and dogs of the terrified whites. This, of course, also contributes to the feeling of chronic instability in the West Indies, uh, as experienced by the masters themselves. The Navigation Acts, passed by Parliament in 1651 and then renewed by the Restoration Government in 1660 and 63, encouraged the growth of the English Merchant Navy, while excluding the Dutch and other rivals. They specified that all English colonial produce must be carried in English ships, whose crews had got to be at least three-quarters English. 
Now, they were responding to the prevailing theory, commercial theory of the time, mercantilism. This was the belief that uh, nations should export more than they import and that they should acquire silver to cover the balance. They also took the view that one nation's gain was bound to be another nation's loss and that all nations are essentially rivals for the limited amount of trade in the world. That's what these days would be called a zero-sum game. It wasn't until quite a lot later that people like Adam Smith began to realize that actually the amount of trade in the world could expand and that everybody could benefit from it. But certainly in the late 1600s, the perception was we're competing against particularly the Dutch and the Spanish for a limited amount of trade in the world. We've got to get as much of it as we can into our own hands. So possession of colonists to provide tropical goods is a way of avoiding having to buy them from one's rivals. And this is a way of squeezing out the Dutch from the carrying trade in which they were a big presence in the 17th century. Britain fought three trade wars against the Dutch in the 1600s, 1652 to 4, 1665 to 7, and 1672 to 4. On the whole, the, these wars were a series of victories. It's true that England lost its colony in Suriname on the mainland of South America to the Dutch, but otherwise it was very successful. Gradually, the strategic balance of forces is moving steadily in favour of England and gradually against the Dutch, who couldn't uh, mobilise the same amount of resources as the British were able to do in this period. Now, in Jamaica itself, a terrible earthquake in the year 1692 destroyed Port Royal, and this was the old Buccaneers city. It was built on a long sand spit at the entrance to a deep harbour. The city had grown up there, and it grew up uh, very compressed with a high density of population, because there wasn't very much space for land, and this became the great Buccaneers headquarters. It was very heavily defended by four forts sporting 94 guns, and as I mentioned earlier, it wasn't quite clear where... Um, Royal authority stopped and the buccaneers' power started. So it was, a, it was a place in which there was a lot of grey areas about the degree of legitimacy in the businesses taking place there. It was also relatively healthy because it was built away from the malarial swamps. One of the great tragedies of the early English colonies in the Americas and in the West Indies was their vulnerability to disease. And when they were built on river estuaries, as they're likely to be in places like Jamestown or the, the Caribbean ports for commercial reasons, this is the place which is the perfect breeding environment environment for malarial mosquitoes, where sometimes it's fresh water and sometimes it's salt water and the, as the tide moves back and forth. That's the perfect place in which to contract malaria. But of course at that time it wasn't realised that, that um, mosquitoes were the vector of malaria. Anyway, a terrible earthquake took place in 1692 and an eyewitness account says, with a hollow rolling noise like thunder, the earth heaved and swelled like rolling billows and cracked open and shut so that the residents were swallowed up or caught by the middle and pressed to death. And in others, their heads only appeared, in which condition dogs came to eat them. The earthquake sheared off a large section of this sand spit, which literally sank into the harbour, taking entire streets of the city with it. All the buildings fell, and several hundred people living there were killed. The only structures left were the slave huts, and so the whites ejected the slaves and moved into these huts for themselves until it became possible to start rebuilding the city. Now, what was the reason for the earthquake? We'd, we'd explain it according to tectonic forces. 
But in the 17th century, the idea of special providences was very widely believed in. That if, for example, there was an earthquake or some other natural disaster, or if there was a drought or a particularly heavy fall of rain, it was usually attributable to God's particular anger against a certain group of people who'd misbehaved themselves. If you look at the, uh, the writings of um, Increase and Cotton Mather, for example, two of the early Puritan divines in America, they often talk about special providences. God's shown his anger by the birth of a deformed calf or by a particular storm. And here's a letter from a Quaker to his brother explaining that the earthquake was caused by God's anger against a very decadent place. And he says, Ah, oh, brother, if thou didst see those great persons that are now dead upon the water, thou couldst never forget it. Great men who were so swallowed up with pride that a man could not be admitted to speak with them and women whose top knots seem to reach the clouds now lie stinking upon the water and are made meat for the fish and fowls of the air. Well, I think that's a very apt quotation for a description of the early days of the British Empire in the Caribbean. It was a place of greed and fear and disease and chronic uncertainty, even though it was also one out of which great fortunes were being made. Lecture 4, Imperial Beginnings in India. Last time we looked at the origins of the British Empire in the Americas and the West Indies. It was also in the early 1600s that the British Empire in the Indian Ocean began, the East Indies and India. India and the Far East were sources of silks and spices, and an exotic drink called tea that could not be made or grown in America, in Europe, I'm sorry. A slow and costly overland trade to India persisted through the Middle Ages. When Vasco da Gama rounded the Cape of Good Hope and sailed into the Indian Ocean in 1497, however, he showed the possibility of direct voyages to India, cutting out all middlemen. The trade, dominated at first by the Portuguese and Dutch, was invaded by Britain's East India Company, to which Queen Elizabeth I granted a monopoly in the year 1600. Voyages to India were extremely risky, but those that succeeded could make merchants rich overnight. The Islamic Mughal Empire was the Indian subcontinent's greatest political power in the 17th century, and only by staying on good terms with such Mughal emperors as Shah Jahan, the builder of the Taj Mahal, which was completed in 1648, could the British traders run their business. As Mughal authority began to decline after 1700, however, the British involved themselves in local Indian power struggles, first to assure uninterrupted trade, then to combat other European challenges. For its first 150 years, however, the East India Company had no intention of becoming the political overlord of India. The Mughal Empire dominated northern and central India throughout the 17th century. It was one of a long series of Muslim invaders of India via the Khyber Pass, the area which today is on the borders between Pakistan and Afghanistan. Uh, and over the previous five centuries, recurrent invasions had taken place. The empire itself was founded by Babur, who was one of the descendants of Genghis Khan. Mughal is just the Persian pronunciation of Mongol. Invading from Afghanistan in the 1520s with the crucial advantage of having gunpowder and primitive cannons. 
Babar's army had a shattering impact in sieges and in fighting against war elephants, which were the great weapon of the Indian princes. Babur also built fake wooden cannons to intersperse with his real ones to add a psychological terror effect against his enemies. Now, to secure the imperial throne, the Mughal emperors had to fight against their brothers. Very often the Mughal emperors had many wives and dozens of sons, and unlike the British monarchy, there was no established principle of primogeniture according to which the oldest son inherited. So instead, a, a fratricidal strife broke out, and the last one left standing, who was able to annihilate his brothers, became the next emperor. The emperor would then share out land to the Muslim elite, the Nawabs, who became local princes, in return for their promise of military service. So it was a kind of Indian version of the feudal system. Hindus could also rise to high positions as servants and as scribes and as trusted advisors to the Mughal emperors. And at least for the first century, the Mughal Empire practiced a high degree of religious toleration, along with a cult of the emperor himself. The capital of the Mughal Empire was in the Jumna River Valley at Agra. And it was there that Akbar the Great, who reigned from 1556 to 1605, met Jesuit priests from Portugal and discussed comparative religion with them. Jahangir, emperor from 1605 to 1627, and Shah Jahan, from 1627 to 1658, brought strong Persian influences into India. Nur Jahan, was Jahangir's wife uh, and came from Persia, herself an artful politician and a patroness of the arts. It was Shah Jahan who built the Taj Mahal in memory of his wife Mumtaz Mahal in Agra. And he also built perhaps the second most famous Mughal building, the Red Fort in Delhi. Mumtaz herself died in 1639, giving birth to their 14th child. For two years, there was a period of prolonged mourning with no music or feasting or celebration at court. And 20,000 labourers worked on land seized from one of the, uh, the king's vassals. Uh, the Taj Mahal was so placed that Shah Jahan himself could see it from the windows of the Red Fort nearby. Among the many great engineering marvels which was necessary to make the building of the Taj Mahal possible, a two and a half mile long inclined plane was built of compressed earth so that the great marble slabs for the, for the roof could be carried up to that altitude. And then once the, once the building had been completed, the inclined plane was systematically demolished, leaving the amazing structure that's still probably the most um, instantly recognisable building in the whole of India even today. The successor to Shah Jahan was Aurangzeb, who ruled from 1658 to 1707. He tried to centralise power in the Mughal Empire and promote Islam in place of his predecessor's policy of religious toleration. And it's very interesting that he did what the British themselves later tried. At first they were indifferent to the religious practices of the Indians, but then later on they decided they were going to try to introduce Christianity. And in both cases it's easy to make the case that this new religious policy was a mistaken one. Aurangzeb extended the empire but in doing so, especially as he moved into southern and, uh, southern and central India, it became increasingly unwieldy, his armies became slow to move, it became bureau bureaucratically stifled. And as he moved further into the subcontinent, Aurangzeb faced constant challenges from the Maratha princes, Hindu powers in south and central India, resenting this new intruder. And after Aurangzeb's death, 
the empire began to break up. Local Indian princes, who'd previously been vassals of the emperor, began to recognize that they could rule on their own account without any effective intervention from Agra. And meanwhile, the emperors faced a series of devastating invasions from the northwest, further invaders across the northwest frontier, particularly Persians, and the periodic plundering of Delhi in the early 1700s. The most dramatic of these invasions was that of Nadir Shah in 1739, who invaded from Iran, sacked Delhi, and carried off the Mughal's peacock throne, which was itself the symbolic object symbolizing Mughal power. Among other things, it had 2,500 pounds of gold in it and may have been the single most valuable object in the entire world. After that, it became a symbol of Persian power. So the Mughal emperors remained on the throne, but were their significance steadily decreased. Now these are the circumstances into which the East India Company came and gradually managed to establish themselves in the 1600s and early 1700s, despite opposition from Portugal and from the Dutch. A Portuguese explorer, Vasco da Gama, had first rounded the Cape of Good Hope, the southernmost tip of South Africa, in 1497 and sailed into the Indian Ocean, landing in Calicut in India in 1498. He and subsequent generations of Portuguese mariners worked out the great monsoon shift. This is the, the vital um, pattern of the winds and the currents in the Indian Ocean. When it's summer in the Northern Hemisphere, the intense heat in India draws the wind from the southwest to the northeast, enabling a ship to sail from Southern Africa towards India. In the winter, when the sea is relatively warmer than the bitter cold in the Himalayan mountains, the wind blows in the opposite direction, away from India, blowing from the northeast towards the southwest, which of course makes it easier for ships to get back towards the Cape of Good Hope, to round the Cape and then pick up the Atlantic currents to get home again. This is the monsoon shift, which dictated the timing of voyages to the Indies. The British East India Company went into business on January the 1st, 1601. It was a joint stock company with 24 directors, and it was given a monopoly by the Queen, Elizabeth I, of all trade east of the Cape of Good Hope and west of Cape Horn, that is to say, all of Asia. It was possible for, for merchant venturers to buy a percentage of one of these voyages with a very big payoff if the, if the voyage was successful. At first, the East India Company specialised in, in voyages to the East Indies for the spice trade, and the very first cargo brought back was a cargo of cloves from the island of Amboina. It was bought locally for £3,000, and it was sold in England for £37,000. In other words, more than a 1,000% profit, which makes it obviously a very, very lucrative trade to be involved in if you can get your ship home successfully. The very first director, Sir Thomas Smythe, determined not to colonise. He said, The Portuguese, notwithstanding their many rich residences, are beggared by the keeping of soldiers. They never made advantage of the Indies since they defended them. It has also been the error of the Dutch who seek plantations here by the sword. Let this be the received rule, that if you will profit seek, seek it at sea and in quiet trade. Well, that's a very ironic remark in, in light of what later on happened to the East India Company. But here we are with the company emphatically dedicated against the proposition that you should become a territorial power as well. 
1623, the British merchants in Amboina were massacred. The Amboina massacre of 1623 diverted the company's attention to India, and it was in India itself that they really began to prosper. Dutch dissatisfaction at British interlopers had led them to seize and kill all the English traders there. And this was a source of lasting ill will between the British and the Dutch, one of the contributing, contributing factors to the Anglo-Dutch wars of the 17th century. The first British voyage to India itself had already been undertaken by William Hawkins in a ship called the Hector, which arrived in India in 1608. He met the emperor, Jahangir, and in fact became one of his drinking companions. He must have been a very urbane fellow because they were able to converse with each other in Turkish. That is itself a sign of the way in which uh, at least some of the English merchants are becoming more adventurous. In 1616, King James I sent an ambassador, Sir Thomas Rowe, to the Mughal court. And because of their successes, the company was permitted to found a factory at Surat. This is on the western coast of northern India, a little way north of the present-day uh, city of Mumbai. At first, Britain had little to offer to India as trade goods, apart from silver, although this was anathema according to the orthodox terms of mercantile theory. But England brought from India calico, uh, indigo, silk and tea. Tea, obviously, is central to English life in the last few centuries, and it's very difficult indeed to imagine an England in which cups of tea are not drink, are not drunk. But the very first ones, the first advertisements we have for tea come in 1658. And it's a little advertisement which reads, quote, that excellent and by all physicians approved China drink, called by the Chinese cha, and by other nations tay, alias tea. The restoration of the English kings in 1660, after the death of Cromwell and the return of Charles II, and a renewed charter to the East India Company in 1661 enlarged the company's powers. It was now free to strike coins, appoint governors, enlist soldiers, arm ships, and make war against all non-Christians. Now, King Charles II himself married Catherine of Braganza, a Portuguese princess, in 1662. This was itself a very important matter, particularly from the point of view of the development of the British Empire in India, because part of her dowry was the port of Bombay. She brought Bombay to England, and it, so it became a British base in India. And it meant that from then on, the Anglo-Portuguese Treaty, which was cemented by the royal wedding, uh, made these two nations allies against the Dutch in the Indian Ocean. Catherine of Braganza liked tea and helped to make it catch on in the 1660s in England. Her first birthday in Britain was in 1663, and the poet Edmund Waller wrote a beautiful poem to celebrate her birthday, and it's a poem which compares the Queen with tea and finds in favour of both of them. It says, Venus has her myrtle, Phoebus has his bays, Tea both excels, which she vouchsafes to praise. The best of queens, the best of herbs, we owe to that bold nation which the way did show to the fair region where the sun does rise, whose rich productions we so justly prize. The muse's friend, tea does our fancy aid. Repress those vapours which the head invade, and keep the palace of the soul serene, fit on her birthday to salute the queen. So the claim is that tea makes you feel better, it suppresses headaches, and it actually stimulates the muse of poetry, so that after drinking a cup of tea, you're better able to write in favour of the Queen. It's a marvellous little bit of courtly um, uh, uh, servility. 
Now the question soon arose about tea as it had about tobacco. Was it, um, was it medicinal? Was it simply tasty or did it actually have medical properties as well? And straight away there were claims that it did in fact have great medical powers. One claim says that it can cure headaches, stone, gravel, dropsy, liptitude, distillations, scurvy, sleepiness, loss of memory, looseness or griping of the guts, heavy dreams and colic proceeding from wind. In other words, it can cure a vast array of the ailments to which ordinary people are vulnerable. And it goes on. If drunk with honey, tea cleanses the kidneys and urethra, and with milk and water it prevents consumption. If you are of corpulent body, it ensures good appetite. And if you have a surfeit, it is just the thing to give you a good, gentle vomit. So, there's its, some of its alleged many good qualities. One of the great documents of uh, 17th century England, which helps us get a vivid sense of life at that time, is Samuel Pepys's diary. Uh, Pepys was one of the important figures in the development of the Royal Navy, and he kept a long diary in code, which has all been decrypted. And he describes how in 1660 he drank his first cup of tea. And in the early 1660s, there was a great fashion for Indian things. So when Pepys was going to have his portrait painted in 1664, he borrowed an Indian robe so he could be, could be dressed up in his Indian fabric to have the painting made of himself. The East India Company built three trading centres at Bombay, which had come with Catherine of Braganza, Madras and Calcutta. Madras on the southeastern coast of India was rented from the Sultan of Golconda in exchange for a fixed tribute starting in the year 1647. Its second governor, the second governor of Madras, a man appointed in 1687, was Elihu Yale, a man who'd been born in Massachusetts but was now a London merchant. He grew immensely wealthy on his own account, and incidentally this was a common practice for the first century and a half of the East India Company. The company itself sometimes seemed to be making very small profits, even though many of its agents were becoming extremely wealthy. That is, of course, because they were so distant from London, and it was so difficult for London to control what was going on, they could work much harder on their own behalf than they did on behalf of the company. And, and, and Elihu Yale was one of the people who did exactly that. In fact, he was fired in 1692 with allegations of uh, corruption. When Cotton Mather wanted to build a college in Connecticut, he asked Elihu Yale for some financial help. Some, for, for, for some financial help. And Yale sent him £560 worth of books and pictures. In gratitude, Mather named the college after him, Yale University. It still exists today. He was buried in Britain at Wrexham, where his gravestone reads as follows. Born in America, in Europe bred, in Africa travelled, and in Asia wed, where long he lived and thrived, in London dead. Much good, some ill he did. So hope all's even, and that his soul through mercy's gone to heaven. You that survive and read this tale, take care for this most certain exit to prepare, where, blessed in peace, the actions of the just smell sweet and blossom in the silent dust. In other words, even his gravestone admits that he did some evil, and that in fact his account is fairly closely balanced. It isn't quite sure what's happened to him next, and the gravestone exhorts um, passers-by to think, I'm going to die too, so I must make sure that, I, uh, that my balance comes out on the good side. In 1690, Job Charnock, trading with the Mughal princes in Bengal, this is in the northeast of India, founded a factory on the Hooghly River. 
named Fort William. And this was the nucleus of the great city of Calcutta, which actually began as an English trading station. The trade of the East India Company was very profitable, and it increased steadily throughout the later half of the 17th century. By the 1680s, 25 or 30 ships every year were sailing to India, and they were very well-built, powerful three-deck gunships built in the Thames estuary. Although the East India Company was private, nevertheless there was a close cooperation between the company and the Royal Navy, which at the time was being built up by Samuel Pepys and other conscientious royal servants. The Royal Navy would escort English ships into the Mediterranean, to the Newfoundland fisheries, into the Baltic for trade with Sweden, and sometimes across the Atlantic. But even so, uh, the Royal Navy hardly went beyond the Cape of Good Hope, and that meant that the East India Company's um, merchant ships also had to be very, very effective fighting ships as well, because they were so far away, once they got to India, beyond the reach of the Royal Navy. Of course, the company factories themselves were always at the mercy of the local princes, so it was a good idea to have powerful fighting machines to fight off potential Indian competitors and other European rivals. Now, there's a constant envy of the East India Company on the part of aspiring outsiders, other people who would have loved to get directly involved in the India trade, but were excluded because of the royal monopoly. Parliament created a rival company in 1698, and it battled the older company until eventually they merged in the year 1709. English merchants, those who did have access to the East India trade, were getting rich on the overseas trade. But it's striking, I think, that just as the trade in Virginia was to tobacco, which many people wanted but nobody really needs, and just as the West Indies fortunes were really based upon sugar, which again is, is, is very tasty and likeable but not strictly necessary, so also it was luxury goods from the East Indies and from India which led to the development and prosperity of the East India Company. In other words, this empire is being built mainly on luxury goods. Let me read you the remarks of Daniel Defoe, writing in 1725. He said, England consumes within itself more goods of foreign growth, imported from the several countries where they are produced or wrought, than any other nation in the world. This importation consists chiefly of sugars and tobacco, of which the consumption in Great Britain is scarcely to be conceived of, besides the consumption of cotton, indigo, rice, ginger, pimento or Jamaica pepper, cocoa or chocolate, rum and molasses. Steadily, the connections between the government and the merchant community was getting, were getting stronger, and the Glorious Revolution of 1688-89 to intensified this process. It was in 1694 that the Bank of England was founded, and again, in the history of the British Empire, it would be hard to overestimate, to overstate the significance of the Bank of England, because it also had the effect of, of strengthening relations between the merchant community and the government. What it meant was this. The Bank of England was so dependable, so, uh, it could so reliably be depended upon to repay its debts, that merchants were uh, highly tempted to lend to the government during periodic uh, wars in the knowledge that they then get a steady return of interest, even though the interest rate was low. 
Uh, and, and that's exactly what happened from then right up to the present. The Bank of England's never had to default. It's given most of the wealthy people in Britain an incentive to invest in the bank. And it's given the government access to low interest loans to undertake foreign ventures. By contrast, throughout the 18th century, the French government was constantly resorting to desperate financial expedients because it couldn't get reliable loans at low interest. So one of the many causes of the success of the British Empire was the prosperity of the Bank of England. In 1707, England and Scotland were also unified by the Act of Union. And this created a Great Britain uh, as a much stronger political and economic unit than hitherto. Always until that time, there had been the constant hazard in England of being surrounded by hostile foreign powers, the French to the south and the Scots to the north. This was particularly true, for example, in the era of Mary, Queen of Scots, when the fear of Catholic encirclement for Protestant England had been very acute. There were two Jacobite rebellions, one in 1715 by the Old Pretender and one in 1745 by the so-called Young Pretender, Bonnie Prince Charlie. They both failed. After that, Scotland became absolutely central to the destiny of the British Empire. Well, in the 18th century, in the 1700s, the Anglo-French wars of that era were played out in India as well as in Europe and North America and the Caribbean. France was relatively a latecomer to the Indian Ocean, but it grew very rapidly after the foundation of two stations, Pondicherry in 1674 and Chandernagore, which is near Calcutta in the Hooghly River Delta, in 1673. It was in the early 18th century that Joseph-Francois Duplay of the French East India Company demonstrated the superiority of European-trained armies over those of India. He realised that he himself had the opportunity, in effect, to become an Indian prince if he could concentrate decisive military force. And in the context of the decline of the Mughal Empire, this certainly seemed to be possible. So Duplay sponsored an Indian claimant to the Carnatic region. This is the coastal state, including Pondicherry and Madras. And then he trained an army of 7,000 Indians in French service. Sepoys is the name for Indian soldiers in European service. He trained them in European style of army discipline, marching in close formation and firing volleys from muskets from close range. And sure enough, that had the effect of beating all Indian challengers. Their drill and their discipline were too much for the Indian cavalry they came up against. Duplay's force captured Madras in 1746, the British trade station, and would have held on to it, except that a European treaty in 1748, the Treaty of Aix-la-Chapelle, restored it to England. Now, it's at this moment that one of the most famous uh, heroes of the early British Empire steps onto the stage, Robert Clive, Clive of India. He started out as a clerk in the East India Company, but distinguished himself in the conflicts of the 1740s and 50s. Born in 1725, he'd been hopeless in school, but nevertheless developed a very good writing style. In this respect, similar to Winston Churchill, who later on was to be a, a duffer in school, but become a great English prose stylist. He went out to India in 1744 at the age of 18 as a writer, that is, a clerk in the, in the company's service. And just to give you an idea of how difficult it was to get to India, even after a century and a half of practice, the ship was damaged en route and had to put in for repairs in Brazil for nine months. And while he was there, he learned to speak Portuguese. He suffered from what we'd call bipolar disorder and uh, early on in India, feeling miserable and bereft, attempted suicide, but the attempt failed. 
He had other periods of extremely high spirits when he showed wonderful enterprise and initiative. And this is where he really steps onto the stage of history. He escaped from Madras in 1746 when Duplay's army had besieged it. His superiors recognised his bravery and his determination. And like Duplay, Clive realised that the disciplined structure of European armies and their weapons could give a small European force an immense advantage in warfare, even, even facing an Indian army of far greater numbers. He was intense, an intense believer in seeking glory as a soldier. And he believed that the Indians instinctively favoured despots, that is, that they would respect him if he won victories over them. Well, in one of these many wars of the, uh, of the 1740s and 50s, he seized the city of Arcot from the local prince, who was allied to the French, uh, and then held it against a besieger called Raja Sahib. And I'd like to read you now a description of what happened during the siege from the 19th century historian Thomas Babington Macaulay, who wrote a wonderful essay on the early history of the British Empire in India. It's very vivid writing. Macaulay says, The little garrison had been greatly reduced by casualties. It now consisted of 120 Europeans and 200 sepoys. Only four officers were left. The stock of provisions was scanty. And the commander, who had to conduct the defence under circumstances so discouraging, was a young man of but five and twenty who'd been bred as a bookkeeper. But the devotion of the little band to its chief surpassed anything that is related of the Tenth Legion of Caesar or the Old Guard of Napoleon. An attempt made by the governor of Madras to relieve the place had failed. But there was hope from another quarter. A body of 6,000 Marathas, half soldiers, half robbers, under the command of a chief named Murari Rao, had been hired to assist. When the besiegers learned that the Marathas were in motion, and it was necessary for them to be expeditious, Raja Sahib determined to storm the fort. Clive had received secret intelligence of the design, had made his arrangements, and, exhausted by fatigue, had thrown himself on his bed. He was awakened by the alarm, and was instantly at his post, the enemy advanced, driving before them elephants whose foreheads were armed with iron plates. It was expected that the gates would yield to the shock of these living battering rams. But the huge beasts no sooner felt the English musket balls than they turned round and rushed furiously away, trampling on the multitude which had urged them forward. After three desperate onsets, the besiegers retired behind the ditch. The struggle lasted about an hour. Four hundred of the assailants fell. The garrison lost only five or six men. Well, in this war, there was a complicated mixture of French and British victories. But the French company directors were dismayed at the interruption of trade, which all this represented. They regarded Duplay not, uh, not as a national hero, but as an adventurer who was causing trouble to a trading company. And in fact, they dismissed him in disgrace. They then offered concessions to the British company in exchange for peace, not foreseeing how soon the war was going to recur and how they were giving away a powerful strategic advantage. By 1755, when the next war started, the war we refer to as the French and Indian Wars, or which in Europe is called the Seven Years' War, the Prime Minister, William Pitt, was very aware of the strategic importance of India and also of the importance of dominating the sea lanes between England and India. By then, the Royal Dockyards were the single largest industrial enterprise in the world. This is just before the Industrial Revolution, but many of the, uh, of the policies, like the concentration of labour in one place, which became common in an industrial society, were undertaken first in the Royal Dockyards. To us, it surely seems like an anomaly 
that a private company should be undertaking uh, actions which had such immense political and public consequences. But in the time, in fact from the 1500s through the 1700s, such, such things were quite common. Lecture 5 Clive and the Conquest of India As the British East India Company tried to fight off the challenge of its French counterpart, it also recognized the advantage of taking over the country around its factories to create political stability and to secure a steady tax base. Now that the Mughal Empire was too weak to control its outer provinces, local princes could threaten the company's position, as Siraj ud dwala showed when he seized Calcutta in, in 1756 and imprisoned the residents in the Black Hole. Robert Clive, already famous for his exploits at Arcot, led the company's army to a succession of victories against French and against Indian rivals in the 1750s. His triumph at the Battle of Plassey in 1757, despite being outnumbered more than 10 to 1, gave the company control over the whole of Bengal and laid the foundation for British domination of all India. The nabobs of the following generation were Englishmen who exploited this new situation to make themselves fabulously wealthy, often at the expense of the Indian princes and people. One of them, Warren Hastings, was impeached by Parliament in a case that prompted the British government to intervene directly in the company's rule. Clive's exploits in the late 1750s transformed the East India Company into the most powerful political force in India. I think it's important to emphasize right away that there was, then no, there was no concept then of India as a nation. It had never been politically united and in fact was extremely fragmented politically and fragmented religiously and even locally by castes. Uh, in, within Hinduism there's an immensely complicated caste system which is very often not only, not only segments the people but also specifies a particular caste position in a particular place. So the idea of India as one united political entity which we have is certainly not an idea which was shared at the time. So the British didn't have to face a united opposition as they gradually became more powerful. Neither did they have to overcome the idea that they were outsiders any more than all the other invaders who'd come into India successively over the previous few centuries. Now the centre of, of the British activity was Calcutta, and the historian Jeremy Bernstein describes it like this. A scattered and confused chaos of houses, huts, sheds, streets, lanes, alleys, windings, gutters, sinks and tanks which jumbled into an undistinguished mass of filth and corruption, equally offensive to human sense and health. The surrounding swamp was poorly drained. The jungle was malarial. The innumerable ditches were cesspools. Putrefying bodies of men and animals lay on the banks of the river and in the streets and watercourses. The only drains were open canals. The scavenging was done by jackals at night and by vultures, kites and crows during the day. Sanitation, even of the most primitive kind, was non-existence. And even in the great tank, which provided the settlement with drinking water, pariah dogs with mange were known at times to bathe and drink. 
Now, the Prince of Bengal, Siraj Ad-Dwala, was one of the successors to one of the local Mughal realms. He recognized his capacity to rule in his own interest because Mughal power could no longer adequately extend over Bengal. And in the summer of 1756, he seized Fort William, the British fort, to prevent the spread of the company's power. His pretext was that the company had fortified its post without permission. He took 146 of the British residents and imprisoned them in a small dungeon which became known as the Black Hole. It was about 24 by 18 feet in dimensions, usually the place where one or two drunks might be thrown to sleep off a night of uh, excess. But this is in the stifling heat of a Bengal summer, and that night 123 of them died, according to one of the survivors, John Hallowell, although there are conflicting accounts, and there's the suggestion that to emphasise the horror of it, Hallowell actually increased the real number. Now, it wasn't a calculated outrage on the part of the prince, but rather an act of neglect. The historian C.E. Carrington later wrote, There was nothing in the story of the black hole to shock the sensibilities of Indian politicians. The English prisoners were lucky not to be robbed, tortured and impaled on stakes, the usual fate of defeated armies in the wars of the Mughals. But it's certainly true that the black hole of Calcutta became and remained a vivid element in the folklore of British India. Siraj himself was an unstable and vicious tyrant. He was sexually very promiscuous with men and women, and there are stories that, for example, he ordered a ferry boat to be sunk so that he could watch the people drown, that he cut open pregnant women to see what they looked like inside. We'd call him a psychopath. Now, I quoted to you previously from Thomas Babington Macaulay, the, the 19th century historian who wrote so colourfully about British India, and here's his description of Siraj. Oriental despots are perhaps the worst class of human beings. And this unhappy boy was one of the worst specimens of his class. His understanding was naturally feeble, and his temper naturally unamiable. His education had been such as would have enervated even a vigorous intellect, and perverted even a generous disposition. He was unreasonable because nobody ever dared to reason with him, and selfish because he had never been made to feel dependent on the goodwill of others. Early debauchery had unnerved his body and his mind. He indulged immoderately in the use of ardent spirits, which inflamed his weak brain almost to madness. His chosen companions were flatterers, sprung from the dregs of the people, and recommended by nothing but buffoonery and servility. It is said that he had arrived at that last stage of human depravity when cruelty becomes pleasing for its own sake. So nothing lost in the telling there from Macaulay. Clive recaptured the city of Calcutta and forced Siraj to evacuate. Then he ordered the restitution of British assets. But it's notable that he felt far less outrage about the black hole than the story later acquired by subsequent retellers of the story, particularly in Victorian days. And I think we can look back on it and say this is one of the ways in which the British justified their own action. In other words, it's us or tyrants like that. Clive now decided that he was going to prevent a recurrence of this kind of threat by dominating Bengal. But even so, he was more concerned about the power of the French, which was growing steadily in India. 
And it was just then that news came to him that an Anglo-French war had broken out. This is the war which in Europe is remembered as the Seven Years' War, and in America is called the French and Indian War. That's referring to the American Indians as opposed to the Indian Indians. Now, Admiral Watson, whose ships had brought Clive to Bengal, attacked Chandernagore, the nearby French fort, and forced it to surrender. And then Clive made his crucial decision. Disobeying company orders, he led his small army of about 3,000 to Plassey, upstream from Calcutta. And it was there in June of 1757 that the East India Company's army fought the Battle of Plassey. It was vastly outnumbered, but... Clive had bribed Mir Jafar, who was Siraj Adwala's army commander, with the promise of the throne. Nevertheless, it must have been an absolutely terrifying situation. Facing an army of about 50,000, there were roughly 1,000 British soldiers in the employ of the East India Company, about 2,000 sepoys, that is Indians trained and in the service of the British, and about eight field guns. Although Clive hoped and expected that, Mar that Mir Jafar might change sides, he was aware that someone unscrupulous enough to make a promise of this kind was also unscrupulous enough perhaps not to follow through on his promise. Clive always uh, had a mercurial temperament, um, periods of profound depression, followed by bouts of intense activity. After the anxious prelude to the battle, he sheltered in a hunting lodge and, and prepared his defensive position. And as the armies contacted, began to fire steadily. Now, the battle was fought in terrific heat. This is June in India. It was so hot that men wearing armour were burned by their own armour plate. A sudden monsoon down, downpour wetted the Indians' powder and made it difficult for their artillery to fire. But Clive had foreseen this and had been given very strict instructions to his own gunners to keep their powder dry. The close volleys of the Indian, of the Indian soldiers, the, the sepoys fighting in British service, terrified the Indian army facing them, especially when they hit the elephants and the artillery bullocks, the animals which were pulling Indian cannons. Siraj himself panicked and fled the field and most of the army stampeded after him. So Clive's plan had worked, and he'd won the battle. Siraj Dwala fled. Mir Jafar, who'd changed sides, became the prince instead, according to Clive's promise. And his son, Miran, hunted down and killed Siraj, the tyrant. In effect, Clive, by making this great risk in violation of company orders, had now made himself the overlord of Bengal and the first real British ruler in India. So this is 150 years after the founding of the East India Company. Only now does the company become a major or a significant political power. And it's a great achievement, in some ways more impressive than the ability of Cortes or Pizarro to overcome the great American empires, because Clive faced a very adverse disease situation. The British were more vulnerable to disease than the local people, whereas in Cortes's case it had been the other way around. And both sides in this battle had potentially the same technology. It's true that in practice Clive's army was much better disciplined and, and, and used its gunpowder to maximum effect, but it wasn't facing a technologically very inferior adversary. Well, from then on, Mir Jafar ran the internal affairs of Bengal, but it was the East India Company which got most of the money. Mir Jafar himself gave to Clive a gift of £240,000. To get a sense of its value today, you'd have to multiply that probably by more than a 100. It had the effect of instantly making him one of the very wealthiest men in Britain. 
Among the gifts that Mir Jafar gave to Clive, interestingly, was four giant tortoises from the Seychelles Islands. And the last one died very recently, Adwaitia was its name. It died in, on March the 23rd, 2006 at Alipur Zoo in Calcutta, aged 255. Isn't it interesting to think that even in our own day, we can have contact with an animal which was a gift given to Clive when it was itself young. Clive deposed Mir Jafar when he proved uncooperative, giving further testimony to the fact that he was really the overlord of Bengal. Here's one of Clive's letters to the company dire the, the directors of the East India Company, talking about the unscrupulousness, as he saw it, the unscrupulousness of the Indians and the need for the British not to have to rely on the sort of treachery which had worked previously. It, writing to the company directors, Clive says, I can assert with some degree of confidence that this rich and flourishing kingdom may be totally subdued by so small a force as 2,000 Europeans. The Indians are indolent, luxurious, ignorant and cowardly beyond all conception. They attempt everything by treachery rather than by force. What is it then can enable us to secure our present acquisitions or improve upon them, but such a force as leaves nothing to the power of treachery or ingratitude. The war had a very successful outcome, not only against the local princes, but also against the French, who were defeated at their southern Indian fortress of Pondicherry in 1761. The Treaty of Paris in 1763 brought the war to an end. And from that time onwards, although the French and the Dutch East India companies were allowed to maintain their trading stations, the trading factories, they were no longer allowed to fortify them or keep garrisons there. And this, of course, marked the decisive uh, ascension of the British over all other foreign competitors to influence over India. It wasn't just the princes of Bengal, but also many of the other princes recognising this shift in the political winds, who started to give great gifts to the British to buy their goodwill and their support. And this enabled the first generation of British uh, political exploiters of India to become immensely wealthy. They're called the Nabobs. Calcutta itself... Uh, Clive's site in, in 1756 and 7 was the site of the very richest trade in India, more so than in the poorer south. Now in 1764, Clive went back to India. This was his third visit to India. And this time he went back as commander-in-chief and as governor. He'd used his wealth to buy a controlling interest in the East India Company itself. So now he was one of the most important people deciding what, how the company would proceed. He arranged with the Mughal emperor the grant of the Diwani, that is to say, the right to gather taxes from the roughly 20 million people of Bengal. And that was an annual revenue of something like three million pounds. He cautioned the company against the temptation towards further expansion. He recognised that already the company's army was probably strong enough to take Delhi itself, that is to take over from the Mughal emperors. But of course he, he recognised that first it would be costly and second, the more political dominance Britain demonstrated, the more likely it was that they'd also arouse opposition and that if they weren't careful they'd become involved in endless defence expenditures uh, as they campaigned against new potential rivals. Surely, said Clive, it's better to let the princes remain independent and let them ask the company for its protection 
And from then right through the whole history of the British Empire, although the, the, uh, although the British gradually increased their direct political control, much of it stayed nominally in the hands of the local princes with British overlordship. Clive then uh, began to supervise the reform of the Indian civil service itself in the hope that he could prevent the worst abuses of the nabobs in plundering the local people. But it was extremely difficult to do it, partly because most of the company's servants saw Clive himself as the example they wanted to follow. He was the model, a man who took very big risks and got very big gains for doing so. They wanted to enrich themselves as well. Clive himself perfectly understood that there was a kind of madness to a private company like the East India Company running an area whose population was probably three times as great as that of the, of the entire United Kingdom at the time. Bengal itself and the neighbouring states of Bihar and Orissa were now under effective British control and stripped bare of wealth in the years after 1760. They became vulnerable to famine and a horrible famine swept the area in the early 1770s and may have killed as many as five million people. Listen to a letter from George Bogle, a man who'd just gone out to India working for the company for the first time. And when he got to Calcutta, this is his description of conditions there. There were sometimes 150 dead bodies picked up in a day and thrown into the river. Whole families perished of hunger or fed upon the leaves of trees or, contrary to their religion, ate animal food. Some even subsisted on dead carcasses. Their distress is unparalleled, and it shocks one to think of it. And uh, Bogle also reported that there were incidents of cannibalism as well, uh, uh, phases of in acute starvation. Warren Hastings made a fortune in India, but he was impeached by Parliament for acting like an Oriental despot, and this is symbolic of the next phase of British rule in India. By a regulating act of 1773, the British government appointed a Council of State and a Supreme Court of Justice to supervise company affairs in India. Already by the 70s, in other words, there's a certain amount of government political cooperation in Indian affairs. The, gov the British government could clearly see that many of the nabobs were returning home very rich, and yet the company itself was no longer profitable and sometimes couldn't even pay its annual charter fee to the government. In other words, it, the company's own officers were plundering India and deceiving the company on a, a Wagnerian scale. Warren Hastings was the first Governor-General under the Act, and he was appointed by Prime Minister Lord North, the same Prime Minister who uh, dominated British politics during the American War of Independence. Now, unlike Clive, who in many ways was a rough adventurer, Hastings was a classical scholar. He was fluent in Persian and Urdu and Hindi. He learned how to read Sanskrit, and he had the great Indian classics translated into English. He was a friend of Dr. Johnson, the author of the world's first dictionary. He was patron of a Muslim college in Calcutta. And Warren Hastings founded the Bengal Asiatic Society, one of whose early members was Sir William Jones, the Chief Justice of Bengal, and the man who theorised the common origins of Sanskrit, Greek and Latin, what we call the theory of the Indo-European languages. So in all these respects, Warren Hastings appears to be a totally different kind of person than Robert Clive. And yet, like Clive, he's, he uh, played the part of an autocrat and made himself almost boundlessly wealthy. Among uh, Hastings' many political initiatives was sending a, the first British diplomatic mission to Tibet in 1774. 
He appointed Englishmen as tax collectors throughout Bengal, replacing the local people. He established law and order. And like Clive, he tried to stop company men from trading on their own accounts on the side. He centralised the accounting process in Calcutta and, uh, and stopped paying an annual bounty to the Nawab, the, the puppet prince in Murshidabad. The other two British stations in India, Bombay and Madras, both became involved in local wars during the administration of Warren Hastings. And of course, the Indian princes had learned from what had happened at Plassey. Now they started hiring British uh, officers and hiring um, British or European mercenaries to fight in the European style. And that, of course, meant that they weren't going to be so easily defeated as, as had been Siraj Adwala's army in 1757. To save Bom Bombay and Madras, Hastings sent military support from Bengal to rescue them successfully. In 1778, he heard about the British defeat at Saratoga in the, during the American War of Independence, and he insisted it was particularly important, important now for the British to win a military victory in India, otherwise the news that they'd been defeated elsewhere in the world would show the erosion of British prestige and resolve. That's itself an indication of the way in which the British Empire's already got a world's bestriding uh, significance. Hastings forced the subordinate princes in Benares and Oud to pay special charges to meet the cost of these wars. And he was successful. The rebellions against Be uh, Bombay and Madras were suppressed. Hastings was accustomed to getting his own way. He acted like an Indian autocrat. He finally resigned and returned to England in 1785, at the age of 53. After hearing that by new legislation of 1784, the India Act, the British cabinet was creating a board of control, that is, in intensifying its control over the conduct of the East India Company. In 1788, he was impeached. Edmund Burke, who was one of the leaders of the Whig Party in Parliament, regarded Hastings' conduct in India as intolerable. He saw him as a despot, acting in a way which was totally indefensible for an Englishman. We remember Edmund Burke really as one of the great founders of uh, the English conservative tradition, but he was a member of the Whig Party, which emphasised the importance of balanced powers in the Constitution. And, and Burke, in his challenge to Hastings, raised the question of whether Bombay, or I'm sorry, whether Bengal ought to be governed in the same way as Britain. Should British political principles apply everywhere? There was a growing fear in England in the 1760s and 70s that wealth coming from India with the Nabobs was transforming British political life. It was bringing a great deal of new vulgar wealth into the nation. For example, Lord Chatham said in 1770, The riches of Asia have been poured in upon us and brought with them not only Asiatic luxury, but I fear Asiatic principles of government. The importers of foreign gold have forced their way into Parliament by such a torrent of private corruption as no private hereditary fortune could resist. That's an indication of the fear generated in England among the political establishment of this new wealth and power. Now, Hastings made the mistake of defending his conduct in India in an excruciatingly detailed speech which lasted for two days. Edmund Burke was profoundly unconvinced by it. And here's Burke's answer, speaking to the House of Lords. My Lords, you have now heard the principles on which Mr. Hastings governs the part of Asia subjected to the British Empire. He has declared his opinion that he is a despotic prince, 
that he is to use arbitrary power. And of course, all his acts are covered with that shield. I know, says he, the constitution of Asia only from its practice. Will your lordship submit to hear the corrupt practices of mankind made the principles of government? He have arbitrary power? My lords, the East India Company has not arbitrary power to give him. The king has no arbitrary power to give him. Your lordships have not, nor the commons, nor the whole legislature. And Burke went on to raise the whole question of geographical morality, uh, asking the question, if some conduct is wrong in one place, surely it's equally wrong wherever it's undertaken. He said, The laws of morality are the same everywhere, and there is no action which would pass for an act of extortion, of peculation, of bribery and oppression in England that is not an act of extortion, of peculation, of bribery and oppression in Europe, Asia, Africa, the world over. I trust and hope your lordships will not judge by laws and institutions which you do not know against those laws and institutions which you do know and under whose power and authority Mr. Hastings went out to India. Now, in fact, that's a very, very difficult question and it remains so right up to the present. Is it true that the rules of morality are the same everywhere? We could get into a complex debate on that question. Certainly, even today, British and American companies operating in certain parts of the world where gift-giving, for example, is central to the drawing up of contracts, have to face this question. If we don't give a gift, we certainly won't get the contract. But if we do give the gift, we're doing what in England or what in America would be described as bribery. So can one's conduct change according to local customs, or can one not? Warren Hastings himself felt betrayed, and he told the directors of the East India Company in a shocked letter, I enlarged and gave shape and consistency to the dominion which you hold. I preserved it. I sent forth its armies with an effectual but economical hand through unknown and hostile regions to the support of your other possessions. That's his reference to the way in which his campaigns had saved Madras and Bombay. I gave you all and you have rewarded me with confiscation, disgrace and a life of impeachment. Well, finally, in 1795, he was acquitted by Parliament. Year after year, the uh, impeachment proceedings dragged on. The legal costs of his defence almost ruined him. And this was one of those cases where the entire nation took sides. It's comparable to the uh, Bill Clinton impeachment at the very end of the last century, when everybody had an opinion to give, although with this difference, that the Clinton affair was compressed into the space of one year, whereas Warren Hastings' impeachment dragged on for almost a, almost a decade. Finally, abuse of Hastings led to a reaction in his favour. He was granted a pension from the company, and he lived out the last 20 years of his life as a country squire in, a, in respectable prosperity. Now, the next Governor-General of India was the Earl of Cornwallis, the man who lost the Battle of Yorktown. In American history, that's where he disappears from, from history, at Yorktown. But in British history, he remains very important. He wasn't disgraced by Yorktown because the government understood that a French blockade of the Chesapeake Bay had made it impossible for British ships to uh, come to, to rescue Cornwallis's army. He became the Governor-General of India in 1786 and introduced some wide-ranging reforms in response to the criticisms made of Hastings and the, earl the early autocracy of the first generation of nabobs. 
and Cornwallis was widely admired as incorruptible. He fired company officials who were lining their own pockets. There were many of them. But he also pointed out to the board of the East India Company that salaries ought to be high. The practice of the company had always been to pay very low salaries in the knowledge that the men were going to trade on their own account. Under Cornwallis, a new principle was established. Pay high salaries so that they'll be far less tempted to, to cheat and to trade on their own account. In 1793, uh, the the so-called Zamindari settlement, imposed British common law on Bengali landholding. In other words, this, this is introducing new principles governing land tenure. And it had the effect of introducing the, what was then the alien British concept of private property. That, of course, increased the advantages of the Zamindari, or the local landholders, who now had a very obvious incentive to support the East India Company themselves. And it certainly contributed to the stability of Bengal into the foreseeable future. Cornwallis also reformed the company army. All the officers from this time forward were, were to be British and no sepoy could hope to rise from the ranks. So he introduced a fairly rigid principle of racial segregation. The leadership was going to be English, the troops were going to be Indian. But for the moment at least, Cornwallis understood the importance of leaving local customs alone. Local customs and religion weren't touched by the East India Company. They took the view, as long as we can trade, which was, our, which was our original purpose, and as long as we can collect taxes, and as long as we've got political peace in Bengal and in the other states in which Britain's now influential, that's as far as we want to go. It wasn't until the next generation that the idea of introducing Christian missionaries into India and attempting to convert some of the Indian people to Christianity began. And in retrospect, it's arguable that, th that that British attempt proved to be a very great mistake, as we'll see when we turn a little bit later on in the course to the later history of the British in India. Lecture 6. Wolf and the Conquest of Canada. Britain's greatest rival through the 18th century was France. But in the Seven Years' War, from 1756 to 1763, Britain overpowered French armies, first in India and then in North America. The lands around the St. Lawrence River and the Great Lakes had been colonised by French traders, trappers, farmers and Jesuit missionaries ever since the early 1600s. Settler populations in this harsh northern environment were small, but the fur trade was lucrative. British settlers on the Massachusetts frontier suffered recurrent raids by Indians in French service sent from Quebec to harass them and to take hostages. A series of British military expeditions of the 1740s and 50s attacked French Canada, first at the fortress of Louisbourg in Nova Scotia, and then upriver at Quebec. In 1759, a British commander, General James Wolfe, defeated his French counterpart, Louis-Joseph de Montcalm, on the Plains of Abraham outside Quebec, then secured the city against counterattack. Canada became a British possession by the Treaty of Paris that ended that war in 1763. To pay off its heavy war debts, however, the British government imposed new taxes, not just at home, but also on the American colonies. 
which now enjoyed greater security than ever before. The Stamp Act, mandating one of these taxes, soon became the object of bitter colonial resentment. Well, France had colonized the St. Lawrence Valley in the 17th and early 18th centuries. A glance at the map will show that the St. Lawrence River and the Ottawa River and the Great Lakes give access far into the interior of North America, that in fact it's possible to go almost continuously by water all the way to the headwaters of the Mississippi Valley. Jacques Cartier explored the St. Lawrence Valley in the 1530s. He realized that it wasn't the Northwest Passage, it wasn't a direct route to China, the great chimerical hope of so many people in those times, but it was the best access point into the interior of North America itself. I think it's very important when we're studying America before the Revolution not to read current boundaries backwards. It wasn't at all clear then that everything south of the Great Lakes was eventually going to belong to English-speaking uh, North America. In fact, the logic of the geography means that from the Great Lakes, which you approach by the St. Lawrence River, it's then very easy to get to the headwaters of the Ohio River and, and from there, of course, down into the Mississippi Valley itself. On the other hand, it's very difficult from the old 13 colonies to cross the Appalachian Mountains and get to the headwaters of the Ohio River. And this was one of the great issues of the, of the politics of the colonial era. Samuel Champlain founded Quebec in 1608. In other words, just one year after Jamestown in Virginia. So the two colonies, the French one to the north and the British one to the south, grew up in tandem. A long and profitable fur trade developed in French Canada. Beaver fur hats were high-status items in Europe, and this was one more of the luxury trades on which the European empires in the New World were based. Every year, Indians dispersed over vast distances to hunt the beaver, and then in the spring, when the rivers thawed, brought them back to exchanges at Quebec, for example, and traded them for guns, ammunition, alcohol, and metal goods. The overhunting of the beaver populations led to gradual exhaustion of the, of the animals and the need to range ever further afield, so all the way across the Canadian prairies and right into the Rocky Mountains by the late 1700s. French traders were also moving further into the interior because of a rival English fur trade based in Albany, New York. It's at Albany that you have access to the Mohawk River, which flows from west to east, and is another of these routeways through the Appalachian Mountains, which was so crucial to getting beyond the coast of North America. But it was the voyageurs, by now a fabled group of men, who adapted Indians' birch bark canoes, which were light enough to be carried over portages when you had to carry the canoe past a waterfall, but were strong enough to be able to carry big cargoes of furs and to take them long distances across the lake and river systems of Canada. Now, among the interesting French people who went to the colonization of the Americas were the Jesuit missionaries, and they struggled to convert the Indians, very often accompanying them on winter hunting expeditions. The Jesuits, it was an order founded in the, during the Counter-Reformation of the 1500s. It was a difficult order to get into. You had to be highly cultivated and well-educated. They're members of the elite, very good at languages, often from wealthy families. But once they went to live with the Indians, they were living in incredibly primitive and dangerous circumstances. Isaac Jogue, one of the most famous, was captured by the Mohawks and his fingers were burned and bitten off. He was granted a papal dispensation to give the mass 
even though he was no longer able to hold the bread between his thumb and forefinger, which is one of the necessities for a Catholic priest. Later, back in Canada, and still hungering for martyrdom, he was blamed for a crop failure and beheaded. One of the, uh, there, there are a lot of astonishing stories about the early Jesuit martyrs, and they were dedicated to the idea that a glorious um, martyr's death in Christ's name was a wonderful way to go. Now, they wrote very detailed letters, which they sent back to the Jesuit headquarters in Europe. And so we know, we know a lot about the Jesuit missions. And indirectly, we also know a lot about the Indians with whom they were living because of the, because of the priest's detailed and literary descriptions of the, of the time they spent there uh, in, the, in the wilderness. One of my favourites of the Jesuits' letters is the letter of Paul Lejeune from 1634. He went hunting with a group of Indians behind the St. Lawrence Valley. And they're moving around and building temporary wigwams, just primitive um, wooden structures. It was so cold that they had to fill, build a huge fire right in the middle of the hut. And then lots of people would pile in along with all their hunting dogs. And he says the worst aspect of, of being in the hut was the smoke. Here's his description from one of his letters. As to the smoke, I confess to you that it is a martyrdom. It almost killed me and made me weep continually. It sometimes grounded all of us who were in the cabin. That is, it caused us to place our mouths against the earth in order to breathe. For, although the savages were accustomed to this torment, yet occasionally it became so dense that they as well as I were compelled to prostrate themselves and, as it were, to eat the earth so as not to drink the smoke. I've sometimes remained several hours in this position, especially during the most severe cold and when it snowed. For it was then that the smoke assailed us with the greatest fury, seizing us by the throat, nose and eyes. How bitter is this drink! How strong its odour! How hurtful to the eyes are its fumes! I sometimes thought I was going blind. My eyes burned like fire. They wept or distilled drops like an alembic. He says that periodically he'd go outside because he just simply couldn't stand the smoke anymore. But this is a Canadian winter and it was so cold that the very trees were cracking from the intensity of it. So uh, marvellous descriptions by the priests. And it isn't as though they were welcome on these hunting parties. On the contrary, they're, they're debating theology with the local sachems, the, uh, the, the, the equivalent of priests, in the population they're, they're moving along, and they're being ridiculed for what they say. So in addition to all the material hardships, he's also psychologically unwelcome and having to battle all the time to make the case for the gospel. Farming settlers came later to Canada, and they came in smaller numbers than to the much more fertile lands that were settled by Britain further south. But there was a colony of French peasant farmers settling mainly along the banks of the St. Lawrence River between Quebec and Montreal. And these were farms which had a frontage on the river. Very often when a farmer had several sons, he'd subdivide the farm. Uh, and when you fly over the, uh, the St. Lawrence River, even today, you can look down and see the remains of this form of settlement with uh, farms stretching back perpendicular to the line of the river itself. Now, although they were inferior in numbers, the French raids on New England, especially raids made by Indians in French service, caused intense anxiety to frontier settlements like Deerfield, Massachusetts, which was then a frontline community. And of course, throughout, all, throughout the 16 and 1700s, a Catholic Protestant dimension added a religious element to this conflict. In 1704, for example, a group of Indians in French service attacked Deerfield. They killed 48 people, arriving at dawn and surprising the community. 
and captured 112 of them. This is right in the middle of the winter and, and ran off with many of the women and children. The villagers were unable to pursue because few of them had snowshoes. Many of the children were forcibly converted to Catholicism in Montreal and ransom demands were issued. And the, 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 sequence, the, the, the consequences of this raid were played out over the next 50 years. Some of the hostages never got home again and others not for decades. But raids like this helped to explain the intensity of the Anglo-French rivalry and, and the bitter mutual suspicion and hostility which was characteristic of the time. Now in the late 16 and early 1700s, a long succession of wars between France and England were played out partly in Europe and partly in the Americas. King William's War, the War of the Spanish Succession, the War of Jenkins' Ear, the War of the Austrian Succession. This was the war in which, for the very last time, a King of England led his own soldiers into battle, the Battle of Dettingen in 1743. That was King George II. The Seven Years' War, or what in America is called the French and Indian War. And at the same time, there was the constant danger of French help to uh, rival claimants to the British throne. King James II had fled in 1688 uh, and had gone to live in France. Uh, and his son, the old pretender, and then his son, Bonnie Prince Charlie, periodically attacked Britain in the hope of restoring the Catholic Stuart monarchy. Uh, the last time this threat was, uh, was real was in 1745, Bonnie Prince Charlie's invasion. And he was finally decisively defeated at the Battle of Culloden Moor in Scotland in 1746. Now, British fishermen had been plying the Grand Banks for more than two centuries by the early 1700s. I mentioned that they were some of the very first blue water sailors to go far out across the Atlantic. And it was Britain which acquired Nova Scotia and Newfoundland and Hudson's Bay by treaty in 1713, the Treaty of Utrecht, which ended the War of the Spanish Succession. North of the French colonies, the Hudson's Bay Company was in operation. They'd started up in 1670. And again, their interest was in getting beaver furs from the many river systems which drain into the Hudson's Bay itself. They felt themselves to be vulnerable to French raids. But at the same time, the French in the St. Lawrence Valley felt themselves to be vulnerable to the possibility of English encirclement, with Massachusetts to their south and the Hudson's Bay Company to their north. So along with the principle of no peace beyond the line, there's this feeling of, of political threat and anarchy all around. Now, in 1745, a British force seized the fortress of Louisbourg. This is the fortress guarding the entrance to the St. Lawrence estuary. And this is during the War of the Austrian Succession. It's on Cape Breton Island, which is the eastern end of Nova Scotia. And it's been beautifully restored by the Canadian government. So it's still possible to go and see Louisbourg, very much as it probably was at the time. And certainly when you go there, you have the feeling of being right at the end of the earth. The winter is so long there, and the growing season so short, that most of the trees are dwarves. There's a feeling of absolute bleakness at Louisbourg, but it's a, a powerful place to see. It had been built in 1720 to guard sea access to the Gulf. And a British campaign to attack Louisbourg was officered by people mainly from Britain, but it, it raised a lot of recruits in New England, that is, American uh, colonists. The British told these Americans, these New Englanders, if you join us in the siege of Louisbourg, when we capture it, you can plunder it, and we won't make you do garrison duty throughout the winter. 
The siege began, and the French commander, realising that he was destined to lose, surrendered. And part of the surrender terms was the agreement that he was allowed to take his equipment with him. So the Americans felt a bitter sense of betrayal, because it turned out they weren't allowed to plunder the fort after all, because the French had taken it with them. And to make matters worse, the British officers then betrayed the other promise and said that they would have to stay as a garrison. Otherwise, there was the danger of a second French campaign coming back to retake the fortress when it was undefended. That's one of the uh, events which led to a deterioration of relations between Americans and, and English people and is part of the long prelude to the American Revolution, I think. To make matters worse, by the Treaty of Aix-la-Chapelle of 1748, Louisbourg was given back to the French in exchange for Madras in India. Again, there's a linkage between these two places. And that, of course, had the effect of further souring the colonists' mood. You can imagine how bitter it must be if your son or husband or brother died in the campaign only to find that in the interests of great power politics it's going to be given back. The British built the city of Halifax nearby, also in Nova Scotia, as a counterweight to Louisbourg. And there was the sense that sooner or later they were going to have to fight for Louisbourg all over again. It's important to emphasise, I think, that throughout this period, the mid-1700s, the diplomats and the politicians were still more interested in the West Indies than they were in Canada. It was a much more valuable place. The Sugar Islands were the most valuable part of both the French and the British empires at this time. In 1748, for example, sugar from the Caribbean was ten times as valuable as tobacco from Virginia and Maryland. And the West Indies trade overall was four times as valuable as that of all of the, no of the mainland North American colonies. We're so familiar with the idea now that the United States are wealthy and the West Indies are poor that it's difficult to get a, a sense of how different it was in those days. Well now, in 1759, General James Wolfe captured Quebec and Britain confirmed its conquest of Canada by the Treaty of Paris in 1763. Let's see how that came about. By 1755, when the fighting in this war began, the population of the British colonies was about 30 times as great as that of French Canada. But the Americans didn't yet realise the degree to which they had a, an advantage in, in, in population terms. As I mentioned earlier, the French had begun to expand to the southwest into the Ohio River Valley, and they'd begun building a line of forts into that valley. The wars really began in 1754 and brought to prominence the young George Washington. He'd been born back in 1732, so he was a 21-year-old youth, a militiaman, when he first emerges into history, taking a message from the governor of Virginia, Governor Dinwiddie, to the, governor, the French governor of one of these forts on the other side of the mountains, telling him, you can't be there because this is the property of King George. The French commander of the fort rebuffed him. The next year, George Washington was one of the few officers to emerge unscathed from the ambush of General Edward Braddock's march to Fort Duquesne in 1755. Now, Fort Duquesne is the place which we call Pittsburgh. It's the place where the Allegheny River meets the Monongahela River, and together they form the Ohio River. Braddock, the British commander, a 60-year-old, a high liver, famous for dueling and for having numerous mistresses, made the classic mistake of underestimating the military capacities of the people he was up against. He was used to op open warfare in Europe and didn't realise how a handful of, of Frenchmen and Indians fighting in a guerrilla style, which was characteristic of the American frontier, could offer a threat to him. In fact, he said, 
These savages may be formidable enemy to the raw American militia, but upon the king's regular and disciplined troops, they can make no impression. Well, it's one of those classic mistakes, uh, the, over, the overconfidence of an officer who uh, is in for a rude awakening. The campaign was poorly planned. His own troops and the Virginia militiamen, to some extent, were also undisciplined, and they all suffered from a lack of fighting experience. Braddock insulted England's Iroquois allies, who would otherwise have accompanied his column. Now, as I said, Braddock was familiar with European battlefields, where concentrated musket fire usually won battles. He wasn't familiar with fighting in the forests, which most of America was still, east of the Mississippi, was still forested. And he wasn't used to encountering isolated sharpshooters. He didn't even have a skirmish line ahead of his main column, people to contact the enemy and, and promote the first exchanges of gunfire so that the main column could be ready to receive them. And so, in a sudden devastating attack, most of his mounted officers were killed outright, and the men themselves uh, dispersed in panic. George Washington himself was lucky to escape with his life, and his letter to his mother is one of the very best documents we have describing what happened at the moment of impact when the battle opened, very, very close to where Pittsburgh is today, Fort Duquesne. This is Washington writing to his mother. When we came there, we were attacked by a party of French and Indians, whose number, I am persuaded, did not exceed 300 men, while ours consisted of about 1,300 well-armed troops, chiefly regular soldiers, who were struck with such a panic that they behaved with more cowardice than it is possible to conceive. The officers behaved gallantly in order to encourage their men, for which they suffered greatly, there being near 60 killed and wounded, a large proportion of the number we had. The Virginia troops showed a good deal of bravery and were nearly all killed. For, I believe, out of three companies that were there, scarcely 30 men are left alive. In short, the dastardly behaviour of those they call regulars exposed all others that were inclined to do their duty to almost certain death. And at last, in despite of all the efforts of the officers to the contrary, they ran as sheep pursued by dogs. And it was impossible to rally them. I luckily escaped without a wound, though I had four bullets through my coat and two horses shot under me. So, just as Braddock had, had treated the militia as hopeless, so here's George Washington saying it's the regulars who are hopeless. This is a characteristic of the colonial wars as well, each, each group um, denigrating the other. Now, after this catastrophe, a series of Indian raids began on Pennsylvania and Virginia frontiers alike. American frontiersmen, like Robert Rogers, began to learn how to fight like Indians, using ice skates and snowshoes in the winter, tracking like Indians, fighting throughout the winter rather than going into winter quarters, living off the land, and scalping killed enemies, a, a form of counter-terrorism. Uh, and this was a war which witnessed extreme brutality on both sides. Now, it's at this point that James Wolfe becomes a decisive figure. He lived only from 1727 to 59, so he died in his early 30s. And his whole life was devoted to warfare. Wolfe came from an army family. He'd been in battles since the age of 16. In fact, his first battle was the same Battle of Dettingen in Europe, which King George II led directly. Then Wolfe fought in the Culloden campaign against Bonnie Prince Charlie in 1746. He was one of the great men of imperial history, and I, as a child, was taught to venerate General Wolfe in, in my childhood, somewhere in the early 1960s. But he's a very unusual kind of military uh, hero, very unattractive, ugly, unhealthy, extremely thin. He had a weak chin and a receding brow, was 
ghastly pale, with long red hair, and, unusual for those days, didn't wear a wig. He had strange long fingers. But he showed himself to be absolutely ruthless in battle, something he exhibited at Culloden Moor, even though he was an excellent administrator of his forces. He also exhibited complete fearlessness in the face of the enemy. For example, during the beach landings at Louisbourg, he carried only a stick, disdaining to actually carry a weapon. And he was loved by his soldiers for his bravery. But he shared Braddock's opinion of the American militiamen. He thought American recruits were dreadful, and conversely, they hated him for what they thought of his, as his snobbish haughtiness. He said of the American militia, They are the dirtiest, most contemptible, cowardly dogs that you can conceive. There's no depending upon them in action. They fall down in their dirt, and they desert by battalions. Well, the campaigns of 1758 and 59 moved slowly but inexorably to conquest of French Canada. A British force recaptured Louisbourg in 1758. In this campaign, Wolfe himself was the number two. The commander was Geoffrey Amherst, the man after whom the town and the college in New England are now named. Amherst's method was very, very slow and methodical. He bombarded the fortress and gradually reduced it to surrender, by which time it was really just rubble. But it had taken so long that it seemed no longer possible to go upriver from fear that if the British did, they'd get frozen in by the hard freeze of the St. Lawrence River. Wolfe himself was impatient at this kind of delay. Uh, but he spent the winter leading terror raids against the Indians. And of the Indians also he was contemptuous. He said, they are the most contemptible vermin on earth, a dastardly set of bloody rascals. We cut them to pieces whenever we found them in return for their thousand acts of cruelty and barbarity. King George II was impressed by the energy which Wolfe showed. And when some of Wolfe's critics told the king that Wolfe was mad, the king answered, is he indeed? Then I wish he would bite some of my other generals. In other words, the king himself felt that the campaign was moving too slowly. The next year, Wolfe was in, was in command of the expedition to attack Quebec. Captain James Cook, about whom I'll say more a little bit later in the course, navigated the British men of war far upriver. The, the St. Lawrence River gradually narrows as you move towards Quebec. And it was a source of, source of surprise to the French that uh, British men of war, these big ocean-going ships, could get that far upstream. Now, if you've ever had the, uh, the high privilege, as I have, of approaching Quebec by water, you'll know what a magnificent sight it is. It's a, a, the perfect place for a fortified city on the very steep banks of the river. And today, the Chateau Frontenac, which is one of the great buildings in North America, stands there and commands the whole scene. It wasn't there at the time, but even so, the approach to Quebec must have been both impressive, but also awe-inspiring. Wolf's army landed on the other bank and began bombarding the city. And he made various plans over the course of the summer of 1759 about exactly how to attack. But his early attempts were driven back with severe defeats. He also, uh, Wolfe also fared the, faced the danger that the river might freeze or the fleet would have to sail away to, in order to prevent itself getting locked in the ice. And so in desperation, in the, uh, in the late summer of 1759, he undertook a, a, a sneak manoeuvre. This was, under cover of darkness, to move his army upstream past the city and then to have the men climb up the very, very steep banks onto the, uh, up the, the so-called Heights of Abraham onto the plains of Abraham, which stand above the city. Today, this, it's all very, very well preserved. And when you go to Quebec today, you can see all this because the, the great battlefield has been turned into a massive and very beautiful park. 
Now, it was at dawn the next day, the French army realised what had happened and came out onto the field to oppose the British. And it was here that, for the first time in history, the thin red line appears. This is a line of men, only two ranks deep, across a very, very wide front. About 5,000 men in each army faced one another in tight formation. And they marched towards each other, each preparing to fire volleys of musket fire. Generals had to look at this conundrum. If you fired first, you'd be firing from further away and you'd tend to do less damage. But if you suffered the first volley from the enemy, there was the danger that your own men would panic and run. Wolfe ordered his men to hold their fire, and they took two volleys from the French, but then fired back when they were within 30 yards with such devastating precision that the, their first volley stopped the French cold, and the second made them run and disperse in disarray. Wolfe and Montcalm, his rival commander, both died in the battle. And a memorial pillar on the battlefield today still says, Here died Wolfe victorious. Now this war, the, war, the, the uh, Seven Years' War, also had a very important naval dimension. In 1759, an English admiral called Admiral Hawke won a decisive victory off the coast of Brittany in shallow waters, the Battle of Quiberon Bay. And doubtless, Hawke himself was remembering the fate of Admiral Bing, who two years earlier, in 1757, had been given the job of relieving the French siege of Minorca in the Mediterranean. Bing had broken off the engagement and was court-martialed and shot on the deck of his own battleship because he'd failed to pursue the enemy to the utmost, even though it was true that Bing's ships were leaky, even though his force was inadequate, he'd been condemned to death for his half-heartedness in the fighting. And it was an astonishing thing for an, a British admiral, especially one so well-connected in the high places of British life, to suffer this kind of penalty. Here's the naval historian N.A.M. Rogers writing about the execution of Bing and the consequences it had for the Royal Navy thereafter. The execution of Bing had a profound effect on the moral climate of the Navy. The fate of Bing taught officers that even the most powerful political friends might not save an officer who failed to fight. Many things might go wrong with an attack on the enemy, but the only fatal error was not to risk it. Bing's death revived and reinforced a culture of aggressive determination which set British officers apart from their foreign contemporaries and which in time gave them a steadily mounting psychological ascendancy. More and more in the course of the century, and for long afterwards, British officers encountered opponents who expected to be attacked and more than half expected to be beaten, so that the latter went into action with an invisible disadvantage which no amount of personal courage or numerical strength could entirely make up for. And this characteristic of the Royal Navy, of attacking at all costs, came to a climax in the life and work of uh, Horatio Nelson, the great British naval hero of the Napoleonic Wars, about whom I'll speak a little bit later. Well, the Treaty of Paris of 1763 marked a very, very decisive increase in British power. And 1763 is really the high watermark of the first British Empire, the British Empire before the American Revolution. But it had been very expensive. The British were heavily in debt from the war and they imposed taxes, among other people, on the Americans who'd benefited from the war. Obviously, the Americans were now much safer than they ever had been previously and it seemed entirely reasonable to the British government to get the Americans to help pay for the benefits they enjoyed now that the war had been, had been brought to a successful conclusion. 
But as you know, the Americans didn't see it in quite the same way. And what ensued in the 1760s and 70s was a protracted struggle over the question of whether the Americans ought to be represented in Parliament, and if not, whether they ought to remain part of Britain at all. Britain, meanwhile, also faced another new phenomenon. That is, they now had a large French-speaking population under their own direct rule. And one of the many questions to resolve after the 1760s was, what should Britain do now with its French Catholic population in Canada? This is another question to which we'll return. Lecture 7. The Loss of the American Colonies. British settlers and their descendants in a chain of colonies along the Atlantic seaboard of North America resented being taxed when they lacked representation in the British Parliament. A series of escalating confrontations in the 1760s and 70s led these colonies to cooperate with one another as never before and to realize that they shared many interests. In 1775 they rebelled under talented leaders from the elites of Massachusetts and Virginia. And in 1776, they declared their independence from Britain. British opinion was divided between those who felt their government justified in regulating colonial affairs and those who deplored its intransigence. Nearly all agreed, however, that the British army would have little difficulty in overcoming the inexperienced Americans. They were mistaken. The Americans, fighting for their homes and farms, using a combination of orthodox and guerrilla tactics, proved tenacious. France, eager to embarrass Britain, agreed to help them in 1778. The French Navy blockaded British supply ships in the Chesapeake Bay, which enabled the Americans to win the Battle of Yorktown in 1781 and to secure their independence. Despite political separation, however, the two great English-speaking nations would contribute jointly from that time onwards to the Anglicisation of the entire planet, a process which is still continuing right up to the present. Well, Britain's American colonies had prospered and expanded steadily between the early 17th century and the mid-18th. The New England colonies bore the imprint of their Puritan origins. They were healthy places too. There was a high rate of population increase, and that meant, of course, that there was pressure on land and against the frontier by the mid-1700s, the constant temptation to want to move further west. The Americans were always commercially active right from the early days, and shrewd, too, so that by the mid-1700s, the stereotype of the Puritan was beginning to be replaced by the stereotype of the Yankee, the hard-driving, shrewd businessman. The middle colonies, New York, New Jersey and Pennsylvania, already had populations from diverse origins. Dutch settlers predated the British, where the British seized New Amsterdam in 1664 and turned it into New York. There was a Swedish colony in Pennsylvania that had been there before William Penn arrived. And then Pennsylvania became a haven for many others, including German Moravians, moving there because of Penn's policy of religious toleration. There was an extensive Irish community in the Pennsylvania backcountry. And already by the 1760s, New York City was one of the most multicultural places in the world, a thriving port city with many languages and many cultures represented there. The southern colonies 
were tied very, very closely to the transatlantic slave trade and had a distinctive character of their own. In some respects, they were more similar to the West Indies than they were to the more northerly colonies. There were very few towns in the American South. This is partly because the, uh, the rivers which flow into the Chesapeake Bay meant that, ship, that ocean-going ships sailing from Britain could go into the Chesapeake Bay and then far up the many rivers which flow into the bay uh, right to the plantations which, with which they were doing business. So it was easy for uh, the, plant, the individual planters to have close direct contact with the London merchants. One of them, Thomas Jefferson, was chronically in debt to his London creditors and that was a source of embarrassment to him through much of his life. Now gradually, over the course of the century and a half since the first settlements, colonial legislatures had gained leverage over the royal governors because they were the people who raised money and men for the recurrent wars that had to be fought principally against the Indians and sometimes against the French and Indians. The historian John Shy, who's investigated this at detail and written brilliantly on the military history of early North America, says, quote, The financial demands of colonial wars had in general enhanced the power of the elected provincial assemblies, who'd used their power to raise and borrow money and to oversee its expenditure, as so many levers to bend British authority to their collective will. Even the most astute and active governor could not lead his province to war without the support of elected provincial representatives. Hard-pressed to finance mobilisation, a royal governor knew that nothing but paper money issued by authority of the assembly, although routinely forbidden by his imperial instructions, would buy vital supplies and pay the indispensable enlistment bounties. In other words, the royal governors had to walk a kind of tightrope. The royal government which appointed them said, you mustn't do this. But when they got there, they found that if they didn't do it, they simply weren't going to be able to raise soldiers at all or supplies to make the fighting possible. So that the colonial assemblies had gained the experience of, of wielding political influence in return for their support of the government. Now, for the first time in 1754... Uh, the different colonies began to cooperate, to, to cooperate and to recognise that in some respects they had common problems. This was at the very beginning of the French and Indian War. All the northern colonies sent representatives to discuss Indian relations and to discuss defence against France. One of the best known delegates at the conference was Benjamin Franklin. He proposed a plan of union, some of which was later incorporated into the Articles of Confederation. And he wrote later that, if this plan had been accepted, the revolution might have been averted, because America would have been defending itself and running its internal affairs within the empire. But on the other hand, the conference also betrayed many local obsessions and many intercolonial jealousies. I think one of, the one of the important but difficult things we have to do is not to read the history of the United States backwards behind the revolution. In other words, just because it did turn out that they finally cooperated and together became the United States doesn't mean that it was obvious that they were going to do so at the time. It was quite possible that the political circumstances could have turned out in a very different way. British revenue needs ended the long era of benign neglect in 1763, and it was this which provoked resistance from the American colonists. The British national debt over the course of the French and Indian Wars had risen from £74 million in 1755 when the war began to £132 million in 1763. It had almost doubled. 
Britain responded partly by tightening up against smuggling and against violations of the Navigation Act. Now, it had always been very tempting for American ship owners to smuggle. The American coastline is huge, and Britain had never had sufficient revenue agents or Coast Guard ships of its own to patrol all of North America, and therefore smuggling had been tempting. And certainly we know that people like John Hancock, who was later a famous figure in the Revolution, was heavily involved in smuggling. In the later days of the French and Indian Wars in the early 1760s, the British even discovered that American merchants were covertly shipping supplies to French-held Caribbean islands. That was almost treasonable, quite apart from the fact that it was a violation of the Navigation Act. Another source of friction between the two groups, between the British and the American settlers, was that Britain was trying to prevent settlement beyond the Appalachian Mountains. And this was a source of anger to frontier Americans. As I said, population rise is putting pressure on the frontier, and ambitious Americans wanted to move out beyond the mountains. But in 1763, the royal government imposed the Proclamation Line. And this was an attempt to stop settlers from crossing the Appalachians. The British motive was to reduce conflict with the Indians, because it certainly was true that if the line of settlement continued to expand, aggressive squatters and unscrupulous traders would antagonise the Indians, and that would lead to warfare, which from the government's point of view was always regrettable and costly. But of course, the proclamation line infuriated potential settlers, and this is one more of these issues which leads to a deterioration of relations between the two sides. What the British government hoped was that Americans eager to uh, expand would move north into Canada, the territory recently acquired from the French, or south into Florida, which had also been acquired by the treaty. But of course, from the settlers' point of view, you can understand their reluctance to do so because of the intense cold of Canada and the fact that most of Florida was then a malarial swamp. Uh, it wasn't until the 20th century, with the invention of air conditioning and the suppression of malaria, that, uh, that Florida became a popular destination. British politicians were divided in the 1760s and 70s over whether to make judi judicious concessions to the American colonists or whether to respond to their intransigence with repression. Now, of course, the problem from a, from a government's point of view with making concessions is that they tend to make you appear weak. In other words, if you make one concession, your, your potential antagonist might say, look at that, they responded, they're weak, we can push harder. On the other hand, of course, if you try repression, there's the danger that you'll provoke outright warfare. And certainly the British politicians were afraid that concessions would lead the Americans to seek the complete abolition of the navigation laws, which was central to the structure of the British mercantile empire. And the feeling was very widespread in the 1760s that the Americans were ungrateful for the help given to them in the recent war. They'd always been vulnerable to French pressure, and suddenly it had gone. No longer did they have to fear the French. It was also true that the colonists living in America were far, far less heavily taxed than Britons living at home. Now, Americans who were abroad in the early, early and mid-1760s, again, including Benjamin Franklin, were slow to appreciate the intensity of American opposition on the ground to the Stamp Act. In fact, Franklin recommended one of his friends for the job of Stamp Act collector. From, this is from England. In other words, he didn't realise that such a recommendation was itself a, a highly pr provocative thing to, to propose. And I think it's important also at this point, again, not to read American history backwards, and to remember that Benjamin Franklin was an Englishman. 
for most of his life. He certainly thought of himself that way. He spent much of his life in England. He was a fellow of the Royal Society and he was highly honoured in Britain, particularly for his elect electrical experiments and for and the evidence of his ingenuity in inventions and experiments. He didn't in the 1760s think of himself as one of the Americans over against one of the British. That only developed later. The Stamp Act Congress of 1765 was a second American experiment in common political action. Because in fact there was a very high degree of popular opposition to the Stamp Act and it led to a boycott of all stamped goods uh, which included all papers on which government business took place. It was a, in a way it was an ideal commodity to tax because it seemed as though uh, all business could, uh, by paying the tax, could generate a lot of revenue. And refusal to pay the tax, in effect, brought um, um, official business to a standstill. Listen now to the English historian Niall Ferguson writing about the, the paradox of the Stamp Act and, the, and this crisis. He says, it's the great paradox of the American Revolution that the ones who revolted against British rule were the best off of all Britain's colonial subjects. There's good reason to think that by the 1770s, New Englanders were about the wealthiest people in the world. Per capita income was at least equal to that in the United Kingdom, and it was more evenly distributed. The New Englanders had bigger farms, bigger families, and better education than the Old Englanders back home. And, crucially, they paid far less tax. In 1763, the average Briton paid 26 shillings per year in taxes. The equivalent figure for a Massachusetts taxpayer was just one shilling. To say that being British subjects had been good for these people would be an understatement. And yet it was they, not the indentured servants of Virginia or the slaves of Jamaica, who first threw off the yoke of imperial authority. Well, there was a growing conviction among the Americans themselves, particularly the leaders of the opposition, that Britain was conspiring against their liberties. In the 1760s and early 70s, they appealed to their idea of their British liberties in a way which ultimately led them to break from Britain. It's a paradox, and yet it's true. They were afraid that King George III and his ministers were doing again what the Stuart kings had done in the 1600s, that is, erecting a tyranny before they were prevented from doing so by the Glorious Revolution of 1688-9. So, in the Americans' rhetoric, there's constant harping on this theme that they were facing tyranny, they were facing threats to their rights as Englishmen even though, in fact, the British government was far more balanced and less tyrannical than that of any other major government in the world at that time. Dr. Johnson, the dictionary maker, made a, a, a sly remark at this time and said, how is it that we hear the loudest yelps for liberty among the drivers of Negroes? In other words, he picked up on this paradox that the Americans are talking about their liberty, even though some of their leaders are themselves slave owners. Now, when the Americans appealed for, uh, made, made the claim, no taxation without representation, the British answer to them was, you may not have actual representation in Parliament, but you do have virtual representation. And this was, a, this was a rejoinder which was sincerely meant. It wasn't something cynical. And it was just as applicable to many parts of Britain as it was to the colonies. For example, important areas of Britain, new urban areas like the new industrial cities of Manchester and Birmingham, just beginning to mushroom at this time, had got no members of Parliament. And the reason they hadn't 
was because earlier on they'd had tiny population and there wasn't a regular process of redistricting. So there were some areas of Britain with almost no population and a lot of representation and other areas with a huge population but no representation. But Parliament said, never mind, the people who sit in this Parliament are preoccupied with the needs of the nation as a whole and we're perfectly capable of taking into consideration the needs of the people in Birmingham and Manchester and the needs of the people in Massachusetts and Virginia. It seemed to them an entirely reasonable thing to say. Ever since the Glorious Revolution of, the, of 1688-9, Parliament had become a permanent part of the British Constitution. It met every year and it jealously asserted its own rights, chiefly over against the, the potential threat of royal absolutism. And it certainly assumed that it could legislate for Britons living overseas, and for the best part of two centuries it had in fact been doing so. But of course the British Constitution isn't written down like the American one. It exists, but it isn't written. And that means that there's plenty of scope within it for ambiguity. Now at first, Lord North, the Prime Minister, was conciliatory. For example, when the people of Rhode Island set fire to a British revenue ship, the Gas Bay, in 1772, Lord North merely appointed a commission of inquiry to find out what had happened. It wasn't until after the Boston Tea Party of 1773 that Britain began to uh, ratchet up the degree of repression in, in an angry response to what they regarded as another reckless and destructive act. The, the Boston Tea Party is itself a little glimpse into the, hist the complicated history of the British Empire at this time, and it directly relates to what was happening in India. This is the period of the Great Famine in Bengal, and the, and, uh, and the discovery by the East India Company that it had got great supplies of tea on its hands, which it couldn't sell. In the end, the government agreed that the East India Company would be permitted to send cargoes of tea direct from India to America rather than going into England first, in accordance with the usual procedure, and paying a tax and then having to pay a re-export duty before it was brought to America. In other words, the motive was a fa an economic favour to the East India Company. And what it meant was that the tea would come to America at an unusually low price and would go onto the American market in, on favourable terms to the company. But of course the leaders of the colonists interpreted it as a sinister attempt by the British to tempt them into paying a low price for the tea, which included the duty, and, and in doing so to concede the principle of the payment of the duties. Samuel Adams realised that buying the tea cheap was very tempting, and so he prevented it from happening by uh, leading his men, the Sons of Liberty, onto the ships in Boston Harbour and throwing the tea into the harbour. 90,000 pounds of tea, an immensely valuable cargo. Now, the Sons of Liberty were dressed up as Indians, but it was a kind of open secret among the crowd. A crowd estimated at 5,000 people, probably two-thirds of the whole population of Boston at the time, who came to watch what was going on in a great circus atmosphere. It was after that that the British government became coercive and, if, and passed a series of Acts of Parliament uh, which, were demonstrated to, which were intended to isolate Boston in the hope that it could be intimidated into uh, obedience until it could pay damages to the East India Company and that the, and the effect of the, this legislation would be to cause the rest of the colonies who attempted to make common cause with the, uh, the Bostonians back down. Lord North expected to be able to shut down the Boston port until after the company had been compensated. 
But the colonists interpreted the coercive acts as confirmation of their idea that the British government was conspiring against their liberty, that this was part of this plan to lock a kind of tyranny onto them, particularly when part of the coercive acts was the idea of the militarisation of, of local government and the Quartering Act, according to which British soldiers could be forcibly imposed on Massachusetts families to live in their homes. And so it was this, this series of acts, which led to the calling of the Continental Congress. The Americans had particularly panicky fears over the Quebec Act, which again they saw as the entering wedge of tyranny. By the Quebec Act, the people of the French-speaking people of Quebec were given religious liberty. Again, from our point of view, it seems like an entirely reasonable thing to do. If you've got a big Catholic population, it's reasonable to let them practice their, their faith unmolested. But again, it looked to the people of Massachusetts like a premonition of the possibility that they were then going to be forced to become Catholics, or at least that Anglican bishops might be fastened on them and snuff out the religious liberty for which their ancestors had migrated in the first place. Now, there were people in Britain who sympathised to some extent with the American cause. It would be quite wrong to think that everyone in America took one view and that everyone in Britain took another. There was debate on both sides of the Atlantic. William Pitt argued that an American parliament might perhaps take care of its internal affairs. This was a minority view, but it was a view shared by influential people in British political life, including Edmund Burke, whom I introduced to you earlier in the context of the trial of Warren Hastings. Edmund Burke said, this is speaking to Parliament, let the colonies always keep the idea of their civil rights associated with your government. They'll cling and grapple to you, and no force under heaven will be of power to tear them from their allegiance. But let it be once understood that your government may be one thing and their privileges another, that these two things may exist without any mutual relation. The cement is gone, the cohesion is loosened, and everything hastens to decay and dissolution. As long as you have the wisdom to keep the sovereign authority of this country as the sanctuary of liberty, the sacred temple consecrated to our common faith, wherever the chosen race and sons of England worship freedom, they will turn their faces towards you. In other words, it's vitally important that the British government show that it respected the idea that the American settlers were deserving of their rights and liberties as Englishmen. Now, the outbreak of hostilities in 1775 created severe logistical problems for Britain, and the French alliance of 1778 made it much worse. But before we get there, think about this paradox as well. It's strange, isn't it, that the fighting in the American Revolutionary War began in 1775, in April, the battles of Lexington and Concord, and yet it wasn't for another 15 months until July of 1776 that they declared independence. For more than a year, they weren't fighting for independence, or at least they didn't say that they were. They were fighting for their rights of, as Englishmen over against a tyrannical government. In the end, people like um, Thomas Paine with common sense were able to explode this notion as impossible. Well, was the fighting necessary? Lord North hoped that a limited police action would end the trouble. And of course, he didn't know what we do know that the uprising eventually didn't draw in the West Indies or Canada or Ireland. He was afraid possibly that there'd be widening circles of rebellion if the, American, if the Massachusetts uprising wasn't snuffed out instantly. It was very difficult, of course, for the British Army to operate at such a long distance. It was hard to get reliable and up-to-date information. Many politicians believe that the revolutionaries were a small conspiratorial minority 
and that the great majority of people in the colonies remained loyal to Britain. And letters from southern royal governors encouraged that view. In fact, it is true that thousands of people in the colonies remained loyalists or were neutral, simply hoping to stay out of trouble. Ever since the first settlement of America, the crossing of the Atlantic had been difficult, and it still was. Unpredictable winds and currents meant that you couldn't move larger resources to Britain, to, from Britain to America quickly. The Americans, fighting for their homes in a familiar environment, had the local advantage over the British soldiers and their German auxiliaries. And the fact that the British Army was using 18,000 German soldiers, Hessian mercenaries, intensified the Americans' fear of tyranny. After all, the German governments were famous for being repressive and intolerant. Now, the great work of General George Washington was to keep the Continental Army in existence, rather than seek decisive battlefield victories. Washington understood that so long as the army existed, and so long as it presented a military threat, the war couldn't come to an end. He wasn't a particularly successful battlefield commander, and in fact his two principal set-piece battles, the Battle of Long Island and the Battle of Brandywine, were almost military disasters, from which the Continental Army was only just able to extricate itself without disaster. The most famous episodes of Washington's life during the war aren't battlefield episodes. Perhaps above all, he's remembered for preserving the force at Valley Forge and other winter quarters, rather than for defeating the British in open battle. It is true that Washington mounted raids like his attack on Trenton and the Battle of, Trenton and the Battle of Princeton, but these were small-scale raids rather than full-scale pitched battles. Washington was probably right, was certainly right to think that the Continental Army couldn't stand up to a classic set-piece battle against the British regulars. Now it's important to think about what the French, how the French watched all this. France, after losing the French and Indian Wars, were very eager to embarrass Britain if they possibly could and avenge their losses in the French and Indian War by entering the war on the side of the American revolutionaries. But they weren't willing to do so unless they could be reasonably sure that the Americans might win. So they waited for a decisive American victory before they committed themselves. And in the fall of 1770, 1777, they got one. And Horatio Gates' uh, army outnumbered Burgoyne's army in the Hudson Valley and forced them to surrender. That had the effect of persuading France to commit its forces to the war on the American side early in 1778. And it was an immense diplomatic coup for the Americans that they decided they would do so. Because as soon as France entered the war, America at once became a secondary sphere of operations for Britain. Uh, Britain and France are very close to each other. And so the onset of war between the two meant that much of the army now has to be recalled back to Britain for home defence. Sir Henry Clinton, the new British commander, was ordered to send 5,000 of his men to the West Indies, still a vitally important area of colonial conflict. Twenty great ships of the line were ordered back to home waters to guard against the possibility of invasion, and 13 more of these battleships were sent to the West Indies. So from then on, throughout the rest of the war, 1778 to 83, America was not the principal theatre of the conflict, even though, of course, when you look at it from an American historical point of view, that remains the focus of attention. Finally, it was the French blockade of the Chesapeake Bay that isolated General Cornwallis and forced him to surrender at the Battle of Yorktown in 1781, when finally, belatedly, Washington did in fact win what can realistically be called a major battlefield victory. Negotiations opened, and by the peace treaty which brought the war to an end in 1783, 
Britain, which was still at war against France, gave generous territorial terms to the new United States of America. Perhaps one of the most significant features of the treaty was that lands all the way from the uh, Atlantic coast to the Mississippi River were granted to the United States, rather than just the proclamation line of 1763. In other words, Britain conceded the principle of a much, much greater extent, territorial extent, of the United States. And Britain conceded the principle that the United States could stretch as far north as the southern shores of the Great Lakes, something else which couldn't be taken for granted at the time. Well, the loss of its American colonies was the worst military reverse in the entire history of the British Empire. But it didn't bring the empire as a whole to dissolution. It didn't lead to the end of the whole thing. Canada and the British West Indies both declined to join the revolution. And it's easy to see why. The West Indian planters were absentees, many of them, uh, living, living in the islands as little as possible because it was so hazardous to their health. They preferred to live in England, and therefore they hadn't developed a local loyalty in the way that the American elites had. In other words, if you look at the, the lives of people like Washington and Jefferson and Madison or John and Samuel Adams, they'd already got family living in America for several generations back and could think of themselves uh, as distinctly American, whereas it was very difficult for the West Indian planters to think so in the same way. They had a very strong lobby in Parliament for favourable legislation, and they usually got it because their trade was so valuable. And, of course, the West Indies planters still needed to be defended against French and Spanish attacks in the Caribbean. They thought of Britain as a protector rather than as a potential tyrant. And perhaps most important of all, they still feared slave revolts because the black community outnumbered the whites on the islands. The high mortality rate among slaves meant that many of the slaves were still born in Africa. Now, a large content contingent of loyalists, that is, people living in the American colonies who had remained loyal to the British Empire, moved to Canada or to Britain itself. About 25,000 moved to Nova Scotia, and about 20,000 more to Quebec, which therefore became less emphatically French than it had been before. Altogether, an estimated 100,000 loyalists left the United States, and that in turn contributes to explaining the fact that Canada never opted to join the Americans in rebellion. I think that the loyalists are the most understudied group in American history. The United States understandably takes great pride in its revolution, but so many of the people living here then didn't join the revolution, they've simply been forgotten by virtue of the fact that they happened to be on the losing side. Well, British politicians learned the value of conciliation with English-speaking colonies in subsequent crises, and it's striking that never again did Britain have to face a, a major rebellion by English-speaking colonists in other parts of the empire. Meanwhile, Britain and the United States remained vital trading partners, while their mutual cultural influence continued to spread in the following century. Lecture 8, Exploring the Planet. Trade prompted Britain to build an empire. But along the way, the nation made great strides in exploration, invention and science. 
Captain James Cook, for example, was a first-rate navigator. As a young man, he guided General Wolfe's force up the narrow St. Lawrence River to its victory at Quebec. Later, as captain of the Endeavour, he explored the Southern Pacific Ocean and the coasts of Australia, New Zealand and Tasmania. He used recently perfected marine chronometers made by John Harrison, superbly accurate clocks that enabled sailors for the first time to measure their longitude accurately. Among Cook's companions was Joseph Banks, a first-rate naturalist who identified and named hundreds of previously unknown species of plants and animals from points as remote as Newfoundland, Brazil, Australia and Tahiti. Banks, as president of the Royal Society and as advisor to the King's Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew, organized other scientific and exploratory voyages, such as George Vancouver's journey to what's now the Pacific Northwest of the United States. The acceleration of scientific knowledge in the late 18th and early 19th centuries can be linked directly to British exploration, mapping and colonization of previously remote areas of the world. Well, Captain Cook, James Cook, uh, lived from 1728 to 1779, and he rose from humble origins to resolve several of the 18th century's great geographical mysteries. He was the son of a Yorkshire farm labourer. Yorkshire's a big county in the northeast of England. And he went to sea first in the coasting trade and gradually rose to the position of master mariner. This was in the days when the, the chief fuel supply of London was coal, which came from the city of Newcastle-on-Tyne, much further north, and it was carried down the east coast of England in colliers, coal-bearing ships, and that's where Cook got his naval apprenticeship. He volunteered for the Royal Navy for the King's service in 1755 and distinguished himself in a series of appointments, rising through the ranks and then winning a commission, becoming an officer, which was very unusual in those days, especially without rich and influential political connections in the family. On the whole, if you look at who commanded British armies and navies, it was nearly always members of the aristocracy, people with high political connections. But there's just the very beginnings of some social fluidity and some meritocracy even then. And Captain Cook was one of the first people to demonstrate by his abilities that he ought to be given positions of authority. He worked as a first-rate pilot and chart maker in the British campaign against Quebec in 1759. The waters of the St. Lawrence estuary are difficult, and uh, he was able not only to draw accurate charts, but often had to work under fire. And as I mentioned in one of the previous lectures, the French were very surprised to have ships of the line brought so far upstream. And of course, it's a measure of the Navy's faith in Captain Cook that they were willing to, uh, to, to take the Navy so far into potentially dangerous waters. He was then asked to draw detailed charts of the coast of Newfoundland, and did so, mapping it accurately for the first time. But his fame rests on his three Pacific voyages between 1769 and 1779. They had various positive and uh, various negative consequences. For example, they proved the non-existence of the Great Southern Continent and the non-existence of an ice-free Northwest Passage from Europe direct to China. The Endeavour, the first of Cook's great exploration ships, was a converted collier. In other words, it had been built to carry coal up and down the east coast of England. It was flat-bottomed and apparently terribly uncomfortable. People prone to seasickness hated it. But on the other hand, it was roomy. It was a, a bulk carrier. And that meant that the 18 months' worth of supplies on board for the first voyage could be accommodated, along with a lot of scientific equipment. 
On this voyage, Cook used Harrison's chronometer, and that enabled him to measure his longitude more accurately than any earlier sailors and map makers. Now, blue water sailors had long understood how to use a sextant to establish their latitude, but longitude was a much more difficult problem and took a lot longer to solve. Parliament in the year 1714 offered a prize of £20,000 of great fortune to anyone who could invent a method of, of measuring longitude accurate to within half a degree. And this, uh, the, the method had to be vindicated in a voyage to the West Indies and back. In other words, not only did it have to be invented, it then had to be built and shown to work in practice. And John Harrison was the man who rose to the challenge. Like Cook, he was born poor and he was born in Yorkshire. He began life as a carpenter and then became a clockmaker and worked on, on developing clocks more accurate than any that had yet been seen in the history of the world. The idea was uh, to build a clock that didn't gain or lose any time at all and then to set it to Greenwich Mean Time, the, 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 the place of the prime meridian. Observations elsewhere at midday could then be compared, could then lead to a comparison of the local time with Greenwich Mean Time, which could deduce the point of longitude. Since there are 24 hours in a day, the difference of time could then be computed as a difference in longitude. So that, for example, if it turned out to be uh, midday at one point in the world, exactly when it was midnight in London, that showed that you were exactly halfway around the world. But it had to be very accurate indeed if it was going to work. And what was worse, it couldn't use a pendulum, which was then the standard way of making a clock accurate. Because the motion of the sea, the, the, the lurching of the ship, would upset the smooth running of the pendulum. And of course, because um, sailors like Captain Cook particularly went into some very, very cold places, some very hot ones, some with extremes of temperature and pressure and humidity, it had to be resistant to all those phenomena. Harrison himself was a perfectionist. He appeared before the judges in this competition repeatedly with excellent clocks in the 1720s and the 30s and the 40s. But he always asked for more time and he always asked for more political subsidies to help him carry on with the work and didn't finally finish his work until he was himself an elderly man in the 1760s, having begun more than 40 years previously. But his chronometers worked with the result that Cook always knew his longitude to within one or two nautical miles. And the chronometer lost only eight seconds in a three-year-long voyage. Phenomenal accuracy for that time. Cook wrote, It was our faithful guide through all the vicissitudes of the climates. Cook's circumnavigation of New Zealand showed that Abel Tasman's voyage of 1642 had not discovered the western coast of the great southern continent. There was a long-standing theory that the Earth must be balanced, and because there's a massive continent in the northern hemisphere, comprising of Europe and Asia, there must be a corresponding great southern continent as well, and that it was only a matter of time before this would be discovered. And this was a, a, a puzzle which still hadn't been resolved in the 18th century. No one had actually visited this place, but there were various ideas about exactly where it must be. The very first sailors to encounter Australia and New Zealand, the only land masses which are in fact available in that place, had been Dutch en route to their colonies in the East Indies starting in the uh, early 1600s. 
And the area which we know as Western Australia was, was touched on by some of them. As they came around the Cape of Good Hope, they picked up the Roaring Forties a long way down into the Southern Hemisphere before moving northwards again towards Java and Batavia. And so some of them had touched on the western coast of Australia, which they called New Holland. But nobody had navigated around Australia to find its exact dimensions. And Western Australia is extremely harsh and de is desert country and there aren't any good harbours. So it had never been settled. And the eastern part, the southeast of Australia, which is the one really fertile area, was yet completely undiscovered. Abel Tasman, a Dutch sailor in 1642, had sailed south of New Holland to the island which is now named after him, Tasmania. Then he struck the western coast of New Zealand. And Tasman thought that, that what we call New Zealand was in fact the great southern continent. He landed to pick up supplies there and several of his men were killed and eaten by the warlike Maori tribesmen whom they encountered. Well, it was Captain Cook who finally sailed all around New Zealand, charted it and then in doing so proved that it was in fact two islands and was far, far too small to be the, 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 southern, the missing southern continent. And in doing so, he also disproved the theory because there was nowhere else left in the world which hadn't been uh, sailed and, and explored. Cook also charted the eastern coast of Australia. He landed in, at and named Botany Bay in 1770. And he very nearly sank his ship after foundering on the Great Barrier Reef, the Great Coral Reef uh, off the coast of eastern Australia. The ship ran aground for 23 hours. It had deceived even him, one of the most experienced navigators of, of the day and required a long period of repairs, two months of repair work. He called the reef the Insane Labyrinth. His expedition made contact with Australian Aborigines, and uh, while they were there, they discovered what they called strange leaping quadrupeds. In other words, kangaroos. The Aborigines they met were completely naked, and some of them had bones through their noses. They were smeared with ochre paint. When Cook and his men gave them some clothes, they just laughed and threw them away. And Cook and his men noticed that they were carrying uh, spears and fire sticks. Everywhere they went, they carried fire with them. And we now know that they, in fact, used hire, uh, fire as one of their hunting techniques. Later on, when the whites who settled in Australia tried to suppress fire, that led to a build-up of fuel and periodic catastrophic conflagrations. In other words, there was some pragmatic uh, virtue to, to constantly setting fire to the countryside from fear that if you didn't, you'd have much worse fires later on. Well, here's Cook's description of the Aborigines. Their features are far from being disagreeable, and their voices are soft and tunable. I think them an inoffensive race. They may appear to some to be the most wretched people on earth, but in reality, they are far happier than we Europeans, being wholly unacquainted not only with the superfluous, but the necessary conveniences so much sought after in Europe. They are happy in not knowing the use of them. They live in a tranquillity which is not disturbed by the inequality of condition. The earth and sea of their own accord furnishes them with all things necessary for life. They seem to set no value upon anything we gave them, nor would they ever part with anything of their own for any one article that we could offer them. This, in my opinion, argues that they think themselves provided with all the necessaries of life. It's been a common conceit among Europeans encountering more uh, 
or less technologically advanced people to romanticise their lives, the myth of the noble savage. And although Cook was too shrewd to go all the way with that, you can tell in that passage that there's an admiration for the very simplicity of the Aboriginal life, and particularly his recognition, this is the recognition of a low-born man who's risen in the social scale, that there's something to be said for a world in which there aren't close gradations of social rank. Cook's exploration of the western coast of North America, all the way up into the Arctic, disproved another old idea, that there was an easy easy northern passage from the Atlantic into the Pacific. It had been attempted from both sides, and the presence of pack ice disproved the possibility from both sides. Cook went further north into the Arctic, and further south into the Antarctic, than anyone had done up to that time. When he was sailing in the Arctic into the Bering Sea, he faced extremely dense fog, His two ships had drummers beating regularly on deck so that they could gauge their relative position and keep in touch with one another. He was guided away from the ice flows by the noise of the walruses, what he described as, quote, the roaring of the seahorses. Eventually, this is in July and August of 1778, and eventually, reaching the pack ice, Cook was forced to turn back. By then, one officer wrote, Hot victuals froze while we were at table, as they sat down to dinner, the food froze in front of them. But by then, Cook had mapped an additional 3,000 miles of coastline never before accurately charted. And if you've had the opportunity to sail up uh, the west coast of North America, you'll know the immense complexity of it and the, the crenellations and the fjords and so on. Another of Cook's great qualities was his attention to the health of his sailors. By careful attention to good diet, exercise and sanitation, he dramatically improved the quality of his sailors' health. Scurvy, in particular, had annihilated many earlier long-distance ventures, and many captains were completely fatalistic about the fact that when they were at sea for a long time, many of the men were going to die of scurvy. Just to give you an example of how serious this could be, when Admiral George Anson had circumnavigated the world back in the years 1740-44, to in a voyage designed to attack Spanish possessions and treasure ships, he'd set off with eight ships and 1,800 men. Only 188 of the men got back alive. In other words, 90% of them died on the voyage. And only one ship out of eight got back, after a series of shipwrecks. But the the real killer was diseases, typhus, dysentery and scurvy. Cook, by contrast, took a great interest in health and, and diet. He insisted that the men should drink lime juice every day, along with their daily rum ration. And that's the origin of the American nickname for British people, Limeys. American sailors used to meet the uh, English sailors, particularly in the whaling business, and call them the Limeys. It was an insult. But it was true that the survivability rate of British sailors improved, and eventually the American Navy picked up comparable practices to keep their men healthier. Cook also believed in daily exercise. He had the men dancing on the forecastle. He had them eating sauerkraut at sea and vegetables and fruit whenever they went to land. On his second great voyage, only one man died from disease, and that was a record previously completely unheard of and unimaginable. Cook himself was very adventurous with food, but he found it difficult to persuade the sailors to try anything new. There's a passionate conservatism in many English people right up to the present, especially about unfamiliar foods. Cook ate kangaroo, dog, penguin, albatross and walrus. He called the meat of walruses marine beef. He said it was lovely, but all the sailors hated it. He ate monkey and many other animals, and whatever new vegetables and fruits they encountered along the way. 
Few men have introduced more novelties in the way of victuals and drink than I have done, but every innovation is sure to meet with the highest disapprobation from the seamen, he wrote. Cook's life came to a sudden end in 1779 when he was killed by the natives of Hawaii. Uh, in those days, uh, the Hawaiian Islands were called the Sandwich Islands, named after the, the Earl of Sandwich, who's also the man who invented what we call sandwiches. Uh, but whereas the, uh, the Aborigines in Australia had shown no interest in the stuff which the English sailors gave them, the uh, Hawaiians were the exact opposite. They were constantly pilfering from the English sailors, getting their hands on everything they could and trying to run off with it. And the fatal incident came when one of Cook's ship's boats was stolen and he was trying to recover it. He was killed and, uh, and his crew had to return home to England without him. He became, rightly, a national hero. And I think it's very apt, um, the way in which the, the names of his four ships summarise the qualities of his life. Endeavour, resolution, adventure and discovery. He certainly did have a, an astonishing resolution, and his life was dedicated to adventure and discovery. Joseph Banks was a brilliant naturalist who sailed with Cook on his first voyage, and later on organised the worldwide collection of plant and animal species. Unlike Cook, Joseph Banks came from a prosperous family. He was lazy when he went to school. He went to Eton, the, the greatest of the English private schools until he discovered the study of botany, after which he became tireless in the pursuit of it. Here's a eulogy to Banks, written just after his death by one of his friends, Everett Home. As a teenager, says Home of Banks, he was walking leisurely along a lane, the sides of which were richly enamelled with flowers. He stopped and looked around, and involuntarily exclaimed, How beautiful! After some reflection, he said to himself, it is surely more natural that I should be taught to know all these productions of nature, in preference to Greek and Latin. But the latter is my father's command, and it is my duty to obey him. I will, however, make myself acquainted with all these different plants for my own pleasure and gratification. He began immediately to teach himself botany, and for want of more able tutors, submitted to be instructed by the women employed in culling simples, as it is termed, to supply the druggists' and apothecaries' shops, paying sixpence for each material piece of information. In other words, he asked women who were gathering herbs for medicines to teach him more about the plants they were gathering. The Banks had the misfortune of going to Oxford University, my own alma mater, when it was in its great mid-18th century slump, and he found that there was no scientific teaching of any kind available. There was a professor of botany, a man called Humphrey Sibthorpe, who, in a 35-year career, published nothing and gave a total of just one public lecture, a real prodigy of laziness. Banks discovered that if he wanted to have botany lectures, he himself had got to pay for, from his own funds from another lecturer to come over from Cambridge University to give the course to himself and a few of his companions. He was elected to the Royal Society, the, the most important of the British scientific societies, at the age of 23. He corresponded with the Swedish naturalist Carl Linnaeus, the taxonomist who created a system for categorising all living things. And as a young man, he sailed to Newfoundland and to Labrador and made the first Linnaean categorisation of all the plants and animals that could be found there. Then he joined Cook's first voyage from 1768 to 71. And he, and, and he subsidised the observation in Tahiti of a transit of Venus across the Sun. Astronomical knowledge was already sufficiently sophisticated that they could accurately anticipate where um, celestial events of this kind could be observed. 
Banks paid £10,000 to be included in the voyage and brought with him an excellent library and the very best equipment then available. He also brought with him one of Linnaeus's pupils, Daniel Solander. And he and Solander together with some other assistants gathered and illustrated and named more than 800 different species of plants in Australia. He very nearly died on the way home. On its first voyage, the Endeavour did suffer from a malaria outbreak at Batavia, and many of the crew died uh, despite Cook's precautions. Malaria was still something about which they could do nothing. Banks became even more famous than Cook for his scientific work and, and made his reputation on that first voyage. He planned to go on Cook's second expedition as well. But his equipment list and his plans for modifying the ship were so extensive that it would have made the ship completely unwieldy, and Cook, who had the final right of refusal, told him that he couldn't come. But Banks became the president of the Royal Society when he was still only 35, and he held on to the position for the next 42 years, and became in effect the presiding genius of British science throughout the late uh, 18th and early 19th centuries. He was the patron of numerous later voyages and botanical explorations. For example, he supervised the journey of Francis Masson, who made a series of explorations of South Africa and, and uh, did a Linnaean categorization of its very, very rich and unusual flora and botany. He patronized Archibald Menzies, the man who discovered and described the American giant sequoia trees. He was a friend of James Bruce, who traced the Blue Nile to its source in Ethiopia, Lake Tana, in 1770, and then followed it to its confluence with the White Nile. Incidentally, he was a Scotsman, fearless, very talented in languages and medicine, and formerly the ambassador to the Algerian pirate kingdom. This is still an age in which brilliant amateurs could achieve great things in discovery and science and exploration. And Banks was one of the most imaginative of the supporters of journeys of this kind. As the king's scientific advisor, Banks was also influential in supervising the Royal Botanical Gardens at Kew to which trees from all over the empire were brought, and right up to the present, it's a place where you can visit with great interest to see uh, the way in which species from dozens of different parts of the world have developed, and it's remained an, an, a centre for arboreal studies right up to the present. Later in life, Banks became very, very fat and gouty, like many of the wealthy people of his generation, but nevertheless, he was a person of immense intellectual daring and authority. Now, I mentioned earlier that the Admiralty had created a, a prize for whoever could come up with a really accurate way of measuring longitude. The Admiralty was interested in exploration, but it wanted some sort of practical result, or it hoped that, that exploration would uh, indicate new possibilities for the uh, strengthening of Britain as a sovereign power and also for the enrichment of its people. Another of these organisations, which had the same idea of stimulating invention and discovery, was the RSA, the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Sciences and Manufactures. It was founded in 1754, and one of its early members was Benjamin Franklin. It offered a range of prizes for new achievements. And one was a prize for transplanting breadfruit from Tahiti to the Caribbean, where it could become a slave food. In the late 1700s, the slave plantation owners in the West Indies spent a lot of money and time importing food. And the discovery of breadfruit trees seemed like a very promising possibility. The climate was similar on both sets of islands, so might it not be possible for breadfruit trees to be planted throughout the Caribbean and offer a good and nutritious source of food to the slaves? 
Banks himself, now highly influential, encouraged the idea, and he supervised the conversion of a ship called the Bounty into a kind of floating nursery. Uh, it was full of, of barrels sawn off halfway across and full of earth in which the seedlings had to be placed. And it was also set up with elaborate winding gear so that regularly they could be winched up onto the deck to get plenty of sunlight. But Banks recognised that it was vitally important to keep them free from ocean salt. So in various ways the ship had to be modified and it had to be set up so that all this was going to work properly. Uh, and he gave special instructions to the ship's gardeners. Now, the man put in charge of this ship, the Bounty, was Captain Bly, who's another famous figure, in, or notorious figure, in British history. And they set sail in 1787. Bly had been on Cook's last voyage. And straight away, or early on in the voyage, he ran into severe difficulties. He couldn't sail past Cape Horn. As you probably know, it's the stormiest waters in the entire world. Occasionally, you can have a, a, an easy passage from the Atlantic into the Pacific, but much more often your, your way is completely blocked, especially if you're entirely dependent on the wind and the currents to get you through. And after a month of desperate attempts to pass the Horn, he was forced to go the other way. That is, cross the South Atlantic, past the Cape of Good Hope, and go into the Pacific Ocean sailing east instead of west. When they finally reached Tahiti, they had to wait for five months while the breadfruit plants reached the right stage for transplantation. And so for several months, the sailors led a luxurious life in Tahiti, consorting with Tahitian women. When the ship was fully laden, suddenly the return to the rigours of, of naval life set off a mutiny led by Fletcher Christian, the master's mate. Bly and the, and the few members of the crew who remained loyal to him were set out in an open boat. Unlike many mutinies, they weren't killed outright. They were put in an open boat, given a little bit of food and water, a watch and a sextant. And what followed was their astonishing voyage to Timor in the Dutch East Indies, part of what's now Indonesia. It was uh, 3,600 miles distant. They had no charts, and yet they accomplished it in 47 days with only one casualty. That's itself an incredible tribute to, uh, to Bly's amazing skills as a captain. Meanwhile, the mutineers went back to Tahiti, picked up many of the native women with whom they'd, be, they'd entered into relations, and then sailed off to find a little island right in the depths of the Pacific, in the midst of the Pacific, Pitcairn Island, which then hadn't been identified or charted. But once they got there, they started to fight over the women. And what ensued, in effect, was a massacre until just one of the white men was left standing. His name was John Adams. And by the time he was rediscovered, decades later, in 1814, he'd become an aged and pious man, constantly reading his Bible. But this was after he'd killed all his rivals. Now, the mutiny on the bounty is one of the great uh, adventure stories in British history. And more than 250 books have been written about it. And the question persists, was, uh, was Captain Bly a ruthless tyrant who goaded the men beyond bearing? Or were the crew satiated by life on Tahiti? The Navy itself certainly retained its confidence in Bly. He didn't flog the men as often as many captains, and he did follow Captain Cook's ideas about diet and sanitation. On the other hand, we know that he was touchy, vain, sarcastic, bullying. Not a natural leader, despite having been an excellent subordinate. He was court-martialed for the loss of his ship, but exonerated. And then, perhaps, I mean, astonishingly, he was then given the command of a second expedition to undertake the same venture. 
a two-ship expedition that succeeded in transplanting the breadfruits to the Caribbean. This is in the year 1791 to 1793. The experiment proved to be successful. The breadfruit caught on, and Bly himself won the prize of the RSA. That's a little element of his story which isn't often told. Someone else who thought very highly of him was Admiral Nelson, the, great, uh, the Royal Navy's greatest hero of the Napoleonic Wars. And he fought with distinction in the battles of the Napoleonic Wars. Although it's significant that twice during the Napoleonic Wars, there were severe mutinies, once at the Nore and once at Spithead. And in both cases, Bly's ship was one of those on which the mutinies took place. Finally, a curious sequel to the whole story is this. He was appointed Governor of New South Wales, that is one of the first English colonies in Australia. This is in the year 1805. And again, he was appointed by the influence of Joseph Banks, who certainly retained confidence in him right up to the present. Right, right up to the present. But there was even a rebellion against him there, as we'll see when I tell you about the early history of Australia. Lecture 9. Napoleon Challenges the Empire It was already true by the late 18th century that the British Empire was one on which the sun never set. It had not been formed according to a master plan, however, and between 1793 and 1815, British politicians were much more concerned with European power politics than with colonies. The French Revolution, the overthrow of the French monarchy and the rise of Napoleon created an unprecedented crisis for Britain, which was in danger of invasion and conquest until 1805. British naval power, asserted in a series of victories over France and culminating at the Battle of Trafalgar, showed that France's domination of the continent was offset by British domination of the sea. The Royal Navy, meanwhile, by bottling up the French fleet in its ports for years at a time, was able to acquire numerous highly productive French colonies in the Caribbean, and those of its allies Spain and Holland. By then, Britain had a far stronger banking and commercial system than any rival, enabling its government to borrow massive sums of money quickly and at low rates of interest. This combination of assets contributed to its ultimate victory in 1815. Now it's important to emphasize, as I mentioned earlier, that defeat in the American Revolutionary War did not destroy or even impoverish the British Empire. In fact, Anglo-American trade was stronger in the 1780s and 90s than in any previous decade. This is most decisively attributable to Eli Whitney's invention of the cotton gin, invented in 1793 and patented the next year. Because the cotton gin facilitated the mass production of short staple cotton in the American South, which was then sent to England to feed the growing industrialized textile industry. One of the great books of this time was Adam Smith's uh, 1777, 1776 book, An Inquiry into the Wealth of Nations. Among other things, it, it encouraged a reconsideration of Britain's mercantilist policy. Adam Smith argued in favor of free trade and against restrictive monopoly practices like that of the East India Company. He saw that what was actually happening was that a handful of East India Company directors and merchants were making great fortunes in the business, 
by forcing everybody else in Britain to pay artificially high prices for Indian goods, while depriving them of the chance to join in the trade. And Smith said, if the trade was open to everybody, then more goods would come in and the prices would tend to fall, with obvious benefits for the consumers. And in fact, this situation was made even worse by the 1770s, when the company was going broke, even though the nabobs were coming home from India fabulously wealthy. Now, Smith's title itself might not strike us as it would have stricken his contemporaries. It's a paradox, an inquiry into the wealth of nations. Why do nations become wealthy? Wealth is something which has to be explained. At that time, almost everybody throughout the entire history of the world had been poor. You didn't have to explain poverty, but you did have to explain wealth. Of course, we now live in a world which is so wealthy that we have um, inquiries into why there should be residual poverty. Only very wealthy nations indeed can do that. One of Adam Smith's conceptual uh, breakthroughs was his realisation that economic life is not a zero-sum game and that British enrichment did not necessarily mean Britain's rivals' impoverishment. In other words, the total volume of trade in the world could grow rather than one nation getting its wealth at the expense of another one. And here's a passage from The Wealth of Nations. Nations have been taught that their interest consisted in beggaring all their neighbours. Each nation has been made to look with an invidious eye upon the prosperity of all the nations with which it trades, and to consider their gain as its own loss. Commerce, which ought to be a bond of union and friendship, has become the most fertile source of discord and animosity. The capricious ambition of kings and ministers has not been more fatal to the repose of Europe than the impertinent jealousy of merchants and manufacturers. And this was an elaboration of a point he'd made a, a few sentences previously in the book. The sneaking arts of underling tradesmen are erected into political maxims for the conduct of a great empire. In other words, commerce ought not to stimulate warfare. It ought to stimulate peaceful relations between nations. And if it's done right, it will. Now, Adam Smith was witnessing the very early stages of the Industrial Revolution, which happened earlier in Britain than in any other part of the world, and he foresaw its capacity to generate great wealth. The first English factories were built in the 1770s and 80s. Richard Arkwright, in the English county of Derbyshire, in the the centre of the country, started building water-powered textile factories in the Derwent Valley, where fast-flowing water could turn water wheels. These were also the years in which James Watt was making rapid improvements to steam engines, more reliable than water wheels because they didn't depend on variations in the water level. Crompton's mule was the first effective textile weaving machine. Now, as the factories developed in the English North and Midlands, they became an immense market for raw cotton being sent from America. So the, the slave plantations in the American South would grow the cotton, and then it would be sent, once it had been ginned, to the British factories for spinning and weaving, after which it would then be re-exported. Adam Smith also um, demonstrated the importance of the division of labour. In a famous passage of The Wealth of Nations, he talks about pin makers and says that one pin maker working on his own and doing every stage in the process of turning uh, metal into pins can make several dozen pins per day. But if you actually break down the work into dozens of little subcategories, then you make tens of thousands of pins per day. It's a far, far more productive way of doing it, even though admittedly, he says, the work does become more boring. 
Smith was very attentive to the importance of entrepreneurship, the ways in which uh, the way in which uh, people taking initiatives and seeing how processes could be done better should be rewarded by an open market system. And he said entrepreneurial decisions ought not to be hindered by government regulation. The great thing about uh, what we now call capitalism, and, and which, uh, for which Smith's book is one of the great primers, was this. The free market, in which you have many people competing against one another, tends to benefit the consumer, because it means that the price tends to keep coming down and the quality keeps rising. So Smith was very much opposed to the idea of having these limited government monopolies and very much in favour of the idea of opening up the trade and opening up manufacturing to everybody. He was also a critic of the idea uh, of direct rule. He said colonies are likely to cost more to administer and to pacify than simply trading with them, as in fact India had shown in the 20 years after the Battle of Plassey. Now, bit by bit, British politicians also began to learn this new economic logic and to apply it to British colonial and trade policy. For example, listen to Lord Shelburne, who was the British Prime Minister at the end of the American Revolutionary War by which time um, government was turning against the principle of restricted monopolies. He said, Monopoly is always unwise, but if there is any nation under heaven who ought to be the first to reject monopoly, it is the English. Situated as we are between the old world and the new, and between southern and northern Europe, all that we ought to covet upon earth is free trade and fair equality. With more industry, with more enterprise, with more capital than any trading nation upon earth, it ought to be our constant cry, let every market be open, let us meet our rivals fairly, and we ask no more. In other words, Lord Shelburne understood perfectly that Britain had an advantageous position and ought now to be making the most of it, rather than hanging on to antiquated notions about trade and conflict was shortly after this, in the early 1790s, the Napoleonic Wars began and put an immense stress upon Britain and its empire. The Napoleonic Wars were conflicts of ideas as well as nations. And certainly the British establishment, the British political establishment, never accepted the French revolutionary principles of liberty, equality and fraternity, the great rallying cries of the revolution. And once again, we need to look at the work of Edmund Burke, whom I've mentioned several times. He was the, the scourge of Warren Hastings, who'd led the impeachment trial against Hastings. And in the early 1790s, he wrote a famous book called Reflections on the Revolution in France. And it's the great conservative indictment, a classic indictment of revolutionary principles, as important in its own way in, in political theory, as is Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations to economic theory. Edmund Burke points out the falsehood of social contract philosophies. Um, books like uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau's uh, idea, where R Rousseau says, man is born free, but is everywhere in chains. To which Burke answers, no, no, we're not born free. We're born as babies into families. We're born into particular places that have grown and developed over the centuries. Uh, his idea is, freedom isn't something that you've naturally got. It's something which might develop under highly favourable circumstances with the right political protections. And far from believing in equality, Burke was emphatic that equality is destructive and that uh, it's far better to live in a world of benign inequality. As Burke said, we live in a world full of inequalities and they're good. We have the young and the old, the high and the low. 
the royalty and the aristocracy and the commoners. And we live in a world full of time-tested traditions. And attempts to radically dislodge them are going to lead to tyranny and destructiveness. Burke feared that the revolutionary ideas sweeping through France were going to infect the common people and uh, his ideas were, were widely shared among the British uh, establishment and led to the repression of English radicals. The terror of 1793, the period during which the French monarchy and most of the aristocracy were led to the guillotine and killed by the revolution, and then the rise of the tyrant Napoleon confirmed a long tradition of British political thought, most recently summarised and embodied in, in Burke. His idea was, you need balance in society. If the intermediate institutions are swept away, organisations like the family and the local groups to which individuals belong, society breaks down, it becomes anarchic, and then a strong man, a demagogue or a tyrant, will rise to seize control. And this is how Napoleon certainly appeared to, uh, to the most articulate parts of British society. Well, the French Revolution posed the greatest threat to Britain at any time between 1588, the uh, Spanish Armada, and the potential invasion of, by Nazi Germany in 1940. It really was a period of national crisis. And particularly in the decade between 1795 and 1805, Britain really did face the danger of invasion. French troops massed at Boulogne, one of the Channel ports, in 1803-5. But Napoleon never had adequate command of the sea to be able to ship his invasion army across the Channel. England itself was militarised as a home militia was raised to fight off the possibility of a French invasion, and as more men than ever before were forced into army or navy service. Both sides attempted to blockade or embargo the other side into submission, and, uh, and blockades and embargoes played an important role in the Napoleonic Wars. The British blockade kept the French fleet in port for years at a time, and prevented any overseas vessels from arriving at French ports. Most of the naval duty undertaken by British sailors was immensely boring. It was simply a matter of literally sailing up and down, sometimes for years at a time, right outside the French ports, to prevent the French ships from putting to sea, and to intercept any trader attempting to come into the French ports. By then, the British Navy had discovered the use of copper sheathing, uh, to line the hulls of, the, of its battleships, and that prevented the build-up of barnacles on the hulls of the ships so that they could stay on station for much longer, uh, and not uh, making it less likely that the blockade could be breached. The Navy was maintained under extremely taut naval discipline. It was immensely monotonous work, with long, long periods at, at sea, often for sailors who had been press-ganged into the service in the first place. But... As an instrument of policy, the blockade was vitally useful. Now, conversely, Napoleon hoped that Britain's loss of its lucrative European markets would force it to come to terms. Until then, most of continental Europe had been an immensely profitable um, trading arena for the British. And Napoleon hoped and expected that Britain would come to terms for the sake of restoring its trade. He referred to, the, to England as a nation of shopkeepers. You might take that as a compliment, or you might interpret it as Napoleon meant it, as an insult. Napoleon's continental system was designed to weaken Britain by closing off its markets. But in fact, Britain's lead in industry and its near monopoly in colonial trade during the years of the Napoleonic Wars gave a huge incentive to reluctant European participants to cheat 
or to smuggle. And certainly a lot of covert trade did take place throughout that period. Now in the, in the Napoleonic Wars, Britain's land army was relatively small. But in the early part of the wars, and again later on, Britain was able to pay big subsidies to France's principal big army enemies, Russia, Prussia and Austria. It was able to pay these subsidies because of Britain's highly sophisticated banking system, its high degree of political and economic stability, and the fact that its uh, annual wealth was being renewed through, uh, through a thriving colonial trade. The colonial trade went on increasing. Just to give you an example of this, by 1800, the average Briton was consuming 20 pounds of sugar per year. This is also linked to a rise in, uh, in tea drinking. Whereas the average Frenchman, before the Napoleonic Wars, was consuming less than two pounds. So there are, the British sweet tooth was already ten times as great as that of the French. Now the war in the Mediterranean and the Atlantic demonstrated that British sea power could restrict French expansion beyond Europe. Napoleon dominated Europe with an astonishing succession of great military victories on land. Then he set his eyes on the Far East in the hope that he could come to dominate the declining Ottoman Empire, the Turkish Empire, and then perhaps even threaten Britain in India. One of the most fascinating campaigns of the Napoleonic Wars was the Egyptian campaign. Napoleon, aged only 29 in 1798, won a shattering victory over the Ottoman Empire's elite forces at the Battle of the Pyramids. Now, He'd been able to get to Egypt through the Mediterranean Sea because briefly the British blockade had been dispersed by, by terrific storms. As soon as the British fleet um, gathered together again after the storms, ne Lord Nelson, the commander, um, estimating correctly that Napoleon had gone to Egypt, pursued and encountered the French fleet uh, off the Egyptian coast and won a great victory at the Battle of the Nile. This is in August of 1798. The French ships were at anchor and Nelson with great daring sailed not only alongside them on the seaward side but also sent his ships in, in another line inside sailing inshore of the French with the result that the French ships were sandwiched and then were raked with uh, cannon fire from both sides. All but two of the French ships were destroyed whereas the British lost none. So it was an extremely disproportionate uh, uh, British victory. The British then strengthened their position in the Mediterranean Sea by capturing Minorca in the Balearic Islands and Malta off the coast of Sicily. Then British troops converged from India, from South Africa and from England and together they defeated the French survivors at the Battle of Alexandria in 1801. By then uh, most of Napoleon's force had been stranded in Egypt. From then on, throughout the 19th century, Britain recognised the need to prevent the Ottoman Empire from getting any weaker since this offered an obstacle to any aspiring attacker of British India. Well, it was a series of naval victories over France and its allies, culminating in Nelson's great victory at the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805, that gave Britain overwhelming maritime dominance, then and for the next century, right through until the next great naval battle of 1916, the Battle of Jutland. Admiral Jervis at the Battle of, Saint, of Cape St. Vincent in 1797 had captured enemy ships even when he was outnumbered severely. Admiral Duncan at the Battle of Camperdown the same year did likewise. The British specialised in, a, in um, 
intensive gunfire. They constantly practiced gunfire uh, so that they could have, even though these were cannons which had to be muzzle-loaded and had to be rolled onto the deck of the ship, they were clumsy and awkward to, to use, they practiced constantly. And so incessant gunnery training and a very, very high quality of the use of gun crews gave Britain nearly always a decisive advantage in these encounters. If you've read any of the books uh, by Patrick O'Brien, like um, Master and Commander, these are very, very accurate fictional renderings of the kind of naval warfare which took place. And Captain Jack in the stories is constantly practising rapid fire by his, by his cannons. Lord Nelson himself was the son of a country clergyman whose early experience included service in the American War. That's where he had his military apprenticeship. He lost an eye during fighting in Corsica and he lost an arm in the failed invasion of Tenerife. But nevertheless, he, was, uh, he enjoyed the full confidence of the Admiralty and became one of Britain's most uh, storied naval heroes of all time. When he encountered the, the French fleet at Trafalgar, he made a famous signal. England expects that every man will do his duty. And this became part of the folklore of the British Empire, passed down in subsequent uh, conflicts. I mentioned in an earlier lecture the execution of Admiral Bing, the man who didn't close with the enemy and fight decisively, and who paid for his negligence with his life. Nelson was the exact opposite of Bing. He always closed with the enemy, uh, usually with decisive, shocking force. And once again at Trafalgar, won a great victory by doing so. 22 out of 33 French ships in the line were destroyed or captured, whereas the British lost none, even though many of them were seriously damaged. The British suffered 1,700 casualties, but the French and Spanish, 14,000 casualties. So again, a great disparity of... of um, um, casualties between the two fleets. The tragedy of the Battle of Trafalgar was that Nelson died at the moment of victory on the deck of his ship, the Victory. Shot down at this moment of victory, just like General Wolfe at Quebec, and perhaps it in intensifies the mystique of a commander that he should die at such a moment. Certainly from that time forward, the Royal Navy revolved around the cult of Nelson. The next year, 1806, engaging French ships in the West Indies, a British admiral called Sir John Duckworth set up a portrait of Nelson on the deck of his ship HMS Superb to inspire his men during the battle. In 1811, one of Nelson's former junior officers, Captain William Host, attacked six French ships with four of his own, and he signalled before the onset of the battle, Remember Nelson! The sailors cheered, and they went on to win the engagement, even though they were outnumbered. Now you can imagine that in a situation like this, when, when occasionally Britain is winning decisive victories and for the rest of the time it's bottling up the French fleet in port, it was very, very difficult indeed for the French to train seamen. They literally couldn't get to sea. And that meant that, that losses for the French were extremely severe. They couldn't replace wounded or killed or captured seamen before the end of the wars in 1815. And there was very little chance for new sailors to gain any experience because they're hemmed in by these implacable blockades. Blockade work, as I said, was difficult and boring and monotonous and, and required extremely high quality seamanship for literally years at a time. And it paid great dividends. Now, the colonial situation is complicated. Britain was eager to see a, a, a strong monarchy restored in France. And that meant that even though it was able to capture quite a lot of French colonies, it didn't always hang on to them. Sometimes Britain, the British government made the decision, even though we've captured this French colony, let's hand it back to French royalists, because in doing so we'll weaken the position of the French revolutionaries. 
a lot of the fleeing French aristocrats had taken shelter in Britain, and that led to some new sympathies. In other words, the British and French upper classes started to see things in the same way. Although the Napoleonic Wars were a war between nations, there was also a very large element of class conflict in it, the upper classes fighting off the threat uh, from below. So, should policy be guided by cold commercial considerations, that is, seize the enemy's colonies, or should it be guided by issues of political philosophy, that is, restore them to the royalists to diminish the radicals' power? And in practice, Britain did some of each. For example, Britain seized Guadalupe and Martinique, two of the most profitable of the French sugar islands, but then restored them to French royalist planters rather than making them parts of the British Empire. A further complicating factor was the existence of slave uprisings, which took place sometimes in the name of the French revolutionary ideal. There was complete chaos in Haiti, where a, a great slave revolution broke out, whose new slave, uh, ex-slave leaders repelled a French counter-invasion. And then, when it came to fighting in the Caribbean, there was also the old problem that it was very difficult to keep an army alive Armies, armies always tended to generate epidemics in the days before modern medicine. And, and, and leading an army into the Caribbean was particularly lethal because in addition to all the usual health hazards, tropical diseases were so virulent. So a combination of slave uprisings and catastrophic losses due to disease prevented uh, Britain from, from securing uh, complete control over France's colonies in the Caribbean as they might otherwise have been able to do. But Britain did seize strategic strong points elsewhere, particularly Cape Town, which was to become very, very important in the development of the history of the British Empire in Africa, and also Ceylon in the Indian Ocean and Mauritius. Cape Town had been a Dutch colony since 1652, and Britain perfectly understood its importance as a staging point en route to India. They took over compensating the Dutch government in exile, and, uh, and in doing so, laying the foundations of their long-term conflict with the Boers, that is, the Dutch-descended white settlers of South Africa. The loss of Ceylon, formerly a Dutch colony also, but seized by the British in 1796, and of the Mauritius Islands, deprived France of a base from which they might ever again hope to launch an attack against British India. The historian Lawrence James summarises the effects, the, the imperial effects of the Napoleonic Wars in this way. He says, winning the war against France had been a Herculean effort. The conventional wisdom, then and later, attributed final victory to sea power, because above all, it ensured that Britain stayed in the ring. The ships of the Royal Navy had prevented invasion. They had confined French power to Europe and allowed Britain to occupy nearly all the overseas possessions of her adversaries. They guarded the convoys which sustained Wellington's army in the Iberian Peninsula, and they'd guaranteed the survival of Britain's global commerce, which generated the wealth needed to pay for the war effort and underwrite those of the three big European powers with armies large enough to engage Napoleons on equal terms. Well, now, one other... In retrospect, curious episode of the Napoleonic era was the War of 1812, the war between uh, Britain and the United States. It had two effects, I think. First, to absolutely confirm permanently the separation of the United States from Britain, but also to confirm the permanent adhesion of Canada to the British Empire. 
It was very controversial inside the United States itself because a lot of Northerners, particularly the Federalists, who tended to be the more conservative group of, of Americans in the, uh, in the first decade of the 19th century, they thought that Napoleon was a severe threat to America. They were terrified by his philosophy as well. And they believed that the United States had an interest in a British victory over Napoleon and deplored the fact that England and America were now at war. But it is true that the British had been very tactless in uh, stopping American ships on the high seas and often seizing crew members off them to compel them to become uh, crew in the Royal Navy. They'd sometimes allege that these were former mutineers or former deserters, and it was sometimes true. But this was a, a navy which practiced rough and ready methods of, of, of getting sailors, particularly the press gang. Now, in the War of 1812, when you study it from the American side, you, not surprisingly, tend to emphasize American victories. And conversely, if you study it from the British side, you tend to emphasize British victories. There were some of each, and I think it's reasonable to call the war in the long run a kind of standoff. But it's noteworthy that there were successive American incursions into Canada, all of which were easily defeated. For example, William Hull, a veteran of the Revolutionary War, led an expedition into Canada and called on the Canadians to join him. None of them did. And he retreated back across the Detroit River to Fort Detroit. The British commander, Isaac Brock, had a small force of his own, 100 regulars, 300 Canadian militiamen, and about 200 Indians. But he tricked Hull, the American commander, into the belief that his force was much larger, and he started rumours to the effect that he had 5,000 ruthless Indians in his service. He sent a letter to, uh, to Hull saying this, The force at my disposal authorises me to require of you the immediate surrender of Fort Detroit. It is far from my intention to join in a war of extermination. But you must be aware that the numerous body of Indians who have attached themselves to my troops will be beyond control the moment the contest commences. In other words, if you risk it and go to battle, I'm going to have an exterminating force of wild Indians who'll kill all of you. Well, under this provocation, Hull surrendered and turned over all the armaments and munitions of the fort to the British, including 30 cannons and 2,500 muskets. Hull was court-martialed for this feeble response to the British threat and was sentenced to death, but he was pardoned by President Madison for his service in the Revolution. Brock, the English commander, went on to fight in another decisive uh, victory, the Battle of Queenston Heights near Niagara Falls, in which most of the American invaders, militiamen, very quickly surrendered. And the only setback of the battle for Britain was the death of Brock himself, who was the most vigorous British commander in this campaign. These two failures to uh, convert the Canadians into potential Americans showed the force of the Canadian preference for Britain. And as I mentioned in the lecture about the revolution, quite a lot of the population of Canada was now former American loyalists who'd emigrated rather than become part of the republic. The British burned Washington, D.C., forcing Madison to flee. And ironically, the only great American uh, army victory of the war took place after the peace treaty had brought the war to an end. The peace treaty of Ghent was signed. But because they're still restricted by the, uh, the time it takes for a letter to cross the Atlantic Ocean, neither side in the Battle of New Orleans was aware that the war had ended. A British force advanced on New Orleans, encountered Andrew Jackson's sharpshooters, and was severely defeated. That was the Battle of New Orleans of 1815. And it's noteworthy, isn't it, that after 1815, now we're approaching the 200th anniversary of that time, 
Britain and the United States never again came to blows. Although there were periods of diplomatic tension between the two nations, both of them recognised the overwhelming desirability of maintaining the peace. Lecture 10, The Other Side of the World. The British Empire developed two types of colony. In colonies of the first type, such as India, the indigenous population remained far more numerous than that of the colonizers. A tiny British elite presided over tens of millions of Indians. In the second type, of which America, Canada, Australia and New Zealand are examples, the small indigenous population was decimated by disease and war, leaving the land open to large-scale white settlement. Australia, first mapped by Captain Cook, became a prison colony in 1788, where British criminals could be dumped literally on the other side of the world. After serving their sentences, many convicts were allowed to claim land and become farmers, and they soon discovered that sheep thrived as well in Australia as did tobacco in America, or sugar in the West Indies. Australia's economy took an immense leap forward in 1851, when disappointed treasure seekers returning from the Californian gold rush found gold at Bendigo and Ballarat, which set off a gold rush to the province of Victoria. Meanwhile, the British government had signed a treaty with New Zealand's Maori chiefs in 1840, guaranteeing their rights as British subjects, but unable in practice to prevent the gradual deterioration of their power and population in the face of British settlers. Well, the British government established a penal settlement at Botany Bay in 1788, and this became the nucleus of Australia. Until then, prisoners had often been kept in wretched hulks, that is, rotten old ships which were no longer seaworthy and which were stored in the Thames estuary. They were almost perpetually dark, they were infested with rats, they were really nightmarish places of imprisonment. And so being transported to Australia, if you could get there, was probably uh, preferable to being in the hulks. The first fleet arrived in 1788 under the command of Arthur Philip, and at this time, only six European ships had ever before visited Australia. Philip found that Botany Bay was too shallow, but the excellent Sydney Harbour was close by, and that became the nucleus of Sydney, which is uh, an important Australian city right up to the present, of course. Um, Sydney Harbour stretches 12 miles inland. It's deep and it's sheltered. On this first uh, expedition, there were 548 men and 188 women prisoners. Prisoners, the idea of shipping prisoners abroad had already been practiced. Uh, until then, they'd usually been sent to America. But of course, once the Amer American Revolution had taken place, that was no longer an option. About 30,000 prisoners had been sent from England to America, mainly to Georgia, since its founding in the 1730s. Now, uh, the idea of having an alternative prison colony um, made Australia attractive, but so did the idea that having once claimed Australia, as Captain Cook had done, it was a good idea to have people actually living there to preempt potential colonial rivals. And it was very, very difficult to get there. The voyage could easily take nine months. 
it was necessary to sail through the North Atlantic, across the equator, almost touching Brazil in order to pick up the prevailing winds in the Southern Hemisphere, and then around the Cape of Good Hope, following which the great voyage across the Southern Indian Ocean would take place. The first fleet arrived in Australia in midsummer, as it is in the Southern Hemisphere, January the 26th, and that's a day which is still celebrated as a holiday in Australia today. And as Joseph Banks, the naturalist, had said, the climate was relatively mild, very different than if they'd gone to India or to the West Indies or to the East Indies, where quick death from tropical disease would have been almost certain. There had even been an idea for creating British prison colonies in West Africa. Now, nearly all English people who went to West Africa died there of tropical diseases, and if they'd already been prisoners who were usually poor and in a weakened state to begin with, it would literally have been a death sentence. So again, harsh as Australia was, it was in some respects better than the potential alternatives. Most of these prisoners were what we describe as petty thieves. In 1790, there were 160 crimes for which you could be put to death in England, including stealing plated shoe buckles when drunk or breaking down a fish pond. But in practice, the law wasn't quite as, as draconian as it sounds. Judges didn't have the heart to do it. And very often, even when a, a criminal had committed what was technically a capital offence, the sentence would be commuted to transportation instead. But it is true that there were very harsh penalties for all crimes against property. You could be sentenced to seven years of hard labour for stealing a few hens or a sheep. And of course this is a time of uh, lawlessness, particularly in the new towns. But it's also a time of highwaymen on the, on the turnpikes between the towns, of pickpockets. There was no police force anywhere in Britain before the 1830s. And so that meant that deterrence had to be correspondingly stronger. One of the ways in which deterrence operated was by having dramatic public executions, big spectacles in which the, uh, the condemned man showed by the example of his death how dangerous and unwise it was to fall into crime. Women were arrested for prostitution and also often transported. A shipload of, of former prostitutes arrived in Australia in 1794. And among this mix of prisoners, there were also a few who were political prisoners. Uh, an unsuccessful Irish rebellion in 1798, some of the survivors of the, uh, of the reprisals were sent to Australia. A group called the Scottish Martyrs were sent to Australia too. These were advocates in Scotland of the doctrines of the French Revolution. And in 1834, the pioneers of the English, or some of the pioneers of the English trade union movement, the so-called Tollpuddle Martyrs, at a time when creating a trade union in Britain was still illegal. Between 1787 and 1867, 80 years later, when transportation ended, about 140,000 people were transported from Britain to the Australian prison colony. And conditions there were harsh. It was close to slave labour, with minor infractions being punished by flogging the lash. But it's also true that Arthur Phillip, the first commander, was a capable leader in these emergency conditions. The near starvation of the first two years was gradually rectified as proper farming was established and an adequate food supply created. Very often, prisoners who were sent to Australia were sentenced to a certain term of imprisonment after which they'd be released but weren't allowed to go back to Britain. So instead they would become farmers and gradually the settlement spread out in, in the back country behind Sydney. And the colony began to expand rapidly when sheep farming prospered. 
an enterprising Scottish soldier who originally was part of the garrison, John MacArthur, discovered that Spanish Merino sheep thrived there when they were crossbred with Bengali or South African fat-tail sheep. Uh, and this became a very, very useful source of wool then and for the next century or more, and also a source of, of ready meat for the colony. He himself began with a 250-acre farm, but eventually expanded it until he was the owner of 600,000 acres, so he was one of the first big landowners in Australian history. Sheep became the key commodity to Australian expansion and prosperity, just as tobacco had been to Virginia and sugar had been to the West Indies. And uh, imports of Australian sheep came on the market in 1807, just when the Napoleonic Wars were blocking imports from the continent. Uh, and that also contributed to the boom. This was one of the favourable side effects of the Napoleonic War. And it coincided with the acceleration of British industrialisation, so that the demand for wool kept rising to feed the uh, British factories. MacArthur built a huge estate, and he was also the first Australian to practice viticulture, growing vines. So he was fa the founder of two of what became Australia's major businesses. Now, the healthy climate is important to emphasise, uh, because it meant that people going there stood a very good prospect of staying alive, which certainly wasn't true in many parts of the British Empire. The coastal range of hills, the, or the Blue Mountains as they're called, were first crossed in 1813, and just two years later, a, um, a gang of convicts built a road across the mountains, 1815. That in turn led to increased friction with the Aborigines, who themselves had no tradition of private property and tended to be pushed back into the interior and into the outback onto more and more marginal land. So the spread of white settlement into the interior of Australia was extremely adverse from the Aboriginal point of view. And like the uh, Native Americans a couple of centuries previously, they were extremely vulnerable to epidemics which had been brought in by the Europeans. Attempts to Christianise them and to settle them almost invariably failed. Aborigines found themselves completely unable to wear clothes, something Captain Cook had discovered, or to live indoors. And their way of life was so alien to the British immigrants that it drew very, very little sympathy or understanding. Of course, this is long before the development of the idea of cultural relativism or the anthropological idea that different societies have different ways of coming to terms with their environments. And so most descriptions of the Aborigines emphasise how grotesque their way of life is, rather than the reasonable adaptation that they had made to, to circumstances. As I mentioned before, a lot of them carried fire sticks and tended to set fire to the vegetation wherever they went, with the result that they lived almost constantly surrounded by smoke. This was effective as an anti-mosquito device. The first governor wrote, they usually keep fire burning and are very rarely seen without either a fire actually made or a piece of lighted wood, which they carry with them from place to place, and even in their canoes. He went on to say, in reaction to this matter of the mosquitoes, wherever they went they were plagued by mosquitoes, against which they employed the deterrent of fish oil. It is by no means uncommon to see the entrails of fish frying upon their heads in the sun, till the oil runs over the face and body. This unguent is deemed by them of so much importance that children, even if two years old, are taught the use of it. Since they never washed, they spent their lives coated with a mixture of rancid fish oil, animal grease, ochre, beach sand, dust and sweat. What about their marriage customs? Well, the, uh, the cartoon stereotype can be seen in this description of how Australians set about marrying. In obtaining a female partner, the first step they take romantic as it may seem, 
is to fix on some female of a tribe at enmity with their own. The monster then stupefies her with blows which he inflicts with his club on her head, back, neck, and indeed every part of her body. Then, snatching up one of her arms, he drags her, streaming with blood from her wounds, through the woods, over stones, rocks, hills and logs, with all the violence and determination of a savage, till he reaches his tribe. Well, that's, uh, that's uh, a tall tale. It's, it's bad anthropology, although it gives a vivid idea of how the English were thinking about uh, Australia, uh, um, Aboriginal customs. The English were shocked to discover also that the Aborigines practiced infanticide, the killing of weak infants, and geronticide, the killing of old people who could no longer walk, for the sake of preserving the mobility of the group. And there were many places in early Australian history, particularly Tasmania, where the whites remorselessly hunted down and killed the Aborigines and faced no official reprisals of any kind. Early governors of the, of the colony battled for control in a chaotic political environment. I mentioned the mutiny on the bounty and the fact that William Bly, the captain who'd been set adrift by his mutiny, mutinous crew, later became a governor. He was the fourth governor. And there he suffered another mutiny when he tried to suppress the rum trade. In 1808, Bly arrested and imprisoned John MacArthur, the sheep entrepreneur, who'd grown very rich by monopolising the liquor trade, most of which was rum imported from Bengal. And then by giving the provisioning business to his cronies. MacArthur was a good businessman, but he had a touchy sense of honour and had fought three duels, including one with his commanding officer when he'd still been in the service itself. Bly tried to stop this monopoly and to distribute government goods to needy settlers. But army officers loyal to MacArthur arrested Bly at gunpoint and eventually sent him home, where he was exonerated in yet another court-martial. And this is remembered in Australian history as the Rum Rebellion. Incidentally, Bly himself was promoted to admiral. He never did lose the faith of the British authorities, but from that time onwards he was given no more real commands. Another of the early governors was Lachlan Macquarie, governor from 1810 to 1821 an army officer and a veteran of the Napoleonic Wars, who proved to be a very, very effective leader of this early colony. He was a Scotsman from the Hebrides, and like so many of the uh, politicians in, in Australian and Canadian history, had strong Scottish links. He was an autocrat, but a sensible one, with 20 years' service in the army, much of it as the commander of a Highland regiment in India, accustomed to living under harsh circumstances. Now, he believed that, the, that prisoners could be reformed, and he encouraged prisoners, after serving their sentences, to stay on and to become responsible farmers or citizens. Uh, in the nature-nurture debate, which carries on right up to the present, he came down firmly in the belief that, with the favourable environmental circumstances, people can be transformed. They can be turned from what was once criminals into uh, healthy and productive and useful members of society. As each prison ship arrived, he met the prisoners in person and told them that they had rights as well as duties, and that they could look forward to honest work and freedom after serving their term. He found the city of Sydney an insanitary slum, and he undertook a big building and, and cleaning program to increase uh, public health and, and welfare in the city itself. He closed all the bars on Sundays and made church-going compulsory for the prisoners. He built a great barracks in Sydney for 600 prisoners, designed by a man called Greenway. This was an architect who had been transported for forgery, but proved to be very useful to the colonial authorities because he was a highly gifted draftsman and builder. Inside the big barracks, men slept in hammocks and had basic public health principles. Macquarie had learned from Captain Cook, and uh, this was a way of reducing the death rate. 
Among the prisoners were quite a few craftsmen who helped him to build a model city, Sydney, turning it from a lethal shanty town, which it had been in the very early days, into a fairly distinguished colonial city. Listen to the words of a French visitor called Francois Perron, who admired Sydney as the city grew up. Between the house and the fortress is the public school. Here are educated in those principles of religion, morality and virtue, those young females who are the hope of the rising colony, but whose parents are either too degenerate or too poor to give them proper instruction. In the school, however, and under respectable matrons, they're taught from their earliest years all the duties of a good mother of the family. Such is one of the great advantages of the excellent colonial system established in these distant regions. Perron was also very impressed by the fact that former prisoners were becoming good citizens. Quote, they have been compelled to abandon their antisocial manners, and the majority of them, having expiated their crimes by a hard period of slavery, in other words, forced labour, have been restored to the rank which they held amongst their fellow men. Obliged to interest themselves in the maintenance of order and justice for the purpose of preserving the property which they have acquired, while they behold themselves in the situation of husbands and fathers, they have the most interesting and powerful motives for becoming good members of the community in which they exist. The same revolution, effected by the same means, has taken place among the women, and those who were wretched prostitutes have imperceptibly been brought to a regular mode of life and now form intelligent and laborious mothers of families. While Macquarie's war on corruption annoyed long-term settlers like MacArthur, who eventually conspired to have him recalled in 1821, but not before he'd managed to transform Sydney and its environment very much for the better. Now let's go east for a while to New Zealand. New Zealand's indigenous people, the Maoris, lived in more complex societies than the Aborigines and were more warlike too. They fought a prolonged rearguard against white domination and although eventually their society went in decline, uh, it, was, it was far less of a foregone conclusion than it was in the case of Australia. The land was very biologically alien to the first European visitors. Joseph Banks, who went there with Captain Cook, recognised only 14 of the first 400 plants he discovered in New Zealand. There was only one mammal indigenous to the place, a, a kind of bat. The Maori, originally from Polynesia, had brought dogs with them in their crossing of the sea, and they'd accidentally brought rats as well. But there were thousands of species indigenous to New Zealand which hadn't been seen elsewhere. Massive caterpillars, for example, and vast, uh, a vast array of previously unknown insects. Historians estimate that there were about 100,000 Maoris in 1800. They were very warlike, and many of them practiced cannibalism. Captain Cook and the early European uh, visitors introduced pigs into the island that soon ran wild and became feral. Um, this is a common practice in the early history of the empire. Whenever British sailors went to a, an island which was uninhabited or in which there was no white population, they'd often put pigs ashore in the knowledge that they'd run wild, they'd become feral, that is the wild descendants of formerly domestic animals, and that they'd breed rapidly and that they provide a kind of ready-made food supply to later ships stopping in the island. Today, these feral pigs are called cookers. Potatoes were also in introduced into the island by early visitors, so that the island's ecology, the island's ecology were, were changing even before permanent settlement. European sealers exploited the seal population until it almost disappeared from overhunting in the 1820s. 
And New Zealand became a port of call for British and American whale fishermen, especially the Bay of Islands on the Northern Island. If you've read Moby Dick, you'll know that um, American and British whaling voyagers went to sea for years at a time and roamed far and wide throughout the oceans. Um, New Zealand was one of the places in which they'd stopped to pick up fresh water and food. And it became a place which was notorious for getting hold of pork and potatoes and also sex, much to the horror of the pioneer missionaries who were trying to convert the Maoris to Christianity. One of them wrote, Here drunkenness, adultery, murder are committed. Satan maintains his dominions without molestation. The uh, whaling crews were rough, tough people. Some of the whaling captains went native, married Maori women, and covered their faces in Maori tattoos, occasionally even joining them in the tradition of cannibalism. Well, what the Maoris most wanted from the white men was muskets guns, because they had this almost magical power to kill a rival without even directly touching him. And of course it meant that the Maoris who were able to trade with the Europeans to get muskets could assure their own domination over rival chiefs who didn't have uh, direct access to the guns. So muskets became the standard trade item with the whalers. And the early possessors of guns defeated and enslaved rival tribes. But all metal goods were extremely valuable to the Maori, just as they had been a couple of hundred years previously in the Americas. A man named Edward Gibbon Wakefield was determined that New Zealand should become a white settler colony, rather than one comprised of Christianised natives. Wakefield was struck by the fact that it had an extremely mild climate, which would be hospitable to British settlers. Wakefield was an Australian whose exaggerated writings about the beauty and possibilities of life in New Zealand encouraged emigration from Britain. He founded the New Zealand Association and began shipping colonists there. And he also tried to organise um, settlements according to the exact um, Protestant denomination that they belonged to. For example, he was the founder of Christchurch, still a city in New Zealand today, as an Anglican settlement, most of whose founders had been educated at the Oxford College called Christchurch, which is a direct translation from the one place to the other, literally on the antipodes of the earth. The British government tried to keep pace with colonisation schemes of this kind by formal annexation, and the first governor was Captain William Hobson. In 1840, Britain signed the Treaty of Waitangi. Uh, 46 major Maori chiefs were gathered together, along with 500 lesser ones, the British put on a great display. The officers wore their dress uniforms. They set up tents covered in bunting flags. And one of the chiefs declared to the British, you must be our fathers. You must not allow us to become slaves. You must preserve our customs and never permit our lands to be wrested from us. Others foresaw that they were going to suffer domination, but simply lacked the power to prevent annexation. The large-scale conversion of the Maori to Christianity began in the 1830s and 40s. After a long period of making no progress, eventually the missionaries began to get some purchase over them. And in the early 1850s, for the first time, Maori nationalism began to develop. As the members of the different tribes on the islands began to put aside their old antagonisms, their tribal rivalries, and recognise a common interest in preserving their way of life, they chose their own king, for example but they still couldn't prevent the arrival of thousands of white settlers to a climate that was very similar to that of Britain and, for the immigrants, very healthy. The Maoris went into decline partly because of the spread of venereal disease and tuberculosis and other European pathogens, and again this is similar to the fate of the Native Americans centuries before. The colonial authorities, even when they were well disposed towards Maori claims, were rarely strong enough to prevent the predation 
of settlers against the Maoris and the tendency for constant friction to lead to mutual reprisals throughout the next few decades. And the result was that uh, over the course of the 19th century, New Zealand, like Australia, gradually became a farming and sheep pastoral uh, colony. Now, going back to Australia now for a moment, let's look at the Australian gold rush, which uh, began in 1851 and transformed the circumstances of Australia itself. Edward Hargreaves was a disappointed 49er, a man who'd gone from Australia to California in the hope of making a great fortune in the California gold rush. He came home disappointed, but when he was at Bathurst in New South Wales, he noticed a similarity in the landscape and wondered whether there was in fact gold here too. There was. First at Bathurst, and then much more impressively in the new colony of Victoria at Bendigo and Ballarat, great gold discoveries were made, and they became the, the nucleus of the Australian gold rush. By 1852, half a tonne of gold every week was being dug out at Ballarat, 370,000 immigrants came to Victoria in 1852 alone. That's more than double the number of convicts so far over the previous half century or more. And in the long run, although at first gold rush communities tend to be chaotic, the, uh, the influx of a big new population in the long run was extremely beneficial to the growth of the colony. And there was a great stampede out of Melbourne. The, the same thing had happened in San Francisco and, and, uh, and happened recurrently throughout the 19th century when there was a great gold rush. Everybody who's in the environment thinks the possibility of literally picking up a fortune from the ground is so great that I must abandon whatever I'm doing now for the sake of getting to, to join in with the rush. And especially in the very early days of a gold rush, when there's literally surface gold to be found, a man with a shovel and a pan, if he's lucky, really can make a fortune. Later on, of course, it becomes a matter of mining equipment and stone crushers and high capitalization, at which point the rush tends to peter out and some of the early gold rushes become... Um, hired labourers. Anyway, the stampede out of Melbourne, here's a description of it by the Lieutenant Governor of the colony. Cottages are deserted, houses to let, businesses are to standstill, and even schools are closed. In some of the suburbs, not a man is left, and the women are known, for self-protection, to forget their neighbours' quarrels and group together to keep house. Fortunate the family, whatever its position, which retains its servants at any sacrifice, and can secure supplies for their households from the few tradesmen who still remain. All buildings and contract works, public and private, almost without exception, are at a standstill. Now, uh, there's a difference in American and British law relating to minerals. In America, if you buy land and find minerals on them, you can become their owner. But in British law, if you find minerals on your land, they remain the property of the Crown. In the Australian gold rush, it, the... Uh, the political reaction to this legal doctrine was to say to the miners, if you buy a mining license, then you're entitled to keep the gold that you find. But these licenses were expensive. They cost 30 shillings, that is one and a half English pounds, per month. And you had to pay the police force, um, which was established in reaction to the gold rush, you have to pay the police to get a, a license. And the police themselves, whose pay was based on the, on the money from these licenses, became uh, predatory uh, and, and going after the miners. Uh, when, when the, the licenses were paper, but at all times you had to have your license on you. Even if you were working in a flooded pit, 
If ever you hadn't got the license, you could be arrested and fined in addition to having to pay the license fee. So there was an, um, an aggravated feeling of resentment on the part of the miners at what they interpreted as persecution by the police. Eventually, uh, the Ballarat Reform League was created, uh, protesting against these costly government mining licenses, and uh, an organised group of the miners refused to pay. They organised a protest and burned their licenses in public as a way of showing that they uh, resented it. The governor reacted by refusing to negotiate and sent troops to the diggings, who in a brief battle, which only lasted about 10 minutes, killed about 25 miners in a stockade and wounded 35. Three of the soldiers were killed too, in what's now remembered in Australian history as the Eureka Rebellion. The ringleaders were arrested and marched off to Melbourne and put on trial for treason for firing on government soldiers. But juries refused to convict them. The history of, of British and British colonial juries is itself a very interesting one. Very often, if they feel that the crime was justified, they'd find the perpetrators not guilty, even in the face of overwhelming evidence. Well, at that point, the government backed away from the escalation of confrontation, and they widened the franchise. That is, for the first time, they gave the vote to some of these miners, and they converted the licence fee to £1 per year. So instead of having to pay a pound and a half every month, you now just have to pay £1 per year, a much more manageable fee, especially for the majority of miners who weren't, in fact, finding very much gold. And so this event, the Eureka Rebellion, is remembered as one of the moments in the birth of Australian democracy, uh, when uh, a popular uprising asserts the rights of the people over against the authorities. The point is this, the British government and its agents throughout the world never forgot what had happened in 1775 in America. Colonists can become politicised and, and they can become very violent on behalf of their own rights as they see it. So when, when it came to the crisis, the government temporised. Subsidised immigration from Britain began in the 1830s and that in turn prompted, out the, the, prompted the phasing out of penal transportation. As far as I know, Australia is the only nation that was ever founded as a prison camp. And it's certainly one which seems to prove the idea that it, that it seems to disprove the idea of innate criminality. The historian Niall Ferguson makes what I think of as a very shrewd remark about all this. He says, comparing Australia with America, the great paradox of Australian history is that what started out as a colony populated by people whom Britain had thrown out proved to be so loyal to the British Empire for so long. America had begun as a combination of tobacco plantation and Puritan utopia, a creation of economic and religious liberty, and ended up as a rebel republic. Australia started out as a jail, the very negation of liberty. Yet the more reliable colonists turned out to be not the pilgrims, but the prisoners. Lecture 11. Abolition of the Slave Trade and Slavery. Slavery, in various forms, has been widespread throughout world history. The surprise is not that the British Empire used slaves, but that eventually it decided to abolish the entire system. A resistance movement began among Quakers and Evangelical Christians in 18th century England. It found a parliamentary champion in William Wilberforce, who devoted his life to the cause. 
succeeding first in abolishing the transatlantic slave trade in 1807, and then in abolishing slavery itself throughout the empire in 1833. West Indian plantation owners, the principal users of slave labour, were compensated for the loss of their human property, but the process took place relatively peacefully, whereas America 30 years later was plunged into civil war over the issue. When the planters discovered that their ex-slaves were reluctant to carry on their old form of labour for subsistence wages, they began to import labourers from India and China instead, contributing to the multiracial character of Jamaica, Barbados, Trinidad and British Guyana up to the present. Meanwhile, the West African colony of Sierra Leone developed with a population of former slaves. A Royal Navy squadron patrolled the African coast in an effort to prevent other nations' continuation of the slave trade. And the British government had pressured nearly all the other Atlantic nations into ending it by 1850. Well, the humanitarian and religious campaign against slavery gathered strength once it found supporters in Parliament. The campaign coincided with the belief that missionaries should be sent out through the empire to bring the gospel to native peoples everywhere. Um, And as I'll be talking about in in subsequent lectures, this is one of the great issues of the 19th century. Should the people simply be left in in the enjoyment of their conventional customs, or should they be turned into good Christians? In general, it was the liberals and the non-conformists, that is, Protestants who weren't part of the Church of England, who believed in evangelizing and believed in the abolition of slavery and in human improvement in all forms, whereas the Tories, the predecessors of the Conservatives, tended to take the view that only the white races could be entirely civilised, and that paternalistic slavery was a kindness. There was never much slavery in England itself, and serfdom, the, uh, the practice of tying people to the land, had been abolished centuries earlier. But there were some families in 18th century England who would have a black slave or servant as a kind of curiosity. And it's important to emphasise that this wasn't regarded as scandalous. It wasn't regarded as a human rights abuse. For example, James Boswell, the man who wrote the biography of Dr Johnson, a highly cultivated man of his time, a humane and civilised man, was surprised when he first heard about even the possibility of abolition. He wrote... To abolish a status which in all ages God has sanctioned and man has continued would not only be robbery to an innumerable class of our fellow subjects, but it would be extreme cruelty to the African savages, a portion of whom it introduced into a much happier state of life. Now this wasn't some racist fanatic, even though that's certainly how we'd regard such a statement today. It was a a representative of the broad mainstream of British opinion at the time. The very first advocates of abolition were the Quakers, who began to condemn slavery. Uh, We have a statement from 1727 where for the first time they condemn it. In the 18th century, an evangelical movement swept through the Church of England as well. It it was the foundation of Methodism, and it infected the, um, or influenced the main church as well. Bishop Warburton of Gloucester preached a sermon against the morality of slavery in 1766. And of course, in doing so, he was raising the point that Slavery might be immoral, even though it seems to be approved of in the Bible. Although the children of Israel certainly resented being slaves in Egypt, once they'd escaped into the Holy Land, they enslaved the people that they'd captured. There's certainly no evidence in the Bible that God condemns slavery. Jesus himself never spoke against it. A man named Granville Sharp 
began to litigate on behalf of Africans who were living in England. He was a civil servant. But in 1765, he encountered a badly injured black man at a free clinic in London that was run by his brother. And he discovered that the man had been beaten by his owner with the butt of a gun and then thrown into the street. Sharp nursed him back to health, only to have the owner appear, claim the slave, and then try to sell him to a Jamaica planter. Sharp was outraged by this sequence of events, and he began to bring lawsuits to clarify Black's legal status in England. The most famous of the cases which uh, ensued was the Somerset case of 1772. And by the decision of that case, the legal status of slaves who happened to be in England, uh, the, or the legal position of the slave owner, was weakened. And this encouraged a new approach to the entire question. The Lord Chief Justice, Lord Mansfield, ruled that slavery had no legal protection in Britain and that men who had been slaves elsewhere could not be forcibly taken out of Britain once they'd been brought in. Lord Mansfield added that it was so odious, slavery was so odious, that it would need a positive act of Parliament to be permitted, and that there had never been such an act. Now the fact that the, the man at the very pinnacle of the judicial system should take this view is itself evidence of, a, of the beginnings of a widespread change of opinion over the course of the 18th century. Sharp and others founded the Committee for Effecting the Abolition of the African Slave Trade in 1787, originally a gathering of like-minded people who were interested, whose committee evolved into a society uh, dedicated to working first to abolish the slave trade. There were people who said, for example, slavery in settled condition on the plantations is one thing, but the real atrocity consists of the slave trade, that is, wrenching people out of their homes in Africa and trading in them and carrying them across the Atlantic. And so the first objective was to destroy the trade, after which the movement turned its attention to abolishing slavery itself. One of Granville Sharp's closest collaborators was Thomas Clarkson. He became aware of the issue as an undergraduate at Cambridge University in the 1780s, when he won a Latin prize competition. He had to write an essay in Latin in answer to this question. Is it lawful to make slaves out of others against their will? Now, at the time he did it, it was just an exercise. It was just an exercise in Latin prose writing. But he found himself being convinced by the arguments he put forward and had a great conversion experience, uh, which he later compared to Saul's experience on the road to Damascus when he arose, transformed, and found the issue to which he decided to dedicate his life. He was riding near the, the town of Ware, and today a roadside marker at Ware still marks the place where he decided to dedicate his life to abolishing slavery. Well, Clarkson translated his answer into English and published it as an anti-slavery tract in 1785. And then he began to tour England, gathering information and trying to get support, particularly in Bristol and Liverpool. These are the two West Coast port towns which had grown wealthy on the slave trade. He was an absolutely untiring anti-slavery agitator, but he made a great tactical mistake by becoming enthusiastic over the French Revolution and the idealism of the French revolutionaries at a time when many English politicians were terrified by it. Uh, and that had the effect of damaging the credibility of the anti-slavery cause for a while, especially when a slave rebellion broke out in Haiti, inspired by French revolutionary rhetoric, which led to the massacre of 2,000 whites. Well, the stress of these circumstances was so great that it led to Clarkson suffering a nervous breakdown after spending almost his entire fortune in the movement. 
And between, the, between 1794 and 1803, he dropped out of the movement completely. I don't want to imply that the anti-slavery movement was solely the preoccupation of humanitarian whites. There were black participants in the abolition movement as well, of whom the most famous, almost certainly, is Uladar Equiano, who himself, a slave, provided eloquent testimony as to the human cost of slavery. Equiano was born in what's now Nigeria, captured as a child, sold into slavery, and eventually passed into the ownership of a Quaker merchant. We tend to think of slaves in, the, in America and in the British Empire as being chiefly people who worked settled on plantations, but quite a large number of them actually moved around, living at sea, moving from one island to the next through the Caribbean. And Equiano himself was um, a highly enterprising young man. He undertook trades on his own account. For, for example, in two of the islands of the Caribbean, he noticed that eggs were much more expensive in one than another. So he would buy eggs cheap on one island and sell them dear at the next. So he was able to eventually to gather together a little fortune of his own and with the encouragement of sympathetic Quakers, bought his own freedom. Then he learned how to read and write moved to London, and finally wrote a, a very moving autobiography, published in 1789, which became one of the great classics of the anti-slavery movement. And I'd like to read you a passage from um, Equiano's autobiography, because it's one of the most vivid descriptions we have from a slave's point of view of life on the ships during the Middle Passage. He picks up the uh, story just when he's been brought onto the ship, itself a terrifying thing to see, and has no idea where he's going to go or what it's going to be like. He says... The stench of the hold while we were on the coast was so intolerably loathsome that it was dangerous to remain there for any length of time. And some of us had been permitted to stay on the deck for the fresh air. But now that the whole ship's cargo were confined together, it became absolutely pestilential. The closeness of the place and the heat of the climate added to the number in the ship, which was so crowded that each of us had scarcely room to turn himself, almost suffocated us. This produced copious perspirations, so that the air soon became unfit for respiration from a variety of loathsome smells and brought on a sickness among the slaves, of which many died, thus falling victims to the improvident avarice, as I may call it, of their purchasers. In other words, the owners had bought so many, that they're, and they're so squeezed together, that many of them are destined to die from it. The owners would have done better to buy less. This wretched situation was again aggravated by the galling of the chains, now become insupportable, and the filth of the necessary tubs into which the children often fell and were almost suffocated. The shrieks of the women and the groans of the dying rendered the whole a scene of horror almost inconceivable. Happily, perhaps for myself, I was soon reduced so low here that it was thought necessary to keep me almost always on deck, and from my extreme youth I was not put in fetters. In this situation, I expected every hour to share the fate of my companions, some of whom were almost daily brought upon deck at the point of death, which I began to hope would soon put an end to my miseries. Every circumstance I met with served only to render my state more painful and heighten my apprehensions and my opinion of the cruelty of the whites. One day they had taken a number of fishes, and when they had killed and satisfied themselves with as many as they thought fit, to our astonishment who were on deck, rather than give any of them to us to eat, as we expected, they tossed the remaining fish into the sea again, although we begged and prayed for some as well as we could. 
but in vain. Well, this is a description written years later, after a lifetime of subsequent experiences, but very vividly evoking the, uh, the horrors of the Middle Passage. Anti-slavery philanthropists founded Sierra Leone as a colony for former slaves who'd fought with the British in the American Revolutionary War. During the Revolution, especially in the South, in, in slave country, slaves who volunteered to fight with the British Army were offered their freedom and military pay as a quid pro quo. Many of them, at the end of the Revolutionary War, when the British Army had been defeated, were taken first to Nova Scotia, but it was too cold there, and hundreds of them died in the severe winter. Then many of them went to England, so that in the 1780s there was a sudden rise in the black population of, India, of, of England, most of them former slaves from America. But there they were often unpaid or unable to find work and became destitute, a kind of problem population. Granville Sharp and the other anti-slavery philanthropists promoted the idea of creating a settlement in Africa for freedmen of this kind. And in 1787, 374 freedmen sailed for Sierra Leone. It wasn't altogether successful. In fact, at first it was, uh, it was disastrous. In the first five years, most of them died. All but 60 died, either of diseases or from war against the resentful local peoples. After all, it's not as though Sierra Leone was an empty place. The, the British, by arriving, were displacing other peoples who already lived there. One of the groups which was most influential in the anti-slavery movement was a group called the Clapham Sect. This is a very, very high-minded group of, uh, of Protestant intellectuals who are great believers in the possibilities of human improvement. And one of their leaders, Zachary Macaulay, became the, uh, the governor of Sierra Leone and gradually built up a model community there in the 1790s so that the survivability rate became much better and with the help of an annual government subsidy it became a stable part of the British Crown Colonies in Africa. Uh, starting in 1808 it was a naval base as well. The capital of Sierra Leone was Freetown, in other words the town of freedom where escaped slaves and slaves taken, uh, slavers taken off other ships could hope to go to lead a new life. Now, the, the biggest name in the, in the British history of the anti-slavery movement is that of William Wilberforce. He became the parliamentary leader of the abolitionists. Uh, in British life, what every political movement needs to be effective is not only um, a popular movement, but also principled political leaders who are willing to uh, bring the issue into debate in the legislature. William Wilberforce was a, an MP for Yorkshire, a member of parliament for Yorkshire. As a young man, he'd been a, a carefree fellow, a heavy drinker, a good singer, a kind of carousing young gentleman who didn't have a care in the world. Although earlier, he was in Parliament originally at the age of 21 because of, uh, of good political connections. And his early nickname was the Nightingale of the House because he was such a beautiful orator. But then, like many of the others in the movement, he had a dramatic conversion and became a pious evangelical Christian in 1785 and then a convinced anti-slavery man. He was very impressed by the evidence introduced by people like Clarkson and Sharp and began to work very, very hard in Parliament in the face of tenacious uh, opposition. Opposition came from the West India lobby, that is, representatives of the West Indies planters who foresaw disaster if slavery were to be abolished or if the slave trade were to be ended. The first time the issue came to a vote in 1791, the, the, the principle of uh, abolishing the Atlantic slave trade failed. The planters were able to get a majority. 
1792, it was reintroduced, and this time the, the principle of gradual abolition passed the Commons, but then was postponed. The House of Lords didn't vote against it, they didn't vote on it at all. And what followed throughout the 90s was years of tenacious lobbying by Wilberforce uh, as he became the embodiment of the conscience of the House of Commons, appealing to the better nature of the members there and appealing over what for many of them was their material interest in favour of the idea of abolition. And finally, Wilberforce succeeded. In 1807, an Act of Parliament did abolish the Atlantic slave trade, despite the fierce and continuing opposition of the West Indies lobby. This was a crucial first step for the whole abolition movement. And it's particularly impressive, I think, that it took place in 1807, because this is right in the middle of the Napoleonic Wars, and just two years after the Battle of Trafalgar, which had guaranteed complete British domination of the high seas. So this was a time when, potentially, the British blockade of the other European nations gave Britain almost sole access to the slave trade, which, as I said before, was a very, very profitable one. So clearly, this was a case where political idealism trumps uh, economic self-interest. The movement had revived partly when, uh, when uh, in, in the early 1800s during the Napoleonic Wars when it became known that Napoleon himself was pro-slavery. The speeches leading up to abolition were highly emotional and there were three cheers for Wilberforce who wept openly in the House of Commons. Herman Merivale, a Victorian historian writing about it later in 1861, 50 years after it had happened, said this, the abolition of the slave trade was indeed a great and noble action. It deserves to be called so, because it was in truth the rarest of all achievements, a deed of national self-denial. By it, we sacrificed the means of preserving and extending our colonial opulence. I think that's a very fair comment. The British, certainly from, economic, from the economic point of view, would have, have, uh, have prospered from continuing to uh, operate the trade. Now, Wilberforce hoped that the slaves who were already in the West Indies would now be treated better. Uh, and it was true that the value of slaves started to rise, both in the islands and also uh, in, in the south of the United States, because a new supply of slaves was no longer coming over the ocean, which meant that there was no, no longer prospect of replacement from abroad. So, uh, so new slaves had to come from natural increase. And that meant, of course, that the health of the living slaves had to be better cared for than up to that time. The Royal Navy created a preventive squadron. It was nicknamed the Sentimental Squadron, and its mission was to cruise the waters uh, along the slave coast of West Africa to forcibly prevent um, slave pirates, that is, British captains who decided to risk carrying slaves anyway, and the slave captains of other nations. Anyone who was found slave trading after that forfeited his ship to the Crown. And the slaves taken off these pirate ships would then be taken to Sierra Leone. So it gradually became a place, with a very diverse colony, with peoples whose original African home had been elsewhere. And for half a century, this, the Sentimental Squadron continued to blockade the African coastline. This was the first example, in, I think in the history of the world, of a major fighting force dedicated to a humanitarian mission over the long run. It was highly characteristic of the British Empire that it was willing to carry on doing jobs for a very, very long period of time. There's a kind of patience and doggedness to British policy once it had been established. Even so, it was very difficult for the Sentimental Squadron to succeed because the coastline is so extensive and because slave pirates specialised in adopting fast ships, 
Whereas the British ships put on that station were usually old ones nearing the end of their useful lifetimes. So it certainly did happen that slave uh, blockade runners often succeeded. Probably 90% of slave ships evaded the blockade. Slavery was still legal in Brazil, a Portuguese colony. And if you look at the map, you'll see that the crossing from West Africa to Brazil is the shortest of all the Atlantic crossings. There was the further danger for the sailors on the sentimental squadron of tropical diseases. Malaria killed them steadily, and periodically yellow fever epidemics could kill a lot of them very, very suddenly. It wasn't until 1881 that it was properly understood that mosquitoes were the vector of malaria. In 1846, 46 out of 50 men on one of the ships died of yellow fever, nicknamed the black vomit, a sudden violent uh, infection. Starting in the 1850s, uh, the use of quinine as a medication against uh, malaria began to reduce the mortality rate, but it created vicious side effects so that people taking quinine uh, would have periodic relapses where they'd get cases of the shakes and a ringing in the ears, which often lasted for years afterwards or never went away. Now, from the point of view of the abolitionists, abolition of the Atlantic trade was only half of the issue. What they aimed for was the abolition of slavery itself. The Anti-Slavery Society, founded in 1823, intensified the parliamentary agitation, and a new generation of activists was taking over. James Stephen and Thomas Fowle Buxton, also members of the Clapham sect, this uh, evangelical group of reformers. Buxton took over from Wilberforce in Parliament, and like him was an exhaustive hard worker and researcher, gathering evidence of the cruelty and inefficiency of slavery. He organised massive petitions on behalf of abolition, and he collected atrocity stories of slaves mutilated for their misbehaviour, blinded of having their ears and, he and hands cut off. An enormous amount of the literature we have today about the history of slavery was originally gathered by abolitionists. And of course, they had a motive for emphasising the very, very worst elements of the slavery system. Now, I certainly don't mean to imply that slavery wasn't extremely oppressive, but the, the picture we get of it was, is sometimes almost a caricature because it's based upon the, the worst atrocity stories which the abolitionists could possibly gather together for obvious political reasons. The great problem for the abolition movement was the need to overcome the vested interest of the West India planters, people who directly profited from slavery, but also the more inchoate opposition of the consumers who were afraid that they would have to pay more for sugar if slavery was abolished. Slave rebellions, meanwhile, intensified the controversy, and they remained quite common. A severe uprising in the Barbados in 1816, another in Demerara in 1823, and worst of all, the Sam Sharp Rebellion of Christmas 1831. This is in Jamaica. Sam Sharp was a slave, but also a Baptist preacher. In the uprising, uh, the plantations around Montego Bay were burnt to the ground. Fourteen whites were killed, and in the reprisals, 200 blacks. Sharp himself was captured and hanged, and now, incidentally, he's uh, an official hero in Jamaica. Savage reprisals by the terrified whites led to an era of repression inside Jamaica. But that was so severe that it in turn led to new atrocity stories which were exploited by the abolitionists and led to a public opinion reaction against them in the United Kingdom. So it's no coincidence that just two years after this rebellion, the legislation for the abolition of slavery itself finally went through Parliament. 
The cost of putting down the rebellion had also suggested to some people in Britain, including people in the government, that the cost of repressing the rebellion more, uh, and the fact that it, the rebellion had done more than a million pounds worth of damage in property suggested that perhaps it wasn't even worth the cost. On the other hand, there was the lurid memory of the Haiti rebellion at the start of the century in which hundreds of the French had been massacred. Now, the belief of the planters themselves was that Christian missionaries were stirring up the slaves or that the slaves had heard about parliamentary discussion of their situation and were trying to force the issue. And it may well be the case that this was true. Certainly, we know that travelling slaves like Equiano uh, were useful sources of information to slaves settled on plantations, that they'd spread the word about what was happening in the abolition movement and periodically give cause for hope to, to slaves on the plantations. Rivals to the West India traders argued that their system was actually very inefficient, uh, that it depended on British subsidies, and that it couldn't even survive in a free market. And by the 1830s, the movement in favour of free trade was becoming more and more politically powerful. There was the beginnings of a sugar beet industry inside the United Kingdom itself. Uh, there was sugar cane being imported from India, not grown by slaves, which itself could compete at lower prices. So all these factors also were changing the environment in which the West India planters had to argue. And finally, legislation of 1833 did lead to abolition. Parliament itself had just gone through the crisis of the first Reform Act, which made Parliament itself slightly more representative of the actual centres of population in Britain and slightly more democratic than previously. The Whig Party, currently in office, was willing to do more to act against slavery than the Tories. And the agreement was, by the legislation, that slavery would be phased out gradually, with the owners compensated for the loss of their property. £20 million were to be given to the owners. A government commission worked out that there were about 800,000 slaves throughout the empire, nearly all of them in the West Indies, but a few also in the Mauritius and in South Africa. At first, the idea was that former slaves would become apprentices and would go through 12-year apprenticeships. But eventually that was reduced to four because of sustained pressure from the abolitionists who pointed out that in Jamaica, at least, the apprenticeship was just being treated like a, uh, a variegated form of slavery. So final liberation for all the slaves came in 1838. William Wilberforce himself lived just long enough to see the uh, act go through Parliament, abolition, and then died later in that year, in 1833. Now, the plantation's productivity went down because the freed slaves preferred to establish small farms of their own rather than work as labourers for their former owners. And under the circumstances, that's not surprising. It's easy to see why. In Jamaica, particularly, there was still quite a lot of available land. And this was a place where the black population outnumbered the whites about 10 to 1. The West Indies had been central to the British and colonial economy ever since the 1600s. But now, starting in the late 1830s, it started to become a backwater. After the abolition of protective duties on behalf of West Indies sugar in 1846, in the interest of free trade, the industry gradually collapsed. And the West Indies went into a long phase in which it was one of the very poorest parts of the British Empire, really a condition from which it only began to recover as tourism became a significant industry in the 20th century. The end of slavery in the British Empire ratcheted up the moral pressure on the United States between the 1830s and 60s. And just let me end this lecture by saying a word about the American reception of the fact of British abolition of slavery in its empire. 
It was in the 1830s that for the first time, American advocates of slavery began to argue that it wasn't just a, a necessary evil. That was the view which people like Thomas Jefferson had taken. No, now the claim was it was actually a positive good. Jefferson himself had hoped to be able to liberate his slaves, but because they were property and because he was always in debt, he'd never been able to do so. Only Among the founding fathers, only George Washington had liberated all his slaves at the time of his own death. Now, in the 1830s and 40s, American defenders of slavery, people like George Fitzhugh, started to say, our system, the slave system, is much better than the alternative we're now witnessing in Britain. In Britain, with the new industrial system, we have an incredibly cruel and rapacious group of factory owners. They only hire people to work in the factory once they're old enough. And as soon as they get caught in the sh machinery and mangled in industrial accidents, they get thrown out again. Whereas we slave owners give uh, care to our slaves from the cradle to the grave. Ours is a much more benevolent system. It's paternalistic and kindly. It's protecting people in a way that the British industrialists won't. How dare they get on their high horse and tell us that we're the ones who are acting in an inhumane way? Well, it's very striking that the British did in fact abolish slavery peacefully, whereas in America it took a horrific war. Uh, and the circumstances of American history have to be invoked to fully explain that. And that's obviously beyond the, the, the purview of this course. But let me just say briefly that mutual sectional suspicions in America contributed to the fact that it couldn't be resolved peacefully in America, even though it was in Britain. The Southerners were terrified of abolitionists and terrified of being outnumbered in Congress. And so they wanted to spread the slavery system into the American West. Whereas in the North, fear of the slaveocracy domination by a kind of aristocratic uh, elite, gradually led to intensified northern suspicions of what the slave owners were up to. Uh, that's why the uh, history of the abolition of slavery in the two nations and the two empires diver diverges so markedly. Lecture 12, Early African Colonies. Holland established a farming and trade settlement at the Cape of Good Hope, the southern tip of Africa, in 1652, as a way station for its ships en route to the East Indies. Britain seized it from the Dutch during the Napoleonic Wars. Britons going to and from India would rest there en route while their ships picked up provisions. Tensions between the British and the Dutch, or Boer, settlers, acute from the outset, intensified in 1833 when Britain abolished slavery throughout the empire. Many of the Boers, resentful at being deprived of the forced labour they had used for 200 years, decided to move into the interior of South Africa, a journey remembered today as the Great Trek. As the Voortrekkers moved north and east, they encountered fierce resistance from the expanding Zulu kingdoms of Chaka and Dingaan, but were able to establish two republics, the Orange Free State and the Transvaal. Britain formalised its rule over the Cape Colony, inland from Cape Town, and Natal, inland from Durban. For nearly 200 years, the tip of Africa was interesting only as a way station to India and the Far East. The Dutch settlement was founded at Cape Town in 1652. And the Dutch Boers, many of them puritanical zealots, saw themselves as God's chosen people. 
For an analogy, think about the Pilgrim Fathers, zealous religious separatists going to a remote part of the world so they can live their own ideal of the perfect religious life. They were also joined by French Huguenots, uh, that is French Protestants expelled by Louis XIV from France itself. The Boers enslaved the Khoi people, the Khoi Africans of the Cape region, whom they, people they referred to as the Hottentots. And they had the idea, derived from the Bible, that black skin was a mark of God's anger. They trace it to the story in the Bible of after Noah's flood, when Noah gets drunk and his sons uh, find him drunk, one of them, Ham, actually sees his father naked in this condition. And in doing so, he commits the act of dishonor and he's punished by God. Now, although the Bible doesn't say so, the interpretation given to that story was that he was cursed with a black skin, he and his descendants forever. So that the Boers felt that they had a religious justification for their religious discrimination, for their racial discrimination and for their enslavement of the Africans. Britain held Cape Town between 1795 and 1802 during the wars of the French Revolution and then again from 1806. Prince William of Orange was forced to hand it over to prevent it from falling into the hands of Napoleon. The British paid to the Dutch prince compensation of £6 million at the end of the war for keeping it. They found it too useful to give back. East India shipping going, going to and from India called in for fresh water and for food. And uh, officers working for the East India Company and its army often went on leave to South Africa for the climate, which was healthier, and also for hunting expeditions. Cape Town itself is a very, very distinctive place, dominated by Table Mountain, the flat-topped stony mountain above it, by a very beautiful bay, the dramatic Cape itself, and also by a Mediterranean climate, which is far, far healthier than almost all the rest of Africa from the point of view of European visitors. The British and the Dutch settlers clashed over access to land and over the treatment of Africans, especially once the humanitarian movement on behalf of slaves gathered pace. The Boers and the local Africans both saw cattle as the principal form of wealth. There's a long tradition in southern Africa of lobola, the bride price paid in cattle, uh, along with a wedding, as part of the wedding transaction. And Boer farmers and the African tribes living nearby were constantly in friction against one another, frontier fr friction, raiding and mutual theft. But this long-running sense of dissatisfaction suddenly came to a head with the abolition of slavery in the British Empire in 1833. That's what prompted the migration of the Boer Voer trekkers into the interior of South Africa, a process which took place between about 1835 and about 1840, a long succession of, of Boer journeys. And that in turn brought them into conflict with the expanding Zulu kingdom. I mentioned in the previous lecture that once slavery was abolished in the empire, compensation was paid to the slave owners, but it was only paid in London, and it was impossible for most of the Boers to get to London, so they understandably felt cheated by the government. Louis Trigard, Pete Retief, and other legendary Boer leaders crossed the Orange River and the Vaal River, and in some cases even the Drakensberg Mountains, as they moved out into the interior. Somewhere between 10,000 and 14,000 migrants went off into the interior in wagon trains. And again, it's useful to think of an American analogy, the great wagon trains which started to cross the Great Plains on the Oregon Trail during the 1840s, or the, uh, the Mormon track of the 1840s and early 50s out to Salt Lake City. The wagons were similar to American wagons, pulled by four or eight oxen, 
Wagon trains travelling about 20 miles per day on flat land, with the herds being driven alongside. The men would shoot antelope for meat and take dangerous river crossings where crocodiles proved a hazard to the animals. Aware that they were moving into potentially hostile country, they'd circle the wagons at night into what's called a lager on high ground, with the shafts of one wagon attached under the body of the next one, and then um, thorns and brambles interlaced between the wheels to create a very, very good defensive perimeter, so that if they were attacked, the men could shoot through the gaps. The Boers were famously good marksmen and trained their horses to stand still while they, while they shot from the saddle. A horse will naturally tend to shy, but it's possible to train them to, uh, to accommodate a shooting rider. Now today the, the Great Trek is commemorated by the Voortrekker monument outside Pretoria. It was built on the 100th anniversary in the 1930s and is a spectacular stone monument, although very much under a shadow at the moment because it represents the bad old days of apartheid to the new, uh, new South Africa. Well, the, the Voortrekkers themselves didn't know it, but as they crossed the Orange River and later the Vaal River moving northwards, they were entering lands that had been desolated by the wars of the 1820s. And that meant that they encountered societies less well organised than they would have encountered if they'd gone before 1815. Many of them had adventures and disasters in the early days of the Great Trek. A group led by Louis Trigart made the heroic crossing of the Drakensberg Mountains, moving uh, northeast into Natal itself, including lowering the wagons by rope down treacherous cliffs. But once they got into the tropical lowlands, they began to suffer from fever and from tsetse fly attacks on the animals, which usually would kill the farm animals. Another group, led by Hans van Rensburg, was massacred in the Limpopo River Valley. A much bigger group, in, the, in 1836-7, fought against Matabele tribesmen, and they found that these defensive lagers, the circled wagons, worked very well. And that on the counter-offensive, 40 mounted men working together with guns could take on 10,000 warriors on foot to reclaim stolen herds. Because cattle were a source of wealth to both groups, there's a constant uh, attempt by the Africans to steal the animals and reprisal raids by the Boers trying to get them back again. The fact that they could um, fight successfully against big odds led to the development of a feeling of invincibility among some of the Boers. But on the other hand, they recognised that they had to stay in touch with the Cape Colony, with Cape Town, because otherwise they wouldn't be able to get new supplies of gunpowder. They had the advantage of arms, but they weren't able to manufacture their own munitions, so they couldn't break contact completely. The Boers are traditionally independent-minded people, found it very difficult to agree with one another, even on questions like where to settle or how to cooperate among themselves. And the rudimentary government they set up in the interior would often break down because of constant squabbles. Well, probably the most famous of all the Voortrekkers was Piet Retief. He led a group into Natal, making an easier southerly crossing of the Drakensberg Mountains, and began to negotiate a settlement with the Zulu king Dingaan. And at first, Dingaan and Piet Retief were able to cooperate. Now, just before the Great Trek started, the Zulu kingdom had been transformed principally by Chaka, who was king from 1816 to 1828. And he turned the Zulus into a superb fighting force, a nation whose entire raison d'etre was, was warfare. They came to dominate the area between the Drakensberg Mountains and the coast, that is, the whole of present-day Natal. Their social structure itself was based on war. All the young men owed military service to the king, 
and they had to remain celibate until they'd killed or wounded a man in battle. This is uh, a ritual referred to as the washing of the spears. They learned how to run 60 miles in one day and to do it barefoot so that, so that uh, Shaka's army was extremely mobile. It could cover great distances very quickly. From the time they uh, entered into puberty right through until they were in their late 30s, every man lived not with his family but in a barracks at, the royal, at one of the royal households which were spread out across the expanding Zulu kingdom. And their way of fighting was to run into battle uh, very, very close to one another with short spears and stabbing swords and in close proximity. The Zulu kingdom was like ancient Sparta or like the Sioux on the Great Plains, warrior societies with everything else subordinated to the need for military victory. There was even a special Zulu formation for going into battle which was a, a copy of the physiology of a bull. The central regiment was called the chest and then the two horns, which would start to encircle an enemy as they approached. The, the fourth regiment was the reserve, the loins of the bull, and very often their officers required them to turn away and face away from the battle to prevent them from getting too excited and from joining in prematurely. Each regiment of the army had its own colours on its shields, its own special song, and its own esprit de corps. And the barracks, uh, which held these different regiments, had to be very widely separated within the Zulu kingdom to prevent inter-regimental fighting, each regiment so proud of its own particular prowess. An English eyewitness who saw a parade of the Zulus found it both impressive and terrifying. He wrote, Full war dress with the uniform colour of the shields of each regiment, the sea of tossing white shields and waving ostrich plumes of the veterans, followed by the black and white shields of the younger regiments and the flashing of all the spears. The rhythmic stamping of 10,000 feet made the earth quake, an ominous display, which was heightened by the deep, sonorous chant of the warriors. Chaka himself, the king, had a large harem of over a thousand women, but he never actually married any of them and had no children. Uh, historians have speculated that either this was because he was impotent or that having given birth to children, uh, or his wife's given birth to children, he then had them killed to prevent one of them from becoming a usurper, which was a common fate in the African tribes of that time. Chaka had instant power of life and death over everybody and was famous for astonishing acts of ruthlessness. For example, when his mother died, he was so overcome with grief that he ordered the killings of thousands of his own people as a, a purely arbitrary, capricious response to, to his own sense of grief. Having created this army, this ruthless fighting machine, he put it to use and it won repeated battles with the result that it set off uh, echo effects in a widening area of southern Africa, a decade or more of severe dislocation. He would defeat one group and the remnants of that group would flee, dislodging or fighting against others in turn, until vast homeless groups were wandering the interior of southern Africa. Farming became impossible and herding very hazardous. Everybody was on the move and, and starvation was widespread. One vast group of uprooted people uh, gathered together under the, leadership of, under the leadership of a woman chief called Mantatisi, the so-called Mantati Horde. Another one, uh, cowering together on a flat-topped hill, was led by Mushwe the founder of the Basuto Nation. According to their folklore, three trails led up the hill, each one of which had a supply of boulders that could be rolled down on potential invaders. 
And their legend said that every night the hill, which is actually about 300 feet uh, high, grew miles high every night to protect them against attack. The reign of Chaka came to an end when he was assassinated by his half-brother Dingaan in 1828, just before the Great Trek began. Now, the Battle of Blood River is one of the, uh, the great moments of the conflict between the Voortrekkers and the Zulu. And it demonstrated the superiority of disciplined riflemen over much larger forces armed only with spears. The point about the Zulu's fighting method is this. In the days before firearms became common in the interior of Africa, closing with the enemy, especially closing in force at high speed, was an extremely effective way of fighting. But of course, mass frontal assaults against rifles were going to prove extremely uh, damaging and deadly to the attacking force. At first, as I mentioned, there was peace between Pete Retief and Dingaan, but the Zulus became angry as more and more Boer arrivals came into the area. Finally, Dingaan invited Pete Retief to come to a, a parley, a discussion, but then betrayed him, uh, seized him and murdered him and his immediate followers. Then, following up on this attack, the Zulu raiders attacked the Boer lagers. But a group of the Boers, uh, 460 strong, made a stand at the Umslatos River. This is in December of 1838. As the Zulus approached, they prayed for deliverance and promised that if they were saved by God, they'd build a church in his honour. The wagon lager was surrounded with thorn bushes and the uh, defenders were able to beat off 11,000 Zulu attackers. Uh, inside the, uh, the circled lager, the women and children were frantically reloading the guns while the men fired them out between the wheels. The bodies of the Zulus piled high around the lager, and after the battle had finished, 3,000 of them were found to have died, whereas only two of the Boers inside the lager had been killed. Uh, an enormous disparity in casualties, and one of the founding myths of the Africana peoples of the 19th and 20th century. The river itself was renamed Blood River, and the Battle of Blood River itself became an event for annual uh, celebration. Dingaan himself fled, and the body of Pete Retief, who had been killed by Dingaan, was discovered at the King's Kraal. The town of Peter Maritzburg was founded in honour of two of these Boer martyrs, Pete Retief himself and Gerrit Maritz. And similarly, if you look at the place names in South Africa today, especially the interior of South Africa, you can very often find the names of the Voortrekker leaders. Pretoria, the capital of South Africa, is named after Andres Pretorius, who's another of the Trek leaders. Well, the Trek has made another expedition into Zululand, deposed Dingaan, and made Mpande the king of the Zulus instead. And Mpande was more conciliatory than his two predecessors, Dingaan and Chaka, had been. He ruled for over 30 years and was one of the very, very few Zulu kings to actually die peacefully of old age. Here's a description by a French explorer of going to meet him. On mats laid on the floor lay ten naked girls with firm and velvety contours. One was supporting his head with her body. A living pillow whose breathing induced a sleep of opium dreams. Another supported his right arm. A third was still grasping his left hand and resting his temple on her large bosom. Another supported the right leg, and a fifth girl was lying across the left leg. They were all asleep. Well, the travellers are understandably fascinated by this scene. The English established trading relations with the Boers and with the Zulus, but the warrior society remained intact. 
The Boers and the British both wanted labour. They wanted Zulus to work for them. But in fact, they found that although they could hire African labourers from north of Zululand, they couldn't persuade the Zulus themselves to compromise themselves and move into paid labour for the whites. So the Zulus remain a, a warrior kingdom in the midst of this white settlement, even though for the moment they're on peaceful terms. Christian missionaries, active in Africa, as in the West Indies, found it almost impossible to make Zulu converts. One of the men who tried particularly hard was John William Colenso, the Bishop of Natal, who arrived in South Africa in 1853. He learned the Zulu language and was determined to make a written version of it and then to translate the Bible into it so that the Zulus could learn to read and become Christians. But a very interesting thing happened as he was involved in this project. Um, his, his Zulu assistants began to ask him um, questions about difficult and puzzling passages of the Old Testament. And that, in turn, caused him to start wondering about its literal accuracy. In other words, its religious effect was at least as great on him as it was on his ostensible converts. And finally, in 1862, he wrote a book, published a book called A Critical Examination of the Pentateuch, in which he advanced the, the theory that Moses didn't write the first five books of the Bible, as was then uh, widely uh, believed. That in fact, the Old Testament could be seen as the gathering together of a lot of older documents whose evolutionary history could itself be traced. This is part of the process in the 19th century of the historical critical study of Scripture. It scandalised the Church of England, particularly its old guard, the people who assumed or took for granted that the Bible was the literal revealed word of God. But on the other hand, it did win the admiration of some of the younger ones. This is 1862, just three years after Charles Darwin had published his own great book on the origin of species by natural selection, when the whole possibility of the Bible's accuracy on questions like the antiquity of the earth were being called into question. Bishop Colenso was uh, put on trial for heresy and excommunicated after being found guilty. But then the civil courts in South Africa said that the Bishop of Cape Town did not have authority over the Bishop and the Diocese of Natal, with the result that Colenso stayed on. Later on, as we'll see, he became a leading critic of British policy in the area. Britain took over direct control of Natal in 1842 because of its strategic significance. This is the, the southeasterly part of, of Africa, which actually borders onto the Indian Ocean. On the other side of the Drakensberg Mountains, further west from Natal, the Boers established two independent republics, the Orange Free State and the Transvaal. As you go north in South Africa, you cross the Orange River, and that's the area of the Orange Free State. Then if you go further north, you cross the Vaal River, and that's the Transvaal, which just means across the Vaal River. They were given diplomatic recognition by Britain in 1852 and 54, and for the moment at least, they were left alone. The Boers lived on isolated farms, using black labour in a condition that was really very close to slavery, and they were Calvinist fundamentalists, sticking to their traditional interpretation of the Bible. The Zulu kingdom persisted as well through the mid-19th century, and undertook limited trading exchanges with the British and the Boers. One English settler called John Dunn was actually invited to live among the Zulus in 1856, and he went native. He took 48 Zulu wives, had more than a hundred children, guided British visitors who came to, to visit him, led hunting parties in the area, and traded among the Zulus, bringing them guns, which they couldn't make, but, but whose value they appreciated, and bringing exotic animal skins for use in rituals and to enhance the prestige of leaders. 
usually in exchange for hardy, disease-resistant African cattle. That was the situation in the mid-century, but everything was destabilised in 1868 by the discovery of diamonds, which suddenly gave a new importance to the interior of southern Africa and provoked renewed conflict between the Britons, the Burrs and the Zulus. It was at Kimberley that the diamonds were discovered in 1868 on the western edge of the Orange Free State. Disraeli, the Conservative Prime Minister, his Minister of the Colonies, Lord Carnarvon, suggested a confederation of all the South African provinces in 1875 for defence, labour movement, food supply, free trade and so on. Because now it's suddenly become important to get supplies up to Kimberley, previously an inaccessible place, because of the flourishing diamond business. And he denied that the Boer Republics had been granted full independence from British sovereignty. This was a diplomatic grey area. He sent Sir Theophilus Shepstone, the Secretary of Native Affairs in Natal, to Pretoria in the hope of arranging a coup. And the British between them declared the Transvaal to be annexed back to the British Empire. Shepstone managed it without a shot being fired. This is in 1877. And the Boers put up with this high-handedness on the British part because they were very anxious about the revival of Zulu military power. And, th and they could foresee that they might very well be in need of British military protection. Shepston, meanwhile, who'd also been friendly to uh, Mpande, the, Boer, the Zulu leader, now took the side of the Transvaal in a border dispute with the new Zulu king, Ketchweo, after earlier seeming to be sympathetic to the Zulu position. And that led to them feeling betrayed by him as an old friend of Ketchweo's father. This is a situation in which Sir Bartle Frere came to uh, South Africa as the new High Commissioner. He wanted to enlarge British South Africa, and he wanted to incorporate the Zulus as a native labour force. He said, a united South Africa can never be secure so long as it's got an independent warrior kingdom right in its heart. And he sent to Ketchweo an ultimatum, telling him, disband your military system in 30 days, or else face an invasion of the British army. In retrospect, an outrageous and completely unjustified claim to have made. Ketchweo ignored the ultimatum, with the result that in 1879, January, a British column under the leadership of Lord Chelmsford invaded Zululand. Now, Ketchweo had a, an army, even though, he, even though his predecessor Mpande had been relatively much more peaceful than Dingaan and Chaka, nevertheless the Zulu was still a very, very ferocious fighting force. It had an army 30,000 strong, an incredible number in a pre-industrial society, showing what a very high degree of internal organisation the Zulu kingdom had. Very well organised and very disciplined. The British commander Lord Chelmsford underestimated the Zulus, and at Isandlwana, he paid the price. He divided his force, leaving a thousand men in camp without a properly fortified position. They were attacked and overrun by a group of 20,000 of the Zulu warriors. All but 55 of the British soldiers were killed and their bodies horribly mutilated. A letter from an army batman, Elias Tucker, says, They cut everyone up and took his heart and laid it on his breast and put his right hand in where they took his heart from. So there was a sort of wave of revulsion in Britain at the, at the sudden massacring of a British military column. Nearby, at a place called Rourke's Drift, a hundred British soldiers, alerted by the tragedy of Isandlwana, made a heroic defence against 4,000 more Zulus who were pressing the attack. And, that, and the fact that they, they won this engagement enabled them to forestall an invasion of Natal itself. 
The incident at once became famous through Elizabeth Butler's painting of the defense of Rourke's Drift. And more recently, if you've ever seen the film called Zulu, a Michael Caine film, that's the incident which is depicted there, the defense of Rourke's Drift. Quechua was probably mistaken to make frontal attacks. They were too costly in the men's lives. Ambushes would have served him better. And when they made ambushes, they were usually very effective. In one ambush, the Zulus killed the French Prince Imperial. This was the son of the Emperor Napoleon III, who'd volunteered for service in the British Army in search of adventure. He, he died from 17 wounds, and his mutilated body was found. But uh, his family derived a measure of pride from the fact that all the wounds are on the front of his body, showing that he died facing his enemy. Now, again, I think it's, it's interesting to think about what's happening at just the same time in America. This is just three years after the Battle of the Little Bighorn, when for the very last time a group of American Indians, the Sioux and the Cheyenne, were able to win a victory over the, uh, the more industrialized army of their opponents, but then forced to disperse very quickly after their victory. Just as the, uh, the Little Bighorn wasn't repeated, so the British were able to follow up and avenge their defeat. Chelmsford avenged himself at Isandlwana and saved his own reputation by advancing on the Zulu capital of Ulundi and annihilating the Zulu army for a loss of only 13 men. His army in red uniforms advanced in squares, uh, bristling with um, uh, rifles and bayonets in every direction, and supported by artillery and by gatling guns, early machine guns, so that Ulundu became a, a massacre. There was an indignant liberal outcry in Britain at the British provocation of the war by Bartle Frere, and then the killing of the wounded Zulus at Ulundi, and the apparent glee of British soldiers as they did so. One of the leaders of the protest against this treatment of the Zulus was Bishop Colenso himself. He was infuriated by British duplicity in provoking the war. And on the uh, official day of commemoration, he preached from the text, And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God? And in his sermon he, he said, I repeat, wherein, in our invasion of Zululand, have we shown that we are men who love mercy? Did we not lay upon the people heavily from the very moment we crossed their border, the terrible scourge of war? Have we not killed already, it is said, 5,000 human beings and plundered 10,000 head of cattle? It is true that in that dreadful disaster, on account of which we are this day humbling ourselves before God, we ourselves have lost very many precious lives, and widows and orphans, parents, brothers, sisters, friends, are mourning bitterly their sad bereavements. But are there no griefs, no relatives that mourn their dead in Zululand? Have we not heard how the wail has gone up in all parts of the country for those who have bravely and nobly died in repelling the invader and fighting for their king and fatherland? Bishop Colenso there is unusual in showing a sympathy for an enemy which he says has been betrayed in the first place and wronged and is just as deserving of the sympathy of intelligent British people as the Britons themselves whose loved ones have been lost. Well, in an ironic sequel to the, uh, to the, ba to the battles of Isandlwana and Ulundi, the Boers, having been uh, rescued from their fear of the Zulus, from, who from this time were never again able to launch an effective attack against the British, the Boers now decided that they themselves didn't, uh, didn't want any more the intervention of the British. And so they rebelled when a new prime minister, William Gladstone, did not revoke Disraeli's annexation of the Orange Free State in the Transvaal, as his opposition speeches in 1877 had led them to expect that he was going to do. Paul Kruger 
who'd been a child during the Great Trek and had lived his life there in the, uh, in the African backcountry, led the rebellion, the Boer Rebellion of 1881, and it humiliated a British force at the Battle of Majuba Hill, killing and wounding nearly 300 British soldiers for the loss of one man. Testimony to the power of surprise and to good marksmanship. Kruger himself had been with Lord Chelmsford at Isandlwana two years earlier and had warned him to fortify his camp. Chelmsford had ignored the advice and his troops had paid the consequence by being massacred. Now another British commander, Sir George Colley, made the same mistake. At this point, Gladstone, the British Prime Minister, reversed himself again and rather than launch a big campaign to avenge Majuba Hill, uh, permitted the Transvaal and the Orange State to regain their independence. But after the Battle of Ulundi, the Zulus did begin to go to work for the British in the 1880s and 90s. And the situation in South Africa was going to be further destabilised, as we'll see later on, by the development of the great gold mining industry around Johannesburg. These lectures are part of the Great Courses series. They are produced by the Teaching Company. These lectures are titled, The Rise and Fall of the British Empire, Part 2. Lecture 13, China and the Opium Wars. Britain's industrial supremacy and its control of the high seas had led its leaders by the 1840s to favour free trade. China, by contrast, was a closed and bureaucratic society, sealed off from nearly all the political and social changes of the 19th century. At only one port, Canton, were British ships allowed to trade. And in 1839, China prohibited the most lucrative British import, opium, from India. The British government, under pressure from the East India Company, responded with a show of military strength, including naval bombardment, rocket attacks and armed landings along the coast. China, humiliated, was forced to sign a treaty in 1842, giving Hong Kong to Britain as a naval station, opening up five new ports to trade and permitting the Royal Navy to patrol Chinese rivers and coasts to suppress piracy. Britain again went, again went to war against China between 1856 and 1860, with a campaign that sacked Beijing and burned the Emperor's palace to the ground. Although Britain never ruled China, it dominated Chinese trade between then and the end of the century, and even ran the Chinese customs system to ensure regular repayment of debts. In China, as in much of Latin America, the British Empire was informal rather than direct, but nonetheless effective. Well, this is a clear case of Britain using its military and technological superiority to force its way into Chinese markets. The British coastal stations or factories in China were officially confined to one site outside the port of Canton on the Pearl River. It had become easier to get from India to China than it had been in the 18th century because in 1819 Stamford Raffles, a British intelligence officer working for the East India Company, had founded the port of Singapore, which dominates the Strait of Malacca. That's the narrow sea passage that you have to sail through en route from India to China. 
um, Singapore was an excellent deep water port and it became the pivot of the British Empire in the Far East from then right through until the Second World War. In Canton itself, a huge colourful array of junks floating on the city made at least part of it, uh, uh, on, the, on the river, made it a floating city. East India Company traders had to pay bribes to the local merchants and to the Emperor's Viceroy to be permitted to trade even there. China itself was an ancient and highly advanced civilization, and the Chinese thought of all foreigners as barbarians. They were contemptuous of them, but on the other hand they did recognize the possibility of trading with them for profit. Opium and other British manufacturers were coming into China, and tea was coming out, worth about four million pounds per year in Britain by the 1830s. The opium trade had begun in 1773. Opium from India was gradually becoming more and more popular among the Chinese, even though it was outlawed. The opium poppies grew in Bengal, uh, that is in, in India, and the East India Company shipped them to Lin Tin Island near Canton, where they were refined into the drug. And Chinese opium smokers liked to mix the opium with tobacco and then smoke it for pleasure. It is, of course, extremely addictive, and it caught on so widely, despite being outlawed, that it became impossible for the Chinese government to suppress it, even though there was a renewed imperial ban in 1800. There were an estimated 2 million opium addicts in China by 1835. The East India Company had a British monopoly, and some of its agents felt a little bit uncomfortable about profiting from an illicit trade. On the other hand, they found it so lucrative that they couldn't afford to stop. It had become one of the principal commodities of the East India Company by the 1820s and 30s. Despite it being outlawed, it was possible for the East India Company to bribe Chinese officials and then to sell it through the local mandarins, who themselves be could become enriched by uh, participating in the trade. The East India Company then began to invest heavily in fast clipper ships. This is one of the Navy technological developments of the early 19th century. Ships with a lot more sails, which could sail at high speed, and could get the year's first harvest of opium very quickly from India to Lin Tin, taking perhaps three weeks instead of the old voyage of about two months. In 1834, the British attempted to win an improved trade concession from the Chinese government, but failed to do so. This was one of a long series of attempts by the British government to get official recognition from the Chinese government, but all these uh, um, overtures were rebuffed. Lord Napier, who was the Chief Superintendent of Trade, ignored all the elements of protocol at a diplomatic meeting with Chinese officials, the local mandarins. The mandarins arrived two hours late for the meeting. Uh, according to a custom that, the higher your rank in China, the later you were supposed to come. For them, it was an organized part of protocol, whereas Napier believed that since the meeting had been set for a certain time, that's when everybody should arrive. When they were late, and when they forced him to wait in the heat, he berated them uh, for their lateness. And they, were, they received his uh, insults completely impassively, so he didn't realize how severely he had insulted them. There was always a, a, a conceptual gulf between the British and the, and the new societies they were encountering, and perhaps it was never wider than in the encounter between the British and the Chinese. On both sides, the uh, individuals f thought themselves and their society vastly superior to the one they were encountering. And, of course, that's the perfect medium for... Uh, misunderstandings. 
Well, the Chinese government's decision in 1838 to cut off the opium supply provoked a crisis. The emperor, uh, Tuo Quang, tried to stamp out its use in China with the help of an ambitious administrator called Lin Tsai Shu. He ordered that wholesalers of opium should be beheaded and that officials who accepted bribes from traders should be executed by strangulation. Opium addicts were then given 18 months to break the habit, after which they too could be sentenced to death. And here's Lynn's letter to Queen Victoria, giving a sense of the, and it conveys the sense of, of his feeling of superiority. Your Majesty must immediately search out and throw to the bottom of the sea and never again allow such a poison as opium to exist. You will be showing that you understand the principles of heaven by respectful obedience to our commands. Do not say that you have not been warned in time. On receiving this, your majesty will be so good as to report to me immediately on the steps that have been taken at each of your ports. Well, as you can imagine, Queen Victoria certainly wasn't accustomed to being addressed in such an imperious tone by a Chinese imperial official. Chinese soldiers besieged the British merchants at Canton until, under instructions from their commissioner, Charles Elliot, they handed over all their opium supplies, worth about two million pounds, for destruction. And Lynn then supervised the public destruction of this opium in a swamp near the river. The, the opium was literally dumped into the swamp, and then servants were made to trample it until it had been completely uh, submerged in the water. And... By, by doing so, ruining the entire stock. But as uh, American uh, drug enforcement officials have noticed, what happens when you restrict the supply? You simply raise the price. It isn't as though the addict's desire for the commodity is, de is lessened. They simply become desperate and are willing to pay more for any supplies which they can get hold of anywhere. And of course, exactly the same thing happened in China then. The price went up. And that intensified the temptation to the East India Company and its agents to find ways to carry on bringing opium into China. When the trade persisted, Lin pursued the traders to Macau, forced them offshore altogether, and uh, obliged them to seek shelter on board uh, English merchant ships. Now, it was just then that a group of drunken British sailors killed a Chinese peasant, which further aggravated Lin who demanded that a Chinese court should be given this sailor, th these sailors uh, for trial. The, British, the East India Company refused to hand the sailors over. And at this point, China launched a blockade of all British trade, and the fighting began. Now, in Britain, a debate was taking place about the rights and wrongs of opium itself and the morality of fighting to force it on the Chinese. Certainly from our perspective, it, it, it seems very difficult, in, very difficult indeed to justify the position of the British Empire, which was fighting against China in order to permit the import of this uh, addictive drug. There were prominent figures in British public life who did disapprove of it. For example, William Gladstone, who was to go on to become one of the great liberal prime ministers, called opium, uh, the opium business, a most infamous and atrocious trade. Sidney Herbert, another member of Parliament, one of the great friends of Florence Nightingale, called the conflict a war without just cause, a disgrace to the British flag. On the other hand, there were other people, respectable people in Britain, who tried to justify it. 
Opium was legally on sale in Britain at apothecary shops everywhere uh, in the form of the medicine called laudanum. Taken occasionally and in small doses, it was a pleasant relaxant. And certainly large numbers of British people were familiar with taking opium in small doses. And one of the arguments in favour of it was that it was much less obviously harmful and socially destructive than gin, which through the 18th and into the early 19th centuries had been one of the great killers in Britain, that gin alcoholics were uh, wrecking their lives. Opium, by contrast, seemed less dangerous. The Foreign Secretary, Lord Palmerston, believed that the revenue it generated was simply too important to lose, taking a very politically pragmatic view of the issue. Now, one of the great classics of Victorian literature uh, is Thomas de Quincey's Confessions of an English Opium Eater. This is a book published in 1821, which had made him famous. And uh, it, it still repays pay, uh, reading today. It's a, it's a book by a junkie, but an extremely accomplished and literary one, uh, with wonderful descriptions of what it's like to gradually become more and more obsessed by and dependent on an addictive drug. De Quincey describes how he first bought opium from a druggist in London when he had a toothache. And uh, he, he gives a wonderful description of how astonishing it was, the, the, the changes which came over him as he began to take it. He says, What an apocalypse of the world within me! That my pains had vanished was now a trifle in my eyes. This negative effect was swallowed up in the immensity of those positive effects which had opened before me in the abyss of divine enjoyment thus suddenly revealed. Here was a panacea for all human woes. Here was the secret of happiness, about which philosophers had disputed for so many ages, at once discovered. Happiness might now be bought for a penny, and carried in the waistcoat pocket. Portable ecstasies might be had corked up in a pint bottle. And he goes on to describe the way in which it was much better than getting drunk. Whereas wine disorders the mental faculties, opium introduced amongst them the most exquisite order, legislation, and harmony. Wine robs a man of self-possession. Opium greatly invigorates it. He goes on to describe the way in which he loved to take opium before he went to hear his favourite operatic soprano, and how, under the influence of opium, her voice was even more divine than when he simply heard her sober. Well, of course, this is the thing about addictive drugs, isn't it? That they're extremely tempting, because at first they convince you that it's very good for you to be taking them. But as, as the book continues, De Quincey goes on to describe how he became more and more dependent on the drug, until in the end he couldn't do without it, even though by then he started to recognise that uh, it was having a ruinous effect on his life. It induced in him an incredible procrastination. He lost the ability to get anything done at all even though he continued to have a tormenting knowledge that he ought to be busy and active and getting things done. He says he felt powerless, lethargic, motionless and ashamed. And what was even worse was the terrible dreams he had while he was in an opium daze, in which everything which he'd thought of or, or experienced while he was awake uh, appeared to him now in a monstrous form while he was asleep. And here's what he says about that. All the changes in my dreams were accompanied by deep-seated anxiety and gloomy melancholy, such as are wholly incommunicable by words. I seemed every night to descend, not metaphorically, but literally to descend into chasms and sunless abysses, depths below depths, from which it seemed hopeless that I could ever reascend. 
nor did I, by waking, feel that I had reascended. The state of gloom, amounting at least to utter darkness, as of some suicidal despondency, cannot be approached by words. And he says that what was even worse was that this state seemed to go on and on almost eternally. I sometimes seemed to have lived for 70 years or a 100 years in one night. Nay, sometimes I had feelings representative of a millennium past in that time, or, however, of a duration beyond the limits of any human experience. And he said he, he played out again mentally, agonizing, painful scenes from earlier in his life. Every miserable incident is vividly rec recaptured in his mind and now drawn out and intensified, made even worse than they had been originally. Well, it's a wonderful book, The Confessions of an Opium Eater, which I counsel you all to read. When the war began between China and Britain, it was very lopsided because of British technological superiority. This is the period where the English Industrial Revolution is going forward by leaps and bounds, and the British military technology far outstripped anything the Chinese could put up against it. Fifteen British ships bombarded Qinghai on Chusan Island, in July 1840, for just nine minutes, but in that time had a shattering destructive effect. Starting in the 1820s, the Royal Navy had begun to use exploding shells, and they were far more devastating than the cannonballs and chain shot, which had been their most destructive weapons during the Napoleonic Wars. Also now in the 1840s, Britain had its first steamships, as well as sailing ships in the fleet, and that meant, of course, that it had vessels which were no longer completely dependent on just the wind and the currents, but that, that for example, they could sail upriver in narrow waters, or as previously that had been difficult. The Chinese survivors of this bombardment fled. The British occupied the town, looted it, and most of the sailors then got roaring drunk on captured liquor. Because Britain was determined to gain access to other ports, and compensation for the confiscated and destroyed opium, the Navy then bombarded Canton in January 1841, killing 500 Chinese people and themselves suffering no losses. It was again a very, very lopsided engagement. Sailing ships with big guns were towed into position by steamers and then bombarded the shore. British troops at, Na at Ningpo shattered a relieving Chinese army under the, emperor's, under the command of the emperor's cousin in March 1841. And in this battle at Ningpo, the British played a trick on the Chinese army, which it fell into. They left the city gates open and the place apparently deserted. The Chinese attackers rushed in, but in fact, the, the seemingly deserted street was a minefield. And in the ensuing explosions, hundreds of the Chinese soldiers were killed. As the survivors then retreated back out through the city gates, British soldiers appeared around both sides of the walls and caught them in a lethal crossfire, while cannons from, outside, from inside the walls began firing as well. A lieutenant in British service, uh, Lieutenant John Ochterlowney, said described it in this way, The effect was terrific, for the street was perfectly straight and the enemy's rear, not aware of the miserable fate which was being dealt out to their comrades in front, continued to press the mass forward so as to force fresh victims upon the mound of dead and dying which already barricaded the street. The infantry resumed their firing, and such a storm of balls was kept up upon the enemy that in a short time the street was choked up 
and when for want of a living mark the men were ordered to advance, their steps fell upon a closely packed mass of dead and dying. In other words, an almost complete massacre of this Chinese army by a combination of a simple trick and powerful um, weapons technology. Another officer, Alexander Murray, noted that as the British chased the Chinese out of the city, firing on them as they retreated, he said, quote, The most extraordinary part of the scene was the coolness with which the country people looked on, crowding the bridges and every spot from which they could see well in an amazing manner. The circumstance of their assembling showed what confidence they had that we would not injure them. But the little interest they took in their countrymen did not raise them in my estimation. So it must have been a strange scene that the country folk, the peasants, have come to watch a Chinese army being almost exterminated by British soldiers. Well, the Treaty of Nanjing of 1842, August 1842, which brought the war to an end, imposed very harsh terms on the Chinese. In addition to Canton, now, four new treaty ports were added. Amoy, Fuchao, Ningpo and Shanghai. These also became trading stations for the British in China. Britain annexed Hong Kong and then held on to it right through until the year 1997. An indemnity of £21 million had to be paid. That is ten times as much as the value of the opium, which had been the, uh, the cause of the fighting in the first place. But in the treaty itself, there was no mention made of opium at all. The trade resumed on easier terms for the British merchants, who were no longer forced to pay bribes in order to get the commodity into the country. And also significant, in view of the killing of the Chinese peasant, British subjects were exempt from Chinese laws. In other words, if a, if a Briton was to uh, commit any crime against a Chinese person, China wouldn't be entitled to, to put the... Uh, the villain on trial. Well, China's technological inferiority to the West and the decline of the Chinese emperor's power made it very vulnerable to further exploitation later in the 19th century. During this period, American and French traders and then Germans were also trying to enter the business. None of them was interested in conquering China, just as the British themselves were not. All they wanted was coastal trading stations, uh, which were secure, which could be largely self-governing, and they wanted the right to send their gunboats upriver to make sure that they could bombard recalcitrant people into submission whenever there was the threat of, uh, of a lack of cooperation on the part of the local mandarins. The next great source of instability in China was the Taiping Rebellion, which took place between 1850 and 1864. And this had the effect of further weakening the power of the Manchu emperors. The Taipings were the Society of God Worshippers, and they believed in a variant of Christianity. Their leader, Ho Tsai Kwan, had been educated by American missionaries. A man named Edwin Stevens had taught him one of the many Christian evangelists who were beginning to penetrate China in the hope that they could preach the, the gospel of Christ to the people of China. Ho Tsi Kwan declared that he was the younger brother of Jesus Christ. He outlawed all religions except his own brand of Christianity. He outlawed the foot-binding of women, then a, a Chinese custom. And he began a, a policy of land redistribution. Later on, incidentally, in the 20th century, uh, Mao Zedong, who, who, who led the Chinese revolution of the 1940s, regarded him as a heroic predecessor. He saw in him a sort of uh, proto-communism. Well, at first, the Taipings were highly puritanical. 
They practiced the strict separation of the sexes at all times. No use of opium or alcohol or tobacco, no prostitution, no slavery and no polygamy. This really would have been a radical puritanical transformation of Chinese society. They overthrew Manchu power in the southern and central regions of China, including in the fertile valleys of the Yangtze River. But in practice, there, the appearance of the Taipings was often chaotic and ruthless by destabilizing the countryside, by creating uh, challenges to the legitimate powers. That led to um, dislocation, war, starvation and deaths on a massive scale. Even after the British had improved their, mil their uh, trading position, there were recurrent outbreaks of anti-British hostility. Every time it happened, the British responded by bombarding the Chinese ports into, uh, into obedience. Here's a manifesto from Canton from 1857. And again, the tone is very distinctive of this uh, intransigent feeling of cultural superiority. We note that you English barbarians have formed the habits and developed the nature of wolves, plundering and seizing things by force. Except for your ships being solid, your gunfire fierce, and your rockets powerful, what other abilities have you got? Our hatred is already at white heat. If we do not completely exterminate you pigs and dogs, we will not be manly Chinese, able to support the sky on our heads and stand firmly on the earth. We are definitely going to kill you, cut your heads off, and burn you to death. We must strip off your skins and eat your flesh, and then you will know how tough we are. We ought really to use refined expressions, but since you beasts do not understand written characters, therefore we use rough, vulgar words to instruct you in simple terms. Britain responded by force. The Second China War. Here's the Prime Minister, Lord Palmerston, who I quoted earlier, defending the use of, of opium. And, and now here he is, defending the use of force against the Chinese. Palmerston says, The time is fast coming when we shall be obliged to strike another blow in China. These half-civilized governments, such as those in China, Portugal or Spanish America, all require a dressing every eight or ten years to keep them in order. He call, What we'd call a massacre, he calls a dressing. Their minds are too shallow to receive an impression that will last longer than some such period, and warnings are of little use. They care little for words, and they must not only see the stick, but actually feel it on their shoulders before they yield. So again, two very, very uncompromising positions in conflict. A British force marched to Beijing and set fire to the Emperor's summer palace. And an incident which took place during this war led to the writing of a famous uh, poem of the British Empire. The poem's called A Private of the Buffs. Now, the Buffs is the nickname of the East Kent Regiment. And uh, John Moyes, or Moisey, a drunken soldier, a member of this regiment, was taken prisoner during the fighting uh, by the Chinese, along with a group of sepoys, Indian soldiers fighting in British service. The Chinese ordered their prisoners to kowtow, that is to kneel down, to bow uh, before their captors. But Moisey stoutly refused, saying he wouldn't bow to any Chinaman in the world. He was summarily executed. Francis Doyle wrote the poem... And, uh, and Francis Doyle imagines John Moisey, this soldier, having a vision of returning to his home in Kent and to the loved ones he's left behind him, but then sternly putting such thoughts behind him because he knows that what he must do at all costs is he must not dishonour England. So here's a couple of verses from the poem. 
Yes, honour calls. With strength like steel, he puts the vision by. Let dusky Indians whine and kneel. An English lad must die. And thus, with eyes that would not shrink, with knee to man unbent, unfaltering on its dreadful brink, to his red grave he went. And Doyle goes on in a later uh, verse of the poem to reflect upon the fact that the British Empire has got to rely on such proud fighting men because without them, the empire can't last for a moment. Vain mightiest fleets of iron framed, vain those all-shattering guns, unless proud England keep untamed the strong heart of her sons. So, let his name through England ring, a man of mean estate, who died as firm as Sparta's king, because his soul was great. In poems like this, you can see the beginnings of the late 19th century uh, cult of the empire as something which could enthuse the common people. Until then, it had really been mainly a matter of trading companies and high policy among politicians. But it starts to become a popular cause in the middle and late 19th century. Well, at the end of the Second War, a harsher treaty was imposed upon China, including making Tientsin, that is the port which leads to Beijing itself, into another of these treaty ports. Gradually, with the progress of time, more and more of China, of China's coastline, was being opened up to foreign trade. And then, a group of foreign officers undertook to help the emperors to suppress the Taiping Rebellion. First of all, uh, an, officer, an American officer, a soldier of fortune called Frederick Townsend Ward, who was killed in battle in 1862. And then after him, Colonel Charles Gordon, whose nickname was Chinese Gordon for much of his lifetime. He became commander of a force called the Ever-Victorious Army. And that sounds like a, an overstatement, but in fact it's true that it was an Ever-Victorious Army. Uh, Ward and Gordon both believed in the principle of giving high pay to the soldiers to discourage looting when they liberated areas from the Taipings. And that meant, of course, that they'd be welcomed by the local people in exchange for the Taipings if they could restore order in the chaotic, disorganised countryside. They'd be, they'd be welcomed rather than being dreaded. Ward and Gordon also had the insight that it was vitally important to drill them in, in Western military technique, close marching in formation, firing in volleys, uh, taught drill and discipline. Their success effectively ended the Taiping Rebellion and gave further evidence of Chinese dependence on outsiders' power. Now, it must seem a little bit anomalous that, the, that even though Western missionaries are coming in to preach Christianity in China and the Taipings were Christians, the British then found themselves on the side of trying to suppress this Christian uh, group on behalf of the Manchu dynasty. But that's one of the many paradoxes of great power politics at the time. Well, from then on, the British could play a large and perhaps even a decisive role in di dictating Chinese conduct. But they, the British held on to the idea that they had no motive for direct colonisation. There were still voices to suggest that the direct colonisation of India had actually been a mistake and that the whole point about China was to make it a profitable trading partner without the political implications and political costs that often went with it. Britain remained as the, fav the favoured trading partner and indirectly the principal political power in China right up until the Japanese invasion of 1937.
Lecture 14, Britain, the Imperial Center. Over the course of the first part of this series, I've been talking about many different parts of the world and the way in which each of them was connected to Britain. What I'd like to do in this lecture is to uh, emphasize some of the things which were happening in Britain itself in the expectation that it'll make it clearer what was going on elsewhere in the world, the better you can understand Britain itself. Britain went through profound changes between the era of its first colonial ventures in the days of Elizabeth I and the accession of Queen Victoria in 1837. After civil wars in the 17th century and a prolonged struggle against the Netherlands and France, it emerged from the Napoleonic Wars in 1815 as the most powerful nation in the world. Scotland and England had been unified peacefully in 1707. Ireland also joined the United Kingdom in 1801. Men from both kingdoms contributed greatly to the building of an overseas empire. By then, too, Britain was in the midst of the world's first industrial revolution, which made it vastly more productive than ever before, and brought new men with new ideas into political life. The nation's development of sophisticated banking and insurance techniques, its profound political stability, and its comparatively high measures of social mobility all contributed to its ability to project power around the world. Government, merchants and manufacturers worked closely together, while businessmen gradually replaced landowning aristocrats at the centres of power. Well, first of all, the English civil wars of the 17th century created a permanent role for Parliament in the British Constitution. Britain doesn't have a written constitution, in that respect it's very different from the United States, but it does have one that's developed gradually over the course of the centuries, often with issues not fully resolved for decades. The Stuart kings, James I and Charles I, disputed the constitutional role of Parliament and, in fact, tried to govern without it. Parliament, already by 1600, was claiming that it had a permanent role to play in British political life, and the kings denied that claim, saying they could summon Parliament if they wanted to, but they certainly weren't obliged to do so. Parliament had, de had developed gradually during the Middle Ages as the kings summoned lords and commoners to support their military ventures and to raise money for him around the, the countryside. The monarchy in the Middle Ages had no central administrative bureaucracy and was completely dependent on the provinces and their local lords to be able to raise soldiers and raise taxes to pay for fighting. Now, increasingly, Parliament developed the... Uh, custom of insisting on the redress of its grievances before it was willing to grant revenue to the king. And of course Parliament was usually able to get redress when the king had to have money in order to be able to fight. So in the 1620s and 30s, after a series of conflicts with Parliament, the Stuart kings thought that they might be able to rule without Parliament so long as they could keep the peace. And in the 1630s, the monarchy revived many ancient taxes like ship money, uh, money for the, for the building of ships, and also uh, introduced new expedients like the selling of peerages. From King James I, you could, you could become a baronet if you were willing to pay for it. These were royal attempts to raise money without going to the trouble of having uh, a contentious parliament squabbling over every issue. But an escalating series of crises in the early 1640s forced King Charles I to declare war against Parliament. 
He had to call Parliament in response to a Scottish uprising and the threat that England would be invaded from the north. Parliament, before it would grant him money to combat the Scottish threat, condemned his chief minister, the Earl of Strafford, and his Archbishop of Canterbury, William Lord, and had them both executed. And then, in passage of the Triennial Act, Parliament asserted that it had a permanent place in the Constitution and must be raised and consulted at least every three years. Many of them were Puritans, uh, particularly ones coming from the eastern parts of England. And they were connected, in many cases, quite sympathetically with the people who'd uh, emigrated to Massachusetts Bay uh, ever since the Mayflower. In a dramatic gesture of escalation, King Charles I came to the House of Commons to arrest its leaders, but they'd been tipped off and fled just in time. This is in 1642. The king then withdrew to Oxford, which is about um, 60 miles west of London, and began raising an army to fight against Parliament, which mobilised the London militia and also began to arm itself to fight back. Most of the London merchants and the City of London itself remained loyal to Parliament, and that, of course, gave it an enormous financial advantage. The Puritan traders and the big chartered trading companies were mainly sympathetic to the parliamentary position. The early battles of the English Civil War were inconclusive, partly because some of the generals fighting on the parliamentary side were unnerved by fighting against their own king. The king, Charles I, claimed that he was king by divine right, and that to take up arms against the king was a, an act not just of treason, but of a, an affront to God. Gradually, Parliament purged its own army and created a much more effective fighting force called the New Model Army. Its general was Thomas Fairfax, but unquestionably its most famous member was the cavalry commander, Oliver Cromwell. He was the outstanding, innovative soldier of the war, an excellent disciplinarian, passionate about careful training, and endowed with an intense religious conviction that he was doing the right thing, that in fighting against the king he was doing God's work. His army used to march into battle singing the psalms. This is the, the soldiers remembered in British tradition as the Roundheads. The New Model Army won decisive victories, most of all at the Battle of Naseby in 1645, which in effect brought, shattered the king's army and brought the war to an end. The king became a prisoner of Parliament, but after about a year escaped, raised a second army, the fighting resumed, and when the king was re-arrested, Cromwell was determined not merely to ensure for Parliament a permanent role in the Constitution, but also to do away with the monarchy altogether. So Cromwell then purged Parliament in an event which is remembered as Pride's Purge, because Colonel Pride did it for him, uh, got rid of all untrustworthy MPs, untrustworthy from his point of view, then put the king on trial for making war against his own people, and condemned him to death. The king himself absolutely refused to acknowledge the authority of Parliament to put him on trial. He said that his divine right made it entirely inappropriate for him to dicker with Parliament in this way. So he remained the dignified position that Parliament had no right to do what it was doing throughout his trial. Early in 1649, he was beheaded in Whitehall, close to the Houses of Parliament. Oliver Cromwell then became the Lord Protector. Uh, there was a period of, of constitutional experimentation in the late 40s and early 50s. By 1653, he'd become the Lord Protector. And uh, because, he, because his regime was closely tied to the London business community, this was a period of policy highly favourable to the expansion of the empire itself. 
But what Cromwell hadn't got was um, a tradition of legitimacy beside him. He himself was both a very good politician and a very good soldier and had the loyalty of the New Model Army as well as the parliamentarians. But once he died in 1658, it was impossible to find an adequate successor. His son, Richard Cromwell, did briefly become the second Lord Protector. But at that point, a lot of the, uh, the business community and the generals of the army became anxious about the possibility of political turbulence uh, bubbling up from below and finally decided that it would be safer to bring back the king. And so Charles II, the son of Charles I, returned to the throne in 1660 in an event called the Restoration. But as I said, the, the empire certainly benefited from the period of the, of the Commonwealth. Uh, it was in 1655 that a British expedition against uh, Spain led to the British seizure of Jamaica, which then remained one of Britain's West Indian colonies from now on. Now put yourself in the position of King Charles II. He was fully aware that his father had been put to death by Parliament. And he never forgot the fact that he'd had to flee for his life and had had to live in, in exile in France for more than 10 years. He remained king from 1660 to 1685. During, uh, his mother had been a Roman Catholic, then he'd spent a long period of time in Catholic France, and his own religious um, sympathies were Catholic. And in fact, he became a deathbed convert to Catholicism. But he understood during his lifetime that it was far too dangerous for a king of Protestant England to declare himself a Catholic. He was succeeded by his brother, King James II, who was far less circumspect. James had been the Duke of York, and New York is named after him. Now, James II was openly a Catholic, and he wanted to set about reversing the English Reformation. His attempt to do so was absolutely catastrophic, and one by one he alienated every source of potential support in the kingdom. Um, it had been impossible, even for Queen Mary I, 130 years earlier, to drag England back into the Catholic fold. And the idea of James doing it th this much later was impossible. And finally, once he'd alienated all his potential supporters, he was forced to flee in 1688. Once James II had fled, Parliament then invited the Stadtholder of the Netherlands, William of Orange, to come to England and become the new king, King William III. He was a suitable choice, partly because he was a reliable Protestant and partly because he was married to King James II's daughter, Mary. So she became Queen Mary II and William and Mary uh, reigned jointly. It's clear at this point, th this is the glorious revolution, and it's clear at this point that Parliament is in control. Parliament invites the monarchy in rather than the king summoning Parliament. It reasserted its permanent role in the government and has held on to it ever since. And it specified in legislation of the 1690s that from then on, the monarch must always be a Protestant. The political unification of the British Isles ended the danger that Ireland or Scotland might ally with a foreign adversary, which until then had always been a hazard. Scotland sued for inclusion in the United Kingdom after the failure of its own great um, um, empire-building scheme, the Darien Scheme of the 1690s. Now, this is a complicated matter. The Anglo-Scottish monarchy had been united back in 1603. After Queen Elizabeth I died, King James VI of Scotland had become King James I of England. But although they had the same king, they remained separate kingdoms, each with a government of its own. 
Scotsmen were excluded from England's colonial ventures and watched with envy through the 1600s as England prospered. The Darien scheme of the 1690s was designed to create a Scottish colony in Panama, which would become a great exchange between the Atlantic and the Pacific, because by now in both oceans trade was thriving. The idea was that this colony of Scotsmen would straddle the narrow strip of land and would broker deals between traders in the two oceans. And the Darien colony was established very close to where the Panama Canal was later built more than 200 years later. But as I've suggested in earlier lectures, it's very, very difficult for British people to live in the Caribbean of those days. The first voyage was devastated by malaria, yellow fever, dysentery, and eventually by starvation. It was absolutely ruinous, and there was almost nothing to show for the costs which uh, a generation of Scotsmen had sunk into the scheme. England was hostile to the project, and so was Spain, which had a prior claim on, the, on Panama. Meanwhile, a succession of, of cold, flooded summers and harvest failures caused widespread famine inside Scotland in the 1690s. So the 90s was an extremely inauspicious decade for Scotland. By then, influential men in both countries were arguing in favour of u political union. And the Westminster Parliament sweetened the deal by incorporating all the outstanding debts of the Darien scheme into the British national debt. One influential propagandist for the union of the two kingdoms was the English writer Daniel Defoe, who we remember principally as the author of Robinson Crusoe. But he worked as a spy for the English government in Edinburgh, letting them know what was going on among the Scottish politicians. And in 1707, the Act of Union was completed, uh, bringing the two nations together. After James II had fled, he'd gone to France, there was the, there was the, the continuing threat of, of Stuart claimants to the throne. In 1715, James II's son, if he'd been willing to announce himself a Protestant, he could almost certainly have come back and restored the old Stuart line of the monarchy. But that was something he was unwilling to do. And so instead, Parliament chose the electors of Hanover, the first of whom, George I, became the Protestant King of England instead, even though his actual dynastic claim to the English throne was far weaker than the Stuarts. In fact, weaker than 55 other people. But they all had the disadvantage of being Catholics. And, uh, and Parliament was determined to have a Protestant succession. James II's grandson, Bonnie Prince Charlie, invaded England in 1745. He landed in Scotland, raised an army, and nearly succeeded in marching to London to overthrow George II. The king and the government were ready to flee in panic. But when the Highlanders' army reached the city of Derby, they lost heart about being so far away from their own homes and retreated back to Scotland, at which point George II sent an army after them, which won a devastating victory against them at the Battle of Culloden Moor in 1746. That was the battle at which General Wolfe, later the victor of Quebec, uh, was a prominent soldier. After the Act of Union, Scotsmen provided much of the manpower to Britain's colonial armies and administration. Now, Scotsmen had access to the Empire, from which they'd previously been excluded. And they made the most of it, as soldiers, merchants and fortune hunters. And certainly, as we explore the history of Canada and Australia in particular, again and again we find that it was Scotsmen who played decisive roles, or the descendants of Scottish migrants, in the history of those two countries. What about Ireland? Well, the English domination of Ireland after the mid-16th century was again embittered by religious conflict. 
Oliver Cromwell's massacre at Drogheda in 1649 was taken by many Irish Catholics as symbolic of English attitudes to their country and their faith. Cromwell was unable to pay the soldiers in the New Model Army at the end of the English Civil Wars, and so many of them were paid off in the form of land in the Ulster counties of, of Northern Ireland. They, and the earlier Jacobean settlements, the settlements in the age of King James I, had brought in the ancestors of the fierce Protestant community which dominates the northern counties of Ireland right up to the present. In the rest of predominantly Catholic Ireland, recurrent uprisings had failed to destroy English power and English influence. There were intense and, and sometimes justified fears in England during the wars of the French Revolution, for example, that Irish revolutionaries would link up with a French invasion to attack Britain, to sort of stab Britain in the back while it was uh, deeply preoccupied on the continent. One of, these, one of these rebellions did take place in 1798. So in the year 1800, an act of union uh, brought together the governments of Ireland and England as well. And uh, it became effective on January the 1st, 1801, creating what's now called the United Kingdom. And it brought a 100 Irish members of Parliament from Ireland into the Parliament at Westminster. But Ireland didn't benefit as directly from this union as had Scotland. The Catholic majority of the people were still disfranchised. If you were a Catholic in Ireland, you couldn't vote, you couldn't be a member of Parliament, you couldn't be an army officer, you couldn't be a magistrate. In every respect, you were made a second-class citizen. Most of the Irish landowners were absentees. They didn't live on their estates. They lived in Dublin or even in London. And most of the landowners were Protestants. So there's a very, very sharp division of wealth, which is exacerbated by a division of religion. And a feeling of a bitter sense of persecution and injustice among the ordinary people of Ireland, most of whom were peasant farmers. Ireland and Britain's consistent failure there is really the best argument against the whole of the British Empire and a kind of standing rebuke to historians who argue that the, that the arrival of the British usually made life better wherever they went. My next lecture is going to be following up in more detail on these Irish questions. Well, another, another vital question in the whole of this history is that Britain pioneered in banking, national finance and industrialization, while its political system gradually adapted to these new economic realities. The foundation of the Bank of England in 1694 linked the business community closely to the government, giving it a stake in the regime's survival while offering secure loans to the government at low interest. Again, the Glorious Revolution is critical here. The arrival of William of Orange, who became King William III of England after the Glorious Revolution, also brought a group of very sophisticated Dutch financiers. William Patterson, a Scotsman and an advocate of, of the Union of England and Scotland, arranged a method for wealthy citizens to loan money to the government in return for annuities. And this was later converted into permanent bonds, which paid 3% per year and were an extremely reliable investment. In, uh, in English fiction, in the work of Jane Austen, all the way through to E.M. Forster, you often find characters who are members of the British leisured classes, and, they, and their source of income is the so-called 3%. That is, someone in the family's past has made a fortune and invested it in these uh, bonds, which reliably pay, pay 3% per year, which is itself enough for them not to have to work. So it's an important uh, issue, in, even in English fiction. 
It was a way of safeguarding a fortune and getting a steady income from it and of binding wealthy citizens to the state. Here's the historian Walter Russell Mead describing the effects of the, of the bank. He says, The bank united the country around its institutions and values. Any threat to the bank's existence and to the conditions that promoted its health would cause financial panics and immense losses. Concretely, as the bank's organisers knew very well, the Bank of England depended on the continued exclusion of James II and his heirs from the throne. The bank had been formed to prosecute a war against him. As king, he would obviously refuse to repay loans made for that purpose. The economic consequences of the collapse of the bank would be catastrophic for virtually every significant financial interest in Britain. Over time, as more investors saw that bank stock and paper were good investments, the circle of those with an economic stake in the bank's success, and therefore in the political arrangements based on the revolution of 1688, continued to grow wider and more influential. Government debt, historically a source of weakness, had been transformed into an instrument of strength. That's a very, very important insight indeed. The national debt, I mean, for the French monarchy, debt caused absolute continuous chaos through the 18th century. But in Britain it didn't because of this institutional sophistication. The French government usually had to borrow on short-term loans with high interest, whereas Britain soon realised that the national debt at low interest was entirely manageable and it was actually desirable to have the debt. Another very important financial development was the development of the insurance business. Originally, a place called Lloyd's Coffee House, around 1700, was a place where London businessmen used to meet and drink coffee as it became fashionable. And they began experimenting in various forms of insurance. Quickly, it became a highly sophisticated instrument for underwriting risky voyages in sailing ships to remote parts of the world, spreading the risk more thinly and encouraging more people to invest in the trade. Later on, in the late 18th century, this is starting in about the 1770s, industrialisation started to transform the face of Britain. Harnessing water and steam power to manufacturing led to the, the, a rise in the quality of, and quantity of goods being made while steadily lowering their cost. And a lot of the capital generated in India and in the West Indies was invested in industry. A long succession of English inventions, including improved steam engines from James Watt, the use of water power in spinning machines, Joseph Arkwright, and weaving machines uh, by Samuel Crompton, and then the building of the first railways early in the 19th century. The great names there are George and Robert Stevenson, who realised the possibilities of mounting a miniaturised steam engine. The very first steam engines were massive things to alleviate flooding in mines, but gradually people like Watt were able to build them smaller and more efficient until they could be mounted on a carriage that could run on rails and tow trains behind them. Those are the uh, succession of insights which led to the building of railways. And starting in the late 1820s, a great network of railroads began to spread across England and then Scotland as well, vastly simplifying and speeding up the rate of trade and the, and the capacity for mobility for bulk goods. Now, industrialization itself was controversial. If you see William Blake's poem, Jerusalem, he talks about the dark satanic mills that have been built throughout England. And it is true that the early industrial factories were often very ugly and smoky. When Frederick Engels, Karl Marx's friend, went to live in Manchester in the 1840s, he was shocked by the horrible conditions endured by the factory workers. So industrialization is certainly no paradise, especially for the people involved in it. 
But nevertheless, in the long run, industrialization set the foundations for a vast rise in standards of living for nearly everybody and the generation of much greater national wealth. One of the people to witness this and to expatiate on it was Adam Smith, the Scottish economist, who explained the advantage of free markets and of entrepreneurial initiative. In an earlier lecture, I mentioned his passage about the pin makers, in which he showed that the division of labour into lots of small jobs makes it, makes it possible to produce far more than you could if one person's doing every part of the job. He was a great believer in economies of scale. Bring a lot of people together in a factory and they'll work much more efficiently. He also uh, introduced the, the concept of the invisible hand of the market. He said, it's not a good idea to have economic uh, policy planned from the central government. It's much better to let individuals decide for themselves what kind of economic activity they'd like to undertake. Let people identify a need, uh, uh, something that's wanted, let them invest in their own inventions or their own insights, and they'll, provi they'll provide customers with these commodities in the most effective way. And because they'll be competing against others, they've got a direct and obvious motive to make the price lower and lower and the quality higher and higher. The government doesn't need to protect industries, and in fact it's likely to distort markets if it does. It's much better to let men pursue their own self-interest. So Adam Smith also introduces this paradox that the nation benefits from people being economically selfish. The Industrial Revolution gave new prominence to religious nonconformists and to advocates of the new evangelicalism. The word nonconformist in Britain simply means somebody who doesn't conform to the established Church of England. Unlike America, Britain does have an established church, the Anglican Church, and the, uh, the idea of the church is to get as many people as possible to conform to it. So if you are a Quaker or a Presbyterian or a Congregationalist, you are a nonconformist because you refuse to, to do so. You went to other Protestant churches instead. But if you were a nonconformist, you weren't allowed, for example, to go to the great old universities of Oxford and Cambridge. It was people from these communities which turn who turned in large numbers to technical education, and many of the pioneers of British industrialization were nonconformists. For example, the Wedgwood family, pioneers of ceramics and pottery or the Abraham Darby family, three generations of iron masters living in the county of Shropshire, who transformed the quality of iron goods production, invented a superior method of making steel, and built the very first iron bridge in the world. This is in the valley of Colebrookdale. The iron bridge is still there, built in 1769. It's a beautiful span over the River Severn. The little town where it sits was renamed Iron Bridge, because that was what was there. John Wesley, the inspiration for the Methodist community, uh, inspired the evangelical revival inside the Church of England. He himself never became actually a Methodist. These were people, uh, profound, dedicated, intense Protestants, who had a new seriousness about life, uh, which pr later on prompted Max Weber, the sociologist, to talk about the close link between puritanical Protestantism and the work ethic, the industrial work ethic. And certainly, if you, if you look at who was involved in the British Industrial Revolution, that does seem to be borne out in practice. These were the people whose influence led or contributed to the abolition of slavery, an issue we looked at a few lectures ago, and the dispatch of missionaries to overseas colonies. Now we're going to see below uh, in, in coming lectures that missionaries weren't always a blessing and that sometimes their attempts to uplift the native peoples of the empire uh, had very unexpected harmful consequences.
The first Reform Act of 1832 realigned the British political system, and it did it peacefully, entailing none of the chaos of the French Revolution. Britain was still very far indeed from being a democracy, but the Reform Act of 1832 did widen the franchise slightly, and it abolished many of the old uh, so-called pocket boroughs or rotten boroughs, uh, in which the situation had developed over the course of several hundred years, that a parliamentary constituency would have no population at all. There's a famous one called Old, S- Old Sarum. It still had members of parliament, but it didn't have any people. Uh, the population was shifting. The new industrial towns like Manchester and Birmingham, for the first time, were now given uh, representatives in parliament. So the first Reform Act, although it certainly didn't make Britain a democracy, and it certainly meant that only those who were property owners were allowed to vote, Still, it created the precedent which made subsequent reforms more likely thereafter. In fact, throughout the 19th century, there was growing pressure to widen the franchise, to introduce the secret ballot, and to get to a position more like the condition of one man, one vote. And of course, throughout the middle of the 19th century, there was an acute British awareness of what was going on on the other side of the the Atlantic in the United States of America, Britain's former colony, which was a much more democratic place If you're an English radical, you looked with favour on America. If you're an English Tory, you looked with disapproval on America as the horrible land of the future. The repeal of the Corn Laws, another piece of very important legislation, this is from 1846, indicated a further shift in British politics towards free trade and away from protectionism in the interests of the old landed elite. And again, it's very striking that the British political system was able to do this peacefully. Uh, What's happening between 1800 and 1870 is a steady shift away from politics being undertaken in the interests of the landed gentry and towards the interests of the more dynamic business classes. So, by the mid-19th century, Britain was politically more unified than ever before. It was industrialising rapidly. It was more politically representative. The monarchy had been stripped of most of its power. It was internally peaceful, financially strong and supple, morally increasingly earnest, and coming to believe in its mission to civilise the rest of the world rather than merely to trade with it. By then, it was also unquestionably stronger than all its great historical rivals, Spain, France and the Netherlands. Lecture 15, Ireland, The Tragic Relationship. The most puzzling and tragic element of British history is its relationship with Ireland. The English had been involved in Irish affairs ever since the 12th century and had largely conquered and pacified Ireland by the mid-17th. By the 19th century, most British people thought that Ireland was part of Great Britain. But most of the Irish thought of Ireland as a separate nation and bitterly resented the English as alien invaders. Ireland's widespread poverty was aggravated by a sharp religious divide. The Catholic Irish had long long been suspected by the English of being in league with Britain's Catholic enemies, France and Spain. And sometimes that had been true. In 1846, Ireland suffered a catastrophic harvest failure in its one principal crop, potatoes, which threatened millions of people with starvation. 
limited government aid was unable to prevent a high death toll. It was followed by mass emigration to Canada, Australia and America, which created large and politically important Irish lobbies abroad, unsympathetic to Britain and to the Empire itself. Well, British involvement in Ireland had always been a source of friction, and the friction intensified after the Reformation. As early as the reign of King Henry II in the 12th century, the English were intervening in Irish politics. The intervention increased during the reign of the Tudor monarchs, with King Henry VIII being the first monarch to declare himself King of Ireland, which he did in 1541. Expeditions uh, under Sir Walter Raleigh and other adventurers in the days of Queen Elizabeth I tried to bring more of the island of Ireland under direct British control and to take it away from the control of Irish chieftains. In the early 17th century, militant Protestant settlements in the northern counties, the Ulster counties, began the long history of religious division that continues up to the present. Between 1608 and 1620, a carefully planned plantation of Ulster gave most of the best land there to Protestant lords in exchange for their promise of military service to the king. This land had been taken away from rebellious Irish lords and King James I was determined to strengthen the Protestant position there. Most of the settlers were Scottish Presbyterians, about 15,000 of them by 1620 and another big migration followed in the 1630s. This was at just the same time as the big Protestant migration to New England, and some historians see Ireland as a kind of trial run for the Protestant colonisation of America. Now, jumping forward to the civil wars, which I spoke about in the previous lecture, Oliver Cromwell, the leader of the parliamentary armies in the British civil wars, suppressed an Irish rebellion between 1649 and 1651. England itself had been in upheaval, but uh, was largely pacified after the execution of King Charles I. And so at that point, Com Cromwell led his army to Ireland and uh, dealt out the same decisive tactics there. The most famous incident of that war is the massacre of the inhabitants of Drogheda when they refused to surrender. And this is the event for which Cromwell is still demonised in Irish Catholic hi history. The rule, according to the rules of warfare in the 17th century, if a city was surrounded by a besieging force, and the besieger was certain that sooner or later he was going to win, he'd call on the commander of the besieged garrison to surrender. And if the commander of the garrison refused, uh, he knew that massacre would follow if the city did in fact fall. This had happened repeatedly throughout the Thirty Years' War in, in Europe at the same time. Now that doesn't excuse Cromwell, of course, but it does create some of the context for the, for the, the massacre taking place. Cromwell was unable to pay the members of the New Model Army in money, and so he paid many of them in Irish lands instead. Again, this is particularly true in the Ulster counties. Uh, so former soldiers, so former radical Protestant soldiers, swelled the Ulster Protestant population. And those counties have a, po a Protestant majority right up to the present. Catholic Ireland supported King James II the Catholic James II, against the Glorious Revolution of 1688-9, which I talked about last time. Irish Protestants treasured the memory of King James's defeat at the Battle of the Boyne in 1690 by the Protestant William III, uh, an army made up of English Catholics, Irish Catholics and French helpers 
faced off against King William III at the Battle of the Boyne, and the Protestant army was victorious. The Boyne is right next to Drogheda on the east coast of Ireland. William III's victory there secured his hold on the British throne and gave an added reason to persecute and disinherit Catholics because once again they'd been linked very, very directly to treason to the, to the English monarchy. While there was a Catholic pretender to the British throne, first James II, then his son the old pretender, and then his son, the young pretender, Bonnie Prince Charlie, the idea of Ireland as a source of potential treason to the Protestant British regime was very real. The Irish themselves enjoyed no civil rights, even though the Catholic majority uh, enjoyed no civil rights. They weren't allowed to sit in Parliament, they weren't allowed to be army officers, they couldn't be magistrates. They were emphatically second-class citizens. And the result is that the Irish Parliament in Dublin was made up of members of what was called the Protestant Ascendancy, the wealthy and powerful minority group who were also, uh, for the most part, the landowners there. So it was a very, very sharp disparity of both wealth and religion and loyalty. The Act of Union of 1800 abolished the Irish Parliament in Dublin and it brought a group of 100 Irish MPs to Westminster, to the, to the London Parliament. The Act of Union was itself a sequel to another uprising, the Uprising of 1798. And it was in response to fears of the, uh, the, the turmoil generated by the French Revolution in the 1790s. But the Act of Union came with the promise that there would be Catholic emancipation. In other words, from now on, Catholics would be able to vote, would be able to become members of Parliament, could be army officers, uh, and, and could, in, in other respects, enjoy the same rights as the Protestant minority. But... When the uh, Act came, to, came before for the royal assent, the point where after passing through the House of Commons and the House of Lords, it then goes to the King for his assent, King George III refused to sign it because he said, my oath of allegiance when I became King included the promise to uphold the Church of England. The Catholic Church is the greatest threat to the Church of England and therefore I'd be violating my coronation oath if I were in fact to, uh, to sign the Act. So this, of course, becomes one more grievance. In the early 19th century, the Catholic majority, mostly very poor, lived on lands owned by Protestant landowners, many of whom were absentees. Local agents usually ran the estates, and they tended to profit by multiple subdivision of plots of land. If, a, if an Irish farmer had four sons, usually he'd divide his estate four ways to make many smaller farms rather than simply handing it on to the oldest, as was the principle in England. Now, because so many of the landowners were absentees, they often didn't even know how many tenants were living and working on their own estates. One owner in 1846 thought that he had 60 tenants, but he found when he actually went there that the number was actually nearer 600. This was a situation, of course, in which scientific farming, then um, taking place all over uh, England, and kind of rational improvement planning was impossible. Tenants were liable to eviction without legal recourse and certainly without compensation for any improvements they might have made on the land. So again, while English farming was becoming more rationalised and more efficient, Irish farming was not. If anything, the constant subdivision of the land was driving it in the opposite direction. 
Landlords who were, uh, who were tempted to try improvement schemes knew that their lives would be endangered if they evicted the tenants. There were secret societies with names like the White Boys and the Ribbon Men who exercised reprisals against evicting landlords and their agents. And so the result is that most of the landlords didn't bother to attempt uh, rationalisation or improvement. Instead, they lived in Dublin or in England on the proceeds of their unimproved estates. One of them was the mid-century Prime Minister, Lord Palmerston. Now, one of the many grievances of the Catholic Irish majority was the Protestant Church of Ireland. Because even though the Catholics would never actually go into these churches, nevertheless they had to pay for their upkeep through the payment of tithes. The Catholic Association, founded by Daniel O'Connell in 1823, campaigned for Catholic emancipation, that is for the elimination of all the civil disadvantages suffered by the Catholic people. O'Connell himself was a charismatic figure, a great orator, an eloquent courtroom lawyer. And he persuaded thousands of Irish Catholics to pay their penny-a-week membership. The nickname for this was paying the Catholic rent. And he campaigned very effectively for the uh, abolition of all these disadvantages. In 1828, he himself stood for a seat in Parliament. Incidentally, in America, you run for a seat in Congress. But in Britain, you stand for a seat in Parliament. I'm not quite sure why we have these different metaphors. He stood for a seat in Parliament in County Clare. Priests and parishioners turned out in the thousands to support him, and he won the vote, even though he wasn't actually eligible to take his seat because he was a Catholic. Now, the popularity of O'Connell and the feeling of injustice in Ireland was so intense that the Prime Minister, the Duke of Wellington, this is England's great hero from the Battle of Waterloo, realised that he was going to have to yield or face an open Catholic rebellion in Ireland. And he guided legislation through the Houses of Parliament, despite a bitter sense of betrayal from the Tories, his own party. In fact, at one point, the Duke of Wellington had to fight a duel over it with another aristocrat, Lord Winchelsea. Both men fired, both missed, and so they lived to tell the tale. Now, the anger of the Tories came from their belief that Catholicism is tantamount to treason. Because French and Spanish, the French and Spanish had so often used Irish Catholics against England. So it seemed to the Tories quite wrong, morally wrong, to enfranchise the Catholics. And, of course, Tory opposition came from their recognition that they would no longer be assured of winning the Irish seats uh, once the Catholic majority could vote. It was very likely that they wouldn't win. On the other hand, even though the Catholics got the vote, they still didn't get a secret ballot. In those days, elections took place publicly, so everyone knew who'd voted which way. And of course, if you were the landowner, you could put a great deal of pressure on your tenants to vote for the candidate you wanted, otherwise, again, with the threat of eviction or retaliation of some kind. Catholic emancipation in 1829 did give Catholic property owners the right to become members of Parliament. Only a minority of landed and wealthy Catholics benefited, but even so, it was symbolically a very important victory. Listen to the remarks of the Catholic historian Alvin Jackson. He says, Emancipation was a Catholic victory, planned by a Catholic leadership, and won on the playing field of the Protestant constitution. The measure was passed not out of the magnanimity of the Wellington government, but because the government feared, and was seen to fear, the consequences of resistance. In other words, this is a time where the, when the Catholic majority tests its strength and, and clearly wins a victory. 
It wasn't until 1869, however, that the Church of Ireland was finally disestablished, which meant that from then on, uh, if you were a Catholic, you didn't have to pay for the upkeep of the Protestant Church. Now, in England and Ireland, through the early 1800s, the population was growing very rapidly. In England, it was accompanied with industrialization, but in Ireland, it wasn't. It wasn't accompanied either by industrialization or by agricultural diversification. By the early 1840s, the Irish population was about 8 million. Most of them were peasants, cotters they were called. They lived on small rented plots and often housed with their farm animals in what really amounted to mud huts. The staple of their diet was potatoes, which had been introduced into Europe from America at the time of Columbus. It was a new world crop which then began to grow well in the old world. And uh, they were the, really the one staple food of most of the Irish rural poor. Potatoes are nutritionally very rich. You get a high yield per acre of them, about six tonnes per acre per year. That's partly why the population could continue to grow. But the Irish uh, potato agriculture was a monoculture. That is, it's dominated by just one crop. And monocultures are inherently unstable. They're ecologically unstable because... Although the crop will certainly grow, they create the ideal situation for the one crop's predators. And sooner or later, there is going to be uh, an outbreak of a, a predator against the crop itself. It came in 1845 and 1846, the potato blight. Catastrophic in 1846, and then again in 48. And it had the effect of denying millions of Irish people their only supply of food. It was a previously unknown fungus called Phytophthora infestans, first had been noticed in America in 1843. Irish suffering in 1846 through 49 was very acute, and it intensified Anglo-Irish bitterness in a way that has never been entirely forgotten. Visitors to Ireland were horrified by scenes of starvation, and then by the outbreak of cholera that preyed on the weakened survivors. A magistrate who went to visit the village of Skibbereen in County Cork wrote this. Being aware that I should have to witness scenes of frightful hunger, I provided myself with as much bread as five men could carry. And on reaching the spot, I was surprised to find the wretched hamlet apparently deserted. I entered some of the hovels to ascertain the cause, and the scenes which presented themselves were such as no tongue or pen can convey the slightest idea of. In the first, six famished and ghastly skeletons, to all appearances dead, were huddled in a corner on some filthy straw, their wretched legs hanging about naked above the knees. I approached with horror and found by a low moaning that they were alive. In a few minutes I was surrounded by at least 200 such phantoms, such frightful spectres as no words can describe either from famine or from fever. Their demonic yells are still ringing in my ears and their horrible images are fixed upon my brain. Well, emigrant ships, often overcrowded and themselves very vulnerable to epidemics, carried in many of these uh, famine victims to America and to Canada. About one and a half million Irish people went to America in the decade between 1845 and 55. Another 300,000 went to England, and another 300,000 again to Canada. So it's a great exodus of a large part of the surviving Irish population. Here's a Catholic eyewitness account of one of the ship's arrival, arrivals in Quebec. On the 8th of May, 1847, the Urania, 
from Cork, with several hundred immigrants on board, a large proportion of them sick and dying of the ship fever, was put into quarantine at Gross Isle. This was the first of the plague-smitten ships from Ireland, which that year sailed up the St. Lawrence River. But before the first week of June, as many as 84 ships were driven in by an easterly wind, and of that enormous number of vessels, there was not one free from the taint of malignant typhus, the offspring of famine and of the foul ship hold. This fleet of vessels literally reeked with pestilence. The sheds were rapidly filled with the miserable people, the sick and the dying, and round their walls lay groups of half-naked men, women and children in the same condition, sick or dying. Hundreds were literally flung onto the beach, left amid mud and stones to crawl on the dry land how they could. Many of these gasped out their last breath on that fatal shore, not able to drag themselves from the slime in which they lay. From ship to ship, a young Irish priest carried the consolations of religion to the dying. Amidst the shrieks and groans and wild ravings and heart-rending lamentations over prostrate sufferers in every stage of sickness, from loathsome birth to loathsome birth, he pursued his holy task. So as you can see, even those who were able to get away from Ireland certainly weren't guaranteed a, a, a safe future. And Many of these refugees died on ship or very soon after getting to the New World. And not surprisingly, the survivors of this traumatic emigration created anti-English constituencies in the colonies and in the United States. All subsequent Irish affairs and all subsequent British affairs would have to contend with foreign opinion and foreign influence, which has remained strong up to the present. What about the, government, the British government response to the famine? Well, first under a Tory leader, Robert Peel, and then under a Whig, John Russell, there were escalated public relief efforts. But the British bureaucracy in England was unsympathetic. Obedient to the prevailing market theory, they prevented fast and plentiful aid from being sent at first. They objected to the idea of simply giving away food or money. They didn't really see famine relief as an appropriate job for government. And, of course, because they weren't on the scene, they couldn't um, adequately appreciate the intensity of the suffering. They set up various public works schemes whose aim was to pay men somewhere between 10 pence and 1 shilling and sixpence per day for their work. But the weakest, who needed the food most, could, could earn the least or else were too weak to work at all. Gradually, as the extent of the suffering and the, and the severity of the famine became clear, the case for direct aid became irresistible. By early 1847, three million Irish people were on direct relief, being given food from local soup kitchens. In other words, a, a number approaching half of the entire population. The recurrence of crop failure in 1848 worsened an already desperate situation. Irish nationalists denounced the British response as callously indifferent, and right up to the present, historians continue to, continue to debate the question. Some historians say governments had never before been called upon to react to famines of this kind at this scale. Others say, particularly Irish historians say, it's because the sufferers were Irish and the government was English that the response was inadequate. Well, after the famine, Ireland remained poor and it remained bitterly anti-English. The population itself fell steadily. There were 8 million people in, about 8 million people in 1840, but only 5 million by 1880, and it took uh, a century for the population numbers to recover. 
Growing numbers of Irishmen now lived abroad, often keeping alive a romantic sense of the of embattled Ireland. In Ireland itself, high mortality rates, short life expectancy, the echo effects of the famine, and also a high incidence of unmarriage, of, n- of never marrying between both men and women, uh, and a state of continued chronic poverty, all made Ireland a, a wretched place for most of its people. In America, an Irish-American group, the Fenians, uh, agitated for the idea of Irish independence. The theme of romantic nationalism was very strong in Europe at the time. This is the period when the beginning of the unification of Italy took place and the beginnings of the unification of Germany. And it's the time when the Hungarian nationalists were appealing for independence from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And very often the leaders, people like Mazzini and Garibaldi, were romantic figures. And the, um, the Irish, the Fenians, tried to appeal to the same sense of romantic nationalism. Ireland ought to be a nation of its own. They regarded England as satanic. Now, the Fenians were nominally a secret society, but everybody knew about them. And in fact, they were very, very good at publicity, at generating the, uh, a sense of outrage among Americans about English conduct and, and writing striking manifestos. Twice in the years just after the American Civil War, the American Fenians launched invasions of Canada, once in 1866 and again in 1870, hoping that they'd be able to spark an anti-British uprising there. Both invasions failed. Meanwhile, back in Ireland itself, uh, a Home Rule Party developed. Uh, It began in 1870 with an organisation called the Home Rule League, under the leadership of a Protestant lawyer, a man named Isaac Butt, who was sympathetic to the idea of Irish nationalism. And his hope was that Ireland could secure its independence within a British federation. Um, And this this was the sort of moderate Irish Home Rule claim of the 1870s. This was the period when other white dominions of the empire were becoming internally self-governing. Butt was the first of several influential Irish Protestants who sympathised with the Catholic majority and became Irish nationalists. Uh, And as I say, the Home Rule Party has the idea that it's reasonable for white settlement colonies to become self-governing, like Australia, New Zealand and Canada. Well, as if Ireland's agricultural woes hadn't been severe enough, another agricultural depression swept Ireland in the 1870s, which led to another wave of hunger and evictions. This is partly due to the transformation of the world agricultural situation. After the American Civil War, the Great Plains, both of the United States and of Canada, were opened up, and they became a massive source of uh, high-quality food supplies for the rest of the world. Because they flooded the, the the, the world market with food, prices tended to go down, making it more and more difficult for farmers in both England and Ireland to stay in business. They couldn't profitably farm any longer. Most Irish landlords were in debt, and they regarded the steady payment of their tenants' rent as vital to their own solvency. So when the tenants didn't pay, the owners had an incentive to eject them from the land. The Irish Land League, founded in 1879 in response to this situation, opposed high rents and evictions for non-payment. And the Land League was led by one of the most colourful people in Irish history, Charles Stuart Parnell. And again, strangely, he was a a Protestant, a member of the the Ascendancy, the dominant landowning group, but one who identified with the Catholic majority and favoured Irish nationalism. He'd been educated at Cambridge in England, he had an English accent, and he had all the confidence and leadership of a born aristocrat. He also had a great many eccentricities, for many of which he was famous. Here's the historian James Morris describing him. 
There was said to be madness in his father's family. And all his life, Parnell was the slave of eccentric fancies and taboos. He hated the colour green. It was particularly strange for an Irish nationalist. He hated the colour green and blamed the greenness of a floor carpet when he had a sore throat. He was afraid of October, of Fridays, of three candles, and thought cobwebs good for the treatment of cuts. Moody, silent, an animal lover, a devoted reader of Alice in Wonderland, who found nothing in it to make him smile. Nobody who met him in his prime ever forgot his presence. Some found him evil. Some thought him a kind of saint. None seemed quite able to isolate his fascination. It was like a spell. Well, the work of Isaac Burt and Charles Stuart Parnell and other Irish nationalists began to disrupt the work of the Westminster Parliament. Uh, and, and by the 1880s, there were often uh, a sufficient number of Irish Home Rule MPs in Parliament that they could provide the swing vote between the Tories and the Whigs, the two major English parties. The Irish uh, nationalist MPs weren't wealthy, and very often they were paid by the central party, so they were much poorer than most of the English members of Parliament. But because they held the swing vote in Parliament, uh, they were in a, a, vital, uh, a very important position. They could prevent legislation from passing, or they could insist upon a strict quid pro quo from the Liberals if they were going to support Liberal legislation. And funding for them came from American Irishmen. Parnell himself was very careful to maintain good public relations in America. The Catholic Church had its doubts about Parnell. He was a kind of half-hearted Protestant. But on the whole, it endorsed the party. And Parnell reciprocated by insisting that education in Ireland should be based on Catholic principles. Now, in 1872, another reform of the Houses of Parliament in England, with effects for Ireland, was the introduction of the secret ballot. For the first time, it became possible to vote for someone without your landlord knowing who you'd voted for. That's why the Home Rule politicians could become so much more powerful. In 1884, the, ex the franchise was extended to more people than ever before. It still wasn't a one-man, one-vote democracy, but it, it was becoming closer. Both of these acts, which weren't aimed specifically at Ireland, but nevertheless had profound Irish effects, helped the Home Rule Party to detach Irish politics from the ascendancy landlords. These democratic reforms could almost have been tailor-made to help Irish nationalism. Parnell became a folk hero among the Irish poor for his outspoken opposition to eviction. There were 10,000 evictions for non-payment of rent in 1880 alone. That's a measure of the severity of the agricultural crisis. Lord Mount Morris, a severe landlord, was murdered in 1880. Uh, the situation in the Irish countryside was this. Well, I mean, this had been recurrently true throughout the century, and it, and it becomes true again in the 70s and 80s. If a landlord wanted to evict his tenants, he knew that his life might very well be in danger. If he wanted to raise the rent, his life might be in danger. And usually he had so few local sympathisers with his own point of view that it was very difficult for him to raise adequate force to, uh, to make his own will felt. In other words, it's risky to raise the rents, it's risky to evict people, and if you do, you might suffer literally the loss of your own life for doing so. The most famous of these uh, popular... Uh, pressure campaigns against the landlords was that of, of Parnell against Captain Boycott. Captain Boycott was one of these landowners. Parnell arranged a situation in which nobody in the community would have anything to do with him at all. Nobody would speak to him. Nobody would acknowledge his presence. He really became a non-person. 
And that's how his name came into the language to mean someone who's being ostracized. We still talk today about boycotts. And it's from Captain Boycott that the, the, the term originates. So by the early 1880s, another crisis was developing in Ireland. Its resolution in the years between 1880 and 1922 were going to have a prof- it was going to have a profound impact on the destiny of the entire British Empire. Lecture 16, India and the Great Game. By the mid-19th century, Britain dominated India, ruling part of it directly and the rest through dependent princes. The empire expanded into Burma in the 1820s and into Sindh and the Punjab in the 1840s, thanks to the East India Company's army, which was comprised of native troops led by British officers. India remained a vast, colourful and varied collection of states, with hundreds of different languages, ethnic groups and cultures but it provided opportunities for wealth and adventure to all Britons able to adapt to its climate. Rigorous governors, influenced by the evangelical movement at home and by the principles of political liberalism, tried to suppress customs and traditions that they thought of as barbaric, such as sati, widow burning. And they encouraged Christian missionaries to seek converts. Meanwhile, another empire, that of Russia, was expanding eastwards and southwards. For decades, the frontier between them, high in the Himalayas, remained ill-defined. Fear of Russian encroachment led the British to invade Afghanistan in 1839. For the first time in the history of Anglo-India, they suffered a defeat. Only one sole survivor completed the dreadful retreat from Kabul out of a column of 17,000. In the late 18th and early 19th centuries, Britain extended its conquests in India, and tried to provide good and conscientious government. Ever since the trial of Warren Hastings, the British government had regulated the East India Company. Cornwallis's 48 regulations, laid down in 1793, established the principles on which British India would be run for the next 70 years. They included things like this, that the company monopolised the sale of salt and opium, both very profitable. There were a set of rules governing the assessment and collection of taxes, all standardised, and the collectors must be British. The historian Stanley Wolpert, after reviewing this situation, writes as follows. British success in retaining control over India, after wresting land from indigenous powers on the field of battle, was primarily due to the methodical, even-handed way in which newly conquered territories were settled. Peasants soon learned that once their share was paid to the British collector, they were free to live quietly for the rest of the year, unassailed by neighbouring robbers demanding another quarter or third of their wealth. The petty pilfering and princely warfare that had become endemic to most of India during the latter half of the 18th century was virtually eliminated by the strong hand of the British Raj in the early part of the 19th century. In other words, the deterioration of the Mughal Empire had created conditions approaching anarchy in many places, so it must have been a source of relief for the ordinary farmer to once more have a definite, and particularly a definite and honest, power in control. 
Now, the Governor General, Richard Wellesley, this is the brother of the famous Duke of Wellington who won the great victory of um, Waterloo. Governor General Richard Wellesley defeated Tipu Sultan in 1799 at the Battle of Serengapatam and annexed Mysore. This is in the context of the Napoleonic Wars, and with this defeat of Tipu Sultan, it was the defeat of the last of the great princes who had been pro-French. And this was really the moment in which British um, domination over India became secure. His system of subsidiary alliances created what to India was the unfamiliar condition of widespread peace, law and order. A generation of evangelical Christians and utilitarian administrators transformed the company's approach to India in the early 19th century. Until then, for example, the East India Company had ordered its chaplains to preach only to the whites and had done everything it could to keep the missionaries out because it feared that, um, in, a, in a religiously volatile place, the introduction of Christian um, enthusiasm could very easily make matters worse. One senior official warned the governor, the governor general, Lord Minto, in 1808. We are very far from being averse to the introduction of Christianity into India, but nothing could be more unwise than any imprudent or injudicious attempt to induce it by means which should irritate and alarm their religious prejudices. It is desirable that the knowledge of Christianity should be imparted to the native, but the means to be used for that end shall only be such as shall be free from any political danger or alarm. Our paramount power imposes upon us the necessity to protect the native inhabitants in the free and undisturbed possession of their religious opinions. In other words, a statement which begins by saying we're very far from being averse makes it quite, quite clear that they are averse. They want it not to be introduced because they foresee that it's going to cause trouble. This doesn't mean, incidentally, that there was nothing to be said for the idea of Christianizing the Indian people. Uh, the case was p powerfully made in favor of it by John Stuart Mill, who's a company employee of the East India Company and one of the great heroes of the liberal tradition. Here's what John Stuart Mill said. By a system of priestcraft built upon the most enormous and tormenting superstition that ever harnessed and degraded any portion of mankind, the Indians' minds were enchained more intolerably than their bodies. In short, despotism and priestcraft taken together. The Hindus, in mind and body, were the most enslaved portion of the human race. In other words, it's our duty to, to set them free from the, what, what Mill thought was the crazy ideas that they, which currently bound them mind and body. While the company's revised charter uh, by the Charter Act of 1813 permitted licensed missionaries to evangelize in India. In other words, in the to and fro over whether or not this was a good idea, gradually the missionaries are, are beginning to get some, some leverage. They studied Indian languages in order to make translations of the Bible. And when they got to India, they very strongly disapproved of liaisons between British soldiers and administrators with native Indian women, which had been common ever since the early days of the East India Company. Many of the administrators and officers had wives or Indian wives or mistresses. And here's a, a cynical commentator, Samuel Sneed Brown, writing in the 1830s about the relative merits of an Indian um, companion or an English wife. He writes, Those who have lived with a native woman for any length of time never marry a European. So amusingly playful, so anxious to oblige and please are they, 
that a person, after being accustomed to their society, shrinks from the idea of encountering the whims or yielding to the fancies of an English woman. In other words, the claim is, Indian women are much easier to get along with and they'll treat you better. But, starting in the 1840s, as steamships gradually came into service uh, for the long Indian Ocean run, bringing with them a great increase in safety and speed, more British women began to come out to India. One of them was a lady called Honoria Lawrence, who wrote a lot of good letters and a very good diary, and, and these together create some of the most vivid pictures we have of the ordinary life of the British in India uh, in the 1830s, 40s and 50s. She was the wife of a revenue surveyor, often on the move, and she had the opportunity to see many parts of British India. And she's also very good at, at being unashamed of her own prejudices. So we get a good idea of an upper-class English woman's likes and dislikes and prejudices from what she says. And let me quote a, li a little from her. She says, uh, this is in reference, this is in the days when, at dinner, at the end of dinner, the women would go out to drink tea next door, while the men stayed in the dining room to smoke and to drink port. But she says, of all practices in Indian society, I detest the hookah that is the Turkish pipe, and it is utterly barbarous to see it brought in before the ladies retire. There is a stand somewhat like a large candlestick, on top of which is a silver receptacle for the charcoal balls and perfumed tobacco. All the finery and perfumery do not take off the disgustingness of the practice. It is strange to see a gentleman sitting after dinner with the snake taken lovingly under his arm, the mouthpiece held gently between his lips, whence it is occasionally withdrawn that he may address the lady next to him, to whom he breathes forth alternate smoke and compliments. You can see that even though she's got a prejudice, she's also a whimsically entertaining writer. Now, the British in India could indulge themselves by having a huge number of servants, often because each particular servant had a very special job and wouldn't do any others, for reasons related to caste and pride. So, among other people, she meets a lady called Mrs. Hutchinson, who says she has 30 servants. Uh, this is a lady who could probably only have afforded to have one or two if she still lived in England. And she says when she goes visiting, she takes eight or ten of the servants with her wherever she goes. Mrs. Lawrence adds, I have still my English maid whom I brought out to India. Valuable as she is, I shall not be sorry to part with her, for it is difficult in this country to have a European servant without making a companion of her. She sits all day in my dressing room, and when I go in and see her there, so uncompanioned, I cannot but speak to her with a sort of familiarity I would not use had she society of her own rank. That's a little insight into the class situation in Britain, where it was regarded as very inappropriate to, to mix socially with your own servants, because by doing so you degrade the important, what they thought of as the important class stratifications, the differences between them. And so Mrs. Lawrence says, I don't really like talking with my servant like this, making friends with her. Now, in fact, if she let the servant go, it was very likely that an unattached white woman in India could quickly find a husband because uh, potential mates for the soldiers and the, uh, and the uh, administrators were few and far between. The administrators this generation were influenced by the utilitarian philosophy of Jeremy Bentham and James Mill. And they tried to modify the governance of India in the interest of the utilitarian principle, the greatest good for the greatest number. William Bentinck was the Governor-General of Bengal from 1828 to 33, and then of all of India from 1833 to 5. 
And he urged the principle that um, Indians ought to be included in the higher levels of the administration. In other words, there ought not to be an absolutely rigid separation between the English and the Indians. Gradually, the Indians themselves should be introduced into the government, according to British principles. He supervised the Charter Act of 1833, which reads in part, No native of the territories, nor any natural-born subject of His Majesty resident therein, shall by reason only of his religion, place of birth, descent, colour, or any of them, be disabled from holding any place, office, or employment under the company. In other words, the jobs are open to everybody. That's the theory, although in practice they remained almost totally confined to white holders. But that created a standard that the Indians could quote back to the British. Over the course of the 19th century, the British uh, made a lot of declarations, which later on the Indian independence movement would be able to use uh, to show that they, the British had sometimes been acting in bad faith. A man named David Hare founded the Hindu College in Calcutta in 1816 to educate a Hindu elite in Western principles. Now, the most controversial of these uh, actions by a new generation of administrators was Bentinck's attempt to legislate against sati, the tradition of widow burning. High caste Hindus revered the practice, and it's true that sometimes the widows of men who had died saw it as an honour to throw themselves on the funeral pyre of the husband and have their bodies burned up alongside his. But not surprisingly, there were many others uh, who were horrified by the prospect, and and there were plentiful cases which the administrators began to observe of sati taking place against the widow's will. Sometimes the woman would, would literally be tied to the decaying body of her husband, and the pyre would then be surrounded by relatives with staves to force her back onto the fire if the bonds burned through and she tried to escape. And this wasn't an unusual practice. It was common. In Bengal alone, between 1813 and 1825, about 8,000 women were burned alive on these funeral pyres. Indian princes, who had numerous wives, required all of them to follow him in death. The body of the Raja Bood Singh of Bundi was burned along with 84 of his living wives. And of course this horrified the administrators, just as it would horrify us were we to witness it today. The founder of Calcutta, one of the early pioneers of the British Empire in India, Job Charnock, back in 1690, had married an Indian woman, and according to legend, he'd rescued her from her husband's funeral pyre. They'd had three daughters, all of whom later married East India Company officials. So there was a long-standing British objection to the idea of sati, and of course there was no English parallel to that kind of custom. In 1829, the Act of Abolition was passed in Calcutta, outlawing the practice. And Bentinck, uh, for his work towards that end, was regarded as a great hero by the Clapham sect, that is the the evangelical uh, reform leaders in Britain, and was regarded as a hero by the missionaries. Now once again, it's worth hearing a word from Honoria Lawrence. This This is Mrs. Lawrence talking about Indian religion more generally. Near the temple is the burying ground, for though burning is the usual mode of disposing of a body among the Hindus, Yet some of the more sacred dead are buried. There were tombs of masonry work raised over the Mohants, or priests, and the same on a smaller scale over the Chilas, or novices. The place swarms with fakers, a most disgusting race, generally stout, able-bodied men, daubed with ashes and filth, 
and more nearly naked than even the other Hindus. They are impudent to the greatest degree, and with all their dirt and nudity have a pampered appearance. Nothing human can be more horrible than they look, and we know they practice every abomination. Well, here's Mrs. Lawrence's prejudices and aversions in, in full flower. This, this feeling of a horrified turning away from what in India was part of the normal way of life. Earlier in the course, in talking about the Battle of Plassey, I read to you from, and, and the Black Hole of Calcutta, I read to you some of the work of Thomas Babington Macaulay, who was an important 19th century historian and politician. Macaulay wrote a revised code of Indian laws, and he also, like Bentinck, foresaw the possibility of eventual Indian self-rule so long as it was done according to British principles. And like many of the British, certainly like Mrs. Lawrence, he was contemptuous of Indian culture. Here's what he said about it. All the historical information which has been collected from all the books written in the Sanskrit language is less valuable than what may be found in the most paltry abridgments used at preparatory schools in England. In every branch of physical or moral philosophy, the relative position of the two nations is nearly the same. But, he said, even though it's true that at the moment India was sunk in the night of ignorance, that didn't mean that it was impossible that eventually it might not improve. Indians, especially if they were tutored in English ways, quote, to form a class who may be interpreters between us and the millions whom we govern. A class of persons, Indian in blood and colour, but English in taste, in opinions, in morals and in intellect. He went on to say, Having become instructed in European knowledge, they may, in some future age, demand European institutions. Whether such a day will ever come, I know not. But never will I attempt to avert or retard it. Whenever it comes, it will be the proudest day in English history. To have found a people sunk in the lowest depths of slavery and superstition, to have so ruled them as to have made them desirous and capable of all the privileges of citizens would indeed be a title to glory all our own. In other words, we must aspire to making the Indians both eager and capable of becoming just like us. Henry Lawrence, who was the husband of Honoria and himself an important official, wrote this. We cannot expect to hold India forever. Let us so conduct ourselves as, when the connection ceases, it may do so not with convulsions, but with mutual esteem and affection, and that England may then have in India a noble ally, enlightened and brought into the scale of nations under guidance and fostering care. Well, in a way, this is what happened. For, throughout the rest of the course, we'll look at the way in which gradually the Indian independence movement developed. It certainly did develop among the elite whom the British trained, who eventually started quoting the British back to them and making the argument, we really ought to be self-governing, as you yourselves have often said. One of the early uh, aspirants for this outcome was Ram Mahan Roy, educated by the British, and he led the Hindu Renaissance, uh, which was an attempt to counter the influence of the missionaries. He was a Brahmin, a high-caste Hindu from Bengal. His intensive study of ancient texts, the Upanishads, enabled him to argue point for point with the Christian missionaries. They'd make a case, he'd be able to make a case from Hindu scriptures back to them with equal learning and authority. And he was one of the people who helped in the creation of a class of Indian lawyers who would eventually lead the Indian independence movement. 
In the early 1800s, English became the standard language of business, law and politics throughout India. This meant, of course, that the Indians had a bigger incentive to learn English than Englishmen had to learn any of the Indian tongues, with the exception of the missionaries who needed to learn the language of the people, the particular group among whom they were working. It also meant the eclipse of Persian, which until then had been the language of the Mughal court, and it meant that none of the Indian languages was favoured over any of the others uh, by being selected for use. Uh, still today, English is the standard language of, of discourse throughout India. What about the people who went out from England to administer India? Well, the East India Company established a school, a place called Haleybury, to prepare administrators, and another one at Addiscombe to train East, in East India Company army officers. And these were places which became highly competitive. Uh, young men uh, would be placed by their families at Haleybury in the hope that they could then become East India Company servants. And they had to pass extremely rigorous exams after doing a long and difficult curriculum before going out to, to do their life's work in India. And by the mid-19th century, this was regarded as a highly honourable career track, as we'd call it, going out to work in India even though the, the health consequences remain, made, continue to make it an extremely hazardous prospect. At Haleybury, you'd learn the elements, the basic elements of Hindi and Persian and Urdu, some Indian history, although very much of the kind which emphasised the tyranny of, of the old princes and the wickedness of the black hole of Calcutta, and some elementary ethnography, but all in a context of what we'd regard as a, a outrageous racial supremacy, and uh, all tinged with evangelical Christianity. Now, what about the geopolitical situation at the time? There was a great fear in the 19th century of the expansion of Russian influence. A long time before Russia did become a great superpower, there was the, the fear that it might become so, and that Russia might threaten British interests in Asia. So fear of Russian influence, along with the desire to expand British territory, led to further military ventures in Burma, Afghanistan, the Punjab and Sindh, one of which ended in disaster and demonstrated that British forces were not invincible. The East India Company's army invaded Burma in 1824 through 26 and seized the coastal provinces, converting Burma into part of the empire as well. This is on the eastern extremity of the Indian Empire. A British invasion of Afghanistan, 1838-9, led to the worst defeat the British ever suffered in India. A column made up of 17,000 troops, that is, sepoys with British officers, uh, set off across the northwest frontier. Now, the, the actual social composition of the army was itself very interesting. Very often, private soldiers in the British army were what, was, what the Duke of Wellington called the dregs of society, the lowest of the low. On the other hand, Indian sepoys were often from high warrior castes to whom fighting was a very, very proud way of life. That itself leads colour as well as a lot of tension to the dynamics within the army which is made up of members of the two races. The political officer, Sir William McNaughton, brought Shah Shuja, the former ruler of Afghanistan, who'd been ejected in a coup by Dost Mohammed Khan. The, the idea was that Shah Shuja would be put back on the Afghanistan throne. But he wasn't popular, and the British weren't welcome in Kabul and Kandahar, which they captured by storm in 1839. 
Now, the thing about invading Afghanistan, which has often been tried but has never succeeded, is that it's possible to get there and to capture it, but it's very, very difficult indeed to hold it. This is certainly something which the Russians discovered in the 1980s, and certainly one of the sources of the ultimate collapse of the Soviet Union was its inability to prevail in Afghanistan. Uh, even as I'm speaking to you now, in 2008, there's an uh, Anglo-American force in Afghanistan finding it very, very difficult to maintain control, even though it found it relatively easy to assert control over Kabul in the first place. The British encountered difficulties of the same source back in the 1830s. There were constant rumours that Dost Mohammed Khan, the ejected ruler, was going to come back with Russian help. Afghanistan itself was very, very politically fragmented. The terrain is extremely forbidding. It's one of the harshest, most desertified, most mountainous places in the world, with a climate of extremes and fanatical opposition, which eventually showed that the British mission was absolutely impossible. There was an uprising in Kabul in November 1841, a great riot outside the house of the British resident. He and his entourage were shot and stabbed to death. The uprising widened when the British general, uh, a 60-year-old man named William Elphinstone, who got such a severe case of gout that he could hardly walk, dithered about how to respond. Should he conciliate and negotiate, or should he be ruthless in retaliation against the, uh, the rebels? The political officer McNaughton was killed the next day, and his head was paraded on a pole through the bazaar of Kabul itself. In the end, the order was given to retreat. The whole column set off. It was made up not only of the soldiers, but also of camp followers. That is quite a lot of people attempting to trade with the army uh, and, and camp women going as well. And that meant that collectively it couldn't go very fast. This is in the early months of 1842. It was an icy cold winter, high, high in the Afghan mountains. And it required going through a series of high mountain passes to the city of Jalalabad. Much of, it, much of the retreat took place in heavy snow with Ghazi tribesmen constantly attacking the soldiers from the hillsides and killing the camp followers. Nearly all the British supplies had had to be left behind or destroyed. Many, many of the soldiers developed frostbite, and discipline inside the regiments started to dissolve. The Afghan tribesmen made barriers in the narrow valleys through which the soldiers were passing, and then poured gunfire down onto the soldiers as they desperately tried to clear a way to get through the, these obstacles. Repeatedly, there were ambushes, making it difficult to, to make progress. And finally, a tiny handful of men were left who, pursued across the plains by Afghan cavalry, were cut down one by one, until just one man, Dr. Bryden, was left. And even he said, they could have killed me too, but they clearly wanted at least one person to get to Jalalabad to declare the absolute catastrophic defeat of the whole army of the Indus. Nothing had been achieved, and the idea of British military invincibility had been severely dented. Never before had a British force working in the Far East been defeated in this way. And of course, the news that it was possible could itself have terrible consequences for the security of British power. Well, to restore prestige and to gain the valuable lands of Sindh and the Punjab, which are now parts of Pakistan, Britain went on to the offensive again in the 1840s. In fact, the very next year, Sir Charles Napier set off to conquer the province of Sindh in 1843. Napier came from a Scottish soldiering family. He'd fought in the Peninsular Wars with Wellington. He'd been wounded six times. 
and had been very knocked about by enemy action. He had a sabre slash on his head, he'd had a bayonet wound in his back, and a bullet through the face. Napier's policy for subduing a new area of the British Empire was as follows. A good thrashing first, and great kindness afterwards. He said that he knew that the seizure of Sindh was unjustified, but, he said, it was, quote, a very advantageous, useful, humane piece of rascality. You can see the cynicism uh, at work there in Napier's outlook. When he applied the law against sati, against widow burning, local Hindus protested that it was a violation of their national tradition. This is how Napier answered. My nation also has a custom. When men burn women alive, we hang them. Let us all act according to national custom. That's a very, very clever way of responding. Now, when he'd, when he'd successfully uh, captured Sindh, he sent a cryptic telegram to, to the authorities uh, back in India, and it consisted of just the one word, peccavi. And this is the, the past participle of the Latin verb uh, to sin. In other words, I have sinned. I have, S-I-N-D. You know, it's a Latin pun uh, common to English private school boys of the time as a way of demonstrating, yes, he'd successfully captured the province. Lord Gow conquered the Punjab in 1849, despite very severe losses at the Battle of Chilianwala. And the, the Punjab, an immensely fertile area, brought millions more acres and a great deal of increased revenue into the hands of the East India Company. So here we are, 90 years after the Battle of Plassey, which first established British overlordship of India, with the empire still expanding, and, along with occasional disasters like the Afghan expedition, for the most part, succeeding. Lecture 17 Rebellion and Mutiny in India Areas of India under direct British control were probably governed better than ever before. But evangelical missionaries and reforming administrators provoked unrest by threatening Hindu, Sikh and Muslim traditions. The introduction of new weapons in 1856 led to a mutiny among Indian soldiers of the East India Company's army because they were rumoured to violate religious taboos. The mutineers killed their officers, restored the old Mughal emperor, Bahadur Shah, challenged British authority across a broad area of North India and seized the fortifications at Delhi, Lucknow and Kanpur. Lurid atrocity stories about Indian brutality and about the treachery of formerly loyal servants circulated in England. A horrified British government sent relief forces under the command of General Colin Campbell. Campbell defeated the mutineers and exacted a terrible vengeance, killing nearly all the participants without trial and forcing many of them to ritually degrade and humiliate themselves before execution. A British government investigation led to the dissolution of the East India Company in 1858. And from then on, India was run directly by the British government. Westernisation policies slowed, even as railroad building and economic development accelerated. Between the mutiny and 1900, nevertheless, a British-educated Indian elite began to develop in business, law and medicine, whose most famous member was to be Mohandas Mahatma Gandhi. 
Well, the British leader's cultural insensitivity provoked a mutiny in the Indian Army in 1824 and a much more serious one in 1857. In 1824, high caste soldiers at Barakpur mutinied against a plan to send them by sea to the invasion of Burma, because by, by crossing the waters they'd lose their caste. They were mercilessly repressed with artillery fire as a warning against future mutineers. Meanwhile, under British Governors-General, uh, British acquisition of land continued. James Dalhousie was Governor-General from 1848 to 56, and uh, in many respects uh, a laudable governor, a modernizer of India. When he departed in 1856, he spoke of the three great engines of social improvement which the sagacity and science of recent times had previously given to Western nations. I mean, railways, uniform postage and the electric telegraph. He built the first railways in India in the 1850s and the first telegraph, which was to prove uh, vitally important militarily when the uprising began in 1857. Dalhousie also absorbed directly into the empire native states whose princes had died without heirs. He disallowed the long-standing practice of adopting the, sons, the, uh, the adopted sons and heirs of the former princes taking over. A quarter of a million square miles were brought in this way under direct company rule. And in the case of badly governed states, such as Awad, he took over even though the state did have an heir and even though the company had honoured a treaty with its prince for more than 50 years. That proved to be very dangerous because 40,000 men from Awad belonged to the army in Bengal that was ordered to invade the province, and many were adversely affected or their families impoverished by the seizure. This was one of the many causes of the rebellion that began the year after he left. Lucknow, which was to be one of the centres of the mutiny, was its capital. He was an enlightened governor, but he was tactless. He decreed, for example, that widows spared from sati, widow burning, which was now outlawed, could remarry. He outlawed female infanticide, child marriage and polygamy, all of which uh, policies were greatly approved in Britain, but frowned on by the people who'd long practiced them. By the 1850s, British officers were spending less time with their soldiers than in the early days of the Raj. There was, as the white community grew, they tended to become more segregated. And that's partly why they were slow to react to rumours related to their weapons and supplies. The sepoys, the Indians, uh, Indian soldiers in English service, believed that new cartridges for the Lee Enfield rifle were uh, an affront to their religion. You had to hold the rifle in one hand, take the cartridge in the other hand, and bite off the uh, um, a greased um, cover before loading it into the rifle itself. Now, there were rumours that the, the grease with which these cartridges were smeared to make them waterproof uh, was beef grease, and that would be taboo to Hindus, or that it was pork fat, and that, of course, would be taboo to the Muslims. This weapon had been developed in England for more efficient muzzle-loading guns, the charge and the projectile in the same package, and nobody had thought about the potential effect of, the, of this, uh, these greased cartridges in India. There were also rumours among the soldiers that ground-up animal bones had been mixed in the flour, or that cow's blood was in the salt, and that all the soldiers were going to be forcibly converted to Christianity, that the caste system was going to be abolished. So the, the, the sepoy army is abounding with, with rumours, all of which are terrifying to their traditional way of life.
The mutiny began at Meerut in May of 1857 and then spread to Delhi nearby. And 1857 was the centenary of the Battle of Plassey. A group of sepoys refused to use the cartridges when the new guns were issued to them. And in retaliation, they were humiliated on the parade ground and sentenced to 10 years' imprisonment, stripped of their uniforms and put into leg irons. But the next day, a Sunday morning, their comrades burst open the jail, liberated them and killed the local British officers along with their wives and children while they were all at church. This is the opening moment of the mutiny. They then marched from Meerut to Delhi, which was at the time almost empty of British troops, seized the city and declared that the 82-year-old Prince Bahadur Shah was now the restored Mughal Emperor. Bahadur Shah was a, a poet and a heavy opium smoker. He was 82 years old and already senile. He had a beard down to his waist and he tottered around the red fort in Delhi with a great stick. The fort itself had been crumbling steadily since its glory days 200 years before, in the days of Jahangir and Shah Jahan. The British had left him nominally in charge as emperor, partly to soothe Muslims' feelings, and they'd given him a pension, but he had no real political authority. Now he's made, to, he's made into the figurehead of the mutineers, much to his own consternation. In Delhi itself, nearly all the, the handful of British soldiers there were killed. Nine men in charge of the magazine, the place where all the ammunition and weapons were stored, blew it up with themselves inside rather than hand it over to the mutineers as they demanded. News of the uprising led to similar outbreaks all across northern India. But the rebels did not develop a unified command and they didn't have adequate communications. So whereas the British were able to keep in touch with one another by the telegraph, the mutineers in different places weren't often aware of uh, each group what the others were doing. Two sieges developed. Rebels besieged Kanpur and Lucknow. And eventually the rebellion spread, affecting a 200-mile-wide area across northern India. But it didn't spread to the southern provinces. Most important of all, none of the three major centres of British power in India were affected. That is, the places where the old trading stations had first been established, Calcutta, Bombay and Madras. The rebels didn't manage to establish a liberated area or a safe place where British law simply no longer applied. Now, of course, at moments like this, incipient rebellions, everyone has to decide what to do, including most people who'd much rather have avoided taking any action at all. This is always true when, when revolutions break out. People are forced to take sides even if they don't want to. Very often the rebels threatened people locally to join them or be killed if they failed to do so. And there was a great um, uprising of, of lawlessness when personal scores were settled, vendettas pursued, creditors killed by their debtors. Many of the rich feared the revolt and were plundered by it. One of the many things that inhibited a unified uh, rebellion was caste distinctions among the Hindus and tensions between Muslims and Hindus, long-standing religious tensions, all of which inhibited the generation of a strong sense of unity. There was widespread dissatisfaction with elements of British policy, but there wasn't a sense of unity among the rebels. And also, of course, it's important to not to read contemporary politics back into India then, there had never been such a thing as a united India. 
The nearest thing had been the old Mughal Empire of northern India, but that itself had been a foreign monarchy opposed, imposed from outside. So the effect was particularism, that is a reversion to older norms, rather than the development of a latent Indian nationalism. In Allahabad, the rebels smashed railway locomotives because they saw them as symbols of British modernisation. And that's an example of the kind of backward-looking character of the rebellion. Now, the Britons at Kanpur were massacred, whereas Lucknow, besieged, held out for months. The Kanpur garrison resisted a sepoy siege for 18 days. Nana Sahib, who had proclaimed himself prince, promised a safe conduct by boat to the British commander, General Hugh Wheeler, and the Kanpur garrison. But as the soldiers uh, marched to the boats and climbed into them, they were suddenly massacred on the River Ganges, arguably by premeditation, although English and Indian historians have continued to disagree about exactly why the massacre took place. 200 women and children in Kanpur were imprisoned at the Bibigar. This was the home of a, the former home of an army officer's mistress. And then they were massacred by local butchers and their dismembered bodies thrown down a well. On the other hand, Lucknow, defended by Sir Henry Lawrence, held out for nine months, despite the death and near starvation of two-thirds of its residents. Lawrence had foreseen the possibility of trouble and had prepared stores for the possibility of a siege, so Lucknow was much better prepared to resist an attack of this kind than had been Kanpur. About 300 loyal sepoys, that is, Indian soldiers in English service who hadn't joined the rebellion, came in and fought against the rebels on the British side. Lawrence himself, after his careful planning, was fatally wounded on the first day. And another man at Lucknow at the time, and also wounded, was Dr. Bryden, the man who was the sole survivor of the retreat from Afghanistan back in 1842. He lived a charmed life, surviving both that and the siege of Lucknow, and finally was able to die in his bed years later back in Scotland. Eventually, a relieving force came through. Kilted Scots Highlanders with the bagpipes playing. And the Union Jack, then raised at Lucknow, was never subsequently taken down from Lucknow until the British Empire itself left the place in 1947. And it became a place symbolic of British heroism and, determ and determination, as symbolic of British resolution and Indian cruelty, as had been the old tale of the Black Hole of Calcutta. Britain put down the rebellion with ferocious efficiency under the leadership of General Colin Campbell who was a successful veteran of the Napoleonic Wars, fought when he was a young man, and then of the Crimean War, which had been fought by an alliance of Britain, France and Turkey against the Russians. That was the war in which Florence Nightingale had become famous. Campbell was the last British general personally to lead his men into battle, and he did so under extremely gruelling conditions. To give you an example, in July 1858, on a three-day march, 22 British soldiers collapsed and died from heat stroke. At Delhi, the 52nd Light Infantry lost nearly 400 of its 600 men to a combination of dysentery and heat stroke. British dragoons went into battle at Lucknow wearing brass helmets, despite the fact that the temperature was over 100 degrees, and the metal helmets would burn the flesh that they touched. So it was an extremely difficult campaign from that point of view. 
A journalist named William Howard Russell, one of the pioneer foreign correspondents in the history of journalism, who'd become famous for his reporting during the Crimean War and who'd contributed to making Florence Nightingale famous, accompanied the army. He was wounded early on and was being carried in a litter. Here's his description of what it was like being carried in India in this campaign. As the sun rose, it gave promise, which was only too well kept, of a day of intense, pitiless heat, tortured by flies, smothered in an atmosphere of dust, prostrated by heat. My sufferings were augmented by loss of blood, by recent leech bites and by a fresh blister. Looking out of my portable bedstead, I could see nothing but the legs of men, horses, camels and elephants moving past in the dust. Every moment the heat became more fearful. More than one European soldier was carried past me, fainting or dead. I gave a cupful of wine to one of these poor fellows, who was laid down by my dooley, getting it down his mouth with difficulty. He recovered a little, looked at me and said, God bless you, then tried to get to his feet, gave a sort of gasp, and fell down dead. While the column was marching, they were suddenly attacked by a group of mutineers, the Ghazis, and one of them almost managed to kill Campbell, the commander. Sir Colin had a narrow escape. As he was riding from one company to another, his eye caught that of a half-dead Ghazi, who was lying sword in hand just before him. The chief guessed the ruse in a moment. Bayonet that man, he called to a soldier. The Highlander made a thrust at him, but the point would not enter the thick cotton quilting of the Ghazi's tunic, and the dead man was rising to his legs, when a Sikh, who happened to be near, with a whistling stroke of his sabre, cut off the Ghazi's head at one blow, as if it had been the bulb of a poppy. The Ghazis were fine fellows, grizzly bearded elderly men for the most part, with green turbans and cummerbunds, and every one of them had a silver signet ring, a long text of the Quran engraved upon it. Well, as news of the mutiny got back to England, atrocity stories began to circulate widely in Britain, provoking calls for merciless vengeance. Now, it certainly is true that the mutineers had committed atrocities, and they tended to grow in the telling. Stories about uh, a mass rape of, of English women, for example, which were later disproved. And all sorts of people who perhaps ought to have known better got very carried away. Listen to Charles Dickens, for example. I wish I were a commander-in-chief in India. I should do my utmost to exterminate the race upon whom the stain of the late cruelties rested. Charles Spurgeon, who was one of the great evangelical superstars of his day, he was the English Billy Graham of his time, preaching at the Crystal Palace, said this, My friends, what crimes they have committed. The Indian government never ought to have tolerated the religion of the Hindus at all. If my religion consisted of bestiality, infanticide and murder, I should have no right to it, unless I was prepared to be hanged. The religion of the Hindus is no more than a mass of the rankest filth that imagination ever conceived. The gods they worship are not entitled to the least atom of respect. Their worship necessitates everything that is evil, and morality must put it down. The sword must be taken out of its sheath to cut off our fellow subjects by their thousands. In other words, sort of extermination fantasies in Britain about how to react to the mutiny. The Victorian ideal of defenceless womanhood made the killings seem particularly horrible. Another popular text at the time was a letter from a besieged lady inside Kanpur to her daughters. I write this, my dearest Henrietta, in the belief that our time of departure is come. 
the whole of the troops here rose, and we took refuge in a barrack. We are so hemmed in by overpowering numbers that there seems no hope of escape. This is an awful hour. It is sad and painful to reflect on that our lives are to be sacrificed in such a condition. Give my love to my sweet girls. Connie, darling, your mamma has longed for you to seek your God and Saviour in spirit. Alice, my sweet child, serve and follow him and always hate whatever is sinful. We hope to meet where all imperfections are washed away. This is a letter from one of the women who was then killed in the Bibigar. Now, the sense of betrayal by native troops, whose loyalty until then had always seemed certain, intensified the British troops' righteous anger. When they recaptured Delhi, uh, Delhi, Kanpur and Lucknow, they killed all the defenders, took no prisoners, and looted everything that they could move. Suspected rebels were rounded up and sometimes killed without any kind of, of trial. Condemned men in Kanpur were forced to clean up the blood of the women and children before being killed. And here's a declaration from Brigadier General James Neal after seeing the room in which this atrocity had taken place. Ladies and children's bloody torn dresses and shoes were lying about, and locks of hair torn from their heads. The floor of one room, where they were all dragged into and killed, was saturated with blood. Who could be merciful to one so concerned? I wish to show the natives of India that the punishment inflicted by us for such deeds will be the heaviest the most revolting to their feelings, and what they must ever remember. Every stain of that innocent blood shall be cleared up and wiped out previous to their execution by such of the miscreants as may hereafter be apprehended who took part in the mutiny. Each miscreant, after sentence of death is pronounced upon him, will be taken down to the house in question under a guard and will be forced into cleaning up a small portion of the blood stains. The task will be made as revolting to his feelings as possible. And the provost marshal will use the lash in forcing anyone objecting to completing the task. After properly cleaning up his portion, the culprit is to be immediately hanged. And sometimes this was done in a way which should deliberately destroy their caste or humiliate them. For example, by forcing Hindus to eat beef or forcing the Muslims to eat pork. Some of the mutineers were hanged and shot, and others were blown from the mouths of cannons. This took place at Peshawar, and formerly being blown from the mouth of a cannon had been the Mughal penalty for mutiny, so it's reviving an old Indian punishment. And in places there were orders not to bury the bodies, some of which stank and were eaten by carrion birds. In other words, every effort to not only uh, kill, but also to mortify and humiliate the, en the enemy and his families. When the Governor-General, Lord Canning, issued an order urging restraint on British officers to prevent indiscriminate retaliation, he was bitterly criticised in Britain and given the derisive nickname Clemency Canning. This is a time when the British people had no time for clemency, or many of them didn't. William Howard Russell, the journalist whom I quoted earlier, supported Canning and reminded his readers that most Indians' loyalty had enabled Britain to regain control. Uh, after all, if all the Indians had risen up, there's no way in which the British authority could ever have been reasserted. And, and Russell said, all these kinds of vindictive, unchristian Indian tortures, such as sewing Mohammedans into pigskins, smearing them with pork fat before execution, and burning their bodies, and forcing Hindus to defile themselves, are disgraceful, and ultimately recoil on ourselves. They are spiritual and mental tortures to which we have no right to resort and which we dare not perpetrate in the face of Europe. In other words, it will hurt our public relations image in Europe. He pointed out, Britain needed the support of Indians and it got, them, it got it in many cases. 
Our siege of Delhi would have been quite impossible if the Rajas of Putila and Jahind had not been our friends, and if the Sikhs had not relieved our battalions and remained quiet in the Punjab. Queen Victoria agreed as well, in a letter to Canning. She said, punish the offenders, but show the greatest kindness to the many kind and friendly natives who'd helped to restore order. They should know that there is no hatred to a brown skin. None, but the greatest wish on the Queen's part to see them happy, contented and flourishing. After the mutiny, the Prime Minister, Lord Palmerston, dissolved the East India Company in 1858, and the British government at that point took over direct control of the Indian subcontinent. A more cautious army policy was designed to forestall possible future uprisings. The new army policy was that there should be a two-to-one Indian-to-British ratio, one British regiment matched with one Hindu and one Muslim, each with a different language and always with the Indian regiments serving uh, in places remote from the country they actually came from. In other words, no more soldiers serving near their own homes within India. The artillery and engineer companies would be all English, so there's an augmentation of the British presence. Westernisation policies for the Indian people themselves were largely abandoned. The doctrine of lapse, that is, of taking over states where princes died without heirs, was also called off. And over 600 different princely states remained in existence from then on, some of them huge, others tiny, but all with their princes recognising British overlordship. Many historians who studied India in the late 19th century see the aftermath of the mutiny as one of increased mutual suspicion between Indians and British, and also one of increased racism. And no wonder, because it, listen, to example, listen, for example, to the, the words of Sir George Younghusband, a late Victorian soldier in India, who says this. It is never wise to stand studied impertinence from any Oriental. The moment there is a sign of revolt, mutiny or treachery, of which the symptoms not unusually are a swollen head and a tendency to incivility, it is wise to hit the Oriental straight between the eyes and to keep on hitting him thus till he appreciates exactly what he is and who is who. And obviously, from, from young husband's point of view, it's that they are inferiors. Still, it's also true that an elite minority of Indians continue to receive Western educations, to become doctors, officials in the, uh, in the, in the governance of India, lawyers. Now, of them all, Mohandas Gandhi is surely the best-known example. He was born in 1869 in Gujarat, and he became a master at applying British idealism, which he knew very well from close study both in India and in England, to Britain's own conduct in India, eventually with very, very profound consequences for the future of the empire. British liberals, like William Gladstone, looked forward to the eventual self-government of India, whereas British conservatives, like Benjamin Disraeli, anticipated a sustained British presence and doubted whether India would ever be able to be self-governing or whether the British should ever anticipate leaving India. Disraeli and Gladstone were the two great prime ministers of the late 19th century and usually imperial policy was more belligerent under Disraeli and a little bit more restrained under Gladstone, although when it came to the point both of them were committed to Britain's worldwide role. Most Britons certainly continued to feel that their presence was justified. In the late 19th century, they were confident of their own racial superiority. And uh, a famous poem by Rudyard Kipling, The White Man's Burden, says, it's entirely appropriate that the British should 
take on the responsibility of running these empires because the people who already lived there showed by their conduct before we arrived that they weren't really capable of, of adequate self-government. Benjamin Disraeli was the Prime Minister whom Queen Victoria really liked. He was the only one who was ever allowed to sit down in her presence. And uh, in 1876, he, he said to the Queen that he wanted to make her the Empress of India. Now, this was just at the time when Germany had been unified and the Kaiser had become the Emperor of a united Germany. So it was really just a, a way of giving the Queen the consolation, the, the lovely feeling that she was keeping pace. Uh, and, and from that time forwards, right until the end of the empire, the, the kings and queens of Britain were also the emperors of India. Victoria herself never went to India, though she did have a, an Indian servant whom she liked and admired called the Munshi. Her son became King Edward VII, and he also never went to India. But his son, George V, did in fact go to India and enjoyed a great coronation ceremony while he was there. Uh, this was the coronation Durba at Delhi in 1911, at the Red Fort, which had been uh, patched up for the occasion. A special new set of crown jewels were needed, because the crown jewels, which, if you've been to England, you might have had the chance to see in the Tower of London, are not permitted ever to leave England. They, they remain uh, confined in the Tower of London, except when they're brought out for uh, great official displays. And so a new set of crown jewels were purpose-built for use in the Indian coronation. The crown itself contained over 6,000 diamonds and was itself an immensely elaborate object. Now, the, the crowning of a king of England is itself a Christian ceremony. So when this coronation ceremony t was to take place, the declaring George V to be the emperor of India, the question was, is it going to be provocative to Indian feeling to have all the Christian ritual which goes with the coronation in a country whose population is overwhelmingly Hindu and Muslim. And so in the end, the decision was made that rather than have the, the full coronation ceremony, George V would enter the Durbar already wearing the crown, and the ritual was redesigned to make that happen. Tens of thousands of Indians came to watch, including all the princes from the princely states, in a great panoply of gorgeous fabrics and colours with ceremonial elephants. And at this, at this event, the Durba, the announcement was made that the capital of British India was now going to be moved from Calcutta to Delhi. Delhi is a much more central location and more logical, whereas Calcutta is on the eastern, eastern edge of the British Empire in India. Well, the rituals of the Durba were rituals partly of reinforcing the supremacy of the British and the subordination of the princes, and, uh, and marked really the high watermark of the, of the sense of Britain having a great imperial destiny, both uh, racial and political, in India. It must have been very difficult in 1911 to imagine that just 35 years later, the whole, empire, the whole British Empire in India was going to come to an end. Lecture 18, How Canada Became a Nation. Canada, with its mixed French and English population, stayed loyal to Britain during the American War of Independence. And thousands of American loyalists migrated there when the revolutionaries triumphed. 
A 12,000-strong American army invaded Canada during the War of 1812, but Anglo-Canadian forces defeated it. Eventually, however, the Canadians found that they too disliked being governed from the other side of the Atlantic without having their own views represented. The British response to, to two small rebellions in 1837 was the Durham Report of 1839. It recognised the need to grant a much larger measure of self-government to the Canadians than they had hitherto been allowed, implicitly conceding a point Britain had not granted to the Americans in 1775. One by one, the provinces of Canada attained self-government and then were united in 1867. Britain applied the same principle in its other white dominions, Australia, New Zealand and later South Africa. Meanwhile, as its frontier line moved west, Canada was populated by millions of immigrants from England, Scotland, Ireland, Wales and from Central Europe, a process accelerated by completion of the Canadian Pacific Railroad in 1885. Well, about 20,000 loyalists emigrated after the American Revolution to Nova Scotia, including many of the political elite of New England. Also some slaves who'd fought for their freedom against the American revolutionaries, although as I mentioned in an earlier lecture, uh, they found it so cold and miserable that many of them moved from there to England and then eventually to Sierra Leone. The British government divided the province into two, that is today's Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, both in the extreme east of Canada. Many refugees from the American Revolution also went to Quebec, mixing a large English-speaking population with the French-speaking majority, and creating a problem that has yet to be entirely resolved. The long persistence of bilingualism is one of the characteristics of Canadian history, and whereas the United States appears to be very, very good at assimilating groups with different languages from all over the world, the durability of the French Canadians has created an issue in Canadian politics which persists right up to the present. The first men to explore the Canadian North and West were fur trappers who already before the American Revolutionary War had been ranging far and wide in search of beaver furs. Alexander Mackenzie is the greatest name among all of them. He was a Montreal fur trader. Born in Scotland, but his family had emigrated to America just before the revolution began, and then to Canada. They were trying to enlarge the fur territory of the Montreal merchants. Now, in an earlier lecture, I mentioned that Captain Cook and then Captain George Vancouver had explored the American and Canadian Pacific coast and had mapped it. But Mackenzie was the first man to cross overland. His name is probably less well remembered today than that of Lewis and Clark, but certainly it was Mackenzie who first made this achievement. His first journey of exploration was on the river which now bears his name, the Mackenzie River. This is in 1789. What he hoped was that by sailing out of Lake Athabasca, the river would trend westwards and perhaps eventually bring him all the way to the Pacific coast. He set off with four other Canadians, sailing from the lake as soon as the ice cleared at the end of the winter. The river was choked with ice and driftwood that threatened the birch bark canoes in which they were travelling. They came across repeated rapids which they had to carry the canoes around, portages. The mosquitoes were maddeningly intense. And his crew, uh, local Indians, were very, very anxious to turn back because beyond the lands that they recognised personally, they were intensely afraid of being attacked by the Cree Indians. 
In June and July of 1789, he'd sailed far enough north that he was into a land of permanent daylight. This is right up at the Arctic Circle, where in the middle of the summer, the, uh, the sun shines all the time. Now, it became increasingly clear as Mackenzie's journey went on that the river was not going to lead him to the Pacific, but instead into the Arctic. So he called it River Disappointment. Still, it was a great exploring achievement in its own right. Uh, the estuary of the river was a, a breeding ground for beluga whales. And even though he and his party only had river canoes, they tried to hunt the whales. It's a good job that they didn't succeed because killing a whale from a canoe would almost certainly lead to the death of the hunters. Mackenzie's second journey in 1792 began along the Peace River and into the Rocky Mountains. His idea this time was, it, it became clear that there was a big mountain range to his west, so he hoped to be able to follow one river right up to its source, cross over the ridge, and find the source of another river, which would then lead him down to the Pacific Ocean. He followed the Peace River into the mountains, crossed over, and then joined the Fraser River at its headwaters. It was so treacherous that he abandoned it and began to just track overland instead, westwards, until he reached what's now called the Bella Coola River. And from there, he sailed down it to the Pacific Ocean, in doing so, becoming the very first European to cross the whole of North America. He marked a rock, which can still be seen today, when he was in sight of the Pacific, and wrote later, I mixed up some vermilion in melted grease and inscribed in large characters on the southeast face of the rock on which we had slept last night this brief memorial. Alexander Mackenzie, from Canada, by land, the 22nd of July, 1793. When Lewis and Clark went, went west 12 years later, they certainly appreciated the significance of Mackenzie's work, and they carried copies of Mackenzie's journals with them. They were making the same kind of journey, but of course much further south, following the Missouri River up to its headwaters, then looking for the, uh, the source of the Columbia River to get down to the Pacific Ocean further south. Now, the War of 1812 cemented the loyalty of the Canadians to Britain. We know now, as I mentioned in one of the earlier lectures, that the Treaty of Ghent of 1814, which brought the war to an end, marked the permanent end of British, American and Canadian American warfare. Nearly 200 years were approaching its second centenary. But of course, it wasn't so clear then as it is to us now. After the war, Canada was still not a political unity. Instead, it was a scattering of widely dispersed settlements. Prince Edward Island, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia on the east coast. The area which was then called Lower Canada, which we now call Quebec, predominantly French. The area called Upper Canada, which we now call Ontario. Incidentally, called Upper, even though it's a little bit further southwest, most of its population, it's upper because it's further up the river. In other words, going from England, it's more difficult to get to. Ontario was predominantly British ex-loyalist in its population and was most densely settled in the area which is now dominated by Toronto and the shores of Lake Erie and Lake Huron. Upper and Lower Canada were divided by the Ottawa River, which flows down to meet the St. Lawrence at Montreal. And the Ottawa River was an important routeway into the interior because by following it, you can get close to the Great Lakes while missing the Niagara Falls. The economy of the whole area was based mainly on the export of basic commodities. Wood, furs, fish, wheat, and then for settlers, subsistence farming. It was still in the protected grip of British mercantilism, 
and it was still importing most of its luxuries and virtually all of its manufactured goods from the United Kingdom. Frontier farmers in Upper Canada were comparable to settlers in the United States at the same time. Many of them were isolated, self-reliant, very often Methodists, part of the great Methodist surge of the early 19th century, served by itinerant ministers, and having few doctors and poor schools. So, at first self-sufficient, but looking ahead to the possibility that they might get drawn into a market economy which could enrich them. In economic hard times, there were large British emigrations to Upper Canada of the very poorest people. This, one of these migrations brought cholera to Canada in 1832, and then, again, as I mentioned in one of the earlier lectures, in 1847-49, to 49, Irish famine refugees came pouring in. The transports on which they came were, in most cases, returning lumber ships, uh, ships which carried lumber from Canada to Britain, and coming back this time brought uh, immigrants with them and were nicknamed at the time coffin ships because so many of the people on them were destined to die prematurely. Meanwhile, further west, the great expanse of Western Canada was the domain of the Hudson's Bay Company. This was one of the great chartered companies that had dominated the early British Empire. It had been founded in 1670. By the early 19th century, it was one of the relatively few companies that were left. It had the monopoly right for the, to the fur trade inland from the Hudson's Bay. And the Hudson's Bay is itself, again, as you see from a map, a water route far into the interior of America. But it's so far north that it's very often ice-bound, much more often than the Great Lakes. All the rivers that flowed into the bay, an area then known as Rupert's Land, were the preserve of the Hudson's Bay Company. And its headquarters was at York Factory on the Hudson's Bay. In effect, it was the sole claimant to a vast area of inland Canada, including all the way from north of Lake Superior to the Pacific. And there was no road at that time from York to Toronto. So it was actually easier to get from Hudson's Bay to London by sea than it was to get by land down to Toronto or to Quebec. Now, the original uh, method of the Hudson's Bay Company had been to give blankets, iron goods, guns and liquor to Canadian Indians in exchange for furs. Gradually, over the course of the 18th and 19th century, it began sending its own men further and further into the interior. As they uh, exhausted the animal stocks close at hand, the people had to travel further to find the fur bearers. French Canadians were involved in the trade, mixed-blood French Indians, and a growing number of Scotsmen as the labour force. Many of the Scotsmen came from the Orkney Islands. These are remote islands off the bitter northwest coast of Scotland, or men who were already adapted to the kind of harsh climate they'd meet in Canada and to the very, very long, isolated winters. And the joke among them was that they'd come from the Orkneys to the Canadian north in order to warm up a little. These are the men known as the Orcadians. They hunted the fur-bearing animals through the bitter winters and then brought the pelts down to the fort in the spring as the ice broke and ships from England could arrive to carry their cargo back to England. So it was a highly seasonal business. The characteristic three-cornered hat that you see on paintings from the 18th century was usually made of beaver fur. It was waterproof and durable. The Hudson's Bay Company actively discouraged settlers. They didn't want people living there because they foresaw that settlers would disturb the animals and that would have an adverse effect on the, the trapping business. Now, in the 1770s and 80s, the Hudson's Bay Company got into competition with another company, the Northwest Company, based in Montreal. 
and, in, and, and that intensified its desire to send its own people further upcountry in order to compete against the North West Company, which had been founded in 1779 by another Scotsman, Simon McTavish. There was a bitter rivalry between the two companies, sometimes breaking out into violence, pitched battles between men representing the two companies. And Alexander Mackenzie, whom I spoke of a moment ago, the explorer, was an employee of the North West Company. But the two companies amalgamated in 1821, and then they won a parliamentary concession to an even greater area of land. In, in effect, the whole of what's today Western Canada. Uh, the Hudson's Bay Company became the biggest corporate landowner in the world, and its president, George Simpson, another Scotsman, had a nominal empire ten times as large as the Roman Empire had been at its height, d more than a dozen times larger than Britain. But of course most of it, although it's impressive in geographical extent, it isn't the kind of land that can be used. Most of it's icy and desolate for eight or nine months of the year, and then for the rest it's a mosquito-infested swamp. So it's impressive in size, but not in usability. Once a year, the Hudson's Bay Company had an annual summit meeting at Norway House. This is on the shores of Playgreen Lake, about 1,500 miles west of Montreal. It took place every June in the middle of the summer. And Simpson used to go out in a ceremonial procession of canoes, dressed in Scottish tartans with a beaver hat, and with his own personal bagpiper serenading him to give a ceremonial approach to the meeting place. And Simpson was a tyrannical figure. One of his employees wrote... In no colony subject to the British Crown is there to be found an authority so despotic as in this day is exercised in the mercantile colony of Rupert's Land. An authority combining the despotism of military rule with the strict surveillance and parsimony of the avaricious trader. From Labrador to Nootka Sound, the unchecked, uncontrolled will of a single individual gives law to the land. Well, despite this, there was a constant awareness on the part of everyone living in, in what we now call Canada of what was going on a little bit to the south. The fact that America had become independent, the fact that it was a place experimenting with a very radical kind of democracy. Uh, in the 1830s is the period we remember as the period of Jacksonian democracy, where America really was a one-man, one-vote democracy, almost vanishingly unusual at the time in the whole history of the world, where... Every citizen was entitled to express his own political views. And it's also the period of manifest destiny when there's a widespread belief in America of its right to dominate the whole continent. That knowledge contributed to a growing dissatisfaction uh, in Upper and Lower Canada at the fact that a small colonial elite was still ruling. In the case of Lower Canada particularly, that is Quebec, the governors were a British minority overseeing a French majority. There were representative councils, representative assemblies in each province, but they could be overruled by the appointed governor and his council. In other words, ultimate authority still lay with British appointees rather than locally elected officials. And this is part of the preconditions for, uh, for outbreaks of rebellion in 1837 to 38 in both Lower and Upper Canada led by patriots and radicals who objected to the fact that power was concentrated in the hands of a few privileged outsiders. The rebellions were easily crushed by British garrisons, and they never enjoyed mass support from the majority of cautious Canadian citizens. But they did prompt an inquiry into political changes. And the inquiry is remembered as the Durham Report. It was submitted by Lord Durham, who was an envoy of the Whig Prime Minister Lord Melbourne, 
uh, another of Queen Victoria's favourites, incidentally. John Lambton was his name, John Lambton, the Earl of Durham, an unlikely figure to write an enlightened report of this kind. In person, he was haughty and snobbish, a real aristocrat. But on the other hand, he was a political radical. He had helped to plan the first Reform Act of 1832, which had begun the transformation of Britain uh, into a more representative political nation. The report that he wrote uh, and, and issued in 1839 advocated unification of Upper and Lower Canada. He was convinced that the French would be so impressed by English ways that they'd abandon their culture and gradually become completely assimilated. That's part of it which never happened. He advocated proper representative government and self-government in all internal affairs, leaving to Britain only foreign policy questions which might have an effect on the whole empire. The Durham report was accepted by the government and implemented by stages in the 1840s and 50s. So now the balance of power changed. Now a royal governor appointed from London had to have the support of majorities in the democratically elected assemblies of the Canadian colonies. Here's a remark by the historian Niall Ferguson. He says, Though primarily concerned with the specific problems of Canadian governance, it had a profoundly important subtext relevant to the whole of the British Empire. Indeed, the Durham Report has a good claim to be the book that saved the empire. For what it did was to acknowledge that the American colonists had been right. They had, after all, been entitled to demand that those who governed the white colonies should be accountable to representative assemblies of the colonists, and not simply to the agents of a distant royal authority. Over the course of the rest of the, of the 19th century, the principle embodied in the Durham Report caught on in the other white settler colonies too, in Australia, New Zealand, and at the just after the turn of the century, in South Africa. Well, self-government was delightful to some, especially because for the first time it gave access to patronage, the right to distribute jobs and the right to uh, distribute money and sometimes to enrich oneself through doing so. But it was alarming to others, particularly when the British also made the decision to remove most of their garrison from Canada and also to abolish tariffs. As I've mentioned previously, this is an era of a new faith in free trade. So some Canadians feel delighted by the prospect of self-government, but others feel vulnerable. They felt vulnerable not least because of the magnitude of America and what some of them still thought of as its potential threat right on their doorstep. And again, it's important not to read backwards our knowledge that there never was an American invasion, a successful American invasion of Canada. It was reasonable for Canadians to fear that there might be, especially during the very belligerent uh, American 1830s, 40s and 50s, the years of Manifest Destiny, when American swashbucklers took the view, this continent is ours by right. It's also important to remember when you look at a map of Canada, which as I said looks so impressive, that nearly all the Canadians then, and still today, live within 50 miles of the United States border. The great majority of the Canadian population is a kind of ribbon of settlement along uh, uh, lands very, very close to the United States. The rhetoric of Canadian politics, then and ever since, has always included uh, the flavour of anti-Americanism, but along with it there's a sense of awe and envy of what's going on in the United States. Well, in the 1850s there was a great railway building craze in Canada. The idea was that railways would um, accelerate trade, make contact easier, and perhaps unify the scattered population groups 
and accelerate economic growth. And again, it was clear by looking at what had happened in Britain in the, in the railroad building since the 1820s and in America since the late 1830s, that railroads are the avenue to improved communication and rapid economic growth. By the end of the 1850s, good land for settlement was running out east of the Great Lakes. But in Canada, it was very difficult to get further west, except by going into the United States. By far the easiest um, point of access to the Canadian Great Plains is through the United States, rather than north of Lake Superior, which is pitilessly uh, inhospitable terrain. By 1860, about a quarter of all Canadians were living in the United States, many of them working as pioneer farmers in Iowa and Minnesota, at a time when it was very easy to become an immigrant into the United States. And here's the Canadian historian Pierre Berton. He says, It is small wonder that many a Canadian looked with longing eyes across the border, where the work opportunities were more varied, where social conditions were better, where every man had the vote, and where the way to the frontier farmland was not barred by a thousand miles of granite and swamp. In 1867, just after the end of the American, the United States Civil War, Canada was unified. 1867. Unification was based on plans drawn up by John Macdonald, another Scottish immigrant. He hated England and he hated the United States, but he did what he could to conciliate the French Canadians in Quebec. He became the first Prime Minister of a united Canada, which included Quebec, Ontario, Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. The Hudson's Bay Company uh, ceded its territory in 1869 and also joined Canada, making it into a vast continental nation. And Macdonald gave the promise to British Columbia, at that time isolated on the west coast, that a national railroad would be built across Canada, linking British Columbia with the rest of the nation. Macdonald was the founder of the Canadian Mounted Police, which soon got a reputation for incorruptibility to rival that of the London Metropolitan Police. Rapid American settlement of the Great Plains in the 1860s and 70s created an incentive for Canadians to settle their own Great Plains from fear that otherwise they'd suffer from American encroachments. As I mentioned, the Hudson's Bay Company had long discouraged settlers as a threat to the animals, but now that point of view was overruled and the idea of opening up the Canadian Great Plains came to seem far more persuasive. Until then, there'd only been one white settlement on the Canadian Plains. It had been founded by the Earl of Selkirk in 1811 at the junction of the Red River and the Assiniboine. It was called the Red River Colony and was centred at Fort Garry. Now, Fort Garry itself was resented by the Meti. This was the mixed-blood Indian hunters, part French and part Indian, hunters and trappers who attacked the colony in 1816, but the colony had hung on. It was almost inaccessible, except through the United States, because it was so hard to travel north of the Great Lakes, and because the Red River on which it's built flows north out of the United States into Canada. Just to give you an idea of where it is, it's about 400 miles north from Minneapolis, St. Paul. The Meti Rebellion took place in 1870. The Meti were Catholics, hunters, hard-drinking men, tough mountain men, frontiersmen. But the Red River Colony was made, of, made up of Scots Presbyterians, temperance men, farmers. So there's a jarring cultural clash between the two. When surveyors from Ottawa came out to survey the Hudson, what had been the Hudson's Bay Company lands uh, and, uh, to join Canada, the Meti threatened them and forced the surveyors to back off. Their leader, Louis Riel, marched to Fort Garry and declared himself the provisional governor of the area 
until negotiations with Ottawa should establish terms for their entry into a united Canada. Now, Donald Smith, who was the new head of the Hudson's Bay Company, which had realised the need to change with the times and had abandoned its old anti-developmental views, visited Fort Garry, and he and Louis Riel held an outdoor debate on what did the future hold in store for the area. It was on a sunny day, but on the other hand, it was in the middle of winter, and the temperature was 20 below zero. Nevertheless, an audience of a 1,000 stayed all day. So an astonishing political debate in bitterly hostile uh, climatic conditions. Smith thought that he'd convinced everyone that this new province, Manitoba, would respect everyone's right. But the Meti and the Scots-Canadians continued their confrontations. When Louis Riel shot a prisoner, Ottawa, the Ottawa government sent out an expedition to pacify the area. Its commander was Colonel Garnet Wolseley, already a veteran of India, the Crimea, Burma and fighting in China. His relief expedition was refused passage through the United States. In other words, the American government wasn't, wasn't going to give a British expeditionary force the right to pass through the United States. So instead it had to make an arduous canoe voyage for 96 days from, we from the western shore of Lake Superior. 660 miles in 96 days shows you how difficult it was, just a progress of six or seven miles per day. And its final arrival was very anticlimactic. Far from fighting a battle on their arrival, they found that Louis Riel had fled. Now, the Canadian Pacific Railroad, advocated by the Prime Minister John Macdonald in the early 1870s, uh, was designed to match the completion of the first United States Railroad, which was finished in 1869, when the Central Pacific Railroad, coming east from Sacramento, met the Union Pacific Railroad, which was, had been built westwards from Omaha. They met at Promontory Point in Utah. And once again, the Canadian Railroad is an attempt to keep up. Macdonald was eager to open up the vast Great Plains of Canada, uh, potentially profitable wheat-growing land, but only if the, if the harvest could be brought to the Canadian ports and then transported to market from there. Canada still had only 3 million people, whereas the United States had 40 million. That's again a vivid testimony to the, dis the, the disparity of size between the two. And the route for the Trans-Canadian Railway was even more technically difficult than the American one. Both railways had to cross the Rockies. But whereas it's relatively easy to build a railroad across Ohio and Indiana, it's very difficult indeed to build one north of the Great Lakes. Uh, the Laurentian Shield, 1,100 miles of rock ridges, muskeg swamp and thousands of lakes. Among the other curiosities of the building of the, of the Canadian Pacific Railroad was the, the sudden bubble in land speculation at Winnipeg. Winnipeg didn't yet exist, but when it became clear that this was going to be one of the uh, depots of the railway, a land speculation craze began, with uh, uh, parcels of land in Winnipeg changing price for higher and higher prices, even though the whole area was invisible because it was under the winter snows. And at the end of the winter, the bubble burst, and many people who'd paid huge sums for lands were left finding it uh, far, far less valuable. Nevertheless, the railroad was finally completed in 1885 at Kregelachie in British Columbia, and it genuinely united Canada for the first time. It's named after Kregelachie, a, a little village in Scotland in the Spey Valley, the place where Scottish malt whiskey is made. And uh, the original village was the home of George Stephen, the president of the Canadian Pacific Railroad, whose emergency trip to London had raised enough capital to keep the railroad going and get the project finished. Now, Macdonald himself was in power throughout almost all the early history of a united Canada. He was a skillful party manager, 
reconciling hostile French and British groups, including both Catholics and Presbyterians, French and English. There was always the odour of corruption about him, but he was the winner of four of the first five Canadian general elections. A British news article about him in 1891 reads like this. A sordid spectacle of corruption has eaten deep into Canadian institutions. For 23 years, Sir John and his party have maintained themselves in power by a colossal system of bribery. On the other hand, he was better at, at balancing the various groups than anyone else. Here's the Canadian historian Arthur Lauer, who writes, So divided a country is Canada, that a Canadian Prime Minister must be continually walking a tightrope. Macdonald performed his act superlatively well. Herein lay the real genius of the man. He was a perfect master of equilibrium. He could reconcile the irreconcilable. Perhaps only he could have kept the Confederation structure going. And for that, perhaps, he considered easy political morality a cheap price. Well, now, when you compare um, Canadian history with American history in the 19th century, you have to be struck by the fact that not only is there not a great civil war in Canada, there's also much less violence against the Indians. Rebellions certainly weren't unknown, and conflict wasn't unknown, but it was much less intense than the American in Plains Indians Wars, for example. Louis Riel, the leader of the um, Metis resistance whom I mentioned earlier, raised another rebellion in 1885, allied with dis dissatisfied farmers and dissident Indians. But this rebellion could very easily be suppressed because now Canadian and British soldiers could rapidly arrive by train. He was captured and hanged in Regina, Saskatchewan. And uh, that brought to an end the possibility of, um, of an effective continued resistance and increasingly the, the merits of a, unified, uh, a politically unified Canada became more and more clear. And of course it's persisted right up to the present. Lecture 19, The Exploration and Settlement of Africa. In the mid-19th century, British explorers travelled across Africa, mapped its mountains, traced its river systems, and prepared the way for traders and colonists to follow. Among the greatest of them were Richard Burton, David Livingstone, and John Morton Stanley who between them worked out the origins and courses of all the great rivers in the continent's interior. They also showed how difficult it would be to settle tropical Africa unless some cure could be found for malaria and other diseases. Nevertheless, the European colonial powers scrambled to conquer Africa in the last three decades of the 19th century, especially after the discovery of diamonds and gold in South Africa, African rulers who tried to stand in the way of these conquerors, such as the Zulu king Ketshweo and the Sudanese religious leader, the Mahdi, were annihilated by British rifles, machine guns and artillery. Commercial, religious and intellectual factors all motivated British exploration of the African interior. The Royal Geographical Society, founded in 1830, encouraged the search for the source of the Nile. Obviously the Nile is one of the most ancient rivers of civilization, and yet its origins had never been uh, accurately known. Richard Burton was one of the pioneers of this exploration. 
He was also a deeply adventurous man in every aspect of his life. The very first Englishman to go to Mecca in disguise. He disguised himself as a Muslim and spoke Arabic so well he could pass successfully as a Muslim pilgrim, even though he was risking his life in doing so. Eventually he spoke 26 languages, was an avid enthusiast for the pornography of many different languages, the translator into English of the tales of the Arabian Nights, and a very good amateur anthropologist. He went to Africa with John Hanning Speak, one of his friends from Indian Army days, a big game hunter, but a man who otherwise was much poorer at languages and a far and far less natural curiosity than Burton himself. Together, in 1856, they went in search of the source of the White Nile. Rather than going upriver from the Mediterranean, they travelled in from the East African coast, commissioned by the Royal Geographical Society. And they found it to be a horrible area, still infested with Arab slave traders. Although the British Empire had abolished slavery in the empire in 1833, the African and Arab slave trade was still thriving. Burton wrote a horrified or a horrific description of Zanzibar, stinking, packed with people suffering from syphilis, elephantiasis, yellow fever, malaria, and the, uh, and the uh, ubiquity of the slave markets. Now, the, the Burton and Speak expedition carried heavy loads, like most British exploring expeditions of the time. It included a portable boat, beds, chairs, tables, pots and pans, books, carpentry tools, scientific instruments, and a rain gauge. It wasn't just the two of them. They had 130 native bearers with them and 30 donkeys. But in tropical Africa, horses and donkeys nearly always die from the bite of tsetse flies or from attacks by hyenas, and that's exactly what happened. The local kings, through whose lands they passed, charged a high price for their passage. The bearers themselves often deserted, taking the supplies with them. So right from the beginning, they were plagued by difficulties. And the stress of the journey started to create friction between the two men. Speak was a teetotaler, and he was shocked at the way in which Burton used drink and drugs, and at the way in which Burton was very keen to uh, indulge himself sexually with African women who they met along the way. Each of them began to resent and dislike the other. Burton, on the other hand, was annoyed that Speak wanted to stop for big game hunting along the way. Now, at the climax of their journey, Speak claimed that he'd found the source of the River Nile in Lake Victoria, the great lake in Central Africa to which he gave its name, naming it obviously after the Queen. Burton at the time was too sick with malaria to travel. Speak went alone from Lake Tanganyika, so Burton himself didn't see Lake Victoria, and he denied that Speak had actually found the source of the Nile. Speak did see the lake, but he didn't see the river leaving it. Ironically, he was right, it is the source, but it was something which he wasn't able to prove on that journey. Speak himself was suffering too. He was plagued by a beetle which was burrowing into his ear, an agonizingly painful affliction which he tried to gouge out with a penknife. Speak went back to Africa with James Grant three years later in 1859. They were the first Europeans to visit Uganda, or the place which is now Uganda. Among other people there, they met Rumanika, the king of Karagwe, a man who had dozens of wives. And uh, his ideal of beauty was one in which a woman was so fat she wasn't able to stand. So he force-fed his many wives on a mixture of beer and honey until they weren't able to stand, at which point they would drink it from troughs. And there's a sort of description of horrified fascination about this king and his harem. Another king nearby was King Mutesa, who'd burned 30 of his brothers alive 
to prevent a rebellion against his power. And this king walked on tiptoe, trying to imitate the, uh, the, the way in which a lion walks. Speak confirmed his view on this second journey that the Nile originates in Lake Victoria. And now he witnessed a great waterfall flowing out at the edge of the lake um, and, and forming what appeared to be the source of the Nile. Of course, there was still a residual ambiguity because nobody had followed the whole length of the river from the lake all the way down to its mouth in the Mediterranean. But this was at least much stronger presumptive evidence in favour of the idea. Burton felt betrayed by Speke for publishing his claims before Burton got back to England. And Speke took all the credit, which also annoyed Burton. In a book of his own, Burton said that he, with his scientific and linguistic training, had done all the real work. The day before they were due to confront each other to debate the question of the real source of the Nile in 1864, in the city of Bath in southwestern England, Speke died in a mysterious shooting accident. It was rumoured to be a suicide. Uh, and was one of the many uh, rumours that surrounded uh, Burton and Speke's ill-fated journey. Probably the most famous of all these explorers of Africa is David Livingstone. He was the son of a struggling Glasgow merchant who was so poor that throughout most of David's childhood he had to work in a Glasgow cotton factory. 14-hour stretches. This was in the days before uh, Parliament had passed any legislation restricting the number of hours in which people would have to work in the factories. But despite this exhausting work, he still had the willpower and determination to educate himself at night until finally having to go to bed, tired out. He learned the classical languages, and when he was a bit older, he uh, attracted the sympathetic attention of some missionaries who helped him to train for missionary work. He became an MD, a trained doctor, with the intention of becoming a medical missionary. He wanted to go to China. But the fact that the Opium Wars were then in process made it impossible for him to get into China, so he diverted his attention to southern Africa instead, with consequences for the whole of the rest of his life. Now, at first he went to a mission station in the interior of South Africa and found it a jarring disappointment. Missionaries in Britain, in England and Scotland, gave a misleading impression of how easy it was to convert the natives because they wanted to encourage other young men to go out as, as missionaries. What he found, in fact, was that at this mission station, almost nobody ever became a Christian unless they'd got some very obvious direct material motive for doing so. That is, unless they'd be fed by the, uh, by the minister. He found it paralyzingly boring as well. And so it wasn't long before Livingston conceived that he was going to be a missionary of a new kind. He was going to be an explorer, discovering places where Christian settlements could subsequently be set up, rather than doing, trying to do the hard work of making converts one by one. He admits in his diary that when he uh, tried to make converts, he was completely unsuccessful. He sang the Psalms, and the natives would roar with laughter. Far from impressing them with his piety, he just made himself a figure of fun. But as an explorer, he was... Dauntless. He was the first Briton to explore the Kalahari Desert in 1849, the first to follow the Zambezi River along its whole course from 1853 to 4, and the first to cross south-central Africa from coast to coast in 1856, going all the way across from the Portuguese colony of Angola on the west to Mozambique, also a Portuguese colony, on the east coast. Now, one of his hopes was to use the Zambezi River to create a great free trade uh, zone and to bring in European civilization into the interior of Africa. He was helped by a group of Makalolo tribesmen 
who hoped that they could profit from the ivory trade and get hold of guns to face up to their own enemies. But in 1855, Livingston discovered and named the Victoria Falls. He, made a, he gave a ly- lyrical description of the falls, but on the other hand, seeing the falls was in, so, in one respect a rather severe disappointment because they're so high. He realised at once that it was going to be impossible for steamboats to move all the way up the Zambezi River as he'd previously hoped far into the interior. Livingston himself took pride in travelling light and he certainly was able to withstand fearsome hardships. He said he could drink water, quote, swarming with insects, thick with mud, putrid with rhinoceros's urine and buffalo dung. He was often desperately sick with malaria and dysentery, but he had magnetic power over many tribesmen who remained loyal to him and carried him when he was too sick to walk. The, the, the British explorers were plagued by having servants who deserted Livingstone was better at hanging on to them and and maintaining their loyalty. Africans and Europeans alike were impressed by his charisma. When tribes through whose lands they passed plundered them, he said he'd go on alone anyway. And he tried to prevent his his helpers from turning back. Here's uh, a passage from his diary. After using all my powers of persuasion, I declared that I would go on alone, then went into my tent. I was soon followed by one of the men who said, We will never leave you. Do not be disheartened. Wherever you lead, we will follow. Others told me, with the most artless simplicity of manner, to be comforted. They were all my children. They would die for me. And although he hadn't been successful as a conventional missionary, he certainly did have a a Christian faith of burning intensity. He was certain that he was doing God's work and that God would protect him. Here's an extract from his diary from January the 14th, 1856, when he's expecting to be killed the next day as soon as he crosses a river into a new tribal territory. His diary says, Evening. Felt much turmoil of spirit in the prospect of having all my plans for the welfare of this great region and this teeming population knocked on the head by savages tomorrow. But I read in my Bible that Jesus said, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And Livingston comments, It is the word of a gentleman of the most strict and sacred honour. So there's an end of it. I will not cross furtively tonight as I intended. Should such a man as I flee? Nay, verily, I shall take observation for latitude and longitude tonight, though they may be the last. I feel quite calm now, thank God. Well, once again, he, he survived the encounter the next day and his work carried on. I think it's lovely also to have him regarding, uh, referring to Jesus as a, a gentleman, something that you don't often come across. When he got back to England later in 1856, he was famous. He was lionised. He made dozens of speeches all over the country and wrote a book about his adventures. He exposed the Arab slave trade in Africa to indignant British public opinion. He was much less anthropologically alert than Richard Burton, but he was much more high-minded, and he, he was very good at catching the idiom of the, of the evangelical mood of Britain at that time. He was a, a true Victorian. His next mission to, Zam- to the Zambezi was a failure. This is in 1858. He feuded with nearly all the British helpers who, who'd come with him, including his own brother. And he found that a rapid he'd bypassed in the Zambezi uh, made the river even more unnavigable than it was anyway because of the Victoria Falls. It wasn't going to be the ideal route into the interior at all. It was swarming with crocodiles, and there were hostile tribes on the banks nearly all the way along. 
The tributaries of the, Zamb- of the Zambezi were hardly any better, riddled with plagues, wars, and Arab slave traders. So there's his hope to create mission, statement, uh, mission stations, and his hope that he could also find areas which would be suitable for uh, white colonist settlements were also thwarted. He carried on the search for the Nile's source after Burton, Speak and Grant. The Royal Geographical Society sent Livingstone to clear up remaining uncertainties on another mission in 1866. He didn't want to accept Burton's ideas about the Nile because he detested Burton in person, described him as a beastly fellow, a moral idiot, whose bestial immorality was a disgrace. He was contemptuous of Grant and Speak too. He went far into the interior to see whether another river, the Lua Laba River, was the ultimate source of the Nile. This is southwest of Lake Victoria. Or whether it was part of the Congo Basin. Ironically, he was deserted by his bearers on this occasion and had to join an Arab slave caravan whose leader took a great interest in him and who had sufficient knowledge of medicines to help him stay alive. So Livingston had the galling experience of owing his life to the Arab slave traders. He was increasingly sick and eventually fell out of contact with the, with the coast and with other Britons for about five years. And uh, this was the, the, the circumstances in which Stanley went off into the interior of Africa to see whether Livingstone was still alive and dramatically found him. Henry Stanley is himself a fascinating character. Born in Wales, early on in life he'd emigrated to America and during the course of the American Civil War fought first for the Confederacy, then was taken prisoner, then fought for the Union. He became a journalist after the Civil War and was financed by James Gordon Bennett, the editor of the New York Herald, who didn't believe tales that Livingston had been murdered. What had happened is that some of Livingston's servants had deserted him, went back to the coast and said, Livingston's been killed as a way of justifying their own desertion from the expedition. Bennett didn't believe it and neither did Stanley. So Stanley set off on another of these heroic large-scale expeditions. He took 150 bearers and six tons of equipment. He was a martinet, a disciplinarian. He flogged deserters, hanged a thief in his retinue, and made war against a chief who would not let him pass. And finally, in the, in the little village of Ujiji, he finally caught up with the old doctor. And of course, made his uh, immortal remark, Dr. Livingston, I presume? Almost at once, it, the, uh, the phrase came into the English language. And for the rest of his life, he was plagued by it. People were constantly making jokes about it. And uh, when somebody's dinner would come, they'd say, ah, roast beef, I presume. So it was a statement which Stanley m- made, having prepared um, a, a dignified encounter with the doctor. And it, and it lived on to plague him. Well, Stanley gave Livingston supplies to resume the search for the source of the Nile in the Lualaba Basin. And that's where Livingston finally died in 1873, worn out by years of, of ill health and suffering. One of his faithful servants, Susie, buried his heart and viscera, but then dried and embalmed Livingston's body, wrapped it in canvas and a bark cylinder, and carried it back to the East Coast, a journey which itself took five months, so that Livingston's body could be brought back to Britain. Itself obviously an act of great devotion to his, to his um, employer. Stanley then led the decisive expedition from 1874 to 7, circumnavigating Lake Victoria and Lake Tanganyika, and then sailing down the Lualaba River. He went with four white men, 350 African porters, and eight tons of stores, the biggest of all these expeditions. 
All his white companions were killed on the, on the way in desperate encounters with wild animals, cannibalistic tribesmen, cataracts, snakes and killer insects. He proved that the Lualaba was, in fact, the Congo River, that after flowing north it turns west and then southwest, after crossing the equator on its northward journey, recrosses it and then flows out into the South Atlantic Ocean. Some British explorers regarded Stanley as a vulgar American, but there's no doubt of his effectiveness and of his ability to tell a very, very good story along the way. Well, Britain participated in the scramble for Africa in the 1870s and 80s, partly to gain profitable colonies and partly to forestall its European rivals. The first large-scale British colonial war in Africa was against the Ashanti Kingdom in 1874. This is inland from the Gold Coast. The British saw the Ashanti power as a threat to their own traders and missionaries. The leader of the British expedition was General Garnet Wolseley, aged only 40, the youngest general in the British Army, and he was fresh at that point from his expedition against Louis Riel in the Canadian wilderness that I mentioned last time. He led an expeditionary force uh, into the Ashanti Kingdom to overwhelm it. The historian James Morris comments about this expedition. If the British were an imperial people, so were the Ashanti. The Ashanti military record was as proud as the British. The British generals might have their Gatling guns and rocket batteries, but the King of Ashanti went into battle hung all over, head to foot, with infallible jujus, forming a kind of spiritual chain mail, and fastened so thickly to his person that his face scarcely showed through the magic tufts and fragments, and when he moved, the whole silhouette of his presence menacingly rippled. The natives' numerical superiority and their greater immunity to disease and their knowledge of the terrain were still no match for British firepower, which was now extremely efficient, ter terrifyingly efficient. Wolseley smashed the Ashanti army while losing only 18 of his own men in battle. He burned the elaborate capital city of Kumasi to the ground and returned to Britain a hero. It was the first of many late Victorian British military expeditions to Africa, which were very, very lopsided in technology and which tended to develop in the British a contempt for the fighting abilities of native peoples in Africa. And this was another of these occasions where the British were, a thrill of horror went through the British as they realised that in Kumasi, the Ashanti capital, human sacrifice had been practised on a quite large scale. Another important development of the 1870s was the completion of the Suez Canal and its transformation of the routeway to India. From the time of the beginnings of the East India Company, the way to India had always been around the Cape of Good Hope. But first with the invention of steamships and their perfection for ocean-going voyages in the 1840s and 50s, it became possible to conceive of sailing to India through the Mediterranean Sea and then through a canal at Suez. And the Suez Canal was finished in 1869, undertaken by a French engineer, Ferdinand de Lesseps. This offered steamships a much quicker and safer route to India, cutting down the distance and the time required very, very greatly. Benjamin Disraeli, the Conservative Prime Minister, bought a large share in the canal in 1875 from the bankrupt Khedive of Egypt, the, the local king. And uh, from that time on, Britons who could afford to go out to India, if they could afford it, they, because the sun uh, in, in, in uh, the middle of the day shines in the south, on the way out you'd have a cabin on the port side of the ship, in the shade, and on the way home from India to England, you'd have a uh, cabin on the starboard side, so you stayed out of the burning sun. Even so, before the invention of air conditioning, it was extremely hot. 
The Khedive of Egypt was nominally a vassal of the Turkish Empire, but the empire was in decline and in effect he was really more like an independent king. His immense national debt was owed mostly to British investors, including the leader of the Liberal Party, William Gladstone. Britain and France overthrew him in 1879. Suddenly, Egypt had become a very important place for British policy because once the Suez Canal is in operation, the British have got an obvious clear motive to make sure that it stays open and that it stays in friendly and politically stable hands. The British and French coup provoked a nationalist uprising under Arabi Pasha. Arabi instigated rioting in Alexandria, which led to the deaths of 50 Europeans. Gladstone, despite his anti-imperial posture, ordered British forces to retaliate. And uh, in 1882, a British military campaign seized Egypt. And again, it was under the leadership of Sir Garnet Wolseley, who was the, the general of, of, of preference at this time in the empire's history. He won a decisive victory at the Battle of Tel el-Kabir. And uh, this was an, a, a battle in which Wolseley, realising that his enemy had got effective modern firearms and that it would be lethal to advance across an open plain towards them, undertook daring night manoeuvres. He ordered his army to advance at night until they were very, very close indeed to the enemy's lines. Of course, that required a high degree of coordination and a high degree of secrecy. Uh, all the horses' bridles had to be wrapped so that they wouldn't jingle. Officers couldn't shout orders to their men. Uh, every unit had to operate independently, and it all worked incredibly well. This is a sign of how well-trained the British Army was, that they could uh, make this complicated advance, 13,000 of them, and achieve almost complete surprise. The idea was that they'd be very close to the enemy lines right at sunrise at dawn. And because they were marching west, the sun was going to rise behind them, shedding a clear light on their enemy, but forcing the enemy to look straight into the rising sun. They stormed into an army half as large again as their own, but the element of surprise, plus their machine guns, proved decisive. In less than an hour, the enemy survivors turned and fled. Here's the description of Lieutenant Colonel Butler, one of the British Army officers on the scene. The wrecks of Arabi's late army were strewn in all directions. Down across the slopes, through the camps, over the railway, and across the canal, the white-clad fugitives were flying south and west in dots, in dozens, in hundreds. The seamy side of a battle was painfully apparent. Dead and wounded men, horses and camels were on all sides. Some of the wounded had got down to the edge of the water to quench their thirst. Others were on the higher banks, unable to get down. Many of our officers dismounted and carried water to these unfortunates, but the men were not similarly disposed. The British Tommies wouldn't lower themselves to help wounded enemies. The next great crisis was in the Sudan. This is uh, up the Nile River from Egypt. Gladstone, the Prime Minister, sent General Gordon to evacuate all British personnel from Khartoum, the, uh, the capital of the Sudan, in the, in the face of the advances of a jihadist named the Mahdi. His envoy was General Gordon, the man named Chinese Gordon, ever since his leadership of the ever-victorious army in the Taiping Rebellion days. He was very popular among British evangelicals, uh, a fanatical Christian fundamentalist who believed that he was doing God's work at all times, but also a successful general who'd won 33 battles during the Taiping Rebellion. He was an unconventional soldier and for a while had been the governor of the Sudan, uh, working in the employ of the Khedive of Egypt during the 1870s before the British government overthrew him. He was dedicated, like David Livingstone, to destroying the Arab slave trade in, in Eastern Africa. And even more than Gladstone, he believed that everything he did was the fulfilment of God's will. 
His orders were to evacuate Khartoum and bring home the European garrison, but instead he fortified the city against the siege by the Mahdi in the hope that he could uh, entice a bigger British expedition to come to his rescue. Gordon's refusal to leave and imperialist pressure at home obliged, Gordon, uh, obliged Gladstone to launch a rescue mission, under, again under the leadership of Garnet Wolseley. Wolsey's army advanced slowly up the Nile. It's very difficult terrain. Part of, part of the army was going in boats rented from Thomas Cook, the travel agent who uh, was already promoting tours to the pyramids. Some of the army was riding on camels. They had to fight their way into Khartoum itself, and when they arrived, they heard that Gordon had been killed two days before in the storming of the city. They were just two days too late. Gordon's death... Uh, made him uh, an imperial martyr, and the empire swore that sooner or later it would avenge his death. Continuing turbulence in the Sudan led to a second expedition in 1898 against the Mahdi's successor, the Khalifa Abdullahi. This one was led by Lord Kitchener, and it finally won the Battle of Omdurman and brought to an end this threat south of Egypt. In effect, it had the consequence of making the Sudan another British colony. In 1899, Kitchener also advanced slowly, but he was a logistics expert. He came very heavily equipped, including with high-speed machine guns, Maxim guns, and very heavy artillery. The battle was an overwhelming massacre by the Britons' disciplined use of rifle and machine gun fire against the ar an ar enemy army which, even though it was 60,000 strong, could hardly ever engage. But the Battle of Omdurman is also memorable as the very last time that the British made a, a set-piece cavalry charge. The young Winston Churchill, then aged 24, was a participant and he wrote a vivid account of the cavalry charge in his book The River War, which established him as a promising young writer. The German Chancellor, Bismarck, arranged a colonial conference in Berlin in 1884-5 in the hope of preventing the European nations from falling out with one another as they colonised greater parts of Africa. France annexed much of northern Africa, across which the French Foreign Legion ranged for the next half century. Germany seized the lands that are now Namibia and Tanzania. The King of Belgium took the Congo as a personal fiefdom, while Portugal held on to its old colonies of Angola and Mozambique. The South African Boer Republics, the Transvaal and the Orange Free State, became politically important after the discovery of gold on the Witwatersrand of the Transvaal in 1886, the issue I'll talk about in my next lecture. Now, ever since the end of the Zulu Wars um, and the defeat of the British force at the Battle of Majuba Hill, which I mentioned in Lecture 12, the Transvaal had been left to itself. But with the discovery of vast gold reserves, British capital and British mining companies began to pour in. In this period, when more and more of the European nations were becoming involved in, in the colonisation of Africa, the British simultaneously justified their own colonial ventures while deploring those of their rivals. The British said, we're bringing peace to places where there has always been war and anarchy. We're struggling to end the Arab slave trade. We're bringing in Christianity and civilization." Even though people like David Livingstone and other explorers admitted that in practice the arrival of the whites more often degraded than elevated the African people. On the other hand, there was a, a great British outcry against the atrocities perpetrated, particularly in the Belgian Congo, the fiefdom of King Leopold of Belgium. This was a place where uh, the forcible extraction of rubber and ivory, two uh, highly valuable commodities, went on in, in a condition of virtual mass enslavement. 
uh, Congolese workers were brutally punished for non-cooperation. There were cases of people having their hands chopped off and people being systematically starved to death for non-cooperation. So at this point, the British made a very, very sharp separation of themselves as good imperialists over against the Germans and the Belgians and the French and the Portuguese, whom they regarded as bad colonialists. One of the great figures of the British Empire in southern Africa at this time, about whom I'll say more in the, in the next lecture, was Cecil Rhodes, the man whom we remember as the founder of the Rhodes Scholarships, but who was very famous at, at the time for naming two entire large areas of Africa, northern and southern Rhodesia, after himself, Rhodesia, Rhodesia, the places which are now Zambia and Zimbabwe. I'll go on to describe exactly uh, the significance of Rhodes' work in the next lecture.